The Progressive Era by Murray Rothbard Edited by Patrick Newman Narrated by Graham Wright Foreword by Andrew Napolitano When I was in my junior and senior years at Princeton, studying history in the early 1970s, I became fascinated with the Progressive Era. It attracted me at a time when America rejected, as profoundly as it did under Lincoln and the Radical Republicans, and even under FDR, the libertarian first principles of the American Revolution. To pursue this interest, I volunteered to take a course in the graduate school, a procedure permitted for a few undergraduates at the time. The course was an advanced look at progressive intellectual thought, taught by Woodrow Wilson's biographer and hagiographer, Professor Arthur S. Link. The readings were all pro-progressive, as were all the other students in the class. We studied Professor Link's works and The Claptrap by his colleague, William E. Luxenberg. In my search for a rational understanding of the era, and for ammunition to use in the classroom where I was regularly beaten up, I asked Professor Link if any academic had made the argument effectively that the progressives were power-hungry charlatans in the guise of noble businessmen, selfless politicians, and honest academics. He told me of a young fellow named Rothbard, of whose work he had only heard but had not read. This advice sent me to Man, Economy and State, which I devoured, and my ideological odyssey was off to the races. Like many of Rothbard's student admirers, I also devoured For a New Liberty, all four volumes of Conceived in Liberty, and The Mystery of Banking. As any student of human freedom in general, or of the Austrian school specifically, knows, these must-reads are all a joy to read. And we also know that in those works and others, Rothbard established himself as the great interpreter of Ludwig von Mises. While he was writing those books and lecturing nationally and producing many groundbreaking articles and essays on human freedom, he began to write discrete chapters of a book he would not live to publish on the progressive era. One of his great young interpreters, Florida Southern College professor and Mises fellow, Patrick Newman has picked up where our hero left off. Professor Newman is a brilliant interpreter of Rothbard. His assemblage of these heretofore unpublished chapters and the vast notes he has added to them have produced a masterpiece that might actually have made Murray Rothbard blush. Readers of the progressive era will carry away an overwhelming impression that history is a comprehensive resurrection of the past. Rothbard was never satisfied with the presentation of a general thesis or the sketch of a historical period, which is why readers will find detailed accounts of an enormous number of people. Only a historian of Rothbard's immense intellectual energy and knowledge could have written what would become the Progressive Era. Rothbard did not amass details merely to give readers a sense of the Progressive Era from the 1880s to the 1920s. Rather, he uses these details to support a revolutionary new interpretation. Many people view the progressives as reformers who fought against corruption and modernized our laws and institutions. Rothbard proves to the hilt that this common opinion is false. The progressives aimed to displace a 19th century America that respected individual rights based on natural law. 
They claimed that natural law and a free economy were outmoded and unscientific ideas, and argued that through applying science to politics, they could replace a corrupt and stagnant old order with a state-ordered, more prosperous and egalitarian one. Rothbard dissents. Quote, Briefly, the thesis is that the rapid upsurge of statism in this period was propelled by a coalition of two broad groups. A. Certain big business groups, anxious to replace a roughly laissez-faire economy by a new form of mercantilism, cartelized and controlled and subsidized by a strong government under their influence and control. And B. Newly burgeoning groups of intellectuals, technocrats and professionals. Economists, writers, engineers, planners, physicians, etc., anxious for power and lucrative employment at the hands of the state. Since America had been born in an anti-monopoly tradition, it became important to put over the new system of cartelization as a progressive curbing of big business by a humanitarian government. Intellectuals were relied on for this selling job. These two groups were inspired by Bismarck's creation of a monopolized welfare warfare state in Prussia and Germany. End quote. Rothbard constantly overturns accepted ideas as he argues for his interpretation. Most of us have heard of the furor early in the 20th century over conditions in the Chicago meatpacking industry, set off by Upton Sinclair's novel The Jungle. Few people are aware, however, that Sinclair's sensationalism was fiction, in direct contradiction to what contemporary inspections of the meatpacking plants revealed. Rothbard goes much further. He shows how, beginning in the 1880s, the large meatpacking plants lobbied for greater regulation themselves. Quote, Unfortunately for the myth about the jungle's influence, the drive for federal meat inspection actually began more than two decades earlier and was launched mainly by the big meat packers themselves. The spur was the urge to penetrate the European market for meat, something which the large meat packers thought could be done if the government would certify the quality of meat and thereby make American meat more highly rated abroad. Not coincidentally, as in all Colbertist mercantilist legislation over the centuries, a governmentally coerced upgrading of quality would serve to cartelize, to lower production, restrict competition, and raise prices to the consumers. End quote. Rothbard sees in post-millennial pietism a key to the entire progressive era. The post-millennials preached that Jesus would inaugurate his kingdom only after the world had been reformed, and they accordingly saw a religious mandate to institute the social reforms they favoured. Their influence was pervasive. For example, Rothbard draws an unexpected connection between their ideas and eugenics. Quote, One way of correcting the increasingly pro-Catholic demographics often promoted in the name of science was eugenics an increasingly popular doctrine of the progressive movement. Broadly, eugenics may be defined as encouraging the breeding of the fit and discouraging the breeding of the unfit, the criteria of fitness often coinciding with the cleavage between native white Protestants and the foreign-born or Catholics, or the white-black cleavage.
In extreme cases, the unfit were to be coercively sterilized. End quote. Theodore Roosevelt was the quintessential progressive, and Rothbard shows in convincing fashion how his analytic framework helps explain that bizarre and flamboyant figure. Roosevelt was allied with the banking interests of the House of Morgan. His trust-busting activities were very selective. Only the trusts opposed to Morgan control were in Roosevelt's crosshairs. He supported good trusts, i.e. ones allied with the Morgan interests. Besides his Morgan alliance, Roosevelt was dominated by a bellicosity of maniacal proportions. All his life, Theodore Roosevelt had thirsted for war, any war, and military glory. War and the progressives were natural allies. War brought centralized control of the economy, and this allowed the progressives to put their plans into effect. Rothbard writes, quote, The wartime collectivism also held forth a model to the nation's liberal intellectuals, for here was seemingly a system that replaced laissez-faire not by the rigors and class hatreds of proletarian Marxism, but by a new strong state planning and organizing the economy in harmony with all leading economic groups. It was, not coincidentally, to be a neo-mercantilism, a mixed economy, heavily staffed by these self-same liberal intellectuals. And finally, both big business and the liberals saw in the wartime model a way to organize and integrate the often unruly labor force as a junior partner in the corporatist system, a force to be disciplined by their own responsible leadership of the labor unions. End quote. I have addressed only a few of the themes analyzed in this vast book. Readers have many insights in store for them, including the origin of the Federal Reserve System, Herbert Hoover's activities as a progressive, and the role of the Rockefellers in promoting social security. Nor does Rothbard shy away from the constitutional implications in all this, planted by Roosevelt and nurtured by his personal enemy but ideological comrade Woodrow Wilson. Rothbard notes that, the war between the states aside, the Madisonian model, the federal government may only lawfully do what the constitution directly permits, prevailed in government from 1789 to the 1880s. After the Progressive Era, the Wilsonian model, the federal government may do whatever there is a political will to do, except that which the Constitution expressly prohibits, continues to prevail up to the present day. We owe the appearance of the Progressive Era to the masterful detective work and patient labour of the good and youthful Professor Newman. In his introduction, he tells the dramatic tale of how Rothbard's book was discovered and assembled, and he has planted many teasers for the Rothbardian gems to come. Rothbard's posthumous masterpiece is the definitive book on the progressives. Only Murray Rothbard, with his unique scholarship, penetrating intelligence, prodigious work ethic, infectious love of life, and indefatigable devotion to liberty, could have written this book. It will soon be the must-read study of this dreadful time in our past. Andrew P. Napolitano, Hampton Township, New Jersey, author of Theodore and Woodrow, 
How Two American Presidents Destroyed Constitutional Freedom, August 2017. Introduction by Patrick Newman Murray Rothbard was a scholar of enormous erudition, with many diverse research interests. He wrote about economic theory, economic history, history of economic thought, pure history, philosophy, political science, and popular culture. Indeed, David Gordon writes, a person examining the books and articles of Murray Rothbard, without prior acquaintance with their author, could not help wondering whether five or six prolific scholars shared the name Murray Rothbard. Among all of these disciplines, one area of research to which Rothbard devoted a significant portion of his academic career, and utilised many of the above fields, was late 19th and early 20th century United States history, particularly the period that is known as the Progressive Era, approximately from the late 1890s to the early 1920s. The Progressive Era was one of the most, if not the most, significant periods in US history. The country was transformed from a relatively laissez-faire economy with a minimal government into a heavily regulated economy governed by an interventionist state. Correspondingly, the ideology of public intellectuals, business, the citizenry, and political parties drastically changed and became more interventionist. For most historians, this was the period when the country was growing up, when it realised that minimal government was not suited for a modern industrial economy, because it produced numerous social ills, such as frequent business cycles, unemployment, monopolies, crippling deflation, poor quality products, and enormous economic inequality. For Rothbard, on the other hand, it was the turning point, the time when America abandoned its laissez-faire strengths for the welfare-warfare state, and thereby plunged headfirst into all of its destructive consequences in the 20th century. It is well known that Rothbard was deeply interested in the progressive era, and throughout his life wrote numerous papers on it. Less well known, if it is known at all, is that Rothbard had also partially written a full-blown book on the period, starting with the railroad interventions of the 1860s to the National Civic Federation of the early 1900s. The book was written while Rothbard was heavily involved with the Cato Institute during the 1970s. While Rothbard never formally completed the book, he informally finished it by writing the remaining chapters as various essays which were published in the 1980s and 1990s. Justin Raimondo, Rothbard's only biographer, commented on the project in 2000. Quote, Rothbard's writings on the progressive era, which have never been put together in a single volume, are a rich vein of analysis that contemporary scholars, libertarian or whatever, would do well to mine. In a fascinating narrative that unfolds like the plot of a novel, Rothbard documents his thesis with the fascinating stories of the men, and especially the women, who led the progressive movement. Ministers, social workers, intellectuals and other professional do-gooders, whose zeal to remake America in the image of an often secularised God, was rooted in the theological vision in which humanity would be the agency that would establish the kingdom of God on earth. End quote. 
It is the task of this volume, at long last, to combine the unfinished book and other essays and publish the complete Rothbardian history of the Progressive Era. In 1962, at the age of 36, the young Murray Rothbard had already produced multiple classics in the Austrian and Libertarian tradition. Some of these were of smaller scope in the form of a paper or monograph. Others were much larger and more ambitious, such as his comprehensive treatise on economics. The first two volumes were published in 1962 under the title Man, Economy and State. The last volume on government intervention deemed too controversial, Power and Market, in 1970. Another was America's Great Depression, which came out a year later, an economic history that gave the authoritative Austrian interpretation of the United States' Roaring Twenties and Great Depression. In addition to both of these, he also wrote his dissertation, The Panic of 1819, under Joseph Dorfman, which he defended in 1956 and published in 1962. Footnote. Commenting on this period, Joseph Stromberg wrote that Rothbard was always busy working on multiple major projects. This would continue throughout his life. End footnote. If he had ended his career then, Rothbard would have already cemented his status as one of the foremost scholars in Austrian economics and libertarianism. However, Rothbard did not end his career, and he was still eager to write prodigiously, especially on completely different topics. In a letter to Kenneth S. Templeton, Jr., an associate of the Volcker Fund, which provided the research grant for Man, Economy and State, he wrote, quote, I am also happy to have the opportunity to leave the realm of economic theory, for with the books published and especially with Man, Economy and State, I believe I have said whatever I have to say about economics, and am now eager to move on. I have a constitutional aversion to repeating myself and milking my previous stuff ad infinitum, which seems to be a way of life for so many scholars. End quote. Footnote. Indeed, one can detect a shift in research interests around this time by looking at his book reviews written for the internal circulation at the Volcker Fund. The reviews on economic works included in the volume dated mostly from 1959-60, while his reviews on history and foreign policy were from 1961-62. The latter were on a wide range of topics, from the American Revolution to Jacksonian America up to World War II. They demonstrate that Rothbard was well-versed in historical method as well as current works. End footnote. For the remainder of the 1960s, Rothbard would focus his energies on a number of different fields, including history, political philosophy, and popular libertarianism. Like before, he would work on many projects of varying sizes at the same time. His next major work was a history of the United States. In late 1962, through the auspices of Templeton, he received a grant from the Lilly Endowment that would last until 1966 to write a one-volume text on American history from a libertarian perspective. He was to work with Leonard Ligio, a young historian, Rothbard's junior, who had developed a close connection with him in the 1950s. Rothbard's major projects frequently took on a life of their own. Man, Economy and State 
was originally supposed to be a textbook translation of his mentor Ludwig von Mises's Human Action. Instead, after careful deliberation, Rothbard decided to transform it into a full-blown treatise on economics. The last work of his life, An Austrian Perspective on the History of Economic Thought, was originally supposed to be a small volume that provided the anti-Heilbronner alternative to economic thought from Adam Smith onward. It too became a massive two-volume work, the planned third volume was unfortunately never written, that spanned from the ancient Greek philosophers to Karl Marx. And the current history project would not be published as a general overview of American history at all, but instead a five-volume work titled Conceived in Liberty, which spanned from the founding of the American colonies to the United States Constitution. Footnote. The first two volumes were written with the assistance of Leonard Ligio, and Rothbard was the primary author. The fifth volume, on the American Constitution, was never published. It was handwritten and then dictated into an audio recorder, which was lost. End footnote. Commenting on the evolution of the project in an interview, which equally applies to his other work, Rothbard said, I don't chart this stuff in advance. I don't like to work that way. I go step by step, and it keeps getting longer. The major theme of Conceived in Liberty, which also applied to his other historical work, was the idea of liberty versus power. Throughout history there has been an eternal battle between those who wield the coercive power of the state apparatus and those who wish to resist it. Throughout most of human history, to quote the famous words of Thomas Hobbes, life was nasty, brutish, and short. Tyrants of all stripes, emperors, kings, feudal barons, and warlords, subjugated the masses and ruled over them with an iron fist. The dominant economic system of this ancient regime was mercantilism, where government subsidies and other forms of protectionism were granted to favoured businesses and other special interests. Then suddenly, in Britain and the American colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries, this changed, and much different forms of government were created, ones that were much more limited in scope and allowed for greater liberty. The American colonies in particular cast off the oppressive shackles of their royal governors, and then later the British government completely in the American Revolution, in favour of a far more limited government and laissez-faire economic system that the people directly controlled. The fight was not over, however, as those fighting for liberty and limited government continually clashed with those wishing to expand the size of government in the 19th century. How did this occur? How were the ideas of liberty versus power disseminated to the broad populace. Why for so long did the public stand the depredations of their rulers in the ancient regime? Why did they later revolt against this dispensation and fight for liberty? And fast-forwarding to the progressive era, why did the pendulum swing back to statism and acceptance of increased state rule? The answers to all of these questions involve the role of ideology and intellectuals filtering these messages down to the public. Throughout history there have been two types of intellectuals. 
The first are the court intellectuals, originally the priests and the clergymen. Their job was to convince the public of the righteousness and legitimacy of the ruler through religious means, such as the king is divine, and to truckle to his predations. In return for these necessary public relations, the court intellectuals were to receive their fair share of the pelf taken from the public. This relationship was the famous alliance of throne and altar that existed throughout most of history in various forms. On the other hand, there are the radical and revolutionary intellectuals who were out to spread the message of liberty and fight against the coercive order. They were not in it for power or prestige, but instead liberty and justice. The principal transmission mechanism during the American Revolution was the natural rights theory of John Locke. While Locke's work provided the ultimate theoretical edifice, it was very abstract, and the message was instead distributed to the public through the much more popular and easier readings of Cato's Letters, written by John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. Here were the works that instilled in the public a radical libertarian ideology that emanated in various ways in subsequent years. The importance of intellectuals in filtering ideas to the public, statist or libertarian, would be a major theme of Rothbard's historical work. Rothbard never did write a complete history of the United States, as originally intended, but he did subsequently concentrate on certain periods, particularly the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which included everything from the Progressive Era to World War I to the Great Depression. Footnote. The closest Rothbard came to writing a detailed overview of American history in its entirety was a review written for the Volcker Fund on an American history book. Severely critical, he wrote a review well over 100 pages extensively on each era, from colonial times to post-World War II, and documented all of the historical episodes that the authors needed to revise their interpretations on or include in their work. End footnote. The Progressive Era was the main catalyst behind later events, for it provided the necessary framework that created the modern welfare warfare state and increases in government power. In 1965, while heavily researching American history and writing Conceived in Liberty, in his seminal article, Left and Right, Prospects for Liberty, Rothbard had already laid out his general framework for understanding this transformation, using the historical work of Gabriel Kolko. Quote, In The Triumph of Conservatism, Kolko traces the origins of political capitalism in the reforms of the progressive era. Despite the wave of mergers and trusts formed around the turn of the century, Kolko reveals, the forces of competition on the free market rapidly vitiated and dissolved these attempts at stabilizing and perpetuating the economic power of big business interests. It was precisely in reaction to their impending defeat at the hands of the competitive storms of the market that big business turned increasingly after the 1900s to the federal government for aid and protection. In short, the intervention by the federal government was designed not to curb big business monopoly for the sake of the public wheel, 
but to create monopolies that big business, as well as trade associations of smaller business, had not been able to establish amidst the competitive gales of the free market. Thus, Colco shows that, beginning with Theodore Roosevelt's new nationalism and culminating in Wilson's new freedom, in industry after industry, for example insurance, banking, meat, exports and business generally, regulations that present-day rightists think of as socialistic were not only uniformly hailed, but conceived and brought about by big businessmen. This was a conscious effort to fasten upon the economy a cement of subsidy, stabilisation and monopoly privilege. End quote. Here Rothbard explains the central idea that big business, far from being laissez-faire ideologues, was interested in developing government regulations to actively hamper their competitors and help it cartelize in order to restrict supply and raise prices. He would extend this theme in two later essays he wrote shortly thereafter on the Progressive Era, War Collectivism in World War I and Herbert Hoover and the Myth of Laissez-Faire. Colco, along with the Chicago school economist George Stigler, espoused what later came to be labelled the capture theory of regulation. This theory states that regulation purportedly designed to curb business abuses is actually often captured by various businesses in order to enhance their own profits and weaken their competitors. In addition, in many cases, the regulation is even promoted by the businesses themselves for this specific purpose. This is opposed to the public interest theory, which argues that regulation is designed for and ultimately benefits the general public, and the bureaucratic theory, which argues that regulations are enacted to empower various bureaucrats and government agencies. As will be seen below, Rothbard combined both the capture and bureaucratic theories in his historical narrative of the Progressive Era. His narrative was intimately linked with his general historical method, which sought to understand the various motivations of special interests who lobby for government legislation. While Rothbard was Mises's foremost student in wielding the praxeological method to deduce a body of abstract economic theorems, he was also his foremost student in applying them to history and utilising his thymological method, best described in Theory and History. In contrast to praxeology, the science of human action, thymology is the science of understanding why humans acted a certain way, or psychologizing their behavior, psychology understood in the common sense definition. This historical method strives to answer the eternal question, qui bono, or who benefits from an action, particularly a change in government institutions. More specifically, the thymological method looks at both pecuniary and non-pecuniary, such as religious, motivations, and seeks to answer the question, who thinks they stand to benefit? The latter question emphasizes that not all results of a government intervention are intended, and that not all special interest groups who lobby for a regulation actually do benefit ex post. 
To answer the latter question, one needs to engage in a detailed historical understanding of the various actors involved, and not just a statistical test, which is the usual approach of an economist. Rothbard's use of the thymological method in his historical analysis is also closely related to his consistent application of the sociological law called the Iron Law of Oligarchy. The law states that governments, politicians and legislation are not controlled by democratic majorities or public opinion, but instead by a small entrenched group of individuals. This group contains a mix of big businesses, politicians and bureaucrats who wield the state apparatus for their own benefit at the expense of the rest of society. Court intellectuals supply the necessary public relations in various ways, such as by arguing that the government is not controlled by a small elite, or that certain government actions are necessary, in return for power and prestige. There is a close relationship between this law and the method in political science called power elite analysis. Governments are controlled by well-established financial and political elites who pull the levers behind the scenes, and government officials and bureaucrats often have many important links, including familial ties, with the business community that provide powerful motivations for explaining why they acted a certain way while in office. These approaches and Rothbard's consistent application of them have often been criticised as crank conspiracy theories. But it is important to note that proper use of them is only an extension of Mises's thymological method, which seeks to understand human action and explain its motivations. Government officials do not fall from the sky without any prior connections to the political and business world, and they are just as self-interested as those in the private sector. There is a strong similarity between what is called public choice analysis and the thymological approach, although the two are not completely identical. The thymological method places more emphasis on engaging in pure historical work, in understanding the motivations of acting individuals, as well as the fact that individuals often act in a certain way and expect to benefit, but do not actually do so. In addition, Rothbard's particular application also places much more emphasis on the oligarchical and coercive aspects of state rule. As the late 1960s and early 1970s passed, Rothbard would not turn away from utilising the thymological method in his scholarly work. On the contrary, he would continue to elaborate on the method in important popular articles updating conceived in liberty for publication, and publishing other historical papers, such as The New Deal and the International Monetary System. Footnote. During the 1970s into the 1980s, Rothbard also encouraged other scholars, including prominent progressive-era historians, to contribute academic articles on the progressive era to either Libertarian Forum or Journal of Libertarian Studies both of which Rothbard edited. During this time, in 1973, Rothbard also gave a lecture series on the Progressive Era at a Cornell University event sponsored by the Institute for Humane Studies. Forrest MacDonald was the other speaker. End footnote. 
More importantly for our purposes here, Rothbard also began writing his book on the Progressive Era while affiliated with the Cato Institute. With this work, Rothbard planned to continue his project on American history, only now fast-forwarding from the change in ideology and government from statism to liberty to the change from liberty to statism. He would chronicle how the battle of liberty versus power was lost around the turn of the 20th century. He was not only going to utilise the works of Kolko, but also the works of other notable revisionist historians who wrote on the period in recent years, such as James Weinstein, Paul Kleppner, Richard Jensen and James Gilbert. Rothbard succinctly described his thesis in a book proposal. Quote, The purpose of this projected book is to synthesise the remarkable quantity and quality of new and fresh work on the progressive era, roughly the late 1890s to the early 1920s, that has been done in the past 20 years. In particular, the object is to trace the causes, the nature and the consequences of the dramatic shift of the US polity from a relatively laissez-faire system to the outlines of the statist era that we are familiar with today. The older paradigm of historians held the burst of statism in the progressive era to be the response of a coalition of workers, farmers and altruistic intellectuals to the rising tide of big business monopoly, with the coalition bringing in big government to curb and check that monopoly. Research in the past two decades has overthrown that paradigm in almost every detail. End quote. The burst in statism would be explained by an alliance between big business, big unions, big government and big intellectuals, who were able to take control due to a seismic change in the political system following the election of 1896. Quote, the essence of progressivism was that certain elements of big business, having sought monopoly through cartels and mergers on the free market without success, turned to government, federal, state and local, to achieve that monopoly through government-sponsored and enforced cartelization. Allied to these big business elements in imposing progressivism were what Gilbert calls collectivist intellectuals, whose goals no longer seem that altruistic. Rather, they seem like the first great wave of the new class of modern intellectuals out for a share of power and for the fruits of similar government cartelization. In the last decade, the new political history, stressing ethno-religious determinants of mass political attitudes, voting and political parties, has added another important dimension to this story. Kleppner explains that the triumph of the Bryan forces in the Democratic Party in 1896 marked the end of the Democrats as a laissez-faire party, and the subsequent lack of real electoral choice left a power vacuum for progressive technocrats, intellectuals and businessmen to fill. End quote. The original outline of the book was roughly as follows and appears to have been the following nine chapters. Chapter 1, Introduction. Chapter 2, The Failure of Attempts at Monopoly. Chapter 3, Government as Cartelist. Chapter 4, 
centralization of the cities. Chapter five: Science and morality. The intellectual as corporatist. Chapter six: The new American empire. Chapter seven: World War One. The culmination of the corporatist system. Chapter eight: The nineteen twenties. Corporatism after the war. And chapter nine: Epilogue to the present. Chapter two would explain the ways in which business attempts at cartelization, mergers, or monopolies failed, whether it was railroads or major industrial firms such as U.S. Steel. Chapter three would document the resultant state and federal attempts at cartelization pushed by big businesses such as the Interstate Commerce Commission (ICC), the Federal Trade Commission (FTC), meatpacking legislation. The Federal Reserve System (FRS) and the importance of the National Civic Federation in spurring the new interventions. Chapter four would describe local progressive politics and the drive by reformers to weaken the ethnic immigrants and push for prohibition and public schools. Chapter five would explain the evolution of intellectuals into acting as apologists for the new big government. And Chapter Six would be on the pre-World War One changes in American foreign policy, including interventions in Asia, South America, and the Spanish-American War. Chapter Seven would explain the Wilson administration's push for intervening in the European War, the devolution of the Democratic Party away from its laissez-faire heritage, and how the war represented the culmination of the progressive movement. Chapter Eight would document the progressivism of Herbert Hoover and the 1920s monetary interventions of Benjamin Strong, and Chapter Nine would briefly extend the analysis up to the present. Footnote: Rothbard presented brief summaries for each chapter, except for Chapter One, the introduction. Rothbard apparently never wrote it, since he most likely planned to write it after he finished the book. End footnote. When writing the manuscript, Rothbard more or less followed this outline, with one major exception: instead of postponing the transformation of the Democratic Party to the World War One Chapter Seven, in order to explain the Wilson administration's drive towards war, Rothbard moved it up to right after the failure of the merger movement and monopolies, listed above as Chapter Two. Rothbard decided to move up, explaining the Democratic and Republican parties during the third-party system up until the election of 1896, when both parties became center-statist, and there was no longer a clear laissez-faire party in American politics. Rothbard appears to have worked on the manuscript from 1978 to 1981. Like many of his projects, the book took on a life of its own and grew much bigger than the original plan. By 1981, Rothbard wrote rough drafts of nine chapters, but he was still only on what was planned to be Chapter Three of the original proposal. Chapter Two on monopolies grew into three chapters, with two whole chapters devoted to the railroad question, which Rothbard initially planned to only visit briefly. Explaining the third-party system and the election of 1896 took three entire chapters, and Rothbard devoted two entire chapters to the progressive cartelization during the Roosevelt administration, 
and a standalone chapter on the National Civic Federation, and was still not done with what he wanted to write about in the original Chapter 3. By 1981, Rothbard was no longer working on the remaining chapters of the book, but by no means was Rothbard not finishing the book. Instead, he was writing the remaining chapters as papers that were published in the 1980s, early 1990s, or posthumously after his unexpected death in 1995. On the material planned to be in Chapter 4, such as the feminist movement and women's suffrage, urban reform, prohibition, and other aspects of local progressivism, Rothbard wrote The Progressive Era and the Family, and Origins of the Welfare State in America. In addition to the above topics, and on the material in Chapters 5 and 7, on intellectuals and World War I, Rothbard wrote World War I as Fulfillment, Power and the Intellectuals. On the progression of American foreign policy, planned for Chapters 6, 7 and 9, Rothbard wrote Wall Street, Banks and American Foreign Policy. Rothbard devoted the most space to the origins of the Federal Reserve, part of Chapter 3, and on 1920s monetary interventions, part of Chapter 8, such as the historical sections in The Mystery of Banking, the Federal Reserve as a cartelization device, the early years, 1913 to 1930, the historical sections in The Case Against the Fed, the gold exchange standard in the interwar years, the origins of the Federal Reserve, and From Hoover to Roosevelt, the Federal Reserve and the financial elites. Footnote. In addition, Rothbard also wrote on progressivism in his contributions to Congressman Ron Paul and Lewis Lehrman's Minority Report for the 1981-82 Gold Commission. In the section completely written by Rothbard on the 19th century, he included his analysis of electoral politics leading up to the election of 1896, and in the section on the 20th century, which he partially wrote, many of the initial paragraphs are extremely similar to what appeared in The Mystery of Banking, he wrote on his basic thesis of the Progressive Era and the origins of the Federal Reserve. End footnote. He was selected to be a reviewer in 1985 for Robert Higgs's Crisis and Leviathan, Critical Episodes in the Growth of American Government, in which he wrote an in-depth review that showed he was still deeply immersed and interested in the progressive era. Footnote. Higgs notes with astonishment that the review ran 26 single-spaced pages at probably over 12,000 words and contained a detailed list of bibliographic information he recommended Higgs to include. In addition, he apparently recalled most of the citation information off the top of his head, as he did not have access to his library at the time. End footnote. Moreover, while teaching at Brooklyn Polytechnic, Rothbard taught a class in 1986 on the Progressive Era, in which he lectured on segments of the book manuscript as well as other progressive-era essays he had written or was working on. It could be said that in the last decade or so of Rothbard's life, aside from working on his all-encompassing history of economic thought, progressivism was the next biggest area of research on his mind. That Rothbard was interested in progressivism right up until his untimely death in 1995 
can be seen when reading The Case Against the Fed, the last book published in his lifetime, since Rothbard devoted a significant portion of it to providing a brief overview of progressivism and the history of the Federal Reserve. No doubt if Rothbard lived to write his third volume on the history of economic thought, which planned to cover topics ranging from the 1871 Marginal Revolution to the 1930s Keynesian Revolution and beyond, he would have written extensively about the progressivist intellectuals. Rothbard's book manuscript and the essays contained in The Roots of the Modern State, The Progressive Era, represent a lifetime of deep research in American history. Rothbard was deeply immersed in all areas of American history, especially the Progressive Era, and he was able to collate a massive amount of research and facts and synthesize them to create his own unique narrative of the era. The remainder of this introduction will provide a brief overview of the Rothbardian interpretation as well as a general summary of the chapters and essays contained therein. Rothbard's central thesis is that big businesses had previously tried to cartelize on the free market around the turn of the 20th century, but had failed to do so. Try as they might, the cartel agreements and mergers failed because of the internal pressure of collaborators cheating and the external pressure of new competitors entering the market to cut prices and break the cartels. Having failed in this endeavour, they turned to government regulations in order to help them cartelize by preventing various forms of price and product competition and preventing new smaller competitors from successfully entering markets by raising their costs. Big business allied itself with big government, who wanted the regulations in order to increase its own power, and big unions to help stifle the radical opposition of labour. However, this was a resurrection of the ancien regime in a different form, and it could not simply be imposed on the public who was all too familiar with this system and instilled with relatively laissez-faire principles. In order to sell it to the public, they needed a new breed of collectivist intellectuals, many of whom were thoroughly convinced of the ways of Bismarckian socialism after receiving their PhDs in Germany in the post-Civil War era. The alliance of throne and altar was back with a vengeance between the favoured government interests and the intellectual apologists, only that this time the intellectuals were not convincing the public that the king's mandate was the word of God and his depredations were divine, but that big government was needed in order to improve the public welfare and cure the social problems brought on by unfettered capitalism. In return, the intellectuals were to benefit by becoming professionalised and given lucrative jobs in planning and administering the whole apparatus. The alliance saw itself as a middle-of-the-road stabiliser between anarchic and outdated laissez-faire capitalism and confiscatory and extremist socialism. This dramatic change at the beginning of the 20th century was not able to be instituted on the existing political system, but occurred after a seismic change in the orientation of the political parties. This resulted from the ethno-religious political battles between the Democrats and the Republicans in the 1880s and 1890s, 
which led to the climactic election of 1896. During the Third Party System, 1854 to 1896, of American politics, the great mass of the public was ideological and learned their respective economic positions from political activists who translated them into ethno-cultural and religious terms. On the one hand, there was the Republican Party, the party of great moral ideas, dominated by pietist Yankee natives. They were post-millennial, in that they believed in order for Jesus to return to earth and usher in the end of history, they must first bring about a thousand-year kingdom of God. In order to do so, they not only needed to save themselves, but also save others, even if it required state force. Thus, the pietists were hell-bent on stamping out all forms of sin, including instituting prohibition and weakening the Roman popery of the Catholic schools, along with other measures such as immigration restriction and women's suffrage, to boost the pietist vote. This paternalistic intervention on the local ethno-religious level was translated to a paternalistic intervention on the larger economic realm, such as enacting various government subsidies, tariffs, or greenback inflation. On the other hand, there was the Democratic Party, the party of personal liberty, dominated by liturgical natives and immigrants, such as Catholics and Lutherans. These religious denominations did not have the evangelical zeal to actively save others and stamp out sin, but only to follow the teachings and practices of their respective churches. As a result, they criticised all Republican local interventions as paternalistic drives to meddle and control their lives, correspondingly saw their economic policies as allied, and consequently favoured a more laissez-faire agenda including less government spending, low tariffs, and the gold standard. The laissez-faire Democrats were also called the Bourbon Democrats, who were generally centred in the Northeast and Midwest, and whose ancestors belonged to the laissez-faire wing of the Jacksonian Democrats. The battle of liberty versus power was being fought once again in American history. The Democrats were slowly but surely winning and in the late 1880s and early 1890s made a remarkable series of gains, shocking the Republican elite. In order to counter this trend, Republican elites strategically decided to downplay ethno-cultural issues and become more hard money in order to stop alienating liturgicals at the expense of aggravating pietists. This also fortuitously coincided with the Panic of 1893 a severe economic depression that unjustly hurt the incumbent Bourbon Democrats at the polls. To make matters worse, at the same time the Southern and Western Democratic pietist populists, who were becoming increasingly Yankee and activist, were able to wrest control of the Democratic Party machine while the Bourbon leaders were weakened due to the depression. William Jennings Bryan, not Grover Cleveland, was now the standard-bearer for the new Democratic Party. Liturgicals went to the Republicans in droves, while pietists flocked to the Democrats. With this remarkable turnaround, in the election of 1896, 
the moderate statist Republican presidential nominee, William McKinley, resoundingly defeated the pietist inflationist Democratic presidential nominee, William Jennings Bryan, and established Republican dominance for the next several decades. This ended the third-party system of American electoral politics when the parties were fiercely ideological and polarised and brought about the fourth-party system, 1896-1932, when both parties became less ideologically defined and more centre-statist, with increasing control granted to bureaucrats from the resultant de-democratisation. The weakening of the Bourbon forces reduced the Democrats to minority status and ended any laissez-faire majority party in America. This lacuna and the increasing similarity and centre-statism between the two parties due to the recent metamorphosis created the power vacuum that allowed for the new quadripartite alliance to take hold of America. With this rejuvenation of the alliance, embodied in the newly formed National Civic Federation, came a whole spate of progressive measures, including increased railroad regulation, trust-busting, compulsory publicity laws, conservation laws, meatpacking legislation, the Pure Food and Drug Act, employers' compensation laws, safety legislation, the minimum wage, the Federal Reserve System, and the Federal Trade Commission. The once staunchly pietist progressive intellectuals arguing on behalf of the entire system slowly and surely became increasingly secularised and more committed to using state coercion to ostensibly improve public welfare than to create the kingdom of God. Moreover, academia in general and its disciplines, such as economics, began to denigrate theory and embrace statistics and empirical analysis in an attempt to vainly ape the natural sciences. The need for greater data collection and inductive reasoning went hand in hand with greater government planning and interventionism. The transformation of the American government and subsequent interventions were not isolated events unconnected to specific financial and political elites, but were deeply rooted to the growing clash between the two dominant power elites in the ruling oligarchy. The Morgan ambit, which included the financial groups surrounding J.P. Morgan and Company, and the Rockefeller ambit, which included the financial groups surrounding Standard Oil. In the latter part of the third-party system, the Morgans were the dominant interest behind the Democratic Party and the Rockefellers behind the Republican Party. While the last Cleveland administration, 1893-1897, was Morgan-dominated, the subsequent McKinley administrations, 1897-1901, were Rockefeller-dominated, with the Morgans as junior partners since they supported McKinley over Bryan. Matters quickly changed when McKinley was assassinated in 1901, and his vice-president, the Morgan-affiliated Theodore Roosevelt, took office, and the Morgans were to remain the dominant financial group for the next decade. Ultimately, the Roosevelt administrations, 1901-1909, were dominated by the Morgan interests, who were largely able to shield their larger corporations from antitrust and divert Roosevelt's trust-busting 
to non-Morgan companies, in particular Standard Oil, in 1906. This led to a Rockefeller counterattack, mainly through the more Rockefeller-affiliated William Howard Taft, whose administration, 1909-1913, launched antitrust suits against the Morgan-dominated companies U.S. Steel and International Harvester. Infuriated at Taft, the Morgans deliberately sabotaged his re-election by encouraging Roosevelt to come out of retirement and run on the Progressive Party ticket in 1912, which split the Republican vote and allowed the Democrat Woodrow Wilson, with Morgan and other financial affiliations, to squeak by and capture the presidency, the only Democrat to do so in the Fourth Party era. The culmination, the apogee or the fulfilment of not only the new warfare state, but also progressivism, was during World War I, when collectivist fever was at its height and there was an enormous desire among businesses, bureaucrats and intellectuals to top-down, cartelize and plan the economy, and to maintain it in some form after the war. In the 1920s, when the Morgans were still dominant, progressivist activism, though reduced, continued, especially through the efforts of the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, and government intervention accelerated during his ill-fated term as president, and then especially during Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, with its fascist tendencies. The Morgans were to remain dominant throughout the 1920s, until they were savagely removed from political power during the New Deal, which was supported by the Rockefellers and other anti-Morgan interests. With the end of World War II, the modern American welfare warfare empire had matured and grown into being, with its roots all from the progressive era. The nine chapters of the original book draft and the six published essays describe this thesis, along with its many other facets, in much greater detail. The essays were chosen by the present editor because they were generally hard to find or had not been published previously in a collection of Rothbard's essays. Chapters 1 and 2, Railroads the First Big Business and the Failure of the Cartels, and Regulating the Railroads, document the history of the railroad industry from the Civil War onward. Much like the later mergers, the railroads, which were previously granted lavish subsidies, tried hard to cartelize on the free market, but failed. Correspondingly, many of them turned to government to push for state-enforced cartelization which led to the Interstate Commerce Act in 1887. Armed with this new legislation, the railroads tried to cartelize but were not entirely successful, which resulted in future legislative attempts to control the railroad industry until the regulations and rival interests suffocated the railroads, leading to government ownership during World War I. Chapter 3, Attempts at Monopoly in American Industry, documents repeated cases of various businesses' failures to monopolize and consequently saw their market share slipping. Standard Oil, U.S. Steel and International Harvester, among others. This would later instill the drive for government cartelization. Chapters 4, 5 and 6, 
the third-party system, Pietists versus Liturgicals, the democratic triumph of 1892, and 1896, the collapse of the third-party system and of laissez-faire politics, describe the ethno-cultural background behind the third-party system, and the battles fought between the Pietist Republicans and liturgical Democrats. This ultimately led to the election of 1896, where the Republicans were able to decisively defeat the Democrats, change the future of American politics, and allow for an unmitigated increase in government intervention in the new century, with the Democrats permanently weakened. Chapters 7, 8 and 9, Theodore Roosevelt, The First Progressive, Part 1, Theodore Roosevelt, The First Progressive, Part 2, and The National Civic Federation, Big Business Organised for Progressivism, describe the beginnings of this new progressive alliance and the repeated attempts at various forms of cartelization. The fascinating struggles between the power elites are documented, and Theodore Roosevelt is exposed as a Morgan affiliate whose actions opened the floodgates of progressivism. The highly touted progressive reforms are shown to be driven largely by businesses wishing to hamper their competitors, and bureaucrats interested in enhancing their own power. And the National Civic Federation is seen as the major organ for the new progressive partnership to work through. The remaining chapters are previously published essays. Chapters 10 and 11, The Progressive Era and the Family, and Origins of the Welfare State in America, further describe and elaborate on the recent ethno-religious history. Local progressivism and various urban reforms are described, ranging from the fight over public schools to the welfare state, along with many urban reformers, economists and other crusaders. Chapters 12 and 13, War Collectivism in World War I and World War I as Fulfillment, Power and the Intellectuals, describe progressivism during the war, when business collectivism was at its peak, along with various other progressive reforms such as prohibition and women's suffrage. The evolution of intellectuals and their turn towards increased interventionism and empiricism are also chronicled. Footnote, a previously unpublished section of chapter 13 is included as an appendix. End footnote. Chapter 14, The Federal Reserve as a Cartelization Device, The Early Years, 1913-1930, describes the origins of the Federal Reserve and its subsequent monetary policy during World War I and the 1920s. The Fed is seen to have originated from a coalition of various bankers, especially the Morgans, who wanted a central bank to help them expand credit and solidify the dominance of New York City finance. Later on in the 1920s, the Fed played an increasingly international role in helping Great Britain return to the gold standard, largely through the efforts of the governor of the New York Fed, Benjamin Strong, and his connection with the governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman. Chapter 15, Herbert Hoover and the Myth of Laissez-Faire, describes the 1920s progressivism driven by Herbert Hoover and refutes the myth that Hoover was a non-interventionist and advocate of laissez-faire while president 
during the Great Depression. The Progressive Era is one of Rothbard's finest achievements as an academic, and should be read by anyone interested in the Progressive Era or American history in general. Rothbard's analysis is essential for anyone who wishes to understand the evolution of the American state from relatively laissez-faire leanings in the 19th century to the modern welfare-warfare state of the 20th and 21st centuries. The nine chapters of the current volume were rough drafts, and in many places lacked references. No doubt, judging from his later essays, if Rothbard finished the book, he would have gone back, revised it, and added a plethora of source material for the reader. As editor, I have, albeit imperfectly, done my best to edit the manuscript and track down and cite all of the material in the nine chapters. In addition, I have provided commentary and sources for the reader, such as on various ideas that Rothbard mentioned and planned to later elaborate on but did not. These are either in Editor's Remarks, my additions to existing footnotes, or Editor's Footnote, my entirely new footnotes. I would like to thank the Ludwig von Mises Institute and Academic Vice President Joseph Salerno in particular for providing me with the opportunity to work on this book. Archivist Barbara Picard was indispensable in tracking down the book manuscript. In addition, Joseph Salerno, Jonathan Newman and Chris Colton were very helpful in proofreading various parts of the book. I would also like to thank editor Judy Thomason for finalising the book and correcting typographical mistakes. All errors are entirely my own. Patrick Newman, Lakeland, Florida, April 2017The aim of this proposed book is to trace the origins of the current welfare-warfare state in America, in what is loosely called the Progressive Period, from approximately the mid-1890s to the mid-1920s. Briefly, the thesis is that the rapid upsurge of statism in this period was propelled by a coalition of two broad groups. A. Certain big business groups anxious to replace a roughly laissez-faire economy by a new form of mercantilism, cartelized and controlled and subsidized by a strong government under their influence and control, and b. newly burgeoning groups of intellectuals, technocrats and professionals, economists, writers, engineers, planners, physicians, etc., anxious for power and lucrative employment at the hands of the state. Since America had been born in an anti-monopoly tradition, it became important to put over the new system of cartelization as a progressive curbing of big business by a humanitarian government. Intellectuals were relied on for this selling job. These two groups were inspired by Bismarck's creation of a monopolized welfare-warfare state in Prussia and Germany. The big government created by this business-intellectual partnership had important repercussions for all aspects of American life, in addition to the cartelized and regulated economy. For one thing, the drive of pietists and compulsory moralists could now be foisted on the American public in the name of the newly burgeoning medical science. The result? Prohibition, 
anti-sex laws, anti-drug laws and Sunday blue laws. Another result which made heavy and effective use of the morality theme was the business professional drive to centralise and take over the nation's cities, thereby reaping good government as against the wicked and corrupt old urban machines, which were responsive to poorer and immigrant groups. One of the major aspects of this urban centralisation was to centralise the public school system and force children into them, so that the immigrant Catholic groups would be Christianized and be inculcated in the values of the American state and the new system. In foreign affairs, the new partnership of government and business meant a substitution of a new American imperialism for the older, roughly isolationist and neutralist foreign policy. The US government was now supposed to open up markets for American exports abroad, use coercion to protect American investors and bondholders overseas, and seize territory on behalf of these aims. It was to be willing to go to war on behalf of these aims. The increasing militarism also meant heavy government contracts and subsidies for favoured arms manufacturers. A third group, virtually created by the new system as a junior partner, was labour unions, which were weak until they were called to share the ruling power of the collectivist planning of World War I. Creating favoured unions was an instrument of cartelization, as well as ensuring worker cooperation in the new order. Partly to mould the immigrants more easily, and partly as a boon to labour unions, Immigration was virtually abolished during and after World War I, fueled by the racism sponsored by American social scientists. Thus, from a roughly free and laissez-faire society of the 19th century, when the economy was free, taxes were low, persons were free in their daily lives, and the government was non-interventionist at home and abroad, the new coalition managed in a short time to transform America into a welfare-warfare imperial state, where people's daily lives were controlled and regulated to a massive degree. In this way, the coalition, inspired by Bismarck's example and its success in World War I, was able to reach its apogee in Europe, in Mussolini's corporate state and derivative political regimes. In the United States, its apogee was reached in Roosevelt's New Deal and post-World War II America. The purpose of this projected book is to synthesize the remarkable quantity and quality of new and fresh work on the progressive era, roughly the late 1890s to the early 1920s, that has been done in the past 20 years. In particular, the object is to trace the causes, the nature and the consequences of the dramatic shift of the US polity from a relatively laissez-faire system to the outlines of the statist era that we are familiar with today. The older paradigm of historians held the burst of statism in the progressive era to be the response of a coalition of workers, farmers and altruistic intellectuals to the rising tide of big business monopoly, with the coalition bringing in big government to curb and check that monopoly. Research in the past two decades has overthrown that paradigm in almost every detail. Gabrielle Kolko, 
James Weinstein, James Gilbert, Samuel P. Hayes, Louis Galambos, and many others have shown that the essence of progressivism was that certain elements of big business, having sought monopoly through cartels and mergers on the free market without success, turned to government, federal, state, and local, to achieve that monopoly through government-sponsored and enforced cartelization. Modern scholars of Herbert Hoover, such as Ellis W. Hawley, Joan Hoff Wilson, William A. Williams, and Robert F. Himmelberg, have confirmed the new view of Hoover as progressive and proto-New Dealer. Allied to these big business elements in imposing progressivism were what Gilbert calls collectivist intellectuals, whose goals no longer seem that altruistic. Rather, they seem like the first great wave of the new class of modern intellectuals out for a share of power and for the fruits of similar government cartelization. There has been a proliferation of research in the past two decades on these intellectuals, ranging from illuminating general studies by Gilbert, Christopher Latch and Arthur A. E. Kirch Jr., among others, to studies of particular groups of professionals, technocrats or social workers. Much has been done on the history of medical licensing in this period, the rise of the eugenics movement, guild actions by engineers and social workers, and the imposition of the anti-sex laws. Donald K. Pickens, Alan F. Davis, David W. Noble, and Ronald Hamowy are just a few of the studies that come to mind. In the last decade, the new political history, stressing ethno-religious determinants of mass political attitudes, voting and political parties, notably the work of Paul Kleppner and others such as Richard J. Jensen, Victor L. Schrader, and Ronald P. Formisano, has added another important dimension to this story. Kleppner stresses the intense drive for statism from the mid-19th century by the pietist Protestant groups, particularly of the New England stock, as opposed to the laissez-faire and libertarian attitudes of the liturgical Christians particularly Catholics and High Lutherans. For the remainder of the century, the pietists tried continually to impose prohibition, Sunday blue laws, and enforced public school education as a means of Christianizing the Catholics. The liturgicals resisted bitterly. From these personal religious matters, the party leaders, Republican for the pietists, Democrat for the liturgicals, expanded the interests of their followers to the economic realm, the pietists tending to favour big government, subsidies and regulations, the liturgicals in favour of free trade and free markets. Kleppner explains that the triumph of the Bryan forces in the Democratic Party in 1896 marked the end of the Democrats as a laissez-faire party, and a subsequent lack of real electoral choice left a power vacuum for progressive technocrats, intellectuals, and businessmen to fill. Tightening public school control as a means of moulding Catholic and immigrant children became important in the Progressive Era, which saw the completion of compulsory education in all the states. The research of Joel Spring, Clarence J. Carrier, Colin Greer, and others have revised the older, starry-eyed view of the growth of the public school system. 
Many of the progressive intellectuals can best be described as a fusion of supposedly scientific technocracy with a pietist background or pietist allies. As James H. Timberlake points out, the prohibition movement finally succeeded when wartime was joined to the dictates of medical science and long-time pietist crusading. Finally, progressivism brought the triumph of institutionalized racism, the disenfranchising of blacks in the South, the cutting off of immigration, the building up of trade unions by the federal government into a tripartite big government, big business, big union alliance, the glorifying of military values and conscription, and a drive for American expansion abroad. In short, the progressive era ushered the modern American politico-economic system into being. Despite the spate of studies in the past two decades, no one has yet put all the pieces together into a coherent explanatory framework. That will be the aim of this book. Chapter 1. Railroads, the first big business, and the failure of the cartels. 1. Subsidizing the railroads. Railroads were the first big business, the first large-scale industry in America. It is therefore not surprising that railroads were the first industry to receive massive government subsidies, the first to try to form substantial cartels to restrict competition, and the first to be regulated by government. Footnote. Since this book is not meant to be a history of late 19th century industry or of railroads, we do not discuss here fully the land grants and other subsidies to railroads. What we are interested in is an historical analysis of the development of railroad regulation and other manifestations of statism. End footnote. It was the decade of the 1850s, rather than as once believed the Civil War, that saw the beginnings of America's epic story of rapid and remarkable growth. The railroads, leading the parade, had spurted ahead of canals as the major form of inland transportation during the 1840s. In the 1850s, the railroads established a formidable transportation network as far west as the Mississippi. During the 1860s, the railroads reached westward across the continent, spurred by massive federal land grants which eclipsed state government subsidies in this crucial period. The Republicans had proved able to use their virtual one-party control of Congress during and immediately after the Civil War to enact the nationalist and statist economic program they had inherited from the Whigs, a program which included massive subsidies to business in the form of protective tariffs to industry and land grants to railroads. Before the Civil War, the Democratic Party, roughly the laissez-faire party since its inception in the late 1820s, had clearly been the permanent majority of the country. The Democrats were only out of the presidential office for two terms in over three decades. But with the Democrats demoralized, seceded from the Union, or branded as traitors, the Republicans saw their golden opportunity and drove through their program. One example of the way in which the railroads fed at the public trough during the 1860s 
is the case of the 800,000-acre Cherokee tract in southeastern Kansas. The tract was grabbed from the Cherokees by the federal government and then sold in one chunk to James F. Joy, known as the Railroad King, and head of the Kansas City Fort Scott and Gulf Railroad. The sale to Joy, negotiated in secret, was a curious one, since he was not the high bidder for the land. There was a great deal of protest when it was discovered that the sale made no provisions for settlers, some 20,000 strong, who had already homesteaded the land. Finally, the government which had sold the land to Joy at $1 an acre, on generous credit terms, allowed the settlers to buy their land from Joy for an average sum of $1.92 per acre in cash. Joy's highly favourable treatment at the hands of the federal government may have been related to the fact that Secretary of the Interior, Orville H. Browning, the director of the public lands, and the man who had negotiated the sale, was James Joy's brother-in-law. Not only that, Browning had been Joy's attorney, and was soon to be so again. And the man employed by Joy to negotiate with Browning over the Cherokee land was none other than Browning's own law partner. A cosy little group. Of nearly 200 million acres of valuable land in the original federal grants, almost half were handed over to the four large transcontinental railroads, Central Pacific, Southern Pacific, Union Pacific, and Northern Pacific. The typical modus operandi of these railroads was as follows. One, a small group of inside promoters and managers would form the railroad, putting up virtually no money of their own. Two, they would use their political influence to get land grants and outright loans for the Union and Central Pacific from the federal government. Three, they would get aid from various state and local governments. Four, they would issue a huge amount of bonds to sell to the eager public. And five, they would form a privately held construction company, issuing themselves bonds and shares, and would then mulk themselves as managers of the railroad or rather mulked railroad shareholders and bondholders, by charging the road highly inflated construction costs. The Central Pacific was founded by four Sacramento merchants, the Big Four, Collis P. Huntington, the dominant partner, Mark Hopkins, the inside man who managed the books, Charles Crocker, who ran the construction work, and Leland Stanford, who took care of the political end, by becoming governor of California. Stanford saw to it that the state and local governments in California along the route kicked in substantial aid to the Central Pacific. One example of his methods occurred when the people of San Francisco voted on a $3 million bond issue to be contributed to the Central Pacific Railroad. To make sure that the people voted correctly, the governor's brother, Philip Stanford, drove to the polls and distributed gold pieces to the voters, who duly obliged their benefactors. The four founders had the idea of launching the railroad, but how to do so with only the paltry sum of $200,000 between them? The partners understood where the economics of the business truly lay, in obtaining a lucrative federal charter for the road. Collis Huntington took the $200,000 with him to Washington in his trunk, and when he was through lobbying in Washington, 
His money was all gone, in a mysteriously unrecorded manner, but the charter for the Central Pacific Railroad was theirs. The charter was the key, for it not only handed nine million acres in land grants to the road, but it also agreed to pay a subsidy in government bonds, amounting to $26 million to serve as a first mortgage on the railroad. Once the charter was received, money would be pouring into the railroad from federal and state governments, and from the sale of stocks and especially bonds to the public. The profits siphoned off by the four founders came largely through their creation of the Credit and Finance Corporation as a separate construction company for the Central Pacific, a company which had the sole right to purchase all material and actually to construct the road. The CFC was wholly owned and directed by the four founders of the Central Pacific, and the founders, as heads of the railroad, made sure to pay munificent and extravagant sums to themselves as the construction company, thereby fleecing the shareholders and bondholders of the railroad. The railroad paid a total of $79 million to the CFC for the construction work, funds acquired from government and investors, and it has been estimated that over $36 million was in excess of reasonable cost for the construction. Typical of the great waste in construction was the time when the burgeoning Central Pacific encountered the small, already existing Sacramento Valley Railroad along its route. The economic course would have been to simply buy the Sacramento Valley Road. Instead, the Central Pacific built its own longer line around it in a twisting and senseless route. The reason? Because it was cheaper to build at the government expense than to buy a railroad already existing. The same device was used for the Union Pacific, which, laying track westward from Omaha, joined the Central Pacific in Utah. In this case, the insider's construction company was the Credit Mobilier, the federal land grants to the railroad totaled 12 million acres, and the bond subsidy was $27 million. The inside directors running the Credit Mobilier charged the Union Pacific $94 million for constructing the road, when $44 million was the estimated true cost. This time, the distributor of the largesse to congressmen and other government officials to induce them to vote for chartering the road was Republican Representative Oakes Ames of Massachusetts. Ames distributed the stock of the real profit maker, the Credit Mobilier, judiciously to key members of Congress in advance of the vote, either giving them the stock outright or charging them next to nothing. They became known, unsurprisingly, as the railway congressman. As Ames put it, he distributed the stock where it will do most good for us. For we want more friends in this Congress. There is no difficulty in getting men to look after their own property. The payoff list included the Christian statesman, Vice President Shula Colfax of Indiana, James G. Blaine of Maine, Secretary of the Treasury George S. Bootwell, future President James A. Garfield of Ohio, Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, and a dozen other congressmen, including James Brooks of New York, House Minority Leader, as a sop to the Democrats. As for Oakes Ames himself, he not only received some stock for his trouble, but his shovel manufacturing firm 
surprisingly received the Credit Mobilier contract for shovels in constructing the railroad. Editor's footnote. One of the promoters of the Union Pacific was Grenville M. Dodge. Dodge, who previously was helpful in getting Iowa Republicans to support Abraham Lincoln for president in 1860, later was promoted to an army general in the Civil War and was tasked with removing the Indians from the Union Pacific's land. Part of the railroad's costs were subsidized in this manner. End footnote. The railroad financier with closest ties to the Republican administrations was the redoubtable banker Jay Cook, head of J. Cook & Co. A small Philadelphia financier at the outset of the Civil War, Cook had the vision to found his banking house and to wangle from the federal government a monopoly on underwriting the massive bond issues floated during the war. To sell them to the gullible public, Cook launched the first modern propaganda campaign for selling the bonds, employing thousands of sub-agents and such slogans for the credulous as a national debt, a national blessing. Cook obtained the highly lucrative monopoly underwriting concession from Washington through his influence on Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase. Cook's journalist brother Henry was a long-time aide of Chase, from the latter's tenure as governor of Ohio. Henry then followed Chase to Washington. After extensive whining and dining of Chase, and after demonstrating his propaganda methods in selling government bonds, Jay Cook won the coveted concession that was to make him one of the richest men in America, and his new Jay Cook & Co. by far the leading investment bank. Cook became widely known as the Tycoon, and the phrase, as rich as Jay Cook, became a popular saying. Cook found many ingenious ways to expand the market for his bonds. He bribed financial reporters and congressmen extensively, and he demanded kickbacks in bond purchases from every war contractor and military supplier. Particularly adroit was Cook's success in taking Chase's plan and persuading Congress to transform the American banking system. The notes of state-chartered banks, which constituted all the banks in the country before the onset of the Civil War, were taxed out of existence by the federal government, to be replaced by the notes of a few newly chartered, large-scale national banks. The legal structure of the national banks, in turn, was such that the amount of banknotes they could issue was based on how many federal bonds they held. Hence, by lobbying for a new centralised banking system dependent on government bonds, Cook assured himself a huge increase in the market for the very bonds over which he had acquired a monopoly. Considering Cook's credentials, it is no wonder that the biggest land bonanza of all the railroad charters, the Northern Pacific, enjoying its federal gift of 47 million acres, should have fallen into the hands of the tycoon in 1869. Before launching actual construction of the Northern Pacific, Cook lobbied in Washington in 1870 for a new charter, which provided for J. Cook & Co. to be the sole fiscal agent of the railroad, and for Cook's bank to receive the enormous fee of 12%, as well as 20% in Northern Pacific stock, for all bonds it was able to sell. 
Thus, Cook did not need a separate construction company to mulk the other shareholders and bondholders of the railroad, as did his counterparts in the Central and Union Pacific boondoggles, for he already had his private banking house in place. Cook's handsome charter was aided by the fact that America's leading politicians rushed to help the Northern Pacific in return for shares of its stock. Cook's old friend. The now Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Salmon P. Chase, even offered to become President of the Northern Pacific at a good salary. Other powerful stockholders brought in by Cook were Vice President Shula Colfax, future President Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio, and Secretary of the Treasury Hugh McCulloch. President Ulysses S. Grant's wholehearted favor. Was assured by the influence of his old friend and adviser Henry Cook, and of his private secretary General Horace Porter, who offered his friendly services to Cook in return for a handsome bribe. The payoff to Northern Pacific was opposed by a rival group who sought similar favors for a new Southern Pacific railroad. The major backer for the Southern Pacific group was Speaker of the House James G. Blaine of Maine. One of the powers of the Republican Party, to persuade Blaine of the error of his ways, Jay Cook and Co. granted the Speaker a sizable personal loan based on collateral that was not investigated with the bank's usual care. With the charter firmly in tow, Jay Cook geared up a mammoth propaganda machine such as he had used to successfully sell government bonds in the Civil War. Traveling agents were hired. And newspaper men were systematically bribed to sing the praises of the Northern Pacific and of the climate along its prospective route. The purpose was twofold: to induce the general public to buy Northern Pacific bonds, and to induce settlers to immigrate to the Northwestern Territories along the route. The migrants would have to buy the land granted to the railroad, and to become customers of the railroad after it was built. Favored stockholder Henry Ward Beecher, the most celebrated minister in the country, wrote blurbs for the railroad in his Christian Union, and Cook's hired pamphleteers had the fertile imagination to claim the climate of the future states of Minnesota and Montana to be a cross between Paris and Venice. Editor's footnote: The main drawback of government-sponsored transcontinentals. Was that they were not funded through market savings, but instead government loans and land grants, and were thus not disciplined by profit and loss. By granting subsidies, the government diverted resources away from where consumers would have spent their money, and hence valued more highly. That transcontinental railroads still would have been created can be seen through Hill's Great Northern. Built after buying the previously subsidized and bankrupt St. Paul and Pacific Railroad, which received a land grant far smaller than the other transcontinentals. End footnote. By the early 1870s, however, the bonanza era for the railroads and their promoters had come to an abrupt end. The reasons were threefold. In the first place, there was a general revulsion at the way in which the railroads had been able to outdo each other in feeding hugely at the public trough. 1871 was the year of the last federal land grant to the railroads, 
for the decade of the 1870s saw a widespread anti-monopoly movement, which also succeeded in slowing down state and local aid to new railroads. In some states, new constitutions prohibited government loans to corporations, which in those days meant mainly railroads. The revulsion against public partnership with railroads coincided with the second reason, the renaissance of the Democratic Party. For the eager mercantilism of the 1860s reflected the virtual absence in Congress on the political scene of the traditionally laissez-faire party. By the early 1870s, the Democratic Party had recouped its fortunes, only to have the presidential election purloined from Samuel Tilden in 1876. From the early 1870s to the mid-1890s, the Democratic Party was to be almost as strong as the Republicans, often controlling at least one House of Congress, if not so often the presidency itself. Apart from their ideological affinities, the Democrats could be expected to make political capital out of Republican corruption, so much of which had centred on the railroads. The third reason for the end of the railroad bonanza was the shocking bankruptcy and collapse of the mighty Jay Cook in the Panic of 1873. One problem with massive government aid is that it subsidises inefficiency, and the far-from-completed Northern Pacific was increasingly in huge financial arrears. Also, the tycoon's touch in selling bonds was no longer so magical as it had been in peddling government securities. Led by the powerful Rothschilds, European bankers and investors stayed away in droves from Northern Pacific bonds. A striking contrast to the general enthusiasm of European investors in American railroads during the latter half of the 19th century. Meanwhile at home, the brash new firm of investment bankers, Drexel, Morgan & Co., headed by Cook's Philadelphia rival, Anthony Drexel, and by young John Pierpoint Morgan of New York, acted against Cook and helped bring about the failure of Cook's US government bond issue in early 1873. Half a year later, all of these factors combined to cause the failure and bankruptcy of J. Cook & Co., precipitating the Panic of 1873. As a result, Cook was now succeeded by J.P. Morgan as the nation's leading investment banker. Footnote Since Morgan and Auguste Belmont, the Rothschilds' agent in New York, were generally allied, we may speculate that the Rothschilds' rebuff to the Northern Pacific bonds may have been part of a successful cabal to bring down J. Cook and replace him with Morgan in the American banking firmament. Morgan had other important European connections. His father, Junius, was an American-born banker at the London branch of George Peabody and Company. End footnote. Since Morgan was a Democrat, his ascension symbolised the important political shift, returning the country to a genuine two-party system. 2. The Rationale of Railroad Pricing The anti-monopoly and later movements that wanted government to do something about the railroads arose partly in response to the outrageous handouts that government had granted to the roads. 
The healthy demand of the protesters was to stop or roll back the subsidies. The former successfully stopped the land grant process, while the latter focused on a demand for local governments to tax unused land that the railroads had received as a bonus and were holding off the market. Many of the protesters went further, however, and demanded various forms of regulation to hold down railroad rates, especially for freight, which was economically far more significant than passenger service. The public demand for rate regulation, when not based on self-interest, as will be seen below, reflected a profound ignorance of the basic economics of railroad pricing. The idea that rates were in some sense too high, or that railroads were monopolies, ran against the hard fact that railroads were tremendously and even fiercely competitive, and that the consuming public was being served not only by land-based transportation across the continent, but also by continued competitive and substantial lowering of freight rates. Footnote. It is difficult for the modern reader to comprehend that before the advent of the railroads, there was literally no way to move over land apart from unsatisfactory local dirt roads. Hence, before the mid-19th century, transportation had to take place over water, and centres of population and production had to be locally nearby. End footnote. Railroads competed between the same cities and towns, they also competed with each other between regions, and they competed with canals and coastal shipping. Obviously, as in any other commodity pricing, the prices of railway rates were set by the degree of competition in the various areas. Along routes where railroads competed directly with canals or coastal shipping, freight rates were forced lower than where such competition did not exist. There was intra-railroad competition between regions, developing between the several transcontinental railroad routes. There was also fierce competition between the five competing trunk lines, between the eastern cities and the Midwest. The Erie, Baltimore and Ohio, B&O, Pennsylvania, New York Central, and Grand Trunk. It is interesting that in their public arguments, the various railroads argued that rates should be set in accordance with whatever pricing theory benefited the particular railroad. Thus, the Baltimore and Ohio and Pennsylvania railroads, which were the shortest of the five trunk lines, argued that rates should be set according to distance, which of course would allow them to undercut their competitors. The New York Central, which had the lowest costs of operation, easier grades, denser traffic, etc., argued that rates should be determined solely by operating costs. And the Grand Trunk, weak and perpetually teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, claimed that prices should only be high enough to cover operating costs, ignoring dividends and interest. There was also vigorous competition between railroads serving the same cities. By the mid-1880s, indeed, there was scarcely a large town in the United States that wasn't served by two or more railroads. For one example, there were in this period no less than 20 competitive railway routes between St. Louis and Atlanta. Complaints by customers, farmers, merchants and other shippers, and by the general public about freight rates, 
generally centred around the railroad practice of multi-form pricing, of charging one shipper different rates from another. In each case, the shippers paying higher rates denounced the action as price discrimination, stemming from some sort of conspiracy indulged in by the railroads. But in each case, there were sound economic reasons for the pricing practice. The complaints may be grouped into several categories. 1. Continuing complaints that railroads were charging lower proportional per-mile rates for long-haul as compared to short-haul traffic. But such pricing was the result not of some demonic conspiracy against the short-haul areas, but of the economics of the situation. In the first place, railroads had high fixed terminal costs, the costs of loading and unloading at the two terminals for each shipment, which were incurred regardless of the length of the trip. These would tend to yield lower rates for longer hauls. Secondly, the Western railroads in particular were built far ahead of traffic and therefore had to keep freight rates low in order to induce farmers and others to develop the region. This would account for lower through long-haul interstate rates from west to east. The eastern farmers, hit hard by the competition from the west, were of course more disposed to rail against conspiracy than to consult the economic reasons for the differences in freight rates. They complained about the resulting loss of their natural markets in the eastern cities. Similar bitter complaints about higher rates were indulged in by eastern merchants and agricultural-based manufacturers, who saw themselves outcompeted by products made further west. Thus, millers in Rochester denounced the lower freight rates enjoyed to their New York City makers by the millers in Minneapolis. 2. One would think that the western farmers, at least, would be delighted by the lower rates on long-haul through traffic from west to east. But true to both human nature and the political value of pressure and complaints, the western farmers, too, claimed to be unhappy. They protested the higher local rates they had to pay, as well as the discounts that railroads gave to large as compared to small shippers. The rationale for granting discounts for large shipments should be familiar to the current reader. Larger orders reduce the risk of producing or shipping a desired minimum volume, and larger orders are less costly to process since there is a certain fixed cost for writing out and processing any given order. 3. As indicated above, railroad rates will naturally tend to be lower where competition is fiercer, either with other roads in the same town, other regions, or with other forms of transportation. Thus, New York City, with many competing railroads, paid far lower rates per mile on grain shipped from Chicago than did Pittsburgh, which was only served by one railroad, the Pennsylvania. Worcester, Massachusetts merchants paid more for their western grain than did the merchants from more distant Boston. Naturally, the result was continued grumbling from cities which considered themselves disadvantaged. 4. The most intense and persistent griping over alleged geographical freight rate discrimination has been southern charges that the South 
has always been forced to pay substantially higher freight rates than other regions, particularly the East. In a notable article, the eminent historian David M. Potter has explained these persistently higher southern rates by demonstrating their economic rationale. Potter uncovered several reasons for the higher freight rates in the South. In the first place, the density of population is greater in the East, the lower density of traffic in the South imposing higher costs. Secondly, the principal shipment from the South had been cotton. Railroads early realised that they had to classify commodities when deciding on freight rates. For heavy, bulky commodities selling at a low cost per unit weight, could not afford to pay the high freight rates per tonne-mile that lighter-weight, more specialised consumer commodities could afford. Hence, if they were to move these bulky commodities at all, the railroads had to classify the bulky commodities such as coal, wheat, livestock, ore or cotton into lower-rate categories than, say, groceries or clothing. Hence, to make up for the low rates which the southern railroads had to charge for cotton, they had to set comparatively high rates on other, higher-grade goods, including northern goods that were shipped southward. Thirdly, it was the peculiarity of southern rail traffic that there were for a long time no trunk roads for long-haul traffic from the south to the eastern markets. Instead, the railroad traffic was local, carrying produce from the interior to the coastal ports, then to ship by the coastal trade. Local traffic meant higher freight rates. Indeed, the stiff water competition in much of the south, won the coastal route by riverboats on the large and small rivers, meant unusually lower railroad rates on the competing routes, and correspondingly higher local rates where this competition was absent. Fourthly, even after trunk lines were built, the only through traffic was triangular, shipping foodstuffs from the Midwest to the south and cotton from the south to the east. This meant one-way traffic, a costly process which meant little or no return shipments to reduce overhead costs. Again, the result was higher through rates in the southern trade. 5. Particularly troubling to critics was the practice of railroads in granting rebates off freight rates to their shippers. It was charged that the practice was discriminatory and monopolistic and was used to grant special privileges to favoured shippers, such as Standard Oil. What the critics failed to realise was that, far from being in some way monopolistic, Granting rebates was precisely the major way by which railroads competed with each other and with other forms of transportation. The practice of giving discounts off list price to attract or hold customers is a common one in industry now, and there are few accusations that the custom is either monopolistic or discriminatory. The point is that business firms, understandably, do not like to cut prices. If they are forced by competition to cut prices, they try at first not to change their lists, but instead, hoping such cuts will be temporary, grant off-list discounts to their customers. The price-cutting process begins with one or two customers, either to gain new customers or to keep them from shifting to a competitor. If the discounts cannot be sustained, they will disappear and the list will be maintained. 
but if the general trend turns out to be toward lower prices, the discounts or rebates will spread, especially as other customers tend to find out and demand similar treatment. In short, lower prices will tend to manifest themselves through the spread of discounts off-list. Editor's Footnote Rothbard's reasoning for why firms prefer to engage in secret price discounts rather than publicly stated price cuts is an illuminating explanation for why many prices may appear stickier than what they actually are. The historical price data, which supposedly looks stable over long periods of time, may not be the actual prices which transactions are conducted at. Hidden price increases can also occur through reclassifications of goods in pricing categories or charging for previously free services. Of course, prices are not perfectly flexible, but neither are they as rigid as commonly believed. End footnote. There is another reason for the prevalence of rebates, that businesses are often willing to charge less in return for a definite order. As one railroad man explained in US Senate hearings on the widespread use of rebates, a man may say, I can give you so much business. If you can depend on that, you may make definite arrangements accordingly. We can see then that pricing in the business world, in contrast to the neatly determined quantities and charts of the economics textbooks, is a continuing process of discovery, of trying to figure out what the best and most profitable prices may be in any given situation. Editor's footnote. Rothbard's emphasis on pricing as a discovery process is a major theme in Austrian economics. The argument is that competition, far from being accurately captured in the staid end-state model of perfect competition, where buyers and sellers have no influence on prices and possess perfect information, is actually better described as a dynamic interactive process where rivalrous buyers and sellers have to appraise the pertinent market data, make speculative forecasts, and continually adjust their behaviour. The market process, or the actions of entrepreneurs engaging in economic calculation to allocate scarce resources, is one of equilibration rather than equilibrium. Markets are efficient and welfare-enhancing, even if they are not in perfect competition or general equilibrium. Rothbard later in his life did criticise the discovery procedure paradigm and preferred to characterise entrepreneurs in the market as appraisers and uncertainty bearers instead of discoverers. End footnote. This is particularly true of railroads, which have had to price literally thousands of items over a myriad of different routes and conditions. Perhaps this complexity of the discovery process accounts for the fact that railroad rebates, far from being confined to a few large shippers such as Standard Oil, were widespread during the latter half of the 19th century for petroleum refining as well as in most other industries. Such rebates were one of the major ways in which railroads competed with each other. Thus, the New York Central typically had 6,000 cases of special contracts or rebates outstanding. And in California, rebates were granted on virtually every contract. Reductions off-list 
could easily go as far as 50%. 6. At once the most important and the most absurd charge was that railroad rates were too high in the decades after the Civil War. There is, first of all, the lack of any rational and non-arbitrary standard to determine how high or how low the price should have been. But apart from that, one of the remarkable phenomena of these decades was the continuing and massive fall in freight rates over the years. It was an era that ushered in a new age of cheap transportation over vast distances. Generally, the railroad rates fell, as did other prices, during recessions, but did not rise nearly as much during succeeding booms. As a result, the trend was rapidly downward. These were glorious decades in America, when the increased supply of goods and services emanating from our own industrial revolution lowered most prices. As in all of the 19th century, except for periods of wartime inflation, the general trend of prices was downward. But even in relation to other falling prices, the fall in railroad freight rates was truly remarkable. The fall in rates took several forms. One was an outright and evident fall in nominal rates. Over the decades, these nominal rates fell by one-half to two-thirds. Thus, the price for shipping wheat from Chicago to New York fell from 65 cents per hundred pounds in 1866 to 20 cents 31 years later. Dressed beef shipments between the two cities fell from 90 cents per hundred pounds in 1872 to 40 cents by the end of the century. In westbound traffic from New York to Chicago, the most expensive, or Class 1, goods fell in price from $2.15 per hundred pounds in the spring of 1865 to 75 cents at the end of 1888. Class 4 goods fell during the same period from 96 cents to 35 cents. The most remarkable rate cuts occurred during the Great Rate Wars of 1876 to 1877, between the Great Trunk Lines, soon after the completion of the Baltimore and Ohio route to Chicago in 1874. Class 1 rates fell in those two years from 75 cents to 25 cents per hundred pounds, while Class 4 rates fell to 16 cents. Eastbound freight rates from Chicago to New York dropped phenomenally by 85%, from $1 to 15 cents. Passenger rates were cut in half in this brief period. Apart from the outright reductions in rates, real freight rates were also lowered by improving the services supplied by the railroads, such as providing storage or carting services without charge. One particular method of lowering freight rates without nominally doing so was by systematically reclassifying commodities from higher to lower paying categories. Thus, the nominal rates in each class could remain the same, but if goods were transferred from higher to lower rate categories, the real effect was to lower the cost of railroad transportation. For example, before 1887, two-thirds of all the items shipped westward in trunkline roads were bracketed into high Class 1 to Class 3 categories. After that year, reclassification in 1887 
left only 53% of the items in these highest three classes. That same year, a huge increase was granted by the trunk lines in the number of types of items that were entitled to lower rates for being shipped in full carload lots. Before that year, only 14% of westbound items on the trunk lines were entitled to discounts in carloads. Afterwards, fully 55% of the items were entitled to the same privilege. Hence, real freight rates fell because more items could now obtain quantity discount privileges. Overall, railroad rates had fallen far below the wildest dreams of the Grangers and the other anti-railroad movements of the 1870s. Albert Fishlow, indeed, estimates that by 1910, real freight rates had fallen by more than 80% from their 1849 level, and real passenger charges 50%. Editor's footnote. The Grangers were a farmer protest movement that advocated restrictive railroad regulation, among other interventions. The economic suffering of farmers in the late 19th century was overblown. In general, the real price of freight for Western farmers was roughly constant throughout this period, and their terms of trade improved. Nor were they crippled by rising real interest payments. In fact, interest rates were competitive. Most farmers did not take out mortgages, and mortgages that were taken out were short-term and anticipated future deflation. Farmer anger was mainly due to their income rising less than other groups, and the increased competitiveness and changing environment they operated in. End footnote. One particularly piquant group of complainers against the railroads were the railroad investors themselves. Often mocked by unscrupulous promoters and inside managers, as in the case of the major transcontinental roads, induced by eager local, state and federal governments to overexpand and wastefully manage their operations, the railroad owners found, over the decades, a none-too-munificent rate of return sinking even lower. Thus, around 1870, railroad bond yields averaged about 6% while stock dividends were approximately 7%. By the end of the century, average bond yields had sunk to 3.3%, and dividends to 3.5%. In addition to this virtually 50% drop, only 30-40% to of railroad stock paid any dividend at all during the 1890s. Railroad bankruptcies and reorganisations were extensive during the same decade. 3. The Attempts to Form Cartels Early in the career of large-scale railroads, some railroad men sought a way out from the rigours of competition and competitive price-cutting. What they sought was the time-honoured device of the cartel agreement, in which all the firms in a certain industry agree to raise their selling prices. If the firms could be trusted to abide by the agreement, then all could raise prices and every firm could benefit. The general public conceives of price-raising and price-fixing agreements to be as easy as a whispered conversation over cocktails at the club. They are, however, extremely difficult to arrange and even harder to maintain, for prices have been driven low by the competition of supply and production. 
in order to raise prices successfully, the firms will also have to agree to cut production. And there is the sticking point, for no business firm, no entrepreneur and no manager likes to cut production. What they prefer to do is expand. And if the businessman is to agree, grudgingly, to cut production, he has to make sure that his competitors will do the same. And then there will be interminable quarrels about how much production each firm is supposed to cut. Thus, if several firms are collectively producing one million tonnes of metal X and selling it at $100 a tonne, and the firms wish to agree to raise the price to $150 a tonne, they will have to agree on how far below the million tonnes to cut production, and who should cut how much. And such agreements are at best very difficult to arrive at. But this is only the beginning of the headaches in store for our cartelists. Generally, they will agree on quota production cuts under the output of a base year, usually the current year of operation. So if the cartel is being formed in the year 1978, firms A, B, C, etc. may each agree to cut its output in 1979 20% below the previous year. But very quickly in the cartel agreement, and more and more as time goes on, human nature is such that each businessman and manager is thinking as follows. Darn it, why am I stuck with the maximum production based on 1978 production? This is now 1979, or 1980, etc. And now we have installed such and such a new process. Or we have such and such a hotshot product or salesman that I know if our company were all free to compete and to cut prices, we could sell more, pick up a larger share of the market, and make more profits than we did that year. As 1978 recedes more and more into the past, and 1978 conditions become more obsolete, each firm chafes increasingly at the bit, longing to be able to cut prices and compete once more. A firm might petition the cartel for an increased quota, but other firms whose production would have to be cut would protest bitterly and turn down the request. Eventually, the internal pressures within the cartel become too great and the cartel falls apart, prices tumbling once more. A characteristic pattern of cartel breaking is secret price cutting. The restless firm, anxious to cut prices, decides to try and have its cake and eat it too. While its boobish fellow producers keep sticking to the agreed cartel price of, say, $150 a tonne, our hypothetical firm approaches a few customers whom it is anxious to keep, or others whom it is eager to acquire, look, because you're such a great person and your firm is such a good one, I'm going to let you have our metal for $130 a tonne. In return, I want you to keep quiet about it so that your and our competitors won't find out about the deal. For a few months, this will work and the firm will be reaping extra profits at its competitor's expense. But truth will get out, and eventually the word spreads to the firm's other customers and competitors about the secret price cut. Other customers will demand similar treatment. The competitors will self-righteously denounce our firm as a rate-buster, a cheat and a traitor, 
and the cartel will dissolve in intensified competition, price-cutting, and intra-industry recriminations. That is one inexorable way in which a cartel will break up, from internal pressure, pressures arising from the firms within the cartel. But there is another equally formidable source of insurmountable pressure to crack the cartel, external pressure from outside the cartel. For here is the cartel in our hypothetical metal industry. Outside firms, outside investors, clear-sighted entrepreneurs seeking profits, look at this industry and see that a cartel has been formed. Its price has gone up by 50%, and consequently the industry is now enjoying unaccustomed profits. To extend our hypothetical case, suppose that the cartel has raised its profits from 5% to 15%. Outside investors say, aha, these fellows have a good thing going. Why shouldn't I, who am not bound in any sense by the cartel agreement, nip into this industry, build a new plant and a new firm, and undercut the cartel? I could sell at $130 a tonne, and besides I could build an entirely new plant with the latest equipment and the latest processes while these fellows would have to compete possessing older and partially obsolete plants. And so the higher price and the higher profit rates acts as an umbrella and a lure to tempt new and possibly more competitive firms into the industry. How will the cartel meet the challenge of new and dangerous competitors? If it wishes to keep the high cartel price, it will have to draw the new firm into the cartel by assigning the firm a production quota of its own. But that would mean that the old firms, each of which detests the idea of cutting production in the first place, would have to cut still more, and all for the benefit of a new and unwelcome interloper. It is unlikely that the new firm could be absorbed into the cartel, and therefore the likely event is a break-up of the cartel, with prices tumbling down again except that this time the permanent result will be a menacing new competitor which might well outcompete and drive out some of the existing firms. And even if the new firm is absorbed into the cartel, the success can only be temporary, since more new firms will continue to be attracted to the industry and the problem will begin all over again. Eventually the cartel will bust up from the external pressure of new entrants into the industry. Thus, every cartel, every voluntary agreement by competing firms to raise prices and cut production will inexorably break apart from internal and or external pressures. A cartel cannot long succeed on the free market. Editor's Footnote Rothbard elsewhere argued that even if a cartel was able to successfully restrict output and raise prices, this is not evidence that there is an overall restriction in production, since the cutdown in an industry's production releases non-specific factors and allows them to be absorbed by other industries, who can now increase their production of goods. The sustainable higher price of the cartel is evidence that the industry overproduced and the resources are more highly valued in other industries. The fact that time and time again most cartels were not successful 
is evidence that consumers valued the resources more highly in the cartelized industries than elsewhere. Governments can sustain cartels by forcibly weakening the internal and external mechanisms that break them. End footnote. In every industry that has ever attempted the cartel device, the story has been the same, repeatedly confirming the above basic economic insight. In the case of the railroads, the plot repeats itself, except that the cartels were called pools, production was freight shipments, prices were freight rates, and price cutting took the form of secretly increasing rebates to shippers. The first important railroad pool was the Iowa Pool, formed in 1870. Footnote. There were fitful attempts to organize railroad pools in the mid and late 1850s, including one by the trunk lines, but they broke up quickly and with little effect. End footnote. The twin cities of Omaha, Nebraska, Council Bluffs, Iowa, were the eastern terminus of the great new transcontinental Union Pacific Central Pacific route to California. The rail route from Chicago westward to Omaha therefore took on enormous importance. There were three major competing routes between Chicago and Omaha. The most northerly, the Chicago and Northwestern. The Chicago, Rock Island and Pacific, the Rock Island Line. And the most southerly, Burlington system, among other things interconnecting the Chicago, Burlington and Quincy with the Burlington and Missouri railroads. As luck would have it, the three competitors were controlled by two businessmen and their associates. The entire Burlington system was controlled by James F. Joy, the railroad king, backed by a group of Boston capitalists. Meanwhile, John F. Tracy, backed by numerous capitalists including Dutch finance, controlled both the Chicago and Northwestern and the Rock Island line. With only two businessmen controlling the three competing lines, conditions seemed ripe for a cartel. Both men were eager for the experiment, since both Joy and Tracy had overborrowed in order to acquire their holdings and were in shaky financial shape. And so, in late 1870, Tracy initiated the formation of the Iowa Pool, which tried to prop up freight rates by reducing aggregate traffic and by pooling half the earnings of the three lines and equally dividing the pool, thereby greatly reducing the incentive to engage in competitive profit-seeking or price-cutting. Footnote. More specifically, the railroads pooled 50% of their freight receipts and 55% of their earnings from passenger traffic. End footnote. Despite the seemingly favourable conditions and the long official life of the cartel until 1884, the Iowa pool was plagued with grave difficulties from the very beginning and broke up after only four years. Competitive rate-cutting, breaking the agreement, occurred early and on many levels. There was first severe rate-cutting even within the Burlington system and within the Tracy Holdings. The sales managers and managerial heads of each railroad understandably wishing to increase the profits of their own organisation. There was also vigorous competition and rate-cutting 
between the Burlington and the Tracy railroads, with charges of cheating rife between the various parties. But intra- and inter-organisational rivalry did not complete the competitive picture in the Iowa pool, for the entire transcontinental railroad system was also in vigorous competition with the Pacific Mail steamship line, which sailed between the east and west coasts with overland carriage across Panama. In 1870 there was also an agreement between the steamship line and Union Pacific to prop up freight rates and allocate an agreed division of traffic between railroad and steamship, in effect to impose maximum shipping quotas on each mode of transportation in order to raise freight rates. By 1873, however, a rate war developed between the steamships and the railroads, helping to push the entire pool into collapse a year later. Another important factor in the breakup of the pool was the intervention of the Union Pacific, for one of the first actions of the Iowa pool was the demand of the Union Pacific a higher share of the transcontinental Chicago-San Francisco railroad income. Angered, the Union Pacific decided to crush this demand by dealing with the individual members of the Burlington system, and also by shifting more business to the St. Louis rather than the Chicago terminus. All this competition, from within and without the pool, led to its collapse after only four years of turbulent operation. The next important pool was an attempt to cartelize the trunkline railroads insofar as they were making shipments in the burgeoning new petroleum industry. Ever since the first oil well had been drilled in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859, crude oil had been extracted from western Pennsylvania oil fields and refined largely in Cleveland. At the behest of Thomas A. Scott, head of the Pennsylvania Railroad, in 1871 three great trunk lines, the Pennsylvania, the Erie and the New York Central, formed the South Improvement Company. In order to raise freight rates, the company allocated maximum quotas of oil shipments among themselves. The Pennsylvania was to obtain 45% of oil shipments while the Erie and the New York Central were each allocated 27.5% of the oil freight. To make sure that the railroads stuck to their agreement, a group of oil refiners was brought into the pact, the refiners being pledged to act as eveners, to ensure that each railroad would not exceed its quota of petroleum freight. What were the refiners to get in return for providing such essential service to the railroad cartel? They were to obtain freight rebates up to 50%. Furthermore, they were promised a subsidy amounting to a rebate on all oil shipments made by refiners outside the South Improvement Company agreement. And since the refiners within the group were acting as even as for all petroleum shipments made by these railroads, they received waybills for these shipments and were therefore able to police the honesty of the railroads in keeping the subsidy agreement. Oil refining was a highly competitive industry, and so despite the fact that the South Improvement Pool meant higher freight rates, some refiners were willing to join the pool in order to gain a rebate and subsidy advantage over their competitors. Besides, they might succeed in cartelizing oil refining as well. 
The complying refiners were led by the largest oil refiner in the industry, John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company of Ohio, Sohio. Originating in 1867 as the partnership of Rockefeller, Flagler and Andrews Co., Sohio was formed as a $1 million corporation three years later. While Rockefeller was hardly averse to achieving a monopoly, he was sceptical of the success of the cartel and entered it only with reluctance. The South Improvement Pool, indeed, turned out to be stillborn. When news of the agreement leaked out, angry pressure by the other refiners and crude oil producers forced the dissolution of the cartel. As will be seen below in Chapter 3, John D. Rockefeller then turned to the merger route in an attempt to achieve a monopoly in oil refining. The first important eastern pool was formed in August 1874. Competition between the Great East-Midwest trunk lines had been intense during the Panic of 1873, with a consequent decline in freight rates. The three major trunk lines, New York Central, Erie and Pennsylvania, were also worried about the imminent completion of a new competition in the Baltimore and Ohio, which would clearly send rates down further. As a result, the presidents of the three trunk lines met at Saratoga, New York, at the home of New York Central's William H. Vanderbilt, and hammered out an agreement to keep up freight rates and to appoint two regional commissions to enforce the agreement. But the trunk line agreement soon dissolved from pressures both within and outside the cartel. John W. Garrett, president of the B&O, decided to keep out of the agreement in the hope of outcompeting the other roads and picking up a larger share of the freight business. Externally, the Grand Trunk of Canada took advantage of the pact to open up a new northerly trunk line route from Chicago to Boston via Canada. The result was a speedy collapse of the agreement, and bitter rate wars between the trunk lines followed during 1875 and particularly 1876. Desperate, the trunk lines called in Albert Fink, a German-born engineer and former vice president of the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, who had become the foremost theoretician, promoter and manager of railroad pools. By 1873, Fink was urging for the railroads to raise and equalise their rates, and to do it through cartel agreements and divisions of the traffic. Fink was fresh from forming the Southern Railway and Steamship Association in the fall of 1875, in which 32 railway lines formed such an agreement, naming Fink himself as Commissioner of the Association with power to supervise the agreement. In 1877, the trunk lines decided to call in Fink to help them try again. In April, the four largest trunk lines signed the Seaboard Differential Agreement, fixing eastbound freight rates to Philadelphia and Baltimore at two and three cents per hundred pounds less than to New York or Boston. On westbound traffic, differentials on some freight was the same. On others, it was as much as six and eight cents per hundred pounds. The Seaboard Agreement reflected a shift of power from New York to Baltimore and Philadelphia, with Vanderbilt's New York Central and the Erie forced to agree to maintain freight rates higher than the Pennsylvania Railroad, 
which had its eastern terminus in Philadelphia, or the B&O, which ended in Baltimore. The agreement was engineered by Philadelphia financier Anthony J. Drexel and J.P. Morgan of Drexel, Morgan & Co., a major stockholder as well as creditor of the Baltimore and Ohio. Pressure was also put on by allied English bankers headed by Morgan's father, Junius S. Morgan. In July 1877, a reinforcing agreement between the four trunk lines allocated quotas of all westbound freight from New York, the Erie and New York Central to receive 33% each, the Pennsylvania 25%, and the remaining 9% to the B&O. Moreover, the railroads established a trunk line association, headed by Albert Fink, to regulate and supervise the pool and rate agreements. August of the following year, the trunk lines and major western railroads expanded the cartel idea to form a western executive committee to fix and raise rates and pool freight. And in December, at the suggestion of the ubiquitous Fink, the Trunk Line Association and Western Executive Committee formed a joint executive committee to supervise the entire integrated agreement, headed again by Albert Fink. Fink and the joint executive also supervised regional subcommittees in all the major cities included in the agreement. By 1881, pooling of freight was extended to eastbound traffic as well. And yet, this mightiest and continuing attempt to create a voluntary railroad pool proved, like its predecessors, to be a dismal failure. From the beginning, the Grand Trunk Line of Canada kept cutting rates, and the completion of the Grand Trunk Line to Chicago made matters worse. Furthermore, rate-cutting by railroads within the cartel kept plaguing Fink and the railroads, largely through secret rebates, which Fink could not detect until it was too late, and much damage had been done to the rate structure and the relative shares of the market. Competitive rebates to shippers were concealed by such deceptive devices as billing freight from more distant points than actually used, under recording of weight and spurious classification of freight into cheaper categories of freight rates than had been agreed. Fink tried to counter these practices with a system of freight inspection, but lacking coercive police power, there was little he could do. As early as February 1878, Fink attempted to blacklist all railroad executives granting secret rebates, But a month later, the division of freight between Detroit and Milwaukee was already collapsing in competitive rate and shipping wars. In 1878 and again in 1880, severe rate wars and competition for freight broke out between the trunk lines themselves. From the beginning of the agreement, the merchants and shippers of New York had been understandably unhappy at the fixed competitive disadvantage that New York was suffering in relation to Philadelphia and Baltimore. Finally, in 1881, under pressure from these merchants and their boards of trade, the New York Central broke ranks and initiated a fierce rate war. In three months during 1881, freight rates were cut in half, east and west. Fink tried desperately to stem the tide by gaining an agreement to raise rates to the pre-rate war level 
and to try to crack down on zealous railroad sales managers, freight agents and freight solicitors who engaged in secret rebates in order to gain sales. But all this was in vain. In March 1882, Fink and the joint executive tried once more, appointing a joint agent at every important traffic centre, with the power to examine all the railroad's books and bills of lading. But by the end of the year, this attempt had collapsed as well. One of the major reasons for the failure of Fink and the Trunk cartels was the truly heroic activities of one of the most maligned railroad financiers of this era, Jay Gould. In his search for profits, Gould was inadvertently the people's champion by his inveterate activities as traitor and rate-buster as wrecker of railroad cartels. Footnote. Interestingly enough, Gould has been maligned by left-wing historians as well. Thus, the perfervid Matthew Josephson refers to Gould as Mephistopheles and speaks of a Jay Gould who flies about preying upon the rich debris. End footnote. Ever alert to profits to be made from undercutting railroad pools and cartels, Gould would either break the agreement from within or build external railroads to compete with the bloated and vulnerable railroad pool. Thus it was Gould who initiated much of the Eastern Rate Wars of 1881-1883 by building the West Shore Railroad in New Jersey, as well as the Delaware, Lackawanna and Western in New York, to compete directly with the New York Central. Editor's Footnote For the Joint Executive Committee, significant price wars occurred in 1881, 1884 and 1885. The long-run trend of the official grain rate declined from 40 cents per hundred pounds at the beginning of 1880 to 30 cents in early 1883 to 24 cents in mid-1886. End footnote. In his fascinating re-evaluation of Jay Gould, Julius Gradinsky demonstrates how this disturber of the peace benefited the public and shippers by continually building new railroads and breaking railroad pools and rate agreements. Gould performed this function repeatedly in the Middle West and West, as well as the East. Gradinsky also points out that the extensive rate wars initiated by Gould in the 1870s and 1880s left freight rates permanently far lower than they had been before, and that Gould's rate-cutting benefited even the railroads in the long run by forcing lower costs and greater efficiency upon the roads, as well as leading to a long-run growth of freight traffic. Footnote Gould filled the image of the self-made man that fitted so many of the entrepreneurs of these decades, including Rockefeller and James J. Hill. Gould was born poor in upstate New York, taught himself surveying, and went on to become a brilliant speculator and corporate financier. End footnote. All in all, by the mid-1880s, the railroads generally were in the position that Gabriel Colco describes for the Eastern Trunk Cartelists by 1883. Quote, by this time, the Joint Executive Committee was merely an empty piety, without real power or meaning. 
Fink warned the railroad men that they would lose money by their policies, which they very well realized, but he was unable to obtain their cooperation. There were too many parties, too many potential areas of friction, for successful control to come via voluntary agreements. End quote. In 1884, the freight rate structure was in collapse, and the Trunkline Association did little more than stand by helplessly. During that year, Charles Francis Adams Jr., scion of the famous Massachusetts family and one of the leaders of the Trunkline Association, wrote that one of its meetings quote, struck me as a somewhat funereal gathering. Those comprising it were manifestly at their wits' end. Mr. Fink's great and costly organization was all in ruins. They reminded me of men in a boat in the swift water above the rapids of Niagara. End quote. The trunk lines struggled to another agreement in late 1885, but it was again to collapse the following year, and the railroad associations in other regions of the country were doing no better. Alfred Chandler's conclusion is apt. By 1884, nearly all the railroad managers and most investors agreed that even the most carefully devised cartels were unable to control competition. Chapter 2. Regulating the Railroads 1. The Drive for Regulation Characteristically, it was Albert Fink who saw it first. If the railroads could not form successful cartels by voluntary action, then they would have to get the government to do the job for them. Only government compulsion could sustain a successful cartel. As Fink put it in a letter as early as 1876, whether this cooperation can be secured by voluntary action of the transportation companies is doubtful. Governmental supervision and authority may be required to some extent to accomplish the object in view. The railroad men were scarcely averse to calling in government to help solve their problems. As we have seen, the railroads had been hip deep in government subsidy for many years, and particularly since the Civil War. Of the railroad presidents in the 1870s, 80% held political jobs before, during or after their tenure. Specifically, of 53 railroad presidents in the 1870s, 28 held down political jobs before or during their presidency, and 14 went into them after they left their railroad posts. Railroad regulation by the states was renewed after the Civil War, beginning with the establishment of the Massachusetts Railroad Commission in 1869. Historians once thought that these state commissions had been put in by farmers to lower railroad rates, but then it was discovered that much of the agitation for regulation came from groups of merchants in specific localities who were disturbed at the pattern of railroad rates, especially the relative height in their own localities. But far from the state commissions being at all anti-railroad, there is strong evidence that the railroads welcomed the commissions and tried to use them to cartelize. Thus, Charles Francis Adams Jr. of the Patrician Adams family, chief architect of the Massachusetts law and chairman of the Railroad Commission, was scarcely a pariah in the railroad industry. 
On the contrary, he went on to become a railroad pool administrator and then to be president of the Union Pacific. Moreover, Chauncey M. Depew, attorney for the New York Central, and William H. Vanderbilt, head of the New York Central, were early converts to the regulatory concept. As Depew later wrote, he had become convinced of their necessity for the protection of both the public and the railroads. Much has been made of the fact that the New England and New York commissions of the 1870s and 1880s were merely advisory and could only hold public hearings and encourage publicity, while Illinois and several other Midwestern states gave their commissions compulsory rate-setting powers. In practice, however, there was little difference, and the weak state commissions were scarcely voluntary. As the Senate Committee on Interstate Commerce reported in 1887 concerning the Massachusetts Commission, the railroad men obeyed the Commission's edicts because, quote, self-interest admonishes them of the supreme folly of encouraging or engaging in a losing contest with the forces of public opinion as concentrated and made effective through the Commission. It is not because the managers, directors or stockholders personally shrink from public criticism, but because back of the commission stands the legislature, and back of the legislature stands the people. End quote. But state regulation was proving too diverse and inefficient. In particular, it was impossible to regulate the vitally important through rates, the rates on shipments that extended beyond the boundaries of any one state. And so, while farmers complained that state commissions were too friendly to railroads, railroad men began to turn to federal regulation, to federal cartelization, as the solution. In the summer of 1877, John A. Wright, a director of the Pennsylvania Railroad, wrote in the Railway World that the federal government must protect the railroads from speculators competing ruthlessly toward cutthroat competition in railway rates. The federal government should not only control railroad investments and charters, but should fix freight and passenger rates to be enforced under penalty of criminal prosecution. By 1879, there was general agreement among railroad pool executives, including Albert Fink, that the federal government would have to step in to cartelize railroad freight for the pools could not succeed without governmental enforcement. In the same year, Joseph Nimmo Jr., head of the first government railroad statistics department, reported that, quote, At the present time, railroad managers appear to be quite generally of the opinion that the only practicable remedy for the evils of unjust and improper discriminations is to be found in a confederation of the railroads under governmental sanction and control the principle of the apportionment of competitive traffic being recognised as a feature of such a confederation. End quote. The Interstate Commerce Act of 1887, regulating the railroads, was one of the first federal regulatory acts in American history. The act began with a bill introduced in the House by Democratic Representative James H. Hopkins of Pittsburgh. In 1876, at the behest of a group of independent oil producers of western Pennsylvania. The major provision of the Hopkins Bill 
was the outlawing of railroad rebates. Gabriel Colco is the first historian to point out that the motives of the Pennsylvania oil men were not anti-railroad. Quite the contrary, they were pro-railroad and anti-standard oil. The oil men were peeved at the superior competition of standard oil and its ability to get rebates from the railroads. Bested at competition, they turned to use the federal government to hobble their successful competitor. Formed into the Petroleum Producers Union the following year, the union championed the railroads and wailed that Standard Oil was enslaving the giant New York Central, Pennsylvania and B&O railroads. The railroads were delighted to form an alliance with the weaker oil men in order to rid themselves of the annoyingly competitive device of rebating. This may be seen in the fact that the Hopkins Bill was apparently written by the attorney for the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad. The Pennsylvania oil men quickly organised a massive petition campaign for the Hopkins Bill. Over 2,000 signatures of Pennsylvania oil producers and Pittsburgh businessmen poured into the Congress agitating for the Hopkins proposal. The Hopkins Bill died in committee, but a similar bill drafted by the Petroleum Producers Union was introduced in early 1878 by Representative Lewis F. Watson of Pennsylvania. Rapidly, nearly 15,000 signatures on petitions poured into the House from Pennsylvania, attacking rebates and railroad rate discrimination. The Pennsylvania legislature, followed by Indiana and Nevada, sent similar resolutions to Congress during 1879. There began almost a decade of jockeying among railroads and other interests on the precise form that federal railroad cartelization would take. The Watson Bill was reported out of the House Commerce Committee, headed by Representative John H. Reagan of Texas, and the new Reagan Bill had been amended to outlaw railroad pooling. The Reagan Bill quickly passed the House in December 1878. Editor's Footnote the motivation behind the Reagan bill has not been sufficiently explored until recently. Railroad tycoon Thomas Scott's fledgling empire, the Texas and Pacific and the Pennsylvania, was involved in heated conflicts with other large railroad giants in the 1870s. The former was wrestling with Collis P. Huntington's Central Pacific for control of transportation from California to the south and the latter against the Erie and New York Central for Standard Oil's lucrative oil shipments. Scott wanted federal subsidies to strengthen the Texas and Pacific in order to compete with Huntington. John Reagan of Texas was eager to help Scott in order to get a transcontinental railroad in his congressional district, a goal he long desired. This was mixed in with the election of Rutherford B. Hayes and the Compromise of 1877 in which the Republicans were able to offer vague promises to Southern Democrats, including John Reagan, in the form of subsidies to the Texas and Pacific, in return for their admittance for the Electoral Commission to count the disputed electoral ballots for Hayes. After the election, the Republicans reneged, so Scott received no federal subsidies and Reagan no transcontinental railroad. The subsequent Reagan bill, which outlawed pooling and interstate rebates to shippers and discrimination, was designed to strengthen Scott's empire 
and hamper its rivals connected with Standard's de facto railroad cartel. The prohibition of rebates and rate discrimination applied only to interstate trade, shrewdly designed to cripple the Pennsylvania's competitors. Moreover, the Texas and Pacific opposed price discrimination in favor of government involvement with rate setting. End footnote. While happy to see rebates outlawed, the railroads wanted the pool agreements to be enforced rather than prohibited, and this prohibition was their major objection to the Reagan Bill. As Albert Fink testified before the Senate the following year, the railroads wanted to carry out the objective of the Reagan Bill. Fink approved the outlawing of rebates and the requirement to publicize rates, thus having a chilling effect on secret rebates. He also urged a legalized and enforced pooling process to be governed by a Federal Railroad Commission. Prefiguring the later provisions of the Interstate Commerce Act, Fink suggested the following clauses. Quote, Section 3, that all competing railroad companies shall jointly establish a tariff for all competing points. Section 4, that the tariff so established shall be submitted to a commission of experts appointed by the federal government, and if they find that the tariff is just and equitable, and based upon correct commercial principles, then such tariff shall be approved, and shall become the law of the land, until changed in the same manner by the same authority. Section 5. In cases where railroad companies cannot agree upon such tariffs, or upon any other questions such as might lead to a war of rates between railroad companies, the questions of disagreement shall be settled by arbitration, the decision of the arbitrator to be enforced in the United States courts. End quote. The railroads preferred the Rice Bill of 1879 in the House and the later Henderson Bill, both written by railroad leader Charles Francis Adams. The bill, which called for a Federal Railroad Commission to legalize and enforce railroad pooling, was endorsed by notables of the Pennsylvania and Erie Railroads. The jockeying in Congress for the next several years was largely over the details of the regulation, especially over the railroad's desire to legalize pooling and to administer the statute by a regulatory commission. In testimony before the House Commerce Committee in 1884, railroad men were overwhelmingly in favor of regulation, particularly if administered by an appointed commission. John P. Green, vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, declared that, quote, a large majority of the railroads in the United States would be delighted if a railroad commission or any other power could make rates upon their traffic which would ensure them 6% dividends, and I have no doubt with such a guarantee they would be very glad to come under the direct supervision and operation of the national government. End quote. Writing to Massachusetts Representative John D. Long on why the railroads were so insistent on a federal commission, the shrewd Charles Francis Adams pointed out, quote, If you only get an efficient board of commissioners, they could work out of it whatever was necessary. No matter what sort of bill you have, everything depends on the men who, so to speak, are inside of it, and who are to make it work. In the hands of the right men, any bill would produce the desired results. End quote.
What those desired results were, and why federal regulation was needed, were spelled out in an 1884 article in the Chicago Railway Review by George R. Blanchard, head of the Erie. Clearly, such great pools as even the Joint Executive Committee could not succeed in imposing joint rates on the railroads. Therefore, what was needed was, quote, a National Railway Commission to cooperate with and not oppose this recognised committee. Their cooperative traffic federations of the railroads, which are intended within just limits to secure uniformity, stability and impartiality among railways, their patrons and the states, should be reinforced, ratified and legalised by an intelligent public conviction. End quote. In hearings before the Senate Interstate Commerce Committee during 1885, dozens of prominent railroad men testified, and all but one strongly endorsed at least the principle of federal regulation. Almost all the railroad leaders favoured a regulatory commission. In more detail, many called for legalising of pools and for the outlawing of rebates. In reporting out the regulatory bill by Senator Shelby M. Cullum of Illinois, the committee pointed to its support among the railroad interests. In the meanwhile, a former vice president of the Erie Railroad wrote to the Commercial and Financial Chronicle criticising traditional American adherence to laissez-faire. Quote, It has always been the fashion in this country to argue that the less government we have, the better, and that this constitutes the main advantage of this country over Europe. But there are some things that the government must do if society is to hold together. End quote. In particular, assist the railroads through regulation. In turn, free market adherents were horrified at the unanimity with which railroads and shippers alike were calling, quote, for the same soothing syrup, legislative enactment, end quote. By late 1886, the Senate had passed over the Cullum Bill and the House the Reagan Bill. Both bills outlawed rebates. Neither gave the federal government the power to fix railroad rates directly. The railroads were in favour of the Senate bill because, unlike the Reagan bill, it did not explicitly outlaw private railroad pools, and more particularly because it established a federal commission to work its will in interpreting and enforcing a vague law, whereas the Reagan bill left enforcement solely to the courts. In a conference of the two houses, Reagan conceded all points to the Senate, except to maintain the prohibition on pooling. The country was given a law vague in all matters, except outlawry of rebates and of some rate discrimination in favour of long-haul freight. The power of interpretation and enforcement in the courts was given to a five-man commission. The Compromise Bill, backed by the railroads, passed both houses overwhelmingly in January 1887, by a vote of 36 to 12 in the Senate and 219 to 41 in the House. Editor's footnote. That the Erie and New York Central opposed the Reagan bill because it would weaken their position relative to the Pennsylvania, or that the Union Pacific, Central Pacific and Southern Pacific were opposed to a rival transcontinental railroad is not surprising. In addition, some railroads opposed the ICC because they were not fully satisfied with the results, 
and it is not a stretch to assume that since some railroads thrived at breaking rate agreements and cartels, others opposed the measure as well. End footnote. The Chicago Inter-Ocean, a leading railroad magazine, summed up the railwayman's case for the Interstate Commerce Act shortly before its passage. Quote, Perhaps the strongest argument that can be presented in favour of the passage of this bill is found in the fact that many of the leading railroad managers admit the justice of its terms and join in the demand for its passage. The irregularities that have gradually crept into the railroads got beyond their capacity to manage. The effort to maintain rates was equally unsuccessful. Then came the last resort, the pool, but that too proved impotent. And now, acknowledging the inefficiency of their own weak inventions, the managers are content to leave the settlement of the whole matter to the lawmaking power of the country. End quote. With the law passed, everything depended, as Adams had said, on who the Interstate Commerce Commissioners would be. The first commission in particular would set the pattern for the future with its interpretations and rulings. Would the railroads or the shippers or the farmers control this commission? Or, more precisely, whom would President Grover Cleveland appoint? The United States was politically in the midst of a new era. In 1884, the Democratic Party had, in the person of Grover Cleveland, captured the presidency for the first time since the Civil War. From now until the late 1890s, the United States would be a genuine two-party country once again, with power shifting easily from one party to the other. We have mentioned above that in the Panic of 1873, J.P. Morgan had succeeded the fallen Jay Cook as the nation's premier investment banker, and since the railroads were the only genuine big business in these decades, this meant the successor as the leading railroad financier. But while Jay Cook had been a Republican, J.P. Morgan was a Democrat. If we consider that August Belmont, U.S. representative of the powerful European banking house of Rothschild, was treasurer of the National Democratic Party for many years, we can see that such financial powers as Morgan and Belmont wielded enormous influence over the personnel and the policies of the Democratic Party. Before the Civil War, the Democratic Party had been the laissez-faire, minimal government party in America. This continued to be the case, although not quite as strongly. But the party was now vulnerable, for if Morgan, Belmont and financiers or railroad men in their ambit should begin to shift to a statist position in one or more areas, the Democratic Party was likely to follow. And this is, in fact, what happened. J.P. Morgan had become the foremost sponsor of railroad pools, and him as well as other railroads had now endorsed the ICC as an instrument of imposed cartelization. The new president, Grover Cleveland, was also generally in favour of laissez-faire, but he had long been in the railroad ambit. When he ran for governor of New York in 1882, he was known with considerable justice as a railroad attorney in Buffalo. Cleveland had been an attorney for several railroads, including the New York Central. His pro-railroad appointments to the New York Railroad Commission were consistent with this image. Editor's footnote. 
Cleveland's first presidential administration was also dominated by railroad interests, even more so than the preceding Republican regimes. End footnote. Cleveland also had a close long-time relationship with J.P. Morgan. During his administration as president, he frequently consulted with both Morgan and Belmont Jr., and Cleveland's old law partner, Francis Lynn Stetson, later became the attorney for J.P. Morgan & Co., and one of the most important counsellors in the Morgan Circle. The railroad men therefore regarded Cleveland as safe, and they turned out to be right. Cleveland did not, of course, veto the Interstate Commerce Act. His appointments to the ICC were even more revealing. At the urging of Senator Cullum, Cleveland chose as chairman the distinguished jurist Thomas McIntyre Cooley. A proponent of strict construction and laissez-faire, Cooley unfortunately chose the railroad industry to make his most conspicuous exception to this general rule. This choice was perhaps not unconnected with his accepting employment from 1882 on as administrator and arbitrator in Albert Fink's Joint Executive Committee Railroad Pool. In addition, Cooley served since 1885 as a receiver for the Wabash Railroad. As a result of accepting these posts, Cooley had shifted by 1887 to favouring government legalisation and control of pooling through a federal commission. Of the four other commissioners, two were leading railroad men. Augustus Shoemaker had been associated with Cleveland in New York politics and then had become a railroad attorney. And Aldous F. Walker was a veteran railroad man who was to resign after two years on the ICC to become head of the Major Railroad Rates Association and eventually to be chairman of the board of the Aitchison, Topeka and Santa Fe. The other two members were hack Democratic politicians, one of whom had already been a state railroad commissioner in Alabama. It was no wonder that the Railway Review hailed the appointments. Quote, Fortunately, its present membership is not made up of the stuff that is liable to shrink from doing what it conceives to be its duty. End quote. The Interstate Commerce Commission quickly moved in the direction desired by the railroads. On the one hand, the ICC allowed the railroads themselves to suspend the provision prohibiting discrimination against short-haul rates when it was advantageous for them to be higher, thereby giving the ICC sanction to their practices. Aldous Walker wrote that this policy was, quote, capable of very general application and it is a fact that, as a prevention of rate wars and destructive competition, it is already recognised by intelligent railroad men as better than the pool. End quote. On the other hand, the railroad men were anxious to have the ICC follow strictly the prohibition of rebates to shippers, and the ICC eagerly complied. Railroad leaders kept a vigilant eye on violations of the new law by their competitors, and enthusiastically turned them into the authorities. As Charles Francis Adams Jr., now President of the Union Pacific, declared, we would welcome the rigid and literal enforcement of every provision of the Interstate Commerce Act. At first, the railroads, under the friendly regime of the ICC, were able to raise rates, 
but soon, by the end of 1887, the dreaded rebates began again as a few railroads decided to compete vigorously once more. The railroads decided to try to bring pools in by the back door. While pools were technically outlawed, voluntary rate associations, which simply fixed rates without allocating freights and markets, were still legal. Indeed, Professor George Hilton concurs with pro-railroad opinion at the time that the language of the Interstate Commerce Act, taken from the original Cullum Bill, almost compels collusive rate-making on the part of the railroads. The ICC was therefore in keeping with the law when, to the delight of the railroads, it decided to give its sanction and imprimatur to the freight rates worked out by the railroad rate associations. In short, to use the federal government to ratify rates decided upon by the private railroad cartels. Despite the official outlawry of pools, therefore, the ICC was to serve as a powerful instrument of railroad cartels. It is no wonder that very soon after its inception, the Interstate Commerce Act and the ICC were lauded by the railway men, while the merchants and farmers' groups who had high hopes for the ICC quickly came to call for its repeal. Thus, during 1890, numerous merchants and farmers' groups called for repeal of the outlawry of pro-long-haul discrimination, while the Detroit and Indianapolis Boards of Trade went so far as to call for outright repeal of the Interstate Commerce Act because it protected railroads and raised railway rates. But if the ICC looked with favour at cartel rates fixed by rate associations, it had no power to fix or enforce them. As competition resumed and freight rates fell further, the presidents of the leading western roads were called to New York by the tireless J.P. Morgan to seek ways of maintaining freight rates and enforcing violations of the anti-rebate law. The railroad men met with the ICC commissioners in 1889, and the ICC encouraged the railroads to form what would virtually be a pool agreement. As a result, 22 roads signed an agreement to keep freight rates from falling, and while no shares of freight were formally allocated between the roads, thus keeping narrowly within the letter of the law, the agreement authorised the railroads to take such steps as may be necessary and legal, quote, to secure to each company its due share of the competitive traffic, end quote. The pool, with its agreement to ration business and thereby allow a raise in rates, was back in all but name, and this time the ICC was there to help enforce it. The new cartel organisation called itself the Interstate Commerce Railway Association, and it avowed that its purpose was to exercise their power and influence in the maintenance of rates and the enforcement of all the provisions of the interstate law. End quote. It was, in short, merely altruistically interested in law enforcement. The association pledged itself to enforce the agreement by notifying the ICC of any violation of law, and to top matters off, and to underscore the incestuous relationship the new association had with the ICC, Aldas Walker resigned as member of the ICC to become chairman of the new organisation. Gabriel Kolko aptly calls the association, in fact, nothing more than a massive railway effort 
to interpret and enforce, with commission sanction, the Act of 1887. The presidents of the Pennsylvania and New York Central Railroads, the representative of the Northwest Railroad Board, and Charles Francis Adams, Jr., were all enthusiastic about the agreement. In imitation, ten major eastern lines signed a similar agreement in February, appointing the ubiquitous cartelist Albert Fink as its commissioner. Again, the sanctimonious purpose was to aid in the enforcement of the provisions of the interstate commerce law and to inform on all violations to the commission. But even with ICC sanction, the winds of competition proved far too great for the railroad cartels. By the spring of 1889, vehement rate wars in the West had wrecked the association. Repeated attempts to establish rate associations in the Southwest and to reconstitute the one in the West continued to fail, despite J.P. Morgan's best efforts and the ICC endorsement. Rates continued to fall, sparked by secret competitive rebates throughout the 1890s. The railroads continued to try to form and reconstitute rate associations, but all to no avail. In late 1895, 31 major eastern roads set up the Joint Traffic Association, along almost the same lines as the defunct Interstate Commerce Railway Association. The U.S. Supreme Court killed the association in October 1898 by calling such agreements illegal pools, following a similar decision the previous year. But it should be noted that the association had founded on the rock of competition and rate-cutting before the court's decision was announced. Throughout the 1890s, the railroads agitated for what were called legalised pools, but were actually pools that would be legally enforceable. In bills sponsored or written by railroads and submitted to Congress, railroad pools would fix rates and then the ICC would ratify and enforce them. As the attorney for the B&O who wrote one of the bills declared, Quote, we say unhesitatingly we are not afraid for one instant of the intervention of the Commission. We do not want an agreement to go into effect without their approval. End quote. The railroad point of view was put cogently by A.B. Stickney, president of the Minnesota and Northwestern Railroad, in a book written in 1891. Quote, for a quarter of a century, they, the railroads, have been attempting, by agreements between themselves, to make and maintain uniform and stable rates. But as such contracts are not recognised as binding by the law, they have rested entirely on the good faith of each company, and to a great extent upon the capacity as well as good faith of each of the traffic officials and employees. In the past they have not been efficacious and it is too much to hope for any sufficient protection to the rights of owners growing out of such agreements. Their alternative protection is the strong arm of the law. Let the law name the rates, and let the law maintain and protect their integrity. End quote. Editor's footnote. Some critics of Colco have argued that since many railroads were just trying to get the government to enforce their voluntary cartel agreements and uphold contracts that they mutually agreed upon, they were not nearly as interventionist as Colco and others have portrayed them. 
It is important to note that, at least from Rothbard's perspective, the free market does not enforce promises unless some goods have already been physically exchanged. This includes cartel agreements. Therefore, the drive for railroads to get the government to enforce their cartel agreements does constitute an intervention. End footnote. But despite the enthusiastic support of the ICC, Congress stubbornly refused to pass any such legislation. Now, after 1898, even the rate association route was declared illegal by the courts. As a result, railroad and ICC pressure on Congress for legalized pools intensified still further. 2. Strengthening the Interstate Commerce Commission And so, by the turn of the century, the railroad leaders had realized that the existing Interstate Commerce Act was not sufficiently powerful to act as a successful catalyzer of the railroad industry. For the first decade of the 20th century, as Hilton states, quote, the history of the statutory authority of the ICC is best interpreted as an effort to convert the Act of 1887 into an effective cartelizing statute. End quote. To aid in this effort, the railroad men were fortunate in the man who succeeded the pro-railroad Shelby M. Cullum in 1899 as chairman of the Senate Interstate Commerce Committee. He was the even more pro-railroad and more vigorous Stephen Benton Elkins of West Virginia, who quickly became the most important congressional influence on railroad legislation. Elkins had always had his eye on the main chance. During the 1870s, he had become the largest landowner in New Mexico by shrewd use of his post as U.S. District Attorney. He then was fortunate enough to marry the daughter of Henry G. Davis, a coal and railroad tycoon in West Virginia. Through this marriage, Elkins became the largest mine owner in the Atlantic area. He and his father-in-law also controlled the West Virginia Central and Pittsburgh Railroad. In short, Elkins's passion for the interests of the railroads was not unconnected with his own status as railroad owner. The railroad cartelists were also fortunate in the sudden accession to the Presidency of the United States of Theodore Roosevelt, the preeminent political symbol of progressivism, whose long political career was always close to the House of Morgan. By the end of the 1890s, Morgan had gained far more predominance in the railroad industry than he had ever had before, and his drive for cartelization in general industry as well as railroads had intensified. It is no wonder that Morgan's ally Roosevelt would come to be labelled as the railroad men's best friend. The first fruit of the new cartelizing drive was the progressive Elkins Anti-Rebating Act of 1903. Rebates had been outlawed in the Act of 1887, but this mighty instrument of intense competition had continued to flourish, even though hidden, in the form of such devices as false classification and underestimating the weights of freights. Alexander J. Cassatt, president of the Morgan-associated Pennsylvania Railroad since 1899, had long been dedicated to cartels and stabilization. His attempt to end Pennsylvania rebates to the powerful Carnegie Steel Co. led to a mighty battle in which Andrew Carnegie and George J. Gould 
threatened to build parallel railroads, while Morgan countered with a powerful attempt at monopoly in the steel industry known as United States Steel. Cassatt did not hesitate to turn to the secular arm by having his general counsel, James A. Logan, write the Elkins Bill in 1901 to crack down on rebating. Logan told a press conference that if his bill should pass, the railroads would no longer be subject to the dictation of the great shippers as to rates and facilities. The original Elkins Bill, as it passed the Senate, also achieved the long-standing railroad objective of legalising pooling. While the final Compromise Bill did not officially legalise pools, it did the equivalent by declaring rates jointly arrived at by railroads to be legal, and providing that any joint rate filed with the ICC, quote, shall be conclusively deemed to be the legal rate, and any departure from such rate, or any offer to depart therefrom, to be an offence, end quote. The Elkins Act also made corporations as well as individuals liable for violations, and provided that both the giver and receiver of rebates could be prosecuted. Thus, not only did the Elkins Act of 1903 greatly strengthen the prohibition of rebates, but it restored the legalisation of associated rates that the Supreme Court had knocked down a half-decade before. The railroads exulted at the passage of the Elkins Act, which passed unanimously in the Senate and with virtually no opposition in the House. The Railroad Gazette declared that the law should have been passed five years earlier, and gloated that, quote, all that will be asked of the commissioners by the public will be that they go ahead and catch every law-breaking rate-cutter in the country, End quote. Footnote. The importance of the Elkins Act, which has been rather neglected by historians, is underscored by George Hilton as revealing the overall framework of regulation of the railroads. Even Chandler, who is generally unsympathetic to the cartelizing interpretation of railroad legislation, concedes that the railroads overwhelmingly supported the Elkins Act, although he fails to realize that the Act strengthened the ICC and legalized joint railroad rates. End footnote. Various merchant and shipper groups were not satisfied with the existing law, and they agitated after 1903 for outright rate-fixing powers to be given to the ICC. They were opposed by other shippers, however, including the National Association of Manufacturers, which reversed itself on the issue. As a result of this split, and of railroad opposition, such bills as the Esch-Townsend Bill were ultimately defeated in Congress. Editor's footnote. There has been much discussion over the railroad opposition to regulation in 1904 and 1905. Some have argued, contra colco, that the railroads were unanimously opposed to any new regulation. However, Colco argued that the railroad opposition, especially in the Senate committee meetings, was mainly directed against the Esch Townsend Bill, which allowed the ICC to fix definite rates, and in speeches and railroad journals, they were more sympathetic to other types of regulation. End footnote. A different law, the Hepburn Act, written in the councils of the Roosevelt administration, passed Congress almost unanimously in 1906. As Colco points out, 
historians have made a great to-do about the Hepburn Act as an allegedly controversial reform measure directed against the railroads, while overlooking the fact a that the controversies were all minor, and b that everyone, especially including the railroads, accepted the principles of the bill and quibbled only over details. An examination of the Hepburn Act reveals why the railroads and railroad journals praised the law. Perhaps most importantly, the Hepburn Act strengthened the Elkins Act against rebating. For one thing, it extended the law to cover express and sleeping car railroads, private car lines and pipelines, thus extending the cartel by bringing competing forms of transportation under the same regulation. Secondly, the Hepburn Act outlawed railroads transporting products which they owned themselves, a measure aimed at competing industrial roads, such as anthracite railroads, which owned coal mines. Footnote The Railway and Engineering Review spoke for most railroad opinion in hailing the provision of the new law outlawing industrial railroads. Quote, The industrial roads will go out of business. They ought never to have been allowed to begin it. End footnote. Third, it required 30 days' notice for rate changes, which slowed down competitive rate cutting and rebate penalties were stiffened, with fines equaling three times the value of the rebate, and a possible penalty of two years' imprisonment was imposed for violating the law. Fourth, the railroad cartel was expanded by outlawing free passes by railroads to their customers, as well as various other free services to shippers. This, of course, was the equivalent of compulsory raising of rates by outlawing forms of price cutting. Fifth, if rates arrived at by railroads were challenged by shippers, the ICC had the right to set its own maximum rates if it found those rates not to be just, fair and reasonable. The ICC's rulings would be subject to review by the courts, and even though these were to be maximum rates, giving them the force of law made collusion between the railroads much easier, and hence strengthened the cartels. Editor's footnote Hilton's controversial argument regarding the cartelizing effect of maximum rates seems to have been that the railroads could push for a higher maximum rate and by making this rate official, downward price cutting from it could be deemed illegal. End footnote. Particularly enthusiastic about the Hepburn Act was A.J. Cassatt, head of the Pennsylvania Railroad, who proclaimed his agreement with Roosevelt's position. The Pennsylvania pointed out in its 1906 annual report that its aim of achieving the end of rebating having been achieved with the Hepburn Act and the maintenance of tariff rates having been practically secured, it could go ahead and sell the stock it had purchased in its competitors. G.J. Grammer of the New York Central exulted in the compulsory elimination of the free passes and services. Key railroad leaders such as John W. Midgley, a veteran pool organiser, and Samuel Spencer were anxious to bring private car railroad lines under regulation the Railway and Engineering Review crowed over the abolition of the industrial railroads. E. H. Harriman, second only to Morgan in controlling railroads, favoured the Hepburn Act. And upon its passage, George W. Perkins, partner of J. P. Morgan & Co., 
wrote to Morgan that the new law, quote, is going to work out for the ultimate and great good of the railroads. There is no question but that rebating has been dealt a death blow. End quote. Editor's footnote. Harriman favoured the act relative to more hostile regulation. By late 1906, his clout with Roosevelt had significantly deteriorated. End footnote. The railroads had been so exercised about the rebating problem that the executives of virtually all of the Western roads had met in December 1905 to consider steps to combat the practice. They decided to inform the ICC of all violations of the law. The Hepburn Act was drawn up by Attorney General William H. Moody. President Roosevelt had consulted with several railroad leaders, including Cassatt, Midgley and Spencer. Roosevelt had been converted to the railroad cause and to the desirability of railroad pools by his Secretary of the Navy, Paul Morton, formerly Vice President of the Morgan-controlled Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad. Footnote We know, too, that Roosevelt's chairman of the Bureau of Corporations, James R. Garfield, was consulting during 1905 with two powerful corporate attorneys, Victor Morowetz of the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe, and Francis Lynn Stetson, personal lawyer for J.P. Morgan. Probably Morowetz and Stetson were most influential in beginning the drive for what would later become the Federal Trade Commission but railroad matters might also have been discussed. End footnote. In his December 1905 message to Congress, Roosevelt explained his call for railroad regulation in terms of restricting railroad competition and protecting good as against bad, that is, particularly vigorous, competitors. Quote, I believe that on the whole our railroads have done well and not ill. But the railroad men who wish to do well should not be exposed to competition with those who have no such desire. And the only way to secure this end is to give some government tribunal the power to see that justice is done by the unwilling exactly as it is gladly done by the willing. Moreover, if some government body is given increased power, the effect will be to furnish authoritative answer on behalf of the railroad whenever irrational clamour against it is raised, or whenever charges made against it are disproved. End quote. Contemplating the growing drive for what would become the Hepburn Act, the Wall Street Journal keenly noted the enthusiasm by the railroad men, as well as the growing general business interest in their own regulation. Quote, Nothing is more noteworthy than the fact that President Roosevelt's recommendation in favour of government regulation of railroad rates and Commissioner Garfield's recommendation in favour of federal control of interstate companies have met with so much favour among managers of railroads and industrial companies. It is not meant by this that much opposition has not developed, for it has. The fact is that many of the railroad men and corporate managers are known to be in favour of these measures, and this is of vast significance. In the end, it is probable that all of the corporations will find that a reasonable system of federal regulation is to their interest. It is known that some of the foremost railroad men of the country are at this time at work in harmony with the President for the enactment of a law providing for federal regulation of rates 
which shall be equitable both to the railroads and to the public. End quote. One consequence of the Hepburn Act indicates, contrary to accepted propaganda, whom the Act really injured and whom it benefited. As soon as the Act was passed, the New York Central happily complied by abolishing free storage facilities for New York flour merchants. The Chicago and Eastern Illinois Road inaugurated charges for switching, and free car service and loading in Philadelphia was abolished. The railway world happily reported that, quote, Notwithstanding the fears of many that the railroads would be hurt by the operation of the law, no complaint has been heard from railroad men against its general provisions. On the contrary, the complaints are coming from the shippers, who were supposed to be the chief beneficiaries of the law. End quote. In 1910, Congress passed the Mann-Elkins Act, completing the trilogy of cartelizing railroad acts passed during the first decade of the 20th century. The original bill of the Taft administration would have legalized railroad agreements to fix freight rates, a measure that the railroads had long yearned for. The roads could not get this provision through Congress, and they had to accept the clause that the ICC might suspend and review railroad rate changes. In point of fact, the railroads welcomed governmental review and approval of rates, provided this power were used primarily to prevent rate reductions rather than increases. To ensure this, the railroads welcomed the achievement of an old demand in the Mann-Elkins Act, the creation of a new special Federal Court of Commerce with the power to review all ICC rate decisions on appeal. It was expected by everyone that the new Commerce Court would be solidly pro-railroad, and so it proved to be. The chairman of the Commerce Court was the previous chairman of the ICC, Martin A. Knapp, who had long opposed competition in railroads and favoured legalised pooling enforced by the government, and he now reaffirmed this stand as well as calling for higher railroad rates. Also a force for cartelization was another provision of Mann-Elkins, re-establishing the original prohibition in the Interstate Commerce Act of rate discrimination for long-haul over short-haul traffic, a clause that had been nullified in the Supreme Court's Alabama Midland Railway decision in 1897. By restoring this prohibition, Congress strengthened railroad cartels by preventing competitive rate reductions for long-haul traffic. Professor Hilton trenchantly sums up the effect of the Mann-Elkins and other acts. Quote, the investigation and suspension procedures established in 1910 and recognised for decades were a powerful inhibition to promiscuous rate reduction, and the Mann-Elkins Act's revision in Section 4 of the Act of 1887 restored its effectiveness against the practice of charging more for a shorter haul than for a longer haul. Without an effective Section 4, the Commission was unable to put down rate wars in which a railroad cut rates between points which it served in rivalry to parallel railroads below the level of rates to intermediate points. Basically, what the legislation of 1903, 1906 and 1910 did was rectify the adverse judicial decisions of the 1890s and otherwise patch up the Commission's statutory body of authority 
so that it could accomplish what Congress had set out to do in 1887, stabilize the railroad cartels without pooling. End quote. Footnote. As Colco points out, the Supreme Court's decisions of the late 1890s, striking down various rate regulations and refusing to sanction cartel agreements, were not, as most historians have believed, pro-railroad decisions. On the contrary, they were examples of the court clashing with the railroads. End footnote. But the railroads were getting worried about the performance of their creation, the ICC, as witnessed their eagerness to place as many rate-setting powers as possible in the Commerce Court. For the organised shippers, with their interest in lower rates, were growing in political strength. They had managed to block important pro-railroad Taft administration provisions in Congress, and they grew in influence after 1910. In consequence, the ICC repeatedly rejected rate increases urged by the railroads after 1910, and after the Supreme Court emasculated the powers of the Commerce Court in 1912, the shippers persuaded Congress to abolish the latter the following year. But despite their uneasiness at shipper influence on the ICC, for the nation's railroads there was no turning back. They were strongly committed to federal government regulation, and the stronger the better. Editor's footnote. Therefore, despite repeated efforts, the ICC was a failure for the railroads, and was ultimately captured by the rival shipping interests. Robert Higgs has aptly characterised the situation of growing shipper power thwarting the railroads' efforts. Quote, not infrequently, however, business support for regulatory harmonization at the federal level gave birth to an unmanageable offspring. Like Dr. Frankenstein's monster, the newly created federal regulatory agencies often stopped heeding their business progenitors' voice. Within 20 years, for example, the ICC had fallen under the sway of shipper interests, and by refusing to approve reasonable rate increases, the Commission proceeded to compress the railroad companies in a merciless cost-price squeeze. So severely had the railroad firms suffered in the decade after 1906 that during World War I they collapsed, financially exhausted, into the loving arms of the US Railroad Administration. Afterward, under the terms of the Transportation Act of 1920, they found themselves reduced to little more than regulated public utilities. End footnote. For one thing, federal regulation was bound to be more uniform and therefore more effective in imposing a nationwide cartel than state regulation, and probably it would be more enthusiastically pro-cartel. In the summer of 1914, the newly formed Railroad Executives Advisory Committee, including most of the nation's railroads and headed by Frank Trumbull of the Chesapeake and Ohio, called for comprehensive federal control of the country's railroads along the lines of federal control of the banks in the new Federal Reserve Act. E.P. Ripley, president of the Santa Fe Railroad, called explicitly for a partnership between the federal government and the railroads. In return for control over rates, the government would guarantee all railroads a fixed minimum rate of profit. This, opined Ripley, 
would do away with the enormous wastes of the competitive system. Daniel Willard, head of the Baltimore and Ohio, called for speeding up the process of federalizing railroad regulation and likened this need to the recent federal regulation embodied in the Federal Reserve and Federal Trade Commission Acts. The shippers had managed to block railroad rate increases before the ICC in 1910 by arguing for greater efficiency and scientific management on the part of the railroads. The railroad leaders, in their subsequent agitation for enlarged and comprehensive federal regulation, turned the tables by linking the typically progressive concept of efficiency with imposing uniformity and eliminating competitive waste. More specifically, this would come through cooperative, i.e. cartel-like, reductions in service and in railroad traffic, as well as quota allocations of freight, all in the name of efficient elimination of waste. The role of the federal government was to be as supervisor and enforcer of this cartelizing process. All this was supposed to require, and indeed was meant as the prop for, higher railroad rates. All in all, Fairfax Harrison, president of the Chicago, Indianapolis and Louisville Railroad, spoke for the railroad leaders when he declared that the ICC was necessary to assure general increases in rates when profits might be low, and thereby to prop up and increase railway earnings. This would be far better than free competition or the vagaries of state regulation. Trumpeted Harrison, The day of the Manchester School and laissez-faire is gone. Personally, I do not repine at the change. In response, the Republican platform of 1916 duly called for total federal control of railroad regulation. For their part, the Democrats were blazing the same path through the views and actions of President Woodrow Wilson. On September 10, 1914, Wilson wrote to Trumbull that, in view of declining railroad earnings, the railroads must be helped in every possible way, whether by private cooperative effort or by the action, wherever feasible, of governmental agencies. The railway world reported massive business approval of Wilson's sentiments, and the Railway Business Association passed a resolution hailing the president. J.P. Morgan Jr. wrote to Wilson expressing his gratitude for the Trumbull letter. Moreover, in response to a request from Trumbull, President Wilson, in his December 1915 message to Congress, urged an inquiry into a comprehensive grappling with the nation's railroad problem. Trumbull enthusiastically wired Wilson that, I am confident that you will do for the railroads of this country as much as you have already done for the banks. At the subsequent hearings of the Congressional Joint Committee, headed by Senator Francis G. Newlands, established in July 1916, the major railroad position was delivered by Alfred P. Tom, chief counsel of the Railroad Executive's Advisory Committee. Tom not only called for exclusive federal regulation of the railroads, but also for their protection. He urged the model of the Federal Reserve System, with regional ICCs, ICC setting of minimum as well as maximum rates, and the compulsory federal incorporation of all railroads, as well as exclusive federal regulation 
of railroad security issues. President Wilson called for strengthening of the ICC along similar lines in August 1916, as well as advocating higher rates, and repeated his request in his December message to Congress. As we shall see below, the coming of America's entry into World War I in April 1917 paved the way for the culmination of this, as well as other aspects of the Progressive's catalyzing programs for American industry. During the war, the railroad cartelists, viewing the nationalization of their industry, couldn't have been happier. Chapter 3 Attempts at Monopoly in American Industry 1. America's Industrial Revolution In the decades after the Civil War and until the end of the 19th century, America experienced its veritable industrial revolution. In an explosion of industrialization, the United States transformed from a predominantly agricultural into an industrial country. In the process, output and living standards soared for a rapidly increasing population. The enormous expansion of production took place through the factory system, which in these decades replaced the small artisan and craftsman as the predominant form of industrial production. Formerly, the craftsman typically worked at home on his own tools, with his raw materials sometimes financed by his wholesale merchant customer, the putting-out, or domestic, system. Now, a capitalist employer, from his own or from his partner's savings, built or purchased buildings, machines, and raw material, and hired a number of employees to work on these materials at a central location. It proved to be efficient in most industries to help increase the scale and size of the factories and firms as markets for the increased production expanded throughout the nation. There are many indices that reveal the extent of the explosion of production and industrialization in the three decades after the Civil War. Thus, in real terms, in constant 1879 dollars, total commodity output increased by three-and-a-half-fold from 1869 to 1899. Agricultural output in those years more than doubled. Construction increased two-and-a-half times. Manufacturing output, in contrast, rose almost six-fold in that period, while mining increased eight-fold. In more specific types of production, increases were even more spectacular, led by the blossoming iron and steel industry. Thus, in 1865, 930,000 short tons of pig iron were shipped in the United States. In 1899, the figure had risen 16-fold, to 15.25 million tons. And steel ingots and castings produced rose 500-fold, from 20,000 long tons in 1867 to 10.6 million long tons in 1899. Structural iron and steel production increased tenfold, cotton textiles over fivefold, and rails produced rose nearly sixfold. Bituminous coal output rose seventeenfold from 1865 to 1900, while crude oil production rose twenty-sixfold. Output per head and consequently living standards also rose sharply in this period, despite the large increase in the nation's population. Commodity output per capita nearly doubled in this period, 
and gross national product per capita in constant 1929 prices rose by 80% in the 20 years from 1871 to 1891. In terms of real wages, the average daily wage in all industry rose by 13% from 1865 to 1891, while the cost of living fell on the average of 31% in the same period. The average daily real wages, corrected for price changes, increased by 64%. Then when we consider that average hours worked dropped from 11 to 10 hours a day in this period, we should add 10% to the average real wage. So spectacular was the expansion of products that it outstripped the increase in the money supply during this period, so that Mirabile Dictu overall prices fell steadily by 2.5% per year from 1870 to 1890. Manufacturing, however, only caught up to the capital advances of railroads by the 1890s. Before then, industrial firms were still largely individual proprietorships or partnerships, with the corporate form confined to railroads and banks. Despite the fact that savings per capita grew rapidly during the 1870s and 1880s, the size of firms was not large enough for most of this period to require a shift from the proprietorship or partnership to the corporate form. As a result, firms were financed largely by the savings of partners or informal debts from friends or relatives. Until the 1890s, therefore, the New York Stock Exchange and other security markets were confined to government bonds, railroad stocks and bonds, and bank stocks. As a result, the crucial role of investment banks, which underwrote and floated the sale of securities, was largely confined to government bonds and railroad securities until the mid-1890s. Hence the almost exclusive concern of the houses of Cook and Morgan for governments and railroads. By the 1890s, however, J.P. Morgan led the way in organising large-scale industrial corporations and then underwriting and controlling issues of their securities. Thus, Morgan organised the General Electric Company in the vital new field of electric machinery and lighting in 1892. On the other hand, while the passing of ownership from the great inventor Thomas Edison to the enlarged Morgan Company symbolised future trends in American industry, the equally great inventor George Westinghouse stubbornly refused to merge with GE in the mid-1890s. The newly formed Westinghouse Company continued to live on the savings and ploughed-back profits of George Westinghouse and his fellow stockholders, and to spurn any reliance on Wall Street and the investment bankers. Another successful tactic of the investment banking houses was to acquire control of the rapidly burgeoning life insurance companies. Total assets of life insurance companies had increased tenfold from 1867 to 1897. Since these companies were owned by a self-perpetuating board of trustees who could not earn profits from the company's assets, Life insurance executives were more motivated to maintaining assets than to seek profits with alacrity. Hence, they were ripe for takeover by investment banking houses, who could try to gain control of the boards of trustees and have them purchase securities of industrial companies, controlled by the banks themselves. 2. The Petroleum Industry as manufacturing developed in the decades after the Civil War, 
The temptation to seek monopoly and thereby to attempt to restrict production and raise prices infected industry after industry. The attempts took two forms. One was cartels, which had the same function as in railroads, with the same disastrous effects under the pressure of internal breakup and new external competition. Another form was mergers, an attempt to merge all firms within an industry into one big firm, which would then achieve the monopoly goal. To a certain extent, mergers were beneficial and inevitable, as small firms took advantage of the expanding market to grow and merge into larger firms with larger and eventually corporate capitalization, as the corporate form began to replace the self-owned firm or the partnership. Similar mergers took place in the Eastern Railroads after 1850, as small lines consolidated into a more efficient, larger line. But it was very different to merge not from natural market forces, but because of ideology, because of the will of the wisp of achieving monopoly through this route. The result of such mergers was as disastrous and very similar to the result of cartels. The first important attempt at achieving industrial monopoly was in petroleum, a new industry which began with the first small oil well at Titusville in northwestern Pennsylvania in 1859. Quickly springing up to refine the oil pumped into western Pennsylvania were numerous refiners in Cleveland. Emerging very early out of the pack was a business genius, John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller, who had begun in business as an impoverished bookkeeper, soon rose to be a wholesale commission grocer. By 1863, Rockefeller and Samuel Andrews were the major partners in the largest kerosene refinery in Cleveland, the Excelsior Works. To form the company, Rockefeller invested his own funds and money borrowed from his father, relatives, friends and associates. By 1867, Rockefeller had formed Rockefeller, Flagler and Andrews Co., with his brother William, Henry M. Flagler and Stephen V. Harkness as newly joined partners. So great was the efficiency and so low the cost of their refineries that the company further expanded and merged with competing refiners to incorporate in a few years in 1870 as the Standard Oil Company of Ohio, Sohio a company possessing the world's largest oil refining capacity. Sohio was capitalized at $1 million. It should be noted that Sohio was a business and financial alliance of its major owners, of whom Rockefeller was first among equals. From then on, and on into the 20th century, these founding Standard Oil families tended to act together, to ally with one another and to make investment decisions in tandem. Some of these founding families were the Flaglers, the Harknesses, the Paynes, the Postwicks, the Pratts, the Brewsters, the Rogers, and the Archbolds. We have seen how Rockefeller participated in the South Improvement Company in 1871, a failed attempt to cartelize both Eastern Railroads and the oil industry. After that, Rockefeller tried to achieve the same result more permanently by buying out all of his competitors. In contrast to historical legend, Rockefeller did not attempt to achieve his dominance in the oil industry by the costly and dangerous process of driving them out of business by cutting prices sharply. Instead, Rockefeller simply bought out his competitors 
and paid handsome prices to boot. For one thing, he was anxious to keep the goodwill of the former owners and to enlist their administrative capacities in the Standard organization. Neither did Standard achieve its original dominance solely by obtaining railroad rebates. As we have indicated, all refineries, along with other industries, were receiving rebates, some small competitors even receiving larger rebates than Standard. Sohio achieved its dominance by also being more efficient, by pioneering in innovative ways to cut costs and to improve product. Its costs were lower than its competitors. While Standard launched several technological innovations and improved lubricating oils, its major innovations were in management techniques. Sohio pioneered in modern corporate management, in the executive committee system, in careful bookkeeping in corporate accounting, and in systematic managerial reporting to a central review board. By 1879, Rockefeller had purchased refineries in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, and Baltimore, and had obtained nearly 90% of American oil refining capacity and 80% of the pipelines. In 1882, Rockefeller and his allies expanded to form an overall Standard Oil Trust with headquarters in New York City and capitalized at $70 million. Individual firms in the different states had exchanged their stock for pro rata shares in the new seemingly monopoly trust. But Standard Oil was never to retain the dominance it had achieved in 1879, a dominance, by the way, that never even threatened to extend to marketing or to crude oil production. For one thing, Standard Oil's standing ready to purchase any independent oil refinery at a handsome price functions something like farm price supports in later years. In brief, various shrewd entrepreneurs began to realize that if Rockefeller were foolish enough to stand ready to purchase any oil refineries offered to him, well, they would go heavily into a new profitable business, the building of oil refineries solely for the purpose of forcing Rockefeller to buy them. In their haste, these new refineries were sometimes not even fit for the refining of oil, that they should seem to be so as to deceive Standard Oil inspectors was sufficient. As a result, Rockefeller found himself on a treadmill, paying out money for a steady stream of new refineries. Finally, in 1881, Rockefeller declared that he would no longer pay blackmail to these new refineries, and for the next few years, many overtures for sale by new independent refiners were turned down by Rockefeller. By 1885, then, Rockefeller had given up his attempt to achieve monopoly in oil refining by merger and purchase. From then on, there were to continue to be 10 to 20 percent of refining capacity outside the standard oil network, and ready to step in to increase competition should the opportunity arise. Typical of common distortions of the truth about the small competitors of Standard Oil is the case of George Rice, a small Ohio refiner, who was lionized in the press for his alleged martyrdom at the House of Standard Oil. In fact, Rice profited handsomely from his competition, so much so that his asking price to Standard kept increasing. As the historians Heidi and Heidi relate, quote, Rice invited combat by darting into an area, 
cutting prices until dangerous to profits, and then diverting his efforts to another spot. In 1881, under the title of Black Death, he published a pamphlet of anti-standard statements. Standard oil officials tried to silence him by attempting to purchase his refinery, but they balked at paying his asking price, which rose from an original $20,000 to a final $500,000. This represented either his reassessment of his nuisance value or a remarkable growth in net assets within less than a decade in the face of competition from a monopoly. End quote. Despite its near monopoly of refining, Standard was clearly never able to use its position to restrict production and raise prices. The price of kerosene, the major oil product during this period, fell drastically throughout these decades, as oil production greatly increased. Thus, the wholesale price of kerosene fell from 45 cents per gallon in 1863 to 6 cents per gallon in the mid-1890s. Production was increasing to tap a mass market, and so long as government did not restrict entry into the field, Standard always had to look to its laurels. In fact, Standard Oil's virtual monopoly position began to slip by the early 1880s. We have seen how Rockefeller had to abandon trying to achieve a monopoly. More slippage began to occur in the 1890s. Independent pipelines began to grow to challenge Standard's dominance in this area. Finally, after 1900, and long before the antitrust dissolution of 1911 and unrelated to it, Standard's dominance of petroleum refining began increasingly to fade. Whereas in 1899 Standard Oil had 90% of the petroleum refining in the country, this share had slipped to 84% during 1904 to 1907, to 80% in 1911, and then to 50%, including together all the separate Standard Oil companies, in 1921. The basic reason was an increasingly conservative, stodgy, and bureaucratic management of the Standard Oil complex, a development accelerated by the retirement of the senior Rockefeller and other top executives by the late 1890s. Specifically, Standard made two grave mistakes because of its deficient entrepreneurial skills after 1900. It failed to grasp the crude oil revolution, namely that more and more crude was being discovered in Texas, Gulf and California areas. Rooted completely in the Pennsylvania-Ohio oil fields, Standard only grasped the significance of the new oil discoveries late in the day. As a result, new firms such as Texas Company and Gulf Oil were able to stead a march on Standard. Secondly, Standard was the last major firm to realise that gasoline was replacing kerosene as the major petroleum product. A mighty shift occasioned by the two great technological industrial revolutions of the first decades of the 20th century. The shift from kerosene to electricity in providing light and the growth of the automobile as the major means of land transportation. As a result, in 1899, 63% of total oil refined was kerosene. Twenty years later, however, the percentage was only 15%. Moreover, new independent refiners were attracted to the petroleum industry by standards high profit margins. Whereas there was a total of 67 refiners in 1899, 
they had more than doubled to 147 by 1911. The independents, furthermore, led standard in various innovations in petroleum, in the concept of retail gas stations, in the discovery and production of petrochemicals, in tank cars and tank trucks for conveying oil. Editor's footnote. More recent research has argued that Standard Oil's success was due to its ability to replicate the South Improvement Company in form by successfully controlling its rebates. Standard was able to ensure low rebates for the oil it shipped relative to its competitors. And if a railroad Standard shipped oil with cut rebates for one of their competitors, they would retaliate by reducing the amount of oil it shipped with the railroad. However, it should be noted that, as expected, railroads still did frequently try to cut rebates to Standard's competitors in order to boost their sales, and new oil was discovered and refineries opened up in areas of the country which Standard did not have control over. End footnote. 3. Iron and Steel Until very recently, iron and steel had been the glamour industry of the Industrial Revolution. Any undeveloped country that wishes to feel modern makes sure to subsidise and force-feed at least one large steel plant. In the United States, however, the iron and steel industry was chronically inefficient throughout the 19th century. The Pittsburgh Iron Masters were the source of America's first organised movement for a protective tariff in 1820. And for the rest of the century, Pennsylvania iron and steel manufacturers were in the forefront of cries for protection against more efficient British imports. Despite the high Republican tariffs, there were 719 companies either in the blast furnace, steelwork or rolling mill industry in 1889. Throughout the 1880s and 1890s, there were repeated attempts at pools and cartels to reduce production and raise prices. Pools in pig iron, steel, steel billet, wire and wire nails all failed, breaking down from failure of one or more firms to abide by the agreement. Finally, a series of extensive mergers and trusts, incorporating 138 companies consolidated into six trusts, merged in turn to form a new mammoth trust-like holding company, the $1.4 billion United States Steel Corporation, in 1901. U.S. Steel was organised by J.P. Morgan and represents a shift in industry from ploughing back of profits to finance and underwriting by investment banks. The power in the company soon became George W. Perkins, a partner of the House of Morgan. Even so, since there were still 223 firms with blast furnaces and 445 steelwork and rolling mill companies by the turn of the century, US Steel only controlled 62% of the market. Yet, despite its enormous size and its large share of the market, US Steel did badly from the beginning by any criteria. US Steel shares, priced at $55 in 1901, fell precipitately to $9 by 1904. Steel's profits also dropped sharply, yielding 16% in 1902 and falling to less than 8% two years later. Steel prices fell steadily, and US Steel did not dare to raise prices for fear of attracting new and active competitors. 
Finally, in late 1907, Judge Elbert H. Gary, chairman of the board of U.S. Steel and another Morgan man at the company, inaugurated a series of Gary dinners among steel leaders to form gentlemen's agreements to keep up the price of steel. But by as early as mid-1908, smaller independents began cutting their prices secretly, and this broke the agreements and forced U.S. Steel and then other majors to follow suit. By early 1909, even the formal structure of the Gary Dinners had completely collapsed. Prices consequently fell sharply in 1908, until U.S. entry into World War I. As Colco writes, quote, The collapse of the Gary Agreements is an important turning point in the history of steel, for it represents the final failure of the promised stability and profit that motivated the U.S. steel merger. End quote. Then, despite further mergers acquired by U.S. Steel, and despite its ownership of three-quarters of the Minnesota iron ore fields, U.S. Steel experienced, until the present day, a steady shrinkage in its share of the market. Thus, its share of wire nails fell from 66% in 1901 to 55% in 1910 and its share of ingots and castings declined from 63% in 1901 to 05 to 52.5% in 1911 to 1915. In 1909, furthermore, there were still 208 firms with blast furnaces and 446 firms with steelworks and rolling mills. The basic reason for US Steel's steady decline was the curse of all overly large corporations technological and entrepreneurial conservatism. As in the case of Standard Oil, U.S. Steel was consistently the last firm to embrace major technological innovations in the steel industry. From 1900 to 1919, the open hearth steel process largely replaced the Bessemer process as the dominant way of producing steel. U.S. Steel was mired in the Bessemer method and was late in making the change. Similarly, in later decades, U.S. Steel was the last major company to shift from the open hearth to the basic oxygen process. Largely invested in the production of heavy steel, U.S. Steel was very slow to enter the new and growing field of lighter steel products, of alloys or of structural steel. It was slow also to shift from ore to the use of scrap for raw material. Hence, the Morgan attempt to create U.S. steel as a stabilizing force for dominating and monopolizing the steel industry was as dismal a failure as the previous pools and cartels. As Colco concludes, quote, If nothing else, the steel industry was competitive before the World War, and the efforts of the House of Morgan to establish control and stability over the steel industry by voluntary private economic means had failed. Having failed in the realm of economics, the efforts of the United States Steel Group were to be shifted to politics. End quote. 4. Agricultural Machinery By the turn of the century, the agricultural machinery industry was dominated by two large firms, McCormick Harvester, owned by Cyrus McCormick and the McCormick family, and William Deering and Company. When the competition between McCormick and Deering became so intense that they began to buy iron ore 
and build rolling mills and thereby compete with iron and steel, Judge Gary, Morgan Man and chairman of U.S. Steel, took a hand. At his suggestion, George W. Perkins, Morgan partner, threw his weight around and induced McCormick and Deering to merge into a supposedly profitable farm machinery monopoly. Accordingly, in 1902, International Harvester was formed, combining McCormick, Deering and three smaller firms, with Perkins as chairman of the board. International Harvester began with 85% of the harvester market, 96% of the binders and 91% of the mowers in the United States. But International Harvester floundered almost immediately. In the 15 months after the merger, the firm earned less than 1% profit, and even after extensive reorganization and jettisoning of dead wood, the firm in 1907 only paid 3-4% to in dividends, and only began paying dividends on its common stock in 1910. Three small firms left out of the merger, Deere & Co., J.I. Case & Co., and Oliver Farm Equipment Co., quickly expanded and developed a full line of machinery. In 1909, there were still 640 farm manufacturing firms in the United States. More significantly, International Harvester's share of the market fell sharply across the board. Its share of binders had fallen to 87% in 1911, of mowers to 75%, and of the harvesters it had declined to 80% in 1911, and then to 64% in 1918. Of particular significance, International fell prey quickly to the curse of monopoly firms, sluggishness in developing or exploiting innovations. 5. The Sugar Trust We may mention one more case study of attempted monopolization of an industry, the Sugar Trust. The sugar refining industry had attempted a cartel in 1882, but the agreement had fallen apart for the usual reasons. Five years later, the industry attempted the merger route toward monopoly, forming the trust, the American Sugar Refining Company. Conditions for success seemed propitious. The industry was geographically concentrated. Of the 23 refineries, 10 were located in New York City, of which six were in Brooklyn. And of the latter, the three largest, constituting 55% of total sugar refining capacity in the country, were owned by the Havemeyer family, headed by the formidable Henry O. Havemeyer. But even so, the trust would not have been attempted were it not for the very high protective tariff that the sugar refiners had managed to wangle from Congress. As Havemeyer later testified before Congress in 1899, quote, Without the tariff, I doubt if we should have dared to take the risk of forming the trust. I certainly should not have risked all I had in a trust unless the business had been protected as it was by the tariff. End quote. And in his testimony, Havemeyer coined a phrase that was to become famous. The mother of all trusts is the Customs Tariff Bill. Editor's Footnote the protective tariffs that had been a feature of the United States since the Civil War were hotly contested and criticized as fostering domestic monopolies safe from foreign competition which hurt the American consumer. Prominent legislation included the 1861 Morrill Tariff, the 1890 McKinley Tariff, 
1897 Dingley Tariff, and the 1909 Payne-Aldrich Tariff, all of which helped maintain the average level of duties at roughly 40-50%. to It is important to note, however, that despite this enormous privilege to forming monopolies, market competition still managed to whittle them away. End footnote. Democrats and free traders were from then on to link the protective tariff as the necessary condition of the drive toward trusts and monopolization. The American Sugar Refining Company, when formed in 1887, possessed 80% of the refining capacity of the country. The importance of the tariff in making the attempt is seen by comparing the British and American prices. Thus, in 1886, the price of British refined sugar, including transportation costs to the United States, was $4.09 per hundredweight. This compared to the price of American refined sugar, which amounted to $6.01. Thus, it is clear that only the protective tariff allowed the American industry to compete at all. The American Sugar Refining Co. promptly did what it had been formed to do cut production and raise prices. Its 20 plants were dismantled and reduced to 10, and it was able to raise its price to $7.01 in 1888 and $7.64 in 1889. But a grave problem quickly arose, for as the Sugar Trust cut its own production, independents, eager to take advantage of the higher prices, increased theirs so that the trust's share of the total refined sugar market began to fall precipitously, to 73% in 1888 and 66% the following year. Particularly annoying to the trust was the entrant into the industry, under the umbrella of its own price increases, of Klaus Spreckels, the sugar king of the Sandwich Islands. Spreckels built modern new plants in Philadelphia and Baltimore that were able to outcompete the older refineries. By 1891, the refining capacity of the independents had almost doubled, and prices had fallen drastically to $4.69 and reached $4.35 in 1892. The trust was in deep trouble, but the new McKinley Tariff of 1890, which put imported raw sugar on the free list, emboldened it to try once more and so the trust bought out Spreckels, merging into the grand new American Sugar Refining Company in 1892, with no less than 95% of the nation's total sugar production. But there was still a serpent in Eden, for old sugar hands, seeing their opportunity, moved into refining with new and competitive plants. Adolf Siegel, for example, posed a similar problem to the trust that Rockefeller had faced in petroleum for he apparently made a business out of building sugar refineries which the trust felt obliged to purchase. In one case, in 1895, Siegel built the U.S. Sugar Refining Company at Camden, New Jersey, which, upon purchase by the trust, was found to be totally inoperative because of the lack of a proper water supply. As a result of the new competition by independence, the price of sugar, which had risen to $4.84, fell back to $4.12 in 1894, and the American Sugar Refining Co. only had 85% of the sugar market. 
During the next two years, the refiners attempted another cartel agreement, the agreement covering 90% of sugar production. But the result was the entry into sugar refining in the next couple of years of Klaus Dorscher and the Arbuckle brothers. The Arbuckle refinery in particular was able to break the cartel with its low cost and superior product. The Dingley Tariff of 1897, which levied a high tariff on raw sugar, raising its price in the US by 18%, made times still more difficult for the sugar refinery industry. As early as 1898, the Sugar Trust only produced 75% of total national output. In 1900-1901, the industry tried once again. Arbuckle and Havemeyer formed a cartel which included almost all eastern refiners, and Dorsher and other independents merged into American to bring the Sugar Trust's share of national output back up to 90% by 1902. Sugar prices rose from $4.50 in 1897 to $5.32 in 1900. Once again, however, the Trust could not maintain a monopoly position. New sugar plants, including a modern one built by Spreckles, again entered the industry. Furthermore, beet sugar, which had been only 4% or less of total sugar production, now received a notable spur from the high Dingley tariff on raw cane sugar imports. Seeing this, the Sugar Trust tried to maintain its quasi-monopoly position by buying up beet sugar companies after 1901. But by 1905, American sugar refining was forced to abandon this costly policy as a losing proposition. When it did so in 1905, the Sugar Trust, including its cartel, only controlled 70% of total sugar production, which included 70% of total beet sugar production. Increased competition had also brought sugar prices down to $4.52 by 1906. After 1905, furthermore, when the Sugar Trust abandoned its policy of buying up competing beet sugar companies, beet sugar won a greater share of the total market, increasing from 4% in 1905 to 14% in 1911, while the Trust's share of beet sugar production fell to 54% in the same year. In fact, its control of the latter was largely soft. It controlled the majority stock of only 8% of the beet sugar market. By 1917, the share of the Sugar Trust had fallen to 28% of the total market. Indeed, the subsequent story of the American Sugar Refining Company is strongly reminiscent of the history of U.S. Steel. Quote, there is no evidence to indicate that the sugar refiners were successful in their aim of re-establishing the cartel. Consequently, with wisdom and faith, they turned to one of the more efficient cartel promoters, the government. The government was singularly successful in cartelizing the industry during World War I, during the Food Administration Act. End quote. 6. Overall Assessment A typical example of the rapid rise and fall of the trust peaking during the great merger wave of 1897-1901, was the National Biscuit Company. It was formed in 1898 as a great combination of three previous regional combinations, 
designed to monopolize the biscuit market, to purchase competitors, and to control competition by restricting production and raising prices. The result was a disaster, as the National Biscuit Company admitted in a remarkable confession in its annual report for 1901. Announcing a complete change of policy from its previous aim of controlling competition, the annual report declared, quote, When we look back over the four years since National Biscuit Company was formed, we find that a radical change has been wrought in our methods of business. When this company started, it was thought that we must control competition, and that to do this we must either fight competition or buy it. The first meant a ruinous war of prices and a greater loss of profit. The second, a constantly increasing capitalization. Experience soon proved to us that, instead of bringing success, either of these courses, if persevered, must bring disaster. This led us to reflect whether it was necessary to control competition. We soon satisfied ourselves that within the company itself, we must look for success. We turned our attention and bent our energies to improving the internal management of our business, to getting full benefit from purchasing our raw materials in large quantities, to economizing the expenses of manufacture, to systematizing and rendering more effective our selling department, and above all things and before all things, to improve the quality of our goods and the condition in which they should reach the customer. It became the settled policy of this company to buy out no competition. End quote. By the turn of the 20th century, in fact, businessmen had become disillusioned with trust combinations. In trust after trust, higher prices brought about by the combined supply attracted new and powerful competitors, and this after the trust had expended a great deal of resources in buying out previous competition. As the influential Iron Age lamented, trouble confronted the trust especially, quote, where the combination is naming confessedly high prices for its goods and is at the same time under heavy expenses on account of buying out competitors or subsidizing them to keep them out of the market. End quote. Moreover, the New York financier stated, quote, The most serious problem that confronts trust combinations today is competition from independent sources. When the papers speak of a cessation of operation in certain trust industries, they fail to mention the awakening of new life in independent plants. End quote. In his study of the success of the trusts at the end of the 19th century, Arthur S. Dewing divided the waves into the first, from the late 1880s to 1893, and the second, and by far the larger wave, from 1897 to 1901, or a little later. He concluded that the trusts came to a sudden halt simply because they turned out badly. Footnote. They did not cease because of fear of antitrust prosecution which then had barely served as a threat to mergers. End footnote. They did not succeed in suppressing competition. They did not realize the heady expectations of their founders. Shares of stock in the new trusts steadily declined, and few managed to pay dividends. Many of the trusts even failed outright. 
Taking a random sample of 35 trusts formed during both waves, Dewing found as follows, that the average earnings of the separate firms just before the formation of the trust was about 20% greater than the trust in its first year, and was also greater than the average earnings of the trust in its first 10 years, or in its 10th year. Furthermore, the average expected estimates of the promoters and bankers responsible for the trusts exceeded actual first-year earnings by 50%, and was also considerably higher than over the first 10 years. Of the 35 combinations, only four had earnings equal to expectations. There are other ways of revealing similar conclusions. Thus, of nearly 100 consolidations formed in 1899-1900, three quarters were not paying dividends in 1900. Alfred L. Bernheim's study of 109 corporations with a capitalization of $10 million and up in 1903 found that 16 failed before 1914. 24 paid no dividends during 1909-1914, and only 22 paid dividends of over 5% during this period. The average dividend for this period was a puny 4.3% for these companies. Or put another way, of the 50 largest corporations in 1909, 27 had dropped out of the 100 by 1929, while 61 of the 100 in 1909 had dropped out of the ranks by the latter year. Dewing concluded from this study that businesses who analogised from economies of scale to a quest for one big firm in their industry had committed a grave error they overlooked that there were definite limits to the economic size of a firm. In particular, managerial ability, individual human judgment and initiative are extremely scarce and cannot be automated and routinized in one giant firm. Mere large size, he pointed out, was often a handicap in competing with smaller, more mobile competitors, competitors who had lower overhead costs who could leave the industry in bad years and return in good ones, and who could shop around quietly for raw materials, without being so big as to significantly raise their own costs. Moreover, he might have added that smaller competitors were very often better innovators, less bureaucratic, and more open to new ideas and new methods. Indeed, they were not stuck with obsolescing fixed plants. Dewing concluded with these wise words, quote, I have been impressed throughout by the powerlessness of mere aggregates of capital to hold monopoly. I have been impressed too by the tremendous importance of individual innate ability, or its lack, in determining the success or failure of any enterprise. With these observations in mind, one may hazard the belief that whatever trust problem exists, will work out its own solution. The doom of the inefficient waits on no legislative regulation. It is rather delayed thereby. Restrictive regulation will perpetuate the inefficient corporation by furnishing an artificial prop to support natural weakness. It will hamper the efficient by impeding the free play of personal ambition. End quote.
We have pointed out earlier in this chapter that industrial corporations and stock shares only appeared in the mid 1890s. It is no coincidence, therefore, that it was the investment bankers who promoted and underwrote such corporations, led by J.P. Morgan, who took the lead in forming corporate mergers in the same period and attempting to achieve the alleged advantages of monopoly prices. U.S. Steel was but one example of such a failed monopoly. In manufacturing as well as railroads, then mergers as well as cartels had systematically failed to achieve the fruits of monopoly on the free market. It was time then for those industrial and financial groups who had sought monopoly to emulate the example of the railroads to turn to government to impose the cartels on their behalf. Except that even more than in the railroads, the regulation would have to be ostensibly in opposition to a business monopoly on the market, and even more would it have to be put through in conjunction with the opinion moulding groups in the society. The stage was set at the turn of the twentieth century for the giant leap into statism to become known as the Progressive Period. Chapter 4. The Third Party System – Pietists versus Liturgicals How could America experience a great leap into statism after 1900, a leap that went virtually unchallenged? What happened to the long-standing American tradition of individual liberty and laissez-faire? How could it so meekly roll over and play dead after having been dominant, or at least vibrant, during the last half of the 19th century, and for over half a century before that? To answer this question, we must explore what the new political historians, in the past decade, have been analysing as the sudden end of the third party system in the United States in the year 1896. It was that sudden collapse that spelled the doom of laissez-faire in American party politics, and paved the way for the unchallenged statism of the progressive period and indeed for the remainder of the 20th century. 1. The Third Party System For the last decade or so, political historians have been analysing not merely individual elections, but the way in which the political parties and their constituencies have interrelated, persisted and then changed over time. They have identified a series of party systems of such structural political relationships in American history. The first was between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, a conflict which began in the 1790s and continued approximately until the War of 1812. After then, America had a single party, which continued until the late 1820s, when the Democratic Party was developed to challenge the existing party and this precipitated the formation of the Whig Party in opposition. The Democrats versus the Whigs, lasting from the 1820s until the 1850s, constituted the second American party system. The formation of the Republican Party in the 1850s over the slavery question and the disappearance of the Whigs precipitated the third party system. The most important point to note is that all three party systems in the 19th century differed radically from the American party system today. 
Political scientists, journalists and the establishment generally laud the current two-party system as gloriously non-ideological, as providing very little choice between fuzzy programmes which overlap almost completely, so that the only choice in this bipartisan haze of issues is between the personalities of the candidates rather than the programmes of the parties. Political parties, and more particularly party programmes and platforms, mean very little these days in the actual conduct of government, particularly in the dominant executive branch, whether on the federal, state or local level. Deprived of meaningful choice, the public manifests increasing apathy, voter participation rates steadily drop, and more and more people call themselves independent rather than identify with any particular party. It was not always thus. In the 19th century, during all three party systems, the parties were fiercely ideological. Their constituencies were partisan, and voter participation rates in elections were very high. Platforms meant something and were battled over. So firmly drawn were the lines that it was rare for a Republican to vote Democrat or vice versa. Disenchantment in one's party was rather reflected in a failure to vote. The drive of each party, therefore, was not to capture the floating independent voter by moving toward the middle, but on the contrary to whip up the enthusiasm of its own militant supporters and thereby to bring out the new vote. Throughout the 19th century, with the single and grave exception of slavery, the Democratic Party, and before it the Democratic Republicans, was the libertarian, laissez-faire party, the party of personal liberty, of free trade, of hard money, the separation of the economy, religion, and virtually everything else from the state, the opponent of big government, high taxes, public works, internal improvements, judicial oligarchy, or federal power, the champion of the free press, unrestricted immigration, state and individual rights. The Federalists, on the other hand, and after them the Whigs and then the Republicans, were the party of statism, of big government, public works, a large public debt, government subsidies to industry, protective tariffs, opposition to aliens and immigrants, and of cheap money and government control of banking, through a central bank or, later, through the quasi-centralised national banking system. The Whigs in particular strove to use the state to compel personal morality, through a drive for prohibition, Sunday blue laws, or a desire to outlaw the Masons as a secret society. The Republicans, who were essentially the Whigs with the admixture of anti-slavery Democrats, became quite aptly known as the Party of Great Moral Ideas. After the Civil War, when slavery was no longer a blot on America, the Democrats could be a far less sullied champion of personal liberty, while the Republican drive for moral ideas became more susceptible to libertarian irony, being fully coercive and now in no sense liberating. Footnote, the Republicans, much less the Whigs, had no interest, however, in freeing the slaves in the South, only preventing an expansion of slave labour into the Western territories. End footnote. The first party system began in the 1790s, 
when the Democratic Republican Party was launched in order to combat the federalist program of economic statism. High tariffs, public works, centralised government, public debt, government control of banking, and cheap money. And of repressive federal tyranny against democratic critics in the press. The Democratic Republicans also strove to end the ultimate control of the government by a judicial oligarchy, and to end militarism by abolishing the navy and standing army. After winning with Thomas Jefferson's assumption to the presidency in 1800 and partially achieving their platform, the Democratic Republicans faltered and then themselves began to go down the road to federalism by driving toward war with their ancient foe, Great Britain. The pro-British Federalists were effectively destroyed for opposing the War of 1812, but their programme was put into effect by their foes in the course of launching and fighting a necessarily statist war. High protective tariffs, federal domestic excise taxation, a central bank, inflationary bank credit expansion, public debt, public works, and, to boot, a one-party system by the end of the war. Brooding in retirement at Monticello, Jefferson lamented at what his Virginia successors to the presidency, James Madison and James Monroe, had wrought. They had ended by installing a one-party federalism without the Federalists. Being human, Jefferson was not as keenly alive to his own crucial role in launching the drive toward war, and therefore toward the very federalism that he so bitterly deplored. Inspired and converted by separate weekend pilgrimages to Monticello, two important young politicians, Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri and especially Martin Van Buren of New York, determined to take up the mighty task of creating a new political party, a party designed to take back America from federalism and to restore the good old principles of 76, the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence, and of 98 of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions which called for a virtual revolution of states against the despotic national alien and sedition laws. Basing themselves in New York, Missouri and on the old Jeffersonians in Virginia, the new party sought a charismatic leader and found him in Andrew Jackson. The new Democratic Party was born, dedicated to personal liberty, minimal government, free trade, hard money, and the separation of government from banking. The opposition Whigs revived the nationalist-statist-federalist program, except that the Whigs were more interested in compulsory morality and restricting the flood of immigrants, and adopted demagogic democratic techniques and rhetoric, in contrast to the frankly elitist and anti-universal suffrage and anti-democratic outlook of the Federalist Party. It should be noted that in both of the first two party systems, the libertarian laissez-faire party slowly but surely began to establish itself as the dominant majority party in America. The Federalists faded with the triumph of Jefferson, but Jeffersonian principles could not survive the drive that he himself had launched toward war. In the second party system too, the Democrats began to establish themselves as the majority party and it seemed once again as if America would move rapidly toward the libertarian, laissez-faire ideal. On the federal level, the quite feasible Jacksonian plan was to have eight years of Jackson, 
8 of Van Buren and 8 of Benton. 24 solid years in which to achieve their goals. 8 years of Jackson from 1828 to 1836 was indeed succeeded by 4 years of Van Buren. Then the timetable was briefly interrupted by the victory of the first modern demagogic presidential campaign, replete with all the propaganda techniques we are now familiar with. Slogans, parades, buttons, all engineered by the master Whig political technician Thurlow Weed. But everyone knew that the Democrats, who could easily copy these techniques four years later, would win in 1844, and Van Buren prepared to resume the victorious timetable. But then the great issue of the expansion of slavery came to split the Democratic Party, in the form of admission of Texas to the Union as a slave state, and Jackson and Van Buren also split on the issue. While the Democrats remained Jacksonian in most matters, Jacksonianism was pushed to the background as the Democrats became a southern-based, pro-slave party. The Republican Party, including some northern Democrats, was then founded in the 1850s to become the party opposed to slave expansion, and then in the Civil War to uphold the unitary power of the National Union as against the right of state secession. The Third American Party System had begun. The Republican Party, which only got 40% of the popular vote in 1860, seized the opportunity presented by the South's walkout and the resulting near-one-party Congress to ram through the old Whig economic programme. Inflationary paper money, central control over banking, high tariffs, massive government subsidies to railroads, high federal excise taxation over the immoral commodities, liquor and cigarettes, plus such centralising and statist measures as conscription and the income tax. It is no wonder that the Republicans should have been dominant during and immediately after the war in the Reconstruction period. Many historians are under the erroneous impression that the Republicans continued to be dominant until 1912, or even until 1932, with only two terms of Grover Cleveland's presidency interrupting the smooth march of Republican victory. This impression, however, is mistaken. As the new political historians have reminded us, the Democratic Party captured the House of Representatives in 1874, and followed by really gaining the presidency in 1876, only to see it purloined in Congress by the Republicans in a bargain that liquidated Reconstruction in the South. From 1874 until 1896, a space of 22 years, the two parties were nip and tuck in all races for the Congress and the presidency. From 1875 to 1895, the Republicans controlled the House of Representatives in only two out of the ten sessions, reaching the peak of their control in 1888 with 51.1% of the House membership. But on the other hand, though the Democrats controlled the House in eight of the ten sessions, their peak membership was 71% in 1890, and only five times did they receive as much as 55% of the total vote. In the five presidential contests between 1876 and 1892, the Republicans captured only three races, and two of the victories, 1876 and 1888, were achieved with fewer popular votes than the Democratic nominee, 
the Republican presidential nominee did not receive a majority of the popular vote in any election between 1876 and 1892, and had a plurality only in 1880, and then by only a couple thousand votes. On the other hand, the Democrats only controlled the Senate twice in the 20-year period, in 1878-80 and 1892-94. Only once did the Republicans control the presidency and both houses of Congress at the same time, and only once did the Democrats accomplish the same feat. Furthermore, the Democrats were slowly gaining the ascendancy, so that, as happened at the end of the two previous party systems, the Democratic Party was slowly but inexorably moving toward long-run dominance. This development was embodied in the Democratic landslide to capture the House in 1890, and in Cleveland's easy return to a second term in the presidency in 1892, which carried the Democrats to control both houses of Congress for the first clean sweep since the Civil War. Footnote. The long-run decline of the Republicans in this period is seen by the fact that in 1860, the Republican Party captured 59% of the vote in the North Atlantic states, and 54% in the Midwest, while in 1892 the percentages had declined 7 percentage points, to 52% and 47%, respectively. Furthermore, the South had been re-democratized, and far more intensively than before the Civil War, after the end of the Reconstruction period. In the presidential election of 1892, the Democrats gained 46% of the vote, and the Republicans only 43%, with the rest going to minor parties. It looked as if the Democrats were on the threshold of becoming the dominant party in the United States. End footnote. And then, something happened to clobber the Democratic Party in 1896, and to reduce it to a rather pathetic minority party, at least until 1912 and more accurately until 1928, since Woodrow Wilson's election in 1912 was only made possible by a grave split within Republican ranks. What cataclysmic event occurred in 1896, so much so as to usher in a new fourth-party system for the next 32 years, will be the subject of the next few chapters. 2. Pietists versus Liturgicals the political party constituencies. In 1970, in a brilliant and seminal work titled The Cross of Culture, a social analysis of Midwestern politics, 1850-1900, Professor Paul Kleppner provided a cogent and illuminating explanation for the constituencies of the third-party systems. It is a thesis since amply confirmed by other historians. The thesis explains not only which groups tended to support which parties, but also the specific process by which that support was generated and strengthened. Briefly, the Kleppner thesis holds that pietist religious groups tended a. to favour statism, both in the personal and the economic spheres, and b. therefore consistently supported the Republicans as the statist party, while the liturgicals, consisting largely of Catholics and conservative Lutherans, a. favoured liberty, both in the personal and economic spheres, and b. therefore supported the Democrats as the Libertarian Party. Kleppner, indeed, in examining detailed voting and religious records for the Midwestern states, 
breaks down Lutherans and other Protestant groups into varying degrees of pietism and liturgicalism, and is able to show a one-to-one correlation between the degree of commitment to the liturgical outlook and the degree of voting support to the Democratic Party. The great exception to this correlation, of course, was the South, overwhelmingly pietist, and yet which voted Democratic because of the special circumstances, memories and consequences of the Civil War. The genesis of these differing world outlooks, Kleppner analyzes as beginning with basic theology. The pietists were those who held that each individual, rather than the church or the clergy, was responsible for his own salvation. Salvation was a matter not of following prescribed ritual, or even of cleaving to a certain fixed creed, but rather of an intense emotional commitment or conversion experience by the individual, even to the extent of believing himself born again in a special baptism of grace. Moreover, the outward sign, the evidence to the rest of society for the genuineness and the permanence of a given individual's conversion, was his continuing purity of behaviour. And since each individual was responsible for his own salvation, the pietists concluded that society was duty-bound to aid each man in pursuing his salvation, in promoting his good behaviour, and in seeing as best it could that he does not fall prey to temptation. The emphasis of the pietists was on converting the maximum number of persons, and in helping them to become and to remain sound. Society, therefore, in the institution of the state, was to take it upon itself to aid the weaker brethren, by various crusading actions of compulsory morality, and thus to purge the world of sin. The secular and the religious were to be conjoined. In the second half of the 19th century, the pietists concentrated on agitating for three such compulsory measures on the state and local level, to save liturgical sinners despite themselves. Prohibition to eradicate the sin of alcohol, Sunday blue laws to prevent people from violating the Sabbath, and, increasingly toward the end of the century, compulsory public schooling to Americanize the immigrants and Christianize the Catholics, and to use the schools to transform Catholics and immigrants, often one and the same, into pietistic, Protestant and nativist moulds. The pietists then typically concentrated on the purity and propriety of each individual's behaviour. They were not particularly interested in creed or formal theology, and since the emphasis was each individual's direct confrontation with Christ, they were not particularly concerned with which specific church the person might join. The typical pietists, therefore, switched denominations with relative ease. The pietists, consequently, went heavily for numerous interdenominational societies for social reform, the prohibition drives being a good case in point. Editor's footnote Rothbard would later expand on this thesis using eschatology, the doctrine of last things, and described the religious interventionists as Yankee postmillennial pietists, who were evangelized through the frenzied revivals of Reverend Charles Grandison Finney during the Second Great Awakening of the late 1820s. They were a group of pietist English descendants that lived in rural New England, upstate New York, 
northern Ohio, northern Indiana, and northern Illinois, who were post-millennialist in that they believed the world must be improved for a thousand years before Jesus would return to usher in the end of history. In order to bring about this kingdom of God, the post-millennial pietists took it as their moral duty to stamp out the sin of others, even if it required the coercive hand of government. Over time, these crusaders lost their religious zeal and became secularized, but still maintained their enthusiasm for wielding state force. End footnote. The liturgicals, on the other hand, largely Catholics and German Lutherans and also Anglicans, had a very different theological and moral outlook. For the liturgical, the path towards salvation was in the hands of the church and its priests, and what the individual needed to do was to believe in and practice the prescribed ritual. Given these intellectual rather than emotional beliefs and those rituals, the individual church member need not worry continually over his own salvation, and as far as the salvation of his fellow citizens, that could be accomplished insofar as was possible if they joined the church. The church, rather than the state, then, was in charge of morality and salvation, and hence the state need and should have nothing to do with moral and theological matters. As Professor Jensen, whose studies of the Middle West have confirmed Kleppner's findings, has put it, quote, for the liturgical, the church itself would attend to all matters of morality and salvation. Hence the state had no right to assert a role in delineating public morality. End quote. The liturgical was also rather sensibly puzzled over the intense hostility of the pietists toward alcohol, especially when Jesus himself had drunk wine. We do not believe in making sin what God made, not sin, was a typical liturgical response. To the liturgical, sin was not such impure behaviour as drinking alcohol, but heresy and refusal to believe the theological creed of the church or to obey its prescribed ritual. As Jensen summarised the difference, the Methodists expelled members for impure behaviour, the liturgicals for heresy. It was quite clear, moreover, that such theological matters as heresy and liturgy could hardly be considered matters for state intervention and enforcement. It should be noted that while liturgicals consisted mainly of such groups as Catholics and Lutherans, they also included some sects, such as Orthodox Calvinists, who emphasised creed rather than ritual, and so could not in the strict sense be called liturgical. Their attitude toward the vital importance of the particular church and of correct belief was similar, however, and this set them apart from the pietistic Protestants. Such groups included the old-school Presbyterians and a few groups of Baptists. The liturgical correctly perceived the pietist as the persistent, hectoring busybody and aggressor, hell-bent to deprive him of his Sunday beer and his voluntarily supported parochial schools, so necessary to preserve and transmit his religion and his values. While the pietist was a pestiferous crusader, the liturgical wanted nothing so much as to be left alone. It is no wonder that the Republican Party, the party of the pietists, the party that catered to prohibitionists, 
blue law agitators and compulsory public school advocates was known throughout this period as the party of great moral ideas, while the Democrats, the party of the liturgicals, the party deeply opposed to compulsory morality, were known as the party of personal liberty. Footnote. We are not trying to claim any apodictic certainty for these causal connections. That is, it is perfectly possible to have pietists who are consistent libertarians, or who are inconsistent between personal and economic liberty, and it is perfectly possible to have liturgicals who are statists or who are inconsistent. All we are claiming is that this is what the contrasting religious groups in America in the late 19th century believed, and that this is how their belief system originated and developed. We are not making any similar claims for any other time or place in world history. It should be noted, however, that the leadership on behalf of economic freedom and individual liberty taken by the British pietists in the 18th and 19th centuries, as well as earlier, may be a bit deceiving. For these dissenters or non-conformists were reacting against an established Anglican liturgical church, and they would naturally favour religious liberty when confronting a state in opposition hands. It should also be pointed out that British liberalism in that era was continually being split by the penchant of the non-conformist masses to be a in favour of prohibition and b in favour of crushing the Irish Catholics. In that way, the Liberal Party's devotion to individual liberty was repeatedly undercut and compromised. End footnote. To a late 20th century observer, one of the most puzzling things about 19th century party politics is the enormous amount of interest and passion spent on economic issues. Professors who can scarcely interest their own students in economic matters must marvel at presidential campaigns at which such esoteric matters as protective tariffs, central banking, and gold and silver standards were intense objects of general public attention and partisan debate. How did the mass of the public get interested in such arcane matters? The Kleppner analysis explains this enigma. The interest and passions of both party constituencies were first engaged on the religious-cultural, the gut-local level. The constant prods were such issues as liquor, blue laws and the public schools. Then, with partisan passions engaged on the local and religious level, the leaders and ideologists of both parties were able to widen the consciousness of their respective constituencies, to brilliantly link up the local with the national, the personal with the economic. Thus, the Republican leaders would tell their pietist constituents, you believe in strong state and local governments to protect the morals of the public. In the same way, you should favour strong federal government to protect Americans from cheap foreign competition, to expand their purchasing power through plentiful money and cheap credit, through greenbacks, government control of the banking system, or free silver, government subsidies to business, and large-scale public works expenditures. At the same time, the democratic leaders would tell their liturgical constituents, you know that the pietists are determined to deprive you of your wholesome pleasures, such as beer and Sunday sports, in the name of their own peculiar version of morality. They are trying to take away your parochial schools. 
Now the same pietists, the same republicans, who are nagging and oppressing you on the state level, are also trying to interfere with your liberty and property on the federal level. They are trying to expand their local moral paternalism to national economic paternalism. They are trying to tax you to subsidise privileged interests. They are trying to keep you from consuming cheap foreign products. And they are trying to deprive you of the fruits of your thrift and savings through cheap money and inflation. In short, both parties were able to link up statism and big government in Washington and at home to connect the economic and the personal. The Republicans, the party of statism, lined up squarely against the Democrats, the party of liberty. Editor's footnote. The post-Civil War laissez-faire and hard-money Democrats were known as the Bourbons. They were generally centred in the Northeast, but were also in the Midwest. On the other hand, there were the much more statist and inflationist, populist Democrats based in the South and Far West. The Democratic upheaval in 1896 refers to the populist faction defeating the Bourbon democracy and transforming the party from one that championed laissez-faire to one that was much more supportive of government intervention. End footnote. In those decades, there was continuing drift of both parties from the centre, no deliberate fuzzing of the issues and of all differences. On the contrary, the differences were emphasised in order to appeal to the respective constituencies and to keep their interest fired up. Many historians have concluded that throughout most of the 19th century, there was an anti-immigrant animus by native-born Americans and that the Democrats became the immigrant-based party while the Republicans attracted the nativists. But Kleppner shows that the basic division was not really between native-born and immigrants, or between English-speaking and foreigners. Pietistic Scandinavian immigrants, for example, identified with the native wasps very quickly and readily voted Republican. The real division was pietist versus liturgical, and it so happened that the bulk of immigrants were indeed liturgicals, so as to make these immigrants a made-to-order target for pietist bigotry. Restricting immigration would almost certainly hit far more severely at liturgicals, and hence benefit the Republican Party. The emergence of different forms of the Christian religion as the key to political conflicts lends an ironic twist to American history. For twice in the history of America, Christianity had virtually died out. The first time was in the early decades of the 18th century, when Calvinism had given way to the new Enlightenment trends of liberalism and rationalism. But Orthodox Christianity revived in the 1730s and 1740s with the Great Awakening, a new form of pietist Christianity which swept the colonies through the revivalist and evangelical methods of intensely emotional and frenzied conversions. But then, late in the 18th century, Christianity began to die once more, to be replaced by the rationalist deism of the Enlightenment. By the time the United States was founded, it was clear that Christianity was giving way across the board, among the upper classes and among the general public. For the second time, however, Christianity made a remarkable comeback, 
and once again through a series of frenzied revivals that took place throughout the country in the 1820s and 1830s. These revivals, of course, were necessarily pietist, and pietism's emotional and crusading tone and thrust began with this final upsurge of the early 19th century. Apart from a few Anglicans, there had been very few liturgicals in the America of the 1790s. Essentially, native wasps were pietist. The ranks of the liturgicals were to be fed during the 19th century by Catholic and Lutheran immigrants from Europe. From the beginning of the revival movement in the 1820s, the resurrected pietists began to form organisations to root out sin among their fellow men. Their two dominant concerns were the sins of slavery and of alcohol. At first, the idea was to ban the saloon, presumably the central iniquity in the dissemination of alcohol. By the late 1830s, the pietists had escalated their demands to include total abstinence and total prohibition, including wine and beer, as well as hard liquor. In 1851, the pietists began to succeed, getting liquor totally banned in Maine. This step was followed by numerous other prohibition laws or constitutional amendments in 12 states during the early 1850s. After 1855, however, the pietists temporarily abandoned their prohibitionist crusade to concentrate on slavery. After the Civil War, the pietists were able to devote all their energies to the evils of alcohol. In 1868, the pietistic prohibitionists founded a secret society, the Good Templars, which soon had 400,000 members. In Michigan in the following year, the Templars helped form the Prohibitionist Party. The foundation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union followed in 1874. By the 1880s, prohibition had become the leading political issue in the Middle West and in most of the rest of the country. 3. Pietists versus Liturgicals in the Midwest The pietist liturgical analysis has been worked out most fully for the vitally important Midwestern states, the area where Kleppner himself did his pioneering research, concentrating particularly on three critical states, Michigan, Ohio and Wisconsin. In the Midwest, the Republicans began in the 1860s with a substantial lead, obtaining approximately 55% in the presidential elections, while the Democrats obtained only 44%. But then after 1874, the Republicans could no longer obtain a clear majority. The Republican vote ranged from 49% to 52% from 1876 to 1888, and then fell to 47% in 1892. In Michigan, Ohio and Wisconsin, the Republicans fell below 50% of the vote by 1874, and never really gained a majority after that. The Democratic rise did not match the Republican decline the Democratic vote in the Midwest ranging narrowly from 45% to 47% in the presidential contests from 1884 to 1892. It should not be thought that there was any significant shift of blocks of voters from Republican to Democratic. On the contrary, two forces were at work, a defection of Republican voters to third parties, especially the prohibitionists, and a shift of the relative voting population 
so that strong Republican areas became a smaller proportion and strong Democratic areas a larger proportion of the total vote. As Kleppner points out, the nip and tuck struggle in the Midwest was in no sense urban versus rural, categories that historians tend to look for in explaining conflict. Elections were extremely close, for example, in all the urban areas of the region. In 1888, in the 14 largest cities of Michigan, the Democrats averaged 48% of the vote, while the Republicans averaged the same 48%. In the 22 largest cities in Ohio, the respective averages were 48% and 49%. And in the nine major cities in Wisconsin, the Democrats averaged 46% and the Republicans 45%. It could not get closer than that. What is more, there had been little change in these relative percentages since the 1876 presidential race. Neither could any class differentiation in voting be detected within the urban wards. In 1888, the correlation between the democratic percentage and the percentage of working class in the wards was an extremely low plus 0.035, a figure very close to zero. In Detroit, one wealthy ward gave the Democrats 46% of the vote, while another voted a substantial 56% for the democracy. On the other hand, one very poor ward voted over 70% Democratic, while another even poorer ward voted only 47%. On the other hand, if we examine the religious composition of the wards, the party constituencies become clear. The strongest Democratic ward was the most heavily Catholic, largely Polish while another poor and heavily working-class ward had a low democratic vote and it was very heavily native-born and Protestant. Similarly, in Milwaukee, while the four wealthiest wards only voted 40% democratic in 1888, the five poorest only voted 37%. The poorest and most working-class ward, on the other hand, also voted the strongest democratic in the city, 68%. But another poor and working-class ward was also the weakest democratic, 13%. The explanation is that the former was almost wholly Polish-Catholic, while the latter was strongly Protestant. In Chicago in the same year, the correlation between the percentage of Catholics in each ward and the percentage voting democratic was a very high plus 0.90 and this correlation persisted whether within lower-class or upper-class wards, the former wards correlating at plus 0.88 and the latter at plus 0.90. Orthodox historians have claimed that the farmers in this period were overwhelmingly Republican. But the difference was not very great, and in Ohio in 1888, the parties tied, Republicans at 49%, Democrats at 48%. There was no significant correlation, furthermore, between party votes and the degree of rural prosperity. In fact, townships of the same economic level, within the same rural county, often differed widely in their party affiliation. There was no visible correlation either by occupation. Neither was there any native-born versus immigrant bloc. Far from being a monolith, immigrants varied widely in their voting patterns. The key then for both rural and urban areas was ethnic religious factors, which in contrast to the economic have not been considered real by most historians. Let us, following Paul Kleppner's research, 
go down the list of ethnic religious groups and examine their voting records. Historians have been seduced by the prominence of Karl Schurz, German immigrant and leading liberal Republican, into believing that the Germans were largely Republican. Editor's footnote. After the Civil War, there were two main factions of the radical Republicans. The first, headed by Charles Sumner, was in favour of free trade and resuming specie payments. The second, headed by Thaddeus Stevens, was in favour of high tariffs and greenbacks. The Sumner faction lost out and eventually morphed into the Liberal Republicans, who, in addition to the above policies, were in favour of ending Reconstruction and especially enacting civil service reform, driven by their Northern Yankee post-millennial background. They would later be known as Mugwumps, or independent Northeastern voters who favoured free market policies and civil service reform. End footnote. But Schurz was an anti-clerical liberal who spoke only for his own small group of prominent anti-clericals. Most Germans were staunchly Catholic or Lutheran, who would tend to reach against rather than follow the anti-clericals. Most Germans were democratic and anti-republican. Footnote. Even the great Schurz, when campaigning for the Republicans in his own hometown, was greeted by his fellow German-Americans with a barrage of rotten eggs and shouts of Ein Verdammt Republikaner. End footnote. By the late 1880s, there were approximately one and a half million German Protestants in the Middle West, and another one and a half million Catholics. The German Catholics were overwhelmingly democratic. In every section, urban or rural, of every state in the Midwest, on every economic level, and in every occupation. Every single German Catholic parish voted Democratic from 1876 to 1888. The one million Lutherans were grouped in diverse sects, ranging from conservative and ultra-liturgical down to largely pietist. The proportion voting Democratic correlates one-to-one with the degree by which each sect was liturgical. Thus, the most liturgical group was the Wisconsin Synod, which voted overwhelmingly Democratic. The next most liturgical group was the Missouri Synod, which voted less heavily Democratic, and so down the line. A second factor determining voting was the province of Germany from which the voters had originally hailed. But here too, different provinces of Lutherans differed in the degree to which they were liturgical or pietist. Pietism was strongest in southern and western Germany, especially in Württemberg, while it was weakest in northern and eastern Germany, in particular Pomerania. Hence the Pomeranians were the strongest Democrats, and the Württembergers were the least Democratic. Footnote. The rank order of Democratic voting, as well as degree of liturgicalism, was as follows, beginning with the most Democratic province. Pomeranians, Hanoverians, Mecklenburgers, Oldenburgers, Palatines, and Württembergers. End footnote. The most liturgical provincial group was the Old Lutherans, who had come early to the United States from Pomerania in the years 1839 to 1845. They had emigrated in reaction to the attempts of the Prussian monarchy to compel the unification of the Lutheran with the Reformed churches. 
The old Lutherans were therefore fiercely anti-evangelical and anti-pietist, and their townships tended to vote far more democratic than others. Even the old Lutherans, as with the other provinces, split in accordance with the degree of their devotion to liturgy. Thus the ultra-liturgical among the old Lutherans joined the Wisconsin Synod, while those rather less devoted to liturgy entered into the conservative but less rigorous Missouri Synod. As we might expect, the most heavily democratic of the German Lutherans were the districts peopled by old Lutheran members of the Wisconsin Synod. For example, let us consider two townships in Wisconsin of old Lutheran Germans. Lebanon Township, Dodge County, consisting of members of the Wisconsin Synod, averaged no less than 90% Democratic from 1870 to 1888. On the other hand, McQuon Township, Azorki County, consisting of old Lutherans, Missouri Synod, averaged 75% Democratic during that period. On the other hand, if we take the Pomeranians who were not old Lutherans, they were far less democratic than the latter, but again, within that group, the Wisconsin Synod members were far more democratic than the Missouri Synod. Thus, within the same county of Wisconsin, Marathon County, Berlin Township, made up of non-old Lutheran Pomeranians of the Wisconsin Synod, voted 76% democratic in 1880, while Texas Township, consisting of Pomeranians of the Missouri Synod, voted only 47% Democratic in that year. The Missouri Synod, in its turn, was far more liturgical than other German Lutheran groups. A striking contrast may be seen between two groups of non-old Lutheran Pomeranians in the same Presque Isle County in Michigan. In 1888, the Missouri Synod Pomeranians, who made up the voters of Moltke Township in that county, voted 59% Democratic. On the other hand, Bismarck Township, comprised of Pomeranian members of the Pietistic General Council, voted only 8% Democrat in the same year. The Mecklenburgers were less liturgical and less democratic than the Pomeranians, but again the Wisconsin Synod members were more democratic than the Missouri or other synods. Thus, Greenville Township in Outagamie County, Wisconsin, a Wisconsin Synod Mecklenburger area, voted 59% Democratic, while Plymouth Township, Sheboygan County, made up of Missouri Synod Mecklenburgers, voted 36% Democrat. And in the same Marquette County in Wisconsin, made up of a mixed group of Pomeranians and Mecklenburgers, Mecken Township, consisting of members of the Wisconsin Synod, voted 72% Democratic, while Crystal Lake Township of the Missouri Synod voted only 46% Democrat. A third factor influencing voting patterns was the backlash effect. That is, in those townships or wards where opposing religious groups lived side by side, friction and hostility came much more intensely to the fore. In particular, in those townships where German Lutherans even highly liturgical ones, had to rub elbows with their ancient foes, the ultra-liturgical Catholics, the Lutherans tended to vote more heavily Republican. A striking example is two townships in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. In Michicot Township, made up of Wisconsin Synod Germans, the vote in 1880 was 87% Democratic. But in Manitowoc Township, 
consisting of a mixed group of Wisconsin Synod and German Catholics, the Lutherans, in reaction, voted Republican en masse, making the total Democratic vote only 33%. The German sectarians, evangelical and pietistic to the core, advocates of prohibition and a holy Sabbath, voted largely Republican. The German evangelicals voted heavily Republican, as did the United Brethren and the German Methodist Episcopals. On the other hand, the German Reformed Church, though pietistic, hated the more extreme German evangelicals and voted mildly democratic, although the vote fluctuated considerably over time. In general, the sectarian groups, in the backlash effect, voted more strongly Republican if living near other, more liturgical Germans, while they were willing to vote more evenly for the Democrats if there were no other German religious groups in the vicinity. The Scandinavians, whether recent immigrants or not, voted very strongly anti-democratic. Footnote. The percentage of democratic or anti-democratic is a better gauge than the percentage of Republican, since such third parties as the Prohibitionists were ultra-pietist, and thereby should be added to the Republicans to constitute the anti-democratic vote. End footnote. This included the Norwegian Lutherans, whose votes for the Democratic Party varied from 0 to 38%, and most places fluctuated only from 0 to 8%. Why was this true even of the Norwegian Synod, which tended to be liturgical? The reasons were rooted in recent Norwegian history. The Norwegian Lutheran Church was a compulsory state church, one that was highly formalised and liturgical. By the turn of the 19th century, a pietistic reaction took place in Norway, led by Hans Nielsen Hauger, which was revivalist and evangelical. The Haugians, however, formed a movement within the state Lutheran church, and never broke off from the official church. And since the Norwegian church had a very low ratio of clergy to population, there grew up a great many lay services in the country, headed by Haugian laymen. So influential were the Haugians that a less pietistic but highly influential movement, the Johnsonian Awakening, headed by Giesel Johnson, developed within the state church in the 1840s and 1850s. The pietistic Johnsonian pastors were willing to work with the more extremely pietistic Haugian laymen to reform the church. The result was a thoroughgoing pietizing or evangelizing of the Norwegian Synod. Hence, while in the United States the Haugians, headed by Elling Eelsen, broke off from the Norwegian Synod to form their own sect, both wings of Norwegian Lutherans were heavily pietistic and hence strongly anti-democratic. But whereas the Norwegian Synod Lutherans ranged between 0 and 38% democratic, the more extreme Haugians tended to vote about 5% democratic. Both wings were strongly anti-alcohol and in favour of stern anti-Sabbath-breaking laws. The Swedish Lutherans, for their part, were even more Republican than the Norwegians, ranging from 0 to 28% democratic. The Swedes, pastors as well as laymen, had about all been pietistic dissenters within the established liturgical church of Sweden. It is clear from the Norwegian and the Swedish examples 
that the Democratic versus Republican breakdown was not really native versus immigrant. For in contrast to Catholic immigrants, the pietistic Scandinavian immigrants took their place very promptly with the Republican Party. Even though the Norwegian Synod operated their own parochial schools, more important to them were the pietistic issues of the drinking of liquor and the desecration of the Sabbath. The British Americans, English, Cornish and Welsh, were pietist and were also heavily republican and anti-democratic. Within the Gaelic British community, the ardently pietistic Welsh Methodists were more strongly anti-democrat than the Cornish Methodists. Thus, in Iowa County, Wisconsin, two townships made up mainly of Cornish Methodists, Dodgeville and Mineral Point, voted 34% and 44% Democratic respectively in 1880, whereas Linden and Mifflin townships, both largely Welsh Methodists, voted 25% and 24% Democratic. And in Columbia County, Wisconsin, Hazel Green Township, which was mainly Cornish Methodist, voted 47% Democratic, while nearby Cortland Township, being Welsh Methodist, voted only 18% Democratic. In Michigan, on the other hand, the Cornish voted about 20% less Democratic than they did in Wisconsin, for in the former state there were constant battles between the Cornish and the Irish Catholics, who were heavily Democratic. Again, the backlash effect was at work. A fascinating example of a meaningful religious breakdown of even a township vote was Wilkesville Township in Vinton County, Ohio. Wilkesville Township in 1880 voted 51% Democratic. But this moderate figure conceals a dramatic split between two precincts within the township, a split that took place even though both precincts were very poor farming areas. And yet the eastern precinct voted 21% Democratic, while the western precinct voted 72%. The difference was that the eastern precinct was English and Welsh Methodist, while the western precinct was Irish Catholic. As for the Irish, the Catholics, both urban and rural, were very strongly democratic, while the Protestants, being pietist, were equally strongly republican. Among the Canadians, the Protestant English Canadians were heavily republican, while the French Catholics were equally strongly democratic. We can see the ethnic religious factor at work again within the same occupational group. Barragher Township in Barragher County, Michigan, and Salt Marie Township in Chippewa County, both lumbering areas which were French-Canadian, voted heavily Democratic, 78% and 67% in 1876, respectively. Also in Chippewa, on the other hand, Pickford, the English-Canadian lumbering township, voted strongly Republican in 1888, only 36% Democratic. And Hiawatha Township in Schoolcraft County also English-Canadian and lumbering, voted only 22% Democratic in 1876. Among the Dutch, as we would now expect, the Catholics were strongly Democratic, racking up 94% of the vote in some precincts in 1876, while the Reformed were strongly anti-Democratic, voting as low as 19%. The Dutch Reformed Church of Michigan was less Calvinistic than one might expect, for in the 1830s in Holland, 
a pietistic New Light secession occurred in the Reformed Church, led by Gisbertus Voitus. Voitus stressed pietism and puritanical conduct and opposed a formal orthodox creed. A group of Voitus followers emigrated from Holland to western Michigan in 1846, led by Albertus Christian van Ralter. By the 1850s, however, a group of rather more traditional Calvinists broke off from the Van Raltian Dutch Reformed Church and formed the Christian, or true, Reformed Church. As we might expect, while both groups of Dutch Reformed in Michigan were anti-democratic, the Van Ralter faction was far more so. Thus, in Ottawa County, a Dutch Protestant stronghold, the Dutch Reformed townships of Georgetown and Zeeland voted 38% and 33% Democratic in 1876. But Blenden and Oliver townships in the same county, which contained more Dutch Christian Reformed members, voted 46% Democratic in the same year. The natives, defined as the second generation of native-born, who generally had emigrated from New England or Middle Atlantic states, tended to vote Republican, but the proportions varied greatly, not by economic status or by state of origin, but by the degree of pietism. The great exception is migrants from the South, who tended to keep supporting their sectional loyalty and vote Democratic. Here, the Southern Presbyterians tended to be less strongly Democratic and hence less tied to past struggles than the Southern Baptists or the Disciples of Christ. Among these old-stock religious sects, highly pietistic New York Methodists, the Congregationalists, and the Free Will Baptists tended to be very strongly Republican, while the less pietistic and more rationalistic Presbyterian was strongly Republican, but not nearly as heavily. The lesser degree of support for Republicans among Presbyterians reflected a split between the old-school and united Presbyterians who were largely liturgical, and the new school, pietists. The two wings had formally reunited in 1869, but the fundamental differences remained. For their part, the New York Baptists were about evenly split, again reflecting the fragmentation of Baptist sects between varying degrees of pietist or liturgical. Thus, the small group of free-will Baptists were ultra-pietist, as can be seen in the table below. On the other hand, the primitive Baptists were ultra-Calvinists, and therefore liturgical. The far larger group of regular Baptists were themselves fragmented, most local churches being Pietist, and others, such as the Landmarkians, being liturgical. The Pietistic Quakers were strongly Republican, but they too were divided. The Quakers from Pennsylvania, in Penn Township, Cass County, Michigan, voted 41% Democratic in 1876, while the Quakers who had moved from Pennsylvania to North Carolina, got fiercely involved in the fight against slavery, and then moved west, voted only 17% Democratic in Calvin Township of the same county. Within the Catholic groups, all were Democratic but some were more overwhelmingly so than others. The Poles and Irish tended to be most overwhelmingly democratic, followed slightly behind by the Germans, Dutch and Bohemians, and then by the French Acadians and Old French Catholics of French extraction. 
The non-Catholic Bohemians, in contrast, tended to vote Republican. Paul Kleppner presents a ranked tabulation of the average democratic voting percentages of the religious groups in an illuminating way to summarize the above conclusions. He divides them into natives, second-generation and older-stock Native Americans, and immigrants, including actual immigrants and first-generation born in the United States. The table is as follows. Proportion voting Democratic Immigrant religious groups Irish Catholics, 95% Polish Catholics, 95% German Catholics, 85% Dutch Catholics, 85% Bohemian Catholics, 80% French Canadians, 75% Old French, 70% German Lutherans, 55% German Reformed, 55% Danish Lutherans, 45%. Dutch Christian Reformed, 45%. German Sectarians, 35%. Dutch Reformed, 30%. Norwegian Lutherans, 30%. Cornish Methodists, 25%. English Canadians, 15%. Swedish Lutherans, 10%. Irish Protestants, 5%. Welsh Methodists, 5%, and Norwegian Horgians, 5%. Native Religious Groups Disciples of Christ, 60%. Southern Baptists, 60%. Southern Presbyterians, 55%. New York Baptists, 45%. Presbyterians, 30%. Quakers, 15%. Congregationalists, 10%, New York Methodists, 10%, and Free Will Baptists, 5%. With the ethno-religious demographics of the Midwest broken down, we can now begin to analyse the crucial political issues that consumed the region in the late 1880s and early 1890s, which brings us one step closer towards understanding the election of 1896. 4. Reform and the Drive for Prohibition We have pointed out that in the early 1850s, the Pietists had managed to outlaw alcohol in 12 states. The leading Midwestern states, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, Iowa and Indiana, were among those who joined the drive, and the Minnesota Territory also outlawed liquor. In the resurgent drive for prohibition after the Civil War, the Prohibitionists attempted to pass constitutional amendments outlawing liquor in all the Midwestern states in the early 1880s. Added to this drive was a move for local option laws for prohibiting the saloon in numerous counties, cities and townships. As in most of the United States, prohibition was the most vital issue in the Middle West during the 1880s. The Catholics, as we have indicated, were overwhelmingly opposed to prohibition. There emerged within the Catholic Church, however, and among the Irish-American clergy, a quasi-pietistic movement akin to French Jansenism, which pervaded the French Church and had deeply influenced Irish seminarians studying in France since the 18th century. Led by Archbishop John Ireland of St. Paul, 
This pietistic movement stressed evangelistic missionary fervor, as well as strict personal moral standards of behavior. Archbishop Ireland, while not in favor of total prohibition of alcohol, did take a quasi-prohibitionist stance, leading a Catholic temperance movement, condemning saloons, and urging local option prohibition, as well as very high license fees to be imposed on saloons. Ireland, in fact, was a founder of the Anti-Saloon League, which was to take the lead in the drive for total prohibition. In his quasi-prohibitionist stance, Ireland was supported by other neo-Jansenist bishops, including Cardinal James Gibbons of Baltimore, Bishop John Spaulding of Peoria, and Bishop John Keane of Dubuque. He also found many adherents in the Paulist order. The neo-Jansenists formed the Catholic Total Abstinence Union and held Catholic retreats that were organized to closely resemble pietistic Protestant revival meetings. With his beliefs, it is not surprising that Archbishop Ireland was less than wholly devoted to the Catholic parochial schools and was himself an ardent member and advocate of the Republican Party. The pietistic softness on prohibition of this small circle of clerics had little influence among the Irish Catholic masses, much less the Catholic voters of other ethnic groups. Indeed, both the Germans and the Poles resented what they considered to be Irish hegemony within the American church. The Germans were bitter also about Archbishop Ireland and about what they considered to be a Jansenistic trend and an under-emphasis on liturgy in the American church. Ireland they denounced as a Puritan Republican who was bent on Protestantizing the Catholic Church. The Protestant Episcopal Church was firmly anti-prohibitionist, particularly its Anglican or High Church wing, which was dominant in the Middle West. The only prohibitionists among them were in the far less liturgical Low Church minority. The views of the Anglicans on prohibition were well expressed by Bishop Charles C. Grafton of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Puritanism, he declared, tries to lessen the temptation to intemperance, quote, by force, law, or prohibition. It is a judicial mode of dealing with a moral problem. The church looks rather to the aid of moral restraint and to the aid of grace. For great as is the evil of any fleshly sin, it often, by the shame it brings, leads to repentance. While on the other hand, the spiritual sins of pride and self-sufficiency are more deadly because unsuspected and more lasting. End quote. Among the Presbyterians, the more doctrinally oriented Calvinists tended to be wets, in favor of drinking in moderation. It should not be surprising that the high church Episcopalians were mainly Democrats, while the low church members tended to support the Republican Party. An example was the leading wet Presbyterian minister from New York City, the Reverend Howard Crosby. The leading Calvinist theologian in America, Charles Hodge of Princeton University, favored the use of more liturgy in the Presbyterian Church and was also bitterly opposed to prohibition. Two leading Presbyterian laymen, who faced each other twice for the presidency of the United States, reflected the differences within the church in their attitudes toward religion and politics.
the outstanding Calvinistic Presbyterian attorney from Buffalo, Grover Cleveland, was the son of a Calvinist clergyman, a leading Democrat, a wet, and a bon vivant. The prim, pietistic Benjamin Harrison of Indiana was a dry and a leading Republican. As for the German Lutherans, the conservative and liturgical Missouri Synod, a wet group in favour of moderate drinking, spoke for many liturgicals when it denounced prohibition as directly adverse to the spirit, the method and the aim of Christian morals. For the prohibitionist, instead of relying on God's spirit, puts his trust in fallible legislators, the tricks and treacheries of politicians. The change in ethno-religious demographic factors was crucial to the change in the prohibition question, and hence the overall question of the Midwest. Chapter 5. The Democratic Triumph of 1892 1. The Road to Democratic Triumph 1892 was the great year of resurgent democratic triumph. It was the first time since the Civil War that the Democratic Party controlled the presidency as well as both houses of Congress. The 3% difference in the popular vote, Democrats 46%, Republicans 43% and minor parties 11%, was by far the largest gap in the totals since the Democratic presidential candidate Samuel Tilden swept the popular vote in 1876. In the Middle West, the Republicans had carried all six states, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana and Iowa, in 1888. Now the Democrats won three, Illinois, Indiana and Wisconsin, and almost tied in Ohio. The great shift in Democratic fortunes, however, had come two years earlier in the congressional elections of 1890. Before 1890, the House of Representatives was 51.1% Republican. After 1890, it was no less than 71% Democratic. The Democrats controlled nearly every large state. In the Middle West, the Democratic peak in the House came in 1890, with slippage taking place in the 1892 elections. Put another way, the Middle West in 1888 was a Republican stronghold. Of the six states, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Iowa, Michigan and Wisconsin, the Republicans had six governors and the majority of five congressional delegations. Only Indiana was a doubtful state. Yet by 1889 to 1890, a spectacular reversal had taken place. Nearly all the governors and all the congressional delegations were Democratic. One partial explanation was the slight but steady decline in Republican fortunes and improvement in Democratic status throughout this period. This relative shift cannot be ascribed to shifts in the urban and rural electorate. It is true that the urban population of the electorate in the Middle West rose from 1870 to 1890, but the pattern of slight decline in Republican fortunes occurred similarly in both urban and rural areas. The key to the changing fortunes was, as we have indicated, ethno-religious. The main key, as we shall see below, was the liquor question, and the conflicting views on the issue held by pietists and by liturgicals. In Michigan, Ohio and Wisconsin, for example, over the 20-year period there was a marked decline in the Baptist and Methodist proportion of the electorate, and a marked rise in Catholics and Lutherans. 
and among the Lutherans it was the Germans who were growing the most rapidly. By 1890, the Catholics were the largest single religious group in the region. Part of the reason was a higher birth rate among Catholics, both Irish and German. More important was the heavy immigration during the 1870s and 1880s, an immigration in which the largest role was played by the Irish and German Catholics and Lutherans. This and other such Catholic immigration, such as the Poles and Bohemians, far outstripped the immigration of Scandinavian Lutherans. At its inception in the 1850s, the Republican Party, centering on opposition to the expansion of slavery, was in that sense a moralistic party. It therefore attracted other crusading groups, including prohibitionists, strict Sabbatarians, German anti-clericals, and know-nothings, who wished to curtail or eliminate foreign immigration. Editor's footnote. The know-nothing, or the American Party, was an anti-immigration and anti-Catholic party in the 1850s. End footnote. In short, it was pietism in politics, and hence outside of the South, the Republican Party attracted the Methodists, Presbyterians, Norwegian Lutherans, and Dutch Reformers. On the other hand, the Democratic Party, as the traditional party of laissez-faire, attracted the immigrant Catholics and German Lutherans. After the war, it seemed clear to knowledgeable politicians that the German Lutherans were the swing vote, since the other religious groups were firm in one party or the other. By their quixotic choice in 1872 of the New York Republican reformer and prohibitionist Horace Greeley for president, the epitome of the pietistic crusader, the Democrats totally alienated the German Lutherans and went down to a crushing defeat. Editor's footnote Horace Greeley was also a supporter of the protectionist tariff, anathema to the traditional members of the democracy, and so a group of the more classical liberal members, later called the Bourbon Democrats, nominated Charles O'Connor on the straight-out Democratic ticket for president in 1872, although he did not officially accept the nomination. End footnote. As a result, the Democratic resurgence was postponed for another four years. Ohio and Wisconsin were conquered by the Republicans in 1872, but the party promptly threw away its winning momentum, for in both states the Republicans quickly enacted prohibition statutes under the pressure of the women's prayer crusade against alcohol. The reaction of the German Lutherans to this hated prohibition was intense, as the Republicans lost both states in the elections of the following year. In Wisconsin, the Republican vote fell from 55% to 45% the following year, while in Ohio, the Republican poll fell from 53% to 48%. The Republican politicos then began the process of separating themselves from the bulk of their constituency in order to woo the German Lutheran swing vote. The risk was that their militancy would be angered and fall away from the cause or shift to minor parties. The manoeuvre was to woo the German Lutherans by playing down prohibition and Sunday blue laws, while stressing anti-Catholicism and opposition to subsidising Catholic parochial schools with tax-supported funds. Thus, future President Rutherford B. Hayes won the Ohio gubernatorial race in 1875 by at one and the same time bitterly attacking the Catholic menace to the public schools and, although denouncing liquor, also coming out against government-mandated prohibition. Editor's footnote. 
Hayes was from the pro-reformer group of Republicans described earlier, and he was also ardently pro-hard money, which further helped him win over the Germans. His Democratic rival, Governor William Allen, supported soft money policies. End footnote. Similarly, Harrison Ludington, Republican nominee for governor of Wisconsin in 1875, stridently denounced the Catholics and public funds for parochial Catholic schools. At the same time, he scored heavily with the Lutherans for being the mayor of Milwaukee, who refused to enforce that city's prohibition law. On the other hand, part of the steady Republican decline during these decades may be attributed to the steady alienation of the ultra-pietist Republicans by the leaders' moderation on prohibition and Sabbath laws. We have seen that the Republican decline in the 1870s and 1880s was greater than the Democratic increase. The difference consisted of third-party defections from the Republican ranks, to such parties as the Greenbackers in the 1870s and later the Prohibitionists. Apart from the ex-Southerners, the Greenbackers, crusaders for inflationary paper money, in the Midwest were ex-Republicans. In any case, they were almost all pietists, Methodists, Baptists, and Norwegian and Swedish Lutherans. There was hardly a Catholic or a German Lutheran amongst them. Editor's footnote. Kleppner argues that the fact that many pietist leaders actually attacked Greenbackism was implicit recognition that the philosophy had large appeal among the rank-and-file Yankee pietists. End footnote. During the 1880s, the prohibitionist voters were almost all defecting Republicans, including the Scandinavian Lutherans, but above all the Methodists, Native, Welsh and Cornish. Despite these defections, the Republican leaders, seeing the rapid growth of German Lutherans among the electorate, increasingly committed themselves to the policy of moderation on prohibition and Sabbatarian legislation. In Ohio, the Republican Party was torn between the moderate policy of John Sherman and William McKinley and the strident prohibitionism of Joseph Foraker. It became increasingly clear during the 1880s that Foraker succeeded in his races for governor only when he moderated his prohibitionism and confined his pietist appeals to denouncing the Catholics for undermining the public schools. In Detroit, too, the Republican businessmen formed the Michigan Club in 1884 and came to dominate Republican politics in the city. The Michigan Club turned sharply away from old-stock pietism and turned toward appealing to the immigrant German Lutherans. As a result, in 1890, the Republicans nominated an urban wet for governor of Michigan after the Democrats, in a remarkable and ominous hint for the future, had nominated an old-stock, pietistic dry. We come then to the question, why the great shift toward the Democrats in 1890? In Ohio and Wisconsin, the reason was a massive shift of German Lutherans from the Republicans to the Democrats, so much so as to carry Wisconsin for Grover Cleveland. Michigan, which will be discussed in more depth below, was an unusual case. Here, the 1890 shift toward the Democrats took place among native Protestants in southern Michigan, while Catholics strengthened their support for the Democrats in the Upper Peninsula. The native Protestants were attracted by the unusual Democratic nomination for governor of a pietistic dry. Two years later, however, the Democrats returned to their traditional nominating pattern. The native pietists went back to the Republicans 
while the former Democrats returned to their old party. Orthodox historians explain the massive rise in democratic fortunes in 1890 to reaction against the high McKinley tariff of that year. But for one thing, the Ohio shift came the year before, in 1889, and it has not been explained why the German Lutherans should suddenly get so upset about the protective tariff. Neither can the rise of the Populist Party in 1892 be said to have affected this shift between the two major parties. Overall, the Populists attracted about as many Democrats as Republicans, and they attracted far more Prohibitionists than either of the major parties. The inflationary and strongly pro-statist populists were basically a farmer party of native British, Norwegian, and Swedish pietists. As a rural pietist party, it is no wonder that the bulk of its voters had been prohibitionists. To explain the great democratic rise in 1890, we must examine the situation in various special states. Ohio, as we have seen, shifted strongly democratic first. In 1889, largely because of the change in the German Lutheran vote, the explanation for this change is clear: an upsurge in prohibitionism. Ohio had never gone prohibitionist, thanks to the voting strength of the Cincinnati Germans. The Republican Dries had submitted a constitutional amendment to outlaw liquor in 1883, but the voters had defeated the proposal, failing to get a whole loaf. The prohibitionists decided on half: strict and expensive licensing laws, particularly on saloons. In 1885, the Ohio legislature imposed a stiff tax on liquor, and it followed in 1888 by raising the tax and by prohibiting the sale of alcohol on Sunday. The Ohio officials sagely failed to enforce the law in German areas. As a result, in the following year, the Cincinnati Law and Order Association. Known locally as the Evangelical Stranglers, petitioned Governor Foraker to enforce the law prohibiting the sale of liquor on Sunday. Foraker now hearkened to his old prohibitionist faith. He accepted the petition, and he summarily removed the Cincinnati Police Board and appointed a new one to enforce the law. This action precipitated the Saloon Keepers' Rebellion. Saloon keepers and liquor dealers organized a league for the preservation of citizens' rights to combat the law. Three hundred German saloon keepers resolved to stay open on Sundays in defiance of the law. Not only in Cincinnati, but throughout the state, law and order associations sprang up. They also supported Governor Foraker's request for a constitutional amendment to allow the state to control election boards in cities and thereby to eliminate corruption. That is victories by the Urban Machine Democrats. In the fall elections in Ohio in 1889, the Democrats were silent on the liquor laws for fear of alienating their Southern Baptist and Disciples of Christ supporters. They did call, however, for home rule for the Ohio cities, which would have meant non-enforcement of the law in German areas. The League for the Preservation of Citizens' Rights called for the repudiation of Governor Foraker. Who was seeking a third term? All this was enough to induce a massive swing of German Lutherans into the Democratic camp, and Democratic Representative James Campbell won the election for governor. In the presidential election of 1892, in which the Democrats almost tied the Republicans, the Democrats were able to keep some of the German Lutherans who had defected three years earlier. 
The remainder of the gain over 1888 came from a defection of many Republican pietists to the prohibitionist ranks, a defection spurred by the current dominance of the moderate McKinley faction in the Republican Party of Ohio. Seeing the handwriting on the wall, for example, the McKinley group had dropped the idea of enforcing the Sunday closing law. It is instructive to see how the Democrats, led in the press by the Cincinnati Inquirer, were able to argue for the libertarian democratic positions in the presidential race in 1892 by linking them up to the struggle over prohibition three years earlier. Thus, the major national issues were the democratic attack on the protective McKinley tariff and on the Republican force bill, a final attempt to bring back Reconstruction and impose federal supervision of congressional elections in the South. On the tariff, the Democrats linked the governmental paternalism of the tariff to the paternalism of prohibition. On the force bill, the Democrats could link it with prohibition by denouncing in both cases the Republican assault on home rule and local government, by attempting in both cases to centralise power in the hands of Republican fanatics and to suppress individual liberty. In both cases, the issue was liberty against Puritan meddling and paternalism. For their part, the Republicans, while countering with their habitual stance as the party of morality, raised a more moderate note by attacking the defectors to the Prohibition Party and other minor parties as cranks and meddling prohibitionists. It was in this unwanted tone of attack upon moral crusading that the Republicans anticipated their momentous shift of policy four years later. Even the seemingly well-entrenched Representative William McKinley had been narrowly beaten in the Democratic landslide by German defectors. Rapidly moderating his stance on prohibition, McKinley was able to buck the Democratic tide by defeating Governor Campbell in 1891, sweeping in a Republican legislature as well. Not only was McKinley the long-time leader of the moderates on pietistic issues, but he was also shrewd enough to reverse his previous pro-inflation and pro-silver stand. In short, to adopt the sort of pro-sound money and gold standard position previously associated with the Democratic Party. This was particularly effective against Governor Campbell, who had come out for free silver. As a result, Ohio was almost the only major state where the Republicans did well in 1891. 1889 was also an ominous year for the Republicans in Indiana. In Indianapolis, in the fall of that year, a group of wealthy Republicans and pietistic ministers organized the High License League of Indianapolis, dedicated to raising the annual license fee for saloons. In response, the Republican administration raised the fee from $100 to $250. As a result, the Democrats swept Indianapolis in a triumphant coalition including businessmen opposed high taxes, classical liberals, and anti-prohibitionist Germans. In Wisconsin, too, the Democrats swept the state in 1890, due largely to a massive shift of German Lutherans from the Republican ranks. Two years later, the Democrats retained enough of these defectors to enable them to carry Wisconsin for the presidency. Wisconsin, with the exception of two years, had been controlled by the Republicans ever since the Civil War. The exception was 1872-73, when a stiff saloon licensing law put through by the Republicans shifted enough Germans out of the Republican ranks 
to carry the state for the Democrats. The Republicans, under the shrewd leadership of boss Elisha Keyes and Felita Sawyer, then refused to enforce the licensing laws and thereby were swept back into power. The critical issue in Wisconsin, however, turned out to be not prohibition, but another pietist liturgical conflict, the status of parochial schools. After the Republicans had absorbed the lesson in moderation for many years, the new Republican governor in 1889, William Dempster Horde, recommended the enforcement of a dead-letter compulsory education law, requiring the language of all schools, public or private, to be in English. In response, the Wisconsin legislature, in the spring of 1889, passed the notorious Bennett Law, which, one, imposed compulsory attendance for children in school, and two, decreed that the language of such a school, whether public or private, could only be in English. This meant, in the concrete, that any German language schools would henceforth be illegal. The Bennett Law hit hard not only at the German Catholic parochial schools, but also at the German language parochial schools operated by the Lutheran churches. The Wisconsin Synod, which ran 164 parochial schools in the state, one third of which used only English, denounced the law as oppressive and tyrannical, and attacked its encroachment on parental rights and family life. The Missouri Synod, which ran 136 German-language parochial schools, attacked the law for violating the natural rights of parents and their liberty of conscience. At the end of December, the German Lutherans set up a state committee to combat the Bennett Law. In February, 19 Lutheran congregations in Milwaukee made repeal of the Bennett Law the crucial political issue. The three Catholic bishops of Wisconsin, all Germans, also attacked the law as interfering with the rights of the church and of the parent. The German-language press linked the law to nativism and prohibitionism, and the Lutherans and Catholics were angered still further by the fact that some of the hated German anti-clerical liberals, along with the German pietist groups, favoured the despotic law. As a consequence, in the Milwaukee municipal election of 1890, an election that took place before the passage of the protectionist McKinley tariff, the Democrats overthrew the Republican mayor. The cause of this landslide in the first real Democratic victory in Milwaukee in 15 years was a massive defection to the Democrats in the German Lutheran wards, aided by a further strengthening of Democratic support in German Catholic areas. In consequence, the Republican vote in Milwaukee, which had been 47% in 1888, now fell drastically to 30%. The Democratic nominee, the affable Yankee humorist George Peck, had denounced the Bennett Law in no uncertain terms as unjust and infringing on the natural liberty of conscience and the natural right of parental control. In May, a group of leading Wisconsin Lutherans called a statewide anti-Bennett Law convention for June. The convention was addressed by George Peck, the new Democratic mayor of Milwaukee. Scores of anti-Bennett law clubs burgeoned throughout Wisconsin. The Missouri Synod and allied Lutherans organized systematically in every parish against the law. The German Catholics were equally bitter. Archbishop Katzen of Green Bay declared that, quote, As bishop of this diocese, I should consider anyone who did not vote for repeal of the Bennett law a traitor to the Catholic Church. 
end quote. In August, the Democratic state platform denounced the Bennett Law and intelligently linked it to other examples of Republican paternalism, state and federal, to the sumptuary laws, high spending, the protective tariff, the force bill, and centralization of power. The Democrats were also aided in public opinion by the fact that the Prohibitionist Party, thoroughly hated by all German Catholics and Lutherans, endorsed the Bennett Law in its 1890 platform. In the Republican Party, two conflicting groups appeared. The dominant faction, headed by Governor William Dempster Horde, ardently favoured the Bennett Law. The Horde faction, which included Representatives Nils Horgan and Robert M. LaFollette, demanded a part declaration in support of the law, in the name of adherence to principle. The Horde faction had its way at the state convention and won the renomination of Governor Horde. The Horde group were responding to local pietist pressures, to anti-Catholicism, and to a drive by the Wisconsin Dairyman's Association, of which Horde was a member, to teach more English to the state's farmers. Horgan, a Norwegian immigrant, represented a highly pietistic region in the west and northwest of the state, consisting mainly of Norwegians and Swedes. La Follette also came from a heavily pietistic area. The minority moderates, headed by State Chairman Henry C. Payne and U.S. Senator John C. Spooner, tried in vain to dump Governor Horde and to call openly for repeal of the Bennett Law. They were responding to the massive defection underway from Republican ranks by the German Lutherans. Governor Horde, an intensely pietistic newspaper owner and an amateur in politics, did not ease matters by bitterly denouncing German parents and pastors and endorsing the Bennett Law to the hilt. In the November 1890 elections, the German Lutherans reacted by shifting en masse to the Democratic camp. The Republicans were crushed by what was called at the time the Lutheran landslide. Even the faithfully Republican and slightly liturgical Norwegian Synod Lutherans deserted the Republican camp, not by voting for the hated Democrats, but by staying away from the polls. The Norwegian Synod had established Norwegian language parochial schools, and even the pietistic Norwegians and Swedes, especially the recent immigrants, were embittered by the attack on their home tongues. As a result, Governor Horde was smashed by the Democrat George Peck. To the Horde campaign slogan, The Little Schoolhouse, Stand By It, the Democrats had countered, Peck and all the schools. The Bennett Law was promptly repealed, with half of the Republican legislators joining the Democrats in the vote. By 1892, while many German Lutherans returned to the Republican ranks, enough stayed Democratic to carry the state for Cleveland. The Bennett Law was modelled after the Edwards Law passed in Illinois in 1889 and pushed through by the state superintendent of public instruction, Richard Edwards. The reaction in Illinois was very similar. The Germans, including the anti-clerical liberals, rallied to defend the right of instruction in the German language. The Republican Party came out strongly for the public schools, as well as for prohibition, and they renominated Edwards for superintendent. The Democrats, in contrast, called for repeal of the Edwards Law, as violating the natural rights of parents. With the Edwards Law, as well as prohibition and Sunday closing laws as the crucial issues in Illinois, the Democrats were able to win the state, to capture Cook County, and to recapture the city of Chicago. 
the hated Edwards was defeated handily by the Democratic candidate Henry Raab. In 1892, the Democratic momentum continued. Grover Cleveland was the first Democrat since the Civil War to carry the state of Illinois, sweeping Cook County by 33,000 votes and carrying in the Democratic candidate for governor. In Michigan, the voting pattern in 1890 was unusual. In the Upper Peninsula, the Democrats gained strength among Catholics and lost votes among Protestants. The reason was that, culturally, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan was really an extension of northeastern Wisconsin, and so the educational agitation for and against the Bennett Law deeply affected opinion there. In particular, French-Canadian Catholics strengthened their devotion to the Democrats, while English-Canadian Protestants became even more Republican. The conflict over the Bennett Law in Wisconsin had polarised the Upper Peninsula even more than before. The political situation in southern Michigan was particularly odd. The Republican moderates, coming to dominate politics in the state, as we have seen, decided to reject a typical pietist farmer for governor and instead nominated an urban wet, James M. Turner, mayor of Lansing. In response, the Michigan Democrats nominated for governor Edwin B. Winans, a prohibitionist old-stock farmer. The result was that in southern Michigan, many Catholics defected to the Republicans, while many more angry Republican pietists failed to vote or supported the Prohibitionist Party. The result was a large defection from Republican ranks and a Democratic victory in the state. Two years later, however, the parties reverted to type. The Democrats returned to their traditional nominating pattern, the defecting Catholics returned, and the large number of defecting pietists returned to Republican ranks. This meant that Michigan reverted in 1892 to its pre-1890 status as a solid Republican state. Iowa was another state in which the Republicans were overturned by the Prohibition issue. Iowa had always been totally controlled by the Republican Party. In 1855, the pietistic Whigs had passed a constitutional amendment prohibiting the manufacture and sale of alcohol. The Republicans, concentrating on slavery as the major issue, promptly exempted beer and wine from the ban, permitted local option, and didn't enforce the law in counties opposed to it. After the Civil War, the Republicans began to succumb to intense pressure by the Prohibitionists. The WCTU, the Sons of Temperance and the Order of Good Templars, spread the dry gospel and the Prohibitionist Party was formed, with the Methodists leading the pietistic sects in the New Crusade. In Iowa, the dry political pressure was led by the Iowa State Temperance Alliance. Throughout the late 1860s and early 1870s, the dries were able to pass ever more stringent licensing and local option laws. At the Republican Convention of 1875, a coalition of dry and inflationist pietists almost gained the gubernatorial nomination for their leader, General James B. Weaver, later to be a populist presidential candidate. Four years later, the Dries finally captured the Republican Party in Iowa, which voted to push for an amendment to the state constitution which would join Maine and Kansas as the only totally prohibitionist states in the Union. The prohibitionist party in the state collapsed, for its members hastened to join the Republicans. The climax came in June 1882, when the Iowa public voted on a prohibition amendment 
after it was twice recommended by a Republican-dominated legislature. The Temperance Alliance mobilized men and women in every part of the state, calling for prohibition in the name of Christian morality and American civilization. The Democrats denounced the prohibitionists as puritanical fanatics, trying to impose sumptuary laws and aggressing the liberty of the individual. The Democrats colorfully denounced the Republicans as the tool of fanatical preachers and as heading a holy alliance of abolitionists, Whigs, know-nothings, Sunday and cold-water fanatics. But the opposition was in vain. The Prohibition Amendment passed by 55% to 45% by a margin of 30,000 votes. One immediate and lasting result of the vote was the enraging of the German population of Iowa. Before 1882, the 14 most heavily German counties of Iowa habitually voted 55% Republican. After voting 39% for the dry referendum, the Republican percentage in these German counties fell permanently to the 36-44% to range. The same defection of German Catholics can be seen in the changed voting patterns of the heavily Catholic city of Dubuque. 50% Republican in 1881, Dubuque dropped to 28% Republican in the fall 1882 re-elections, after voting 15% dry in the referendum, and picked up to only 38% in 1885. Particularly striking were two German wards, Ward 3, which fell from 51% Republican in 1881, to 23% the following year, after voting 10% dry, and Ward 5, which dropped from 63% to 22% Republican, after voting 6% dry. The next winter, however, the Iowa Supreme Court invalidated the amendment on a procedural error. The Republicans, seeing the firestorm of opposition, did not dare to resubmit the amendment. To mollify the pietists, the Republicans continued to widen the scope of prohibition by statute. In 1884, the Republicans rammed through one of the stiffest prohibition laws in the country. In towns and villages where sentiment was dry, saloons were forced to close. But in the larger towns and cities, the law was openly flouted. At first, the laws were poorly enforced in wet areas, but in 1887 and 1888, Governor William Larrabee decided to enforce the law to the hilt, and more restrictive laws were passed. Informers were given bonuses for revealing the existence of illicit liquor. The officials conducted raids on people suspected of harbouring illegal alcohol. The furor over prohibition reached a peak in Iowa during 1889. A massive flouting of the prohibition laws had polarized sentiment in the state between repeal of prohibition and inflicting ever harsher punishments in order to enforce the law. At the Republican State Convention, control was seized from the professionals by the eager ultra-pietist amateurs, who had packed county conventions with radical prohibitionists. Joseph Hutchison, an amateur politician and wholesale grocer, was nominated for governor. He delivered a pion to prohibition, calling it a struggle for morality, for the reduction of corruption, for the true elevation of the human race. Hutchinson made it clear that the fundamental choice before the voter was between modern civilization on the one hand and that cursed barracuda, the saloon, on the other. The prohibitionists and pietists enthusiastically backed Hutchinson, 
particularly the WCTU, the Good Templars, and the Methodist Church, which demanded the unconditional surrender of liquor, as well as the repudiation of such halfway measures as licensing and local option. The Methodists also called for the outlawing of all desecration of the Sabbath, including ball games, the publishing of newspapers, and railroad service. For their part, the Democrats shrewdly selected for governor Horace Boys, a former Republican, a personal teetotaler, and even a member of the Good Templars, but who staunchly opposed prohibition, centralised power, and paternalistic government. Boys, however, did favour local option and high licence fees for saloons. Horace Boyes became the first Democrat ever to become governor of Iowa since the Civil War, obtaining 50% of the vote to Hutchinson's 48%. The following year, the Democrats gained the majority of the Iowa congressional delegation. Analyzing the composition of the drop in the Republican vote, from 52% in 1888 to 48% the following year, it becomes clear that the major transformation came in the cities. In 1888, out of nine cities in Iowa with 14,000 or more population, the Democrats carried four, with an overall total of 52% of the urban vote. But the following year, Horace Boyce swept all nine, with a massive 64% of the vote. Breaking down the vote by religion, while old stock towns and counties, Norwegian, Swedish and Bohemian townships slightly lowered the proportion of the Republican vote, the biggest Republican losses were in the nine German urban wards, the vote falling from 28% to 15%. The Dries also exercised control over the 1891 Republican Convention, calling for total prohibition and shouting down the possibility of local option. The Democratic slate, however, continuing to attack prohibition, swept to victory in a remarkably high voter turnout, and Governor Boyes won re-election handing the Republicans their worst defeat in the history of Iowa. The Republicans had learned their lesson. Two years later, in the 1893 convention, the Republican pros were able to take back their party from the enthusiastic amateur dries. The successful comeback was headed by former Senator James Harlan, the founder and grand old man of the Iowa Republican Party, and himself a devout Methodist and temperance man. The professional forces managed to carry repeal of the 12-year Republican commitment to total prohibition and to bury the compulsory education issue as well. Instead, local option and high license fees for liquor were installed in the platform. To win back the German voters, staunch opponents of cheap money and inflation, the Iowa Republicans even abandoned their cheap money plank and adopted an anti-inflation stance. Armed with their newfound moderation, the Republicans were able to recapture the governorship that year on behalf of the moderate Frank Jackson. 2. The Republicans Regroup A. The Retreat from Prohibition As the Republicans slipped into becoming the minority party in state after state in the early 1890s, it became increasingly clear to their political leaders that something drastic would have to be done. Notably, radically pietist measures would have to be soft-pedalled so as not to aggravate the German Lutherans and other liturgical voters. We have seen how in response to democratic victories, the Republicans in Ohio and Iowa moved quickly to soften or jettison their prohibitionist platform. 
In both states, furthermore, the Republicans began to shift from their previous inflationist and pro-silver stance toward the advocacy of the gold standard and sound money. In Wisconsin, they were willing to backtrack on the Bennett Law and its assault on German parochial schooling. In this move toward jettisoning their pietist doctrines, the lead was taken by the Ohio Republican leadership of Governor William McKinley and his mentor and party boss, chairman of the Ohio and later the National Republican Party, the industrialist Marcus Alonzo Hanna. In his term as governor from 1892 to 1896, McKinley succeeded in suppressing the pietists in the Ohio party. And then when Joseph Foraker returned to control the party that year, the prohibitionists found to their chagrin that their old champion had learned his lesson too, and that Foraker was now a determined wet. In Wisconsin, former Governor Horde tried to come back by promoting such ardent pietists and prohibitionists as Representative Nils Horken and then Representative Robert LaFollette as governor. The Republican professional, however, finally beat out Horgan and LaFollette in the 1890s and eliminated the old Republican lust for moral crusading. In Michigan, the leading Republican pietist was the mayor of Detroit, Hazen Pingree. During the 1890s, the state Republican machinery, led by Senator James McMillan, maneuvered hard to limit or eliminate Pingree's influence finally succeeding in saving the GOP in Michigan from reacquiring a strongly pietist image. In Illinois and Indiana, in the meantime, the Republican moderates were able to defeat the pietists with comparative ease. The Republicans were thus retreating en masse from prohibitionist and pietist concerns during the early 1890s. No major Republican newspaper endorsed total prohibition. The furthest they would go was regulation high license fees, and local option. The Republican politicians increasingly avoided the vexed issue altogether, calling it a purely local matter. The veteran Ohio Republican Senator John Sherman went so far as to assert that matters of religion, morality, and temperance should not be political issues, a far cry from the old party of great moral ideas. Another disillusioning situation for the prohibitionists is that the great bulk of Republican politicians themselves imbibed alcohol. How, then, could they be trusted? The tension between the Republicans and their pietist constituents was also growing to the bursting point because, while the Republicans were becoming more moderate, the Prohibitionists were becoming increasingly fanatical. Originally, the Prohibitionists had habitually referred to themselves as temperate, as men of temperance. By the 1880s and 1890s, however, this was no longer true. The prohibitionists now spoke of themselves as radicals. It was no longer enough to attack hard liquor. Denunciations of beer were now stepped up. The saloon came in for increasing vilification. Violent raids were conducted on them. And law and order legions in large cities acted to stamp out illegal sales of liquor. By 1885, there were 500 such local leagues throughout the country, with 60,000 members. Not only that, the youth were becoming more pietistic and more militant prohibitionists than their elders. The pietist youth exuded a deep hatred for the saloons, expressed through young people's Christian societies and interdenominational Sunday school programs. The WCTU, 
partly through its highly successful mandatory temperance hygiene classes in the public schools, were able to enlist 200,000 youngsters in their youth affiliate, the Loyal Temperance Legion. The success in radicalising middle-class pietist youth is shown by the fact that two-thirds of all college students in the Midwest were enrolled in pietist denominations, and that most of them joined the highly moralistic Young Men's Christian Association. The faculty and students at Iowa State University endorsed prohibition. Particularly remarkable was a presidential preference poll of undergraduates at the University of Chicago in 1892. The eventual winner, Democrat Grover Cleveland, obtained 52 votes, while incumbent Republican President Benjamin Harrison received 151 votes, and the populist James B. Weaver obtained three. But the astounding fact is that the winner of the poll was the Prohibitionist Party candidate, John Bidwell, who received 164 votes. But what was an increasingly militant Prohibitionist constituency going to do politically in the face of growing Republican reluctance and a declining Prohibitionist Party? The Prohibitionist Party founded on the question of a single issue on alcohol versus a broad-range, pietist, genuine third-party organisation. A similar split led to the collapse of the anti-Catholic American Protective Association, which could not decide in 1896 whether to endorse McKinley for president or to establish a third political party of its own. The upshot was the gradual disappearance of the prohibitionist movement as a group of enthusiastic amateurs and its replacement by an extremely effective and professional single-issue lobby, the Anti-Saloon League, founded in 1893. The Anti-Saloon League, willing to concentrate first on local option laws and to build up steadily from there, rewarded or punished politicians purely on the single issue of alcohol. Its tactic was to triumph in a quarter century. B. Restricting Immigration The Republicans were fully aware that the secular demographic trend, fueled by the arrival of Catholic and other liturgical immigrants, was against them. During the 1880s, while British and Scandinavian immigration had reached new highs, they were surpassed by German and Irish immigration, the latter being the highest since the famous influx of the late 1840s and early 1850s. During the same decade, the new immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, especially Catholics from Italy, began to make its mark. Their defeat in the presidential election of 1892 intensified the hatred of Catholics and Catholic immigrants in the Republican Party. The predecessors of the Republicans, the Whigs, had been strongly nativist and anti-Catholic, and the short-lived know-nothings, from whose ranks many Republicans had emerged in the mid-1850s, flourished on an exclusively anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic programme. Now the embittered Republicans turned to a policy of immigration restriction. If the Catholics could not constitutionally be deported, they could at least be prevented from tipping the balance further. The first break in the American tradition of free and unrestricted immigration came in the Act of 1882, when the federal government assumed at least formal control over immigration, previously regulated by the states, principally New York. Editor's footnote. Although the much more well-known Chinese Exclusion Act was also passed in 1882, it bore little relation to the immigration restrictions on Europeans, 
both ideologically and politically. End footnote. The United States, instead of the several states, was to tax each entrant a modest 50 cents to accumulate an immigrant welfare fund, and ex-convicts or other people likely to become a public charge were to be denied admission. In the late 1880s, working-class activists, concerned with restricting the supply of incoming labour, obtained legislation in several states barring aliens from various types of employment. In particular, aliens were prohibited from employment on public works. The US House of Representatives passed a bill in 1886 banning non-declarant aliens, those who had not yet declared their intentions of becoming US citizens, from employment on public works. When the Senate failed to pass the bill, Illinois, Wyoming and Idaho proceeded to bar such aliens from state or municipal works projects. More sweepingly, in 1885, the Knights of Labour and other working-class groups persuaded the Congress to outlaw contract labour, the system under which a European immigrant was assured of a specific job in the US before he arrived. The outlawing of contract labour, of course, tended to increase those immigrants likely to become a public charge, and thereby added further to the restriction on immigration. In addition to workers attempting to restrict immigrant competition, the pietists and prohibitionists centred on the Catholic immigrants as their major foe. Thus, the Presbyterian Synod of 1887 declared, quote, The ranks of the drinking men are constantly recruited by the influx of bibulous and intemperate foreigners. The great majority of these alien immigrants, now over half million annually, are addicted to the case of strong drinks as well as steeped in ignorance and vice. End quote. And the Reverend T.W. Kula, president of the National Temperance Society, put it even more strongly in the summer of 1891. Quote, How much longer will the Republic consent to have her soil a dumping ground for all Hungarian ruffians, Bohemian bruisers, and Italian cutthroats of every description? End quote. Immigration restrictions were sought by the Independent Presbyterians, the National Temperance Convention in 1891, and the Prohibition Party in 1892. The late 1880s saw a blossoming of nativist and anti-Catholic organisations agitating to restrict immigration. The large Civil War veterans organisation, the Grand Army of the Republic, long associated with the Republican Party, and now reaching its peak membership of 400,000, began to denounce immigrants who were allying themselves politically with copperheads and ex-rebels, i.e. with southerners in the Democratic Party. Footnote. Whereas President Cleveland vetoed Republican-passed veterans' pensions and aid to veterans' bills and refused to attend the GAR convention in 1887, Benjamin Harrison favoured veteran pensions. In 1882, nearly half of the Republican appointees in Washington were Union veterans, whereas Democratic appointees of the Senate were largely Confederate veterans. In the Iowa legislature of 1893, 70% of the Republicans eligible to have served were Civil War veterans, whereas only 39% of the eligible Democrats were veterans. In 1888, a poll of disabled veterans at the Ohio Soldiers and Sailors' Home voted 3-1 to one for Harrison over Cleveland. In 
Editor's Remarks In an unpublished manuscript, Rothbard wrote in depth on the origins of Civil War pensions and their relation to the rise of the future welfare state. Pensions to Union soldiers were strongly supported by the Republicans, and they became a favourite way to spend the Treasury's surplus to appeal to a new, burgeoning interest group. During the Harrison administration, the Dependent and Disability Pension Act was passed in 1890, sharply increasing veterans' payments and contributing to the Republican Billion Dollar Congress. End footnote. Patriotic secret societies, nativist and anti-Catholic, led by the newly burgeoning Junior Order of United American Mechanics, with 60,000 members in 1889 and 160,000 in the 1890s, began to flourish in the late 1880s. Other such fraternal orders, all founded in Pennsylvania, were the Order of United American Mechanics and the Patriotic Order Sons of America. Also newly active was a group of secret anti-Catholic societies, including the United Order of Deputies, with 15,000 working-class members who demanded that employers discharge all Catholics. By far the leading anti-Catholic organization was the American Protective Association, founded in Clinton, Iowa in 1887 by attorney Henry F. Bowers. APA members took secret oaths never to vote for a Catholic or to employ one if a Protestant were available. The APA grew steadily across the upper Mississippi Valley, especially in large towns and cities where Catholics were prevalent. The APA helped the Republicans sweep the ordinarily democratic city of Omaha in 1891, and the following year it elected a congressman from Saginaw, Michigan. Acquiring 70,000 members by 1893, the APA suddenly burgeoned to a mammoth half a million members the following year, centering in the Midwest but also stretching eastward through the Great Lakes area. The APA was almost exclusively Republican. It aided McKinley's re-election as Ohio governor in 1893, and in Michigan, Kentucky and Nebraska, the organization was close to the Republican Party leadership. Thus, the Republican Party had considerable incentive to push for immigration restriction in the late 1880s and early 1890s, both in response to the pietism of its constituents and in reaction to the growing demographic dominance of the immigrant-sustained Democratic Party. But there was also another powerful reason. The Republicans might moderate most of their formerly cherished pietism, but there was one overriding plank to which they were deeply committed the protective tariff. The pro-tariff manufacturers decided that to gain the support of the working classes against the powerful democratic assault on the tariff as a special privilege, the Republicans should offer the native workers a quid pro quo, protection of their foreign competitors, the immigrants. In that way, the manufacturers' privileges and cartels sustained by the tariff would be sweetened by cartelization of the labor force to restrict entry into the workforce. Footnote. Another example of joint business worker restrictionism sponsored by the Republicans was the drive to outlaw the sale of the products of prison labor. Thus, New York State, in its Constitutional Convention of 1894, passed an amendment prohibiting the sale of products of prison labor. The amendment was supported by labor unions 
as well as by those businesses who were competing against the output of convict labour, in particular the manufacturers of brooms and brushes and other manufacturers whose labour was a large part of production costs. The Republican sponsor of the amendment at the convention pointed out that it was simply a logical extension of the Republican Party's long-standing commitment to the protection of both the manufacturer and the labourer from unfair competition. The opponents correctly but vainly charged that the amendment was class legislation and that prisons could no longer be self-sustaining and would become a far greater burden on the taxpayer. End footnote. The idea of such a bargain in mutual special privilege was particularly pushed by James M. Swank, general manager of the American Iron and Steel Association. It is no coincidence that the inefficient iron and steel industry had led the drive for a protective tariff from its earliest days, after the War of 1812, until the end of the century. By the late 1880s, the Republicans stepped up their agitation for the restriction of immigration. Republican conventions in Pennsylvania and Ohio in 1887, as well as in California the following year, came out for restriction. Senator Justin Morrill, Republican of Vermont, a veteran protectionist and advocate of federal intervention in education, introduced a bill for immigration restriction in 1887. Three years later, Congress moved toward legislative action. Senator William E. Chandler, Republican of New Hampshire, became chairman of the Senate's first Standing Committee on Immigration in 1890, and thereby assumed the lead of the restrictionist movement. The following year, Congress assumed sole jurisdiction over immigration and put teeth in existing restrictions on entry by compelling steamship companies to carry back all immigrants rejected by U.S. inspectors. This law had a chilling effect on the willingness of steamship companies to carry immigrants to the U.S. The Act of 1891 also provided, for the first time, for deporting illegal aliens within one year of entry, or for deporting aliens who might become public charges from causes existing prior to his landing. The Act also added to the categories of the excluded polygamists, and those with a loathsome and dangerous contagious disease. The ban on contract labour was also broadened by adding those immigrants encouraged to arrive by employer advertisements. The restrictionists in Congress, led by Chandler's committee, attempted to take advantage of a cholera scare in the fall of 1892 to pass a moratorium on all immigration for an entire year. They were not successful in stampeding Congress, however. Failing the suspension, the restrictionists led by Chandler and by Representative Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, drove toward a literacy test for all immigrants. The restrictionists' hand was strengthened by the fall elections in 1894, which installed Republican majorities in both houses of Congress. At the same time, the Immigration Restriction League was founded in Boston by a half-dozen young Brahmins. The League spread a nationwide propaganda and Washington lobbying critical of the new immigration from southern and eastern Europe, which allegedly contained a host of illiterates and criminals. In the winter of 1895, the Immigration Restriction League's bill was introduced and spearheaded by now Senator Lodge and by Representative Walker McCall of Massachusetts. 
the bill provided for the exclusion of all men and women over the age of 14 who could not read and write. Lodge and McCall stressed racial arguments against the Italians and other Southern Europeans. The literacy bill passed the House overwhelmingly during 1896 and the Senate in December. But President Cleveland, in one of his last acts in office, vetoed the bill and the Senate failed to override. In addition to restricting entry, the nativists could do something about the voting rights of immigrants already in the United States. Restrictionists urged a lengthening of the waiting period for naturalization. Moreover, 18 southern and western states allowed aliens to vote on a simple declaration of intent to become a citizen. The nativists began a trend back to the original American prohibition of alien suffrage, but by the end of the century, 11 states still allowed aliens to vote. C. Pietism and Women's Suffrage Voting need not only be restricted, it could also be expanded, provided that pietists would hope to benefit more than proportionately. Specifically, women could be granted the vote, in the knowledge that immigrant Catholic women would not be likely to vote in as great proportions as native-born wasps. As Professor Grimes concludes, quote, I am arguing that the evidence indicates that to a large extent, at least in the West, the constituency granting woman suffrage was composed of those who also supported prohibition and immigration restriction and felt woman suffrage would further their enactment. End quote. Like most reform movements, such as prohibition, the women's suffrage movement was heavily pietist from the beginning. The strongly pietist third parties, such as the Prohibition Party and the Greenback Party, supported women's suffrage throughout, and the populists tended in that direction before their amalgamation into the democracy in 1896. Later, the Progressive Party of 1912 was the first major national convention to permit women delegates and to select a woman elector. Of the two major parties, the Democrats paid no attention to the women's suffrage question, while the Republicans made vague noises in a favourable direction. The suffragettes saw as their major enemies the party bosses of the Republican and especially the Democratic parties, and in particular the liquor interests, who, in the words of the Philippic by Susan B. Anthony and Ida H. Harper, were positively, unanimously and unalterably opposed to woman suffrage. Perhaps one reason for this determined opposition was the great prominence in the suffragette movement of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, founded in 1874, upon the pledge, quote, I hereby solemnly promise, God helping me, to abstain from all distilled, fermented and malt liquors, including wine, beer and cider, and to employ all proper means to discourage the use of and traffic in the same. End quote. The WCTU, led by Francis E. Willard, had by 1900 established chapters in 10,000 towns and cities across the country and enjoyed a membership of 300,000. Of all women's organisations mentioned in Anthony and Harper's History of Women's Suffrage, the WCTU received the greatest amount of space. That they were also involved in curfew, anti-gambling, anti-smoking and anti-sex laws, actions lauded by the women's suffrage movements, is clear from the following passage in Anthony and Harper. Quote, 
The WCTU has been a chief factor in state campaigns for statutory prohibition, constitutional amendment, reform laws in general, and those for the protection of women and children in particular, and in securing anti-gambling and anti-cigarette laws. It has been instrumental in raising the age of protection for girls in many states, and in obtaining curfew laws in 400 towns and cities. The association protests against the legalization of all crimes, especially those of prostitution and liquor selling. End quote. Not only did Susan B. Anthony begin her career as a professional prohibitionist, but her two successors as president of the leading suffragette organization, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, were also ardent prohibitionists. Her immediate successor, Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt, also began as a prohibitionist, while the next president, Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, began her career as a lecturer for the WCTU. The Women's Christian Temperance Union crystallized out of an anti-liquor women's prayer crusade that began in Hillsborough, Ohio in 1874 and swept the nation. As Eleanor Flexner put it, quote, Bands of singing, praying women held meetings, not only in churches but on street corners, penetrating into the saloons themselves and closing them by the thousands. End quote. When the effort fizzled, a permanent organization, the WCTU, was established in Cleveland to carry on the anti-liquor crusade on a systematic basis. The WCTU's leading spirit, Francis E. Willard, was prototypically born of New England stock parents who had moved westward to study at Oberlin College, the nation's center of aggressive evangelical pietism, and later to settle in Wisconsin. Miss Willard began as corresponding secretary of the WCTU, and in two years she unseated the previous president and led the organization to the espousal of woman suffrage. Guided by Miss Willard, the WCTU began its pro-suffrage activities by demanding that women vote in local option referenda on prohibition. As Miss Willard put it, the WCTU wanted women to vote on this issue because majorities of women are against the liquor traffic. Opposition to liquor and to the saloon cut against immigrant and liturgical culture, which not only sanctioned drinking, but where the neighborhood saloon was the major social and political institution. The saloon was an all-male institution, and hence was on a collision course with women's suffrage, as well as prohibition. Similarly, whenever there was a voters' referendum on women's suffrage, the foreign-born, responding to immigrant culture and reacting against the feminist support of prohibition, voted consistently against women's suffrage. In Iowa, the Germans voted against such suffrage. In California, the Chinese were opposed. And in South Dakota, where a referendum on women's suffrage was defeated in 1890 by the massive margin of 55,000 to 22,000, Susan B. Anthony and Ida Harper wrote bitterly that, quote, there were 30,000 Russians, Poles, Scandinavians and other foreigners in the state, most of whom opposed woman suffrage. End quote. Testifying for woman suffrage before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee in 1880, Susan B. Anthony expressed the nativism and racism of much of the feminist movement in explaining the voters' defeat of woman suffrage in a Colorado referendum in 1877. Quote, 
In Colorado, 6,666 men voted yes. Now I'm going to describe the men who voted yes. They were native-born, white men, temperance men, cultivated, broad, generous, just men, men who think. On the other hand, 16,007 voted no. Now I'm going to describe that class of voters. In the southern part of that state, there are Mexicans who speak the Spanish language. The vast population of Colorado is made up of that class of people. I was sent out to speak in a voting precinct having 200 voters. 150 of those voters were Mexican greasers, 40 of them foreign-born citizens, and just 10 of them were born in this country. End quote. The cities where sin, alcohol, immigrants and Catholics abounded were the centres of opposition to woman suffrage, while the WASP rural areas tended to favour it. The Oregon referendum of 1900, for example, lost largely because of opposition in the slums of Portland and Astoria. In 1896, the woman suffrage referendum in California was heavily supported by the bitterly anti-Catholic American Protective Association. Footnote. In Massachusetts, where women had had the vote in school board elections since 1879, large numbers of Protestant women turned out in 1888 to drive Catholics off the school board. In contrast, Catholic women scarcely voted, thereby validating the nativist tendency of suffragists who believed that extension of full suffrage to women would provide a barrier against further Catholic influence. End footnote. The amendment lost by 137,000 to 110,000 votes, and the Anthony and Harper volume expresses great disappointment about the heavy loss in Alameda County. Quote, A most unpleasant surprise, as the voters were principally Republicans and Populists, both of whom were pledged in the strongest possible manner in their county conventions to support the amendment. End quote. As Grimes writes, quote, the implication here, and frequently throughout the various volumes of the history, was that the Republican Party should provide the natural home for the woman suffrage movement. End quote. The pietist liturgical split on the woman suffrage question is seen in a report by a Colorado feminist explaining the defeat in the 1877 referendum. The Methodists, most strongly pietistic, were, for us, the less pietistic Presbyterians and Episcopalians, fairly so. And while the Roman Catholics were not all against us, clearly they were expected to be. Footnote. Jane Jerome Cammy in Women Against Women, states that in the last two decades of the 19th century, quote, the more hierarchical the church organisation and the more formal its ritual, the greater was its opposition to woman's suffrage while the democratically organised churches with little dogma tended to be more receptive. End footnote. It is evident from their writings that much of the drive for woman suffrage came from the upper and middle class WASP women who deeply resented the fact that their social inferiors, lower class immigrants and foreigners, were allowed to vote while they were not. Footnote. Where women were given the vote in Chicago, before the general adoption of woman suffrage, the highest percentage of women voters appeared in the middle rather than the working class wards. End footnote. Thus, as Antonine Harper put it, quote, 
A real democracy has not as yet existed, but the dangerous experiment has been made of enfranchising the vast proportion of crime, intemperance, immorality, and dishonesty, and barring absolutely from the suffrage the great proportion of temperance, morality, religion, and conscientiousness. That, in other words, the worst elements have been put into the ballot box and the best elements kept out. This fatal mistake is even now beginning to dawn upon the minds of those who have cherished an ideal of the grandeur of a republic, and they dimly see that in woman lies the highest promise of its fulfilment. Those who fear the foreign vote will learn eventually that there are more American-born women in the United States than foreign-born men and women, and those who dread the ignorant vote will study the statistics and see that the percentage of illiteracy is much smaller among women than among men. End quote. Four Western states adopted women's suffrage in the early and mid-1890s. Two, Wyoming and Utah, were simply repeating a practice as new states that they had adopted much earlier as territories, Wyoming in 1869 and Utah in 1870. Utah adopted women's suffrage as a conscious policy by the Mormons to weight political control in favour of their polygamous members, in contrast to the Gentiles, largely miners and settlers who were either single men or who had left their wives in the East. Idaho, which was dominated both by populists and by Mormons in the southern part of the state, adopted woman suffrage in a referendum in 1896. Wyoming, the first territory to adopt woman suffrage, did so in an effort to increase the political power of its settled householders, in contrast to the transient, mobile, and often lawless single men who peopled that frontier region. The measure was also expected to attract more of the sober kind of migrants into Wyoming. No sooner had Wyoming Territory adopted women's suffrage than it became evident that the change had benefited the Republicans, particularly since women had mobilized against democratic attempts to repeal Wyoming's Sunday Prohibition Law. In 1871, both houses of the Wyoming legislature, led by its Democratic members, voted to repeal women's suffrage, but the bill was vetoed by the Republican territorial governor, John A. Campbell, who had been appointed by President Grant. Another state adopting women's suffrage in the 1890s was Colorado, which passed it by a referendum in 1893. The reason was the dominance in Colorado politics of the pro-inflation and pietistic populists, then at the peak of their popularity in that state. In the referendum, the populist counties gave a majority of 6,800 on behalf of women's suffrage, while the Republican and Democratic counties voted a majority of 500 against the measure. Moreover, in the state legislature, which submitted the women's suffrage amendment to the voters in 1893, the party breakdown of voting was as follows. Republicans, 19 for women's suffrage and 25 against. Democrats, one in favour and eight against. Populists, 34 in favour and four against. It may be thought paradoxical that a movement born and centred in the East should have had its first victories in the remote frontier states of the Mountain West. But the paradox clears when we realise the pietist wasp nature of the frontiersmen. 
many of them hailing originally from the birthplace of American pietism, New England. As the historian Frederick Jackson Turner, that celebrant of pietist frontier ideals, lyrically observed, quote, In the arid West, these pioneers from New England have halted and have turned to perceive an altered nation and changed social ideals. If we follow back the line of march of the Puritan farmer, we shall see how responsive he has always been to isms. He is the prophet of the higher law in Kansas before the Civil War. He is the prohibitionist of Iowa and Wisconsin, crying out against German customs as an invasion of his traditional ideals. He is the Granger of Wisconsin, passing restrictive railroad legislation. He is the abolitionist, the anti-Mason, the Millerite, the woman suffragist, the spiritualist, the Mormon of Western New York. End quote. Chapter 6, 1896, The Collapse of the Third Party System and of Laissez-Faire Politics 1. The First Collapse, 1894 In the cataclysmic year 1896, the face of American politics was changed forever. With the capture of the Democratic Party by the inflationist statist forces of William Jennings Bryan, the old democracy of free trade, hard money, personal liberty and minimal government was gone forever. As Grover Cleveland mournfully pronounced, the Democratic Party as we knew it is dead. The orthodox historical view holds that the Bryanite conquest of the Democratic Party resulted from the Depression of 1893. In response to the Depression, the masses, led by the farmers of the South and West, and clamouring for increased government intervention and the greater purchasing power provided by cheap money, swept Bryan into the presidential nomination in the summer of 1896. There are on its face several grave problems with this conventional interpretation. In the first place, if the masses were clamouring for Bryan, why was he beaten decisively in the election by McKinley, and then crushed in the general election twice again? in 1900 and 1908. These decisive defeats, permanently reversing the upward democratic trend until 1892, do not look like mass clamour. Furthermore, if the Bryan nomination was a reaction to the Depression, why did the Bryan forces continue to dominate the democracy from then on, long after the Depression was over? Merely asserting that the public came to understand that the modern economy requires statism, and government intervention explains nothing, and only reveals the bias of the liberal historian. But more importantly, why did Bryan lose the 1896 election so heavily? The Bryanite historians, reflecting the charges of the Bryan forces at the time, fall back on contemporary charges of coercion or corruption in the polling places. The masses wanted to vote for Bryan, but were intimidated into voting Republican instead. But this conventional charge is singularly unconvincing. In the first place, corruption, equally on both sides, was a marked feature of all the elections in this era, and there is no evidence whatever that there was any sudden or significant increase in pro-Republican corruption in 1896. 
Secondly, the Bryan forces did not charge rural coercion or corruption. The coercion was supposed to be over labourers by employers in the urban areas. And yet the Australian secret ballot was by now prevalent and such coercion would have been unfeasible. Moreover, it must be noted that Bryan, though concededly far below the Democratic urban vote in 1892, was yet stronger than the Democratic urban vote in the intervening congressional elections of 1894. Does this mean that the coercion of workers by Republican employers was less against the hated Bryan in 1896 than it had been against the Conservative Democrats two years earlier? Finally, none of this even begins to explain why Bryan was rejected by the very Midwestern farmers who were supposed to be ardent Bryan supporters and whom no one claims were coerced. Poor Grover Cleveland had the ill fortune to assume office just after the Depression of 1893 had begun, and just soon enough to be hit with the blame by the voting public. The bankruptcy of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad had come two weeks before Cleveland's inauguration in March, and then in early May, the panic and its attendant bankruptcies hit the American economy. The result was indeed a cataclysmic defeat for the Democrats in the congressional elections of 1894. In the elections of 1892, 61.2% of the House of Representatives was Democratic. But after the fall 1894 elections, only 29.4% of the House was Democrat, a disastrous loss of no less than 113 seats. The catastrophic declines hit across the board, in every region, occupation, ethnic, religious and income group, and Democratic strength was in many areas at an all-time low. In the Midwest, the Democratic voting percentage fell an average of 9.9%, from 46.9% in 1892 to 37.0% two years later. In Ohio and Wisconsin, Democratic strength was at an all-time low, as was virtually true of Michigan as well. Despite all the talk among historians of an agrarian upheaval in the 1890s, the urban areas in the Northeast and the Midwest reacted even more sharply against the democracy in 1894 than did the rural areas. Taking urban as against rural areas, for example, Democratic voting dropped 13 points in urban Michigan, from 50% to 37%, from 1892 to 1894, and 18 points in rural Michigan, from 48% to 30%, dropped 16 points from 50% to 34% in urban Wisconsin, and 8 points from 47% to 39% in rural Wisconsin, and fell 7 points from 49% to 42% in urban Ohio, in contrast to 4 points from 46% to 42% in the rural parts of that state. The conclusion is that while democratic strength fell in all parts of the state, it declined more heavily in urban areas, except for Michigan. Furthermore, the large losses for the democracy transcended income levels. Wealthy and poor rural counties dropped their support to a similar extent. Moreover, the decline was trans-ethnic, with the various ethnic and religious groups all cutting their votes for the Democrats, the degree varying with the intensity of Democratic loyalties. Another point for the Midwest is that Republican gains did not match Democratic losses. For the region as a whole, 
the democratic loss of 9.9 points in 1894 was matched by a gain of only 6.7 points by the Republican Party. The difference represented a gain of support for the Populist Party, which also gained from declines suffered by the Prohibitionists. Thus, in rural Wisconsin, while all income classes cut their support of the Democrats to the same extent, the decline in democratic strength among religious and ethnic groups depended on the intensity of each group's democratic commitment. Thus, the highly conservative and liturgical Wisconsin Synod Lutherans reduced their support of the democracy by a lower amount than the less conservative Missouri Synod. German Catholics cut their support of the Democrats by an even lesser amount, and still lower were the defections of the Irish Catholics. Only the staunchly devoted Polish Catholics, of all the ethnic groups, actually increased their support of the democracy in 1894. In urban districts too, the Democrats lost across the board, among all income, occupational and ethnic religious groups. In some cases, Republican votes increased commensurately. In others, defecting Democrats either failed to vote at all or voted populist. Defections from the Democrats were even greater among the depressed miners and lumbermen. The impact of the Depression caused the public to stress economic issues more intensively than before. In 1890, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act had cemented an alliance between the Republicans and the inflationist pro-silver forces, and tended to ally the latter to the protectionist cause, the Republicans being, above all, the party of the protective tariff. The Democrats, as well as being free traders, had been historically a solidly hard-money, gold-standard party, and the Democratic platform of 1892 condemned the Silver Purchase Act and called for its repeal. Editor's Footnote by the end of the 1880s, many more Republicans, especially in the East, favoured hard-money policies. The Republican campaign platform of 1888 supported the use of both gold and silver, and true to its pledge, President Harrison signed the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. End footnote. True to its commitment, the first act of the new Cleveland administration was to push through repeal which enabled the Republicans to pull out the demagogic stops and blame the silver purchase repeal for the Depression. Footnote. Unfortunately, Cleveland made the fateful decision to go back on his platform commitment to repeal the 10% tax on state banknotes, in force since the Civil War. This tax had destroyed the decentralized free banking system of pre-Civil War America and had replaced it with a quasi-centralised and more inflationary banking system. Repeal would have changed the banking system in the strong direction of decentralised free banking, and while it would not really have been inflationist, the pro-inflationary South and West believed differently. The Cleveland administration then could have split the inflationist South and West while fostering, rather than crippling, the long-standing democratic free banking and hard money principles. End footnote. In response, and in despair at the increased affections to the pro-silver and inflationist populists, the Democrats, at least in the South and West, continued to shift their positions and to take up the free-silver cause. The two parties continued and intensified their differences, however, on the protective tariff question. Pledged to tariff reduction, 
the Democrats drove through the Wilson-Gorman Act in 1893-94. Unfortunately, however, the Southern and Far Western democracy, increasingly infected with populist views, forced the Democrats to pass an income tax measure as part of the total package. Although rather astute businessmen and such New York and New Jersey Democratic leaders as U.S. Senator David B. Hill, New York, and James Smith, Jr., New Jersey, fought against the income tax, the increasingly statist South and West were able to push it through, with the passive support of Cleveland, who was willing to accept the new tax in return for the tariff cut. Footnote. The Democrats, in passing an income tax, were also responding to Republican taunts of where government revenue would be coming from if tariffs were significantly lower. There was, of course, another answer, that pre-Civil War America had gotten along nicely with free trade and no income tax, and reduced spending could have restored that kind of a revenue system. Editor's Remarks Cleveland was ultimately dissatisfied with the minor tariff reductions in the Wilson-Gorman Act and allowed the bill to become law without his signature. The income tax was later struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional in 1895, and the Wilson-Gorman tariff was replaced by the 1897 Dingley tariff, which reaffirmed protectionism. The income tax would return in the Taft administration, and alongside the rate-reducing Underwood tariff, the 16th Amendment was passed under the Taft and Wilson administrations in 1913. The passage of the income tax was due to a coalition of groups favouring tariff reduction, but eager to find a substitute source of revenue. They were the progressive populists, who wanted to reduce income inequality, manufacturing export firms, and those involved in South American and Asian foreign direct investment. The latter also had a vested interest in using the tax to fund the growing pension plans and naval military build-up, which would be used to protect their overseas investments. Although under the initial law the tax only hit the upper class with the top rate at 7%, during World War I the government extended its encroachment, and rates skyrocketed, including on the middle class. A high income tax penalises up-and-coming entrepreneurs, who earn high annual incomes relative to their wealth, at the expense of existing wealthy entrepreneurs, who earn relatively low annual incomes. As a result, it reduces income mobility and ossifies the existing elite. End footnote. Some Democrats were still able to champion their old low-tax and low-budget principles, however. Thus, in Wisconsin, the Democrats pointed out the depression relief their tax-cutting policies caused. On generally weak economic grounds because of the Depression, the Democrats in 1894 tried to shift grounds to cultural issues, and therefore launched a blistering attack on the newly burgeoning American Protective Association. For the benefit of the German Lutherans, the Democrats stressed the nativist as well as the anti-Catholic policies of the APA. In response, the Republicans intensified the regroupment of issues already underway, it would be folly to lose their current advantage on economic issues by alienating Lutherans and other potential defectors from the democracy. And where the moderates were in control, the Republicans tried to avoid close identification with the APA. 
Thus, in Wisconsin, the Republican establishment managed to defeat the pietist Nils Horgan, an ardent supporter of the nativist and anti-parochial school Bennett Law, for the gubernatorial nomination. The moderates even wanted to nominate a German Lutheran for state treasurer, but were defeated by the furious opposition of the La Follette gang, the pietist Horgan La Follette faction in the state party. 2. The Final Collapse, 1896 One of Paul Kleppner's great contributions is to show for the first time that the democratic collapse of 1894 and 1896 were two very different movements, with different explanations and occurring in very different segments of the population. Overall, the critical nature of both elections is seen by the unusually high degree of voter turnout in both cases as well as in the fact that a very close contest was replaced by an overwhelming Republican strength. Thus, in the Midwest, a difference between the two parties of plus or minus 3% throughout the region from 1888 to 1892 was replaced by a Republican margin of 16% in 1894, 11% in 1896, and 12.5% in 1900. Suddenly, the Democrats had been reduced to the status of a permanent minority party. But the overall figures are misleading, for the crucial point about 1896 is the great difference in the type of party support that had been true two years before. The first difference to be pointed out between 1894 and 1896 is the enormous drop of the minor party vote in the latter year. In fact, the minor party vote in the Midwest prohibitionist and populist, had risen from 1892 to 1894 and then dropped far below the 1892 level in the 1896 election. Thus, the major party vote, combined Democrat and Republican, in Michigan was 91% in 1892, fell to 88% two years later and then rose to 97% in 1896, a startling nine-point gain in the major party totals. Similarly, in Ohio, the progression was 95% in 1892, 89% in 1894, and 99% in 1896. In Wisconsin, it was 94%, 90%, and 98% in 1896. Thus, what had been in a sense a four-party system suddenly became a veritable two-party system in 1896, or a -a one-and-a-half-party system with the Republicans in permanent majority. In short, both Republicans and Democrats made overall gains in 1896 as compared to 1894. But particularly important is the sort of gains and losses experienced by both parties, for the old ethnic and religious verities in voting patterns were now broken, and the new and startling ethnic and religious pattern continued unbroken in 1900. In short, a new fourth-party system had emerged in the United States. A key to the difference between 1894 and 1896 is that while the defectors from the Democrats tended to return to the fold in the latter year, another and permanently significant shift occurred, a massive shift of traditional liturgicals from the Democrats to the Republicans, and of pietists from Republicans to Democrats. Thus, the biggest Democratic gains in Michigan and Ohio took place in traditionally Republican, Old Stock and British counties. 
What happened? The key factor was the conquest of the Democratic Party at the July 1896 National Convention by William Jennings Bryan and the forces of inflation and free silver. An upheaval was occurring in the Democratic Party. The South, by now a one-party Democratic region, was having its own pietism transformed by the 1890s. Quiet pietists were now becoming evangelical, and Southern Protestant organizations began to call for prohibition. The new sparsely settled mountain states, many of them with silver mines, were also largely pietist. The existing hard-money laissez-faire democracy of President Cleveland was suddenly and tragically repudiated. The traditional democracy, the Party of the Fathers, was gone forever. The Bryanite victory had been made possible by the Depression-created heavy democratic losses in the East and Midwest in 1893 and 1894, losses that swung the balance of national party leadership to the perpetually democratic South and to the free silver mountain states of the West. The Bryan conquest was the result. Bryan claimed to represent the toiling masses, the workers and farmers of America, and championed silver and inflation against the Eastern interests. Conventionally, historians have claimed that Bryan succeeded at least among his beloved rural and agrarian voters. Yet, if we examine the figures, a very different pattern emerges. In the Midwest, for example, Bryan gained only a minority of the rural vote, and in Michigan and Wisconsin, that vote was very much lower than the Democrats had obtained in 1892, 41.0% against 47.8% in Michigan, 37.2% as against 47.4% in Wisconsin. Similarly, the Bryan urban vote was also far below the 1892 levels. It is true that in each case, both urban and rural, the Democratic vote tended to be better than the 1894 disaster. But this was cold comfort to the Democrats when the enormous distance from 1892 was realized. It is true that if we compare the urban-rural Democratic percentages in the Midwest for the two presidential years, the Democrats had been very slightly better in urban areas before and were now generally better in rural areas. But this hardly constitutes a great rural strength considering the Democrats being in a hopeless minority even there. Kleppner has examined Democratic percentages by detailed size of urban unit, from 2,500 population to 100,000 and over, in Michigan and Wisconsin. From his study, it is clear that in 1892, there was no trend by size of place in Wisconsin, and a very slight increase of Democratic support in the larger urban areas in Michigan. Democratic support fell drastically across the board in 1894, even more in small towns in Michigan and in larger cities in Wisconsin. In 1896, Democratic support, with the exception of Detroit, bounced back from two years earlier, but far below the 1892 levels in every area. In general, over the Midwest, he did badly in both, and there was generally no greater difference in urban and rural patterns than had existed since the 1870s. What of the income class? Is there any support for the view that Bryan was beloved by the urban working poor? If we take the various wards in Chicago, we find an erratic pattern of votes from upper to lower class wards in 1892, ranging from upper through middle and lower class 
we get democratic percentages in that year of 45%, 56%, 45%, 57%, and 63%. The Depression years of 1893 and 1894 saw steady and catastrophic declines of democratic votes across the board in all income class categories. From 1892 to 1894, we see the following point reductions ranging from upper class to lower class wards. 16%, 24%, 15%, 25 and 22%. Then all wards bounce back in 1896, but still far below the 1892 levels. It is true that the Democrats fared slightly less badly in the lower wards, but what we see overwhelmingly is an across-the-board, multi-class repudiation of the democracy. Ranging from upper to lower class wards, the Democratic point losses from 1892 to 1896 were 18%, 17%, 12%, 15%, and 14%. The non-class nature of the Bryan vote may be seen even more clearly in Detroit, where, again, the Democrats did badly in all wards, but where they were able to bounce back better was in the rich wards than in the poorer. Thus, in 1892, the Democrats earned 52.2% in the richest wards and 59.0% in the working-class wards. In 1894, they fell by 12 points in the rich wards to 40.4% and by 16 points in the working-class wards to 43.3%. In 1896, however, while the Democrats were able to rise a bit in the rich wards of Detroit to 41.2%, in the working-class wards they fell even more sharply to the same 41.2%. Similarly, there was no income cohesion in the rural areas. Marginal and prosperous townships behaved very differently among themselves, with no clear differences between the two groups. As Kleppner concludes on the rural areas, there was no discernible relationship between receptivity to the Bryan candidacy and degree of economic prosperity. In general, as economic groups, Neither urban workers nor farmers reacted favourably to the candidate and his gospel of commodity price inflation. And the Bryan candidacy met a similarly disastrous fate in the Northeast as well. What happened to the democracy? Why didn't rural America respond to the agrarian economic appeals of the Bryanites? Simply because the Bryan Democrats were most aggressively not the Democratic Party of the Fathers. They were neither the party of the liturgicals nor of personal and economic liberty. On the contrary, the Bryanites were both extreme economic statists and extreme religious and cultural pietists. All too far from the party of personal liberty, the Bryanites were statists and pietists across the board, even more moralistic than the old Republican enemy. And when we consider that the Republicans had been moving rapidly, and moved still further during the 1896 McKinley campaign toward the moderate centre and away from statist pietism, we can readily understand the massive defection of the liturgicals from the Bryan democracy and toward the Republicans, or toward dropping completely out of the political process. Democratic loyalists, whom even a depression could not budge, were driven out of their party home by the invasion and triumph of the Bryanite forces. Conversely, the conquest by Bryan heralded a substantial movement of pietists into the Democratic camp. Some were old-stock Republicans, 
Others were prohibitionists and populists. Indeed, that in effect is what happened to these latter two parties, a dissolution into the newly reconstructed pietistic and statist democracy. In the Midwest, the populists were of two breeds. There were the 1892 populists, who had begun as Republicans and then, disgusted by the Republican sellout to German Lutherans and to the saloon, moved to the Prohibitionist Party. Most were native Methodists, British and Welsh Methodists, or Norwegian and Swedish Lutherans, dedicated pietists all. In 1892, many of these shifted into the new Populist Party. Then in 1894, the many Democrats defecting because of the Depression joined the Populist ranks. The 1892 Populists, then, were originally Republicans whose main motivation was pietism. The 1894 Populists were ex-Democrats whose main worry was economic. Unsurprisingly, the two breeds of populists reacted differently to the critical 1896 election. The pietistic 1892 populists, ex-Republicans, moved solidly into the Democratic ranks. Similarly, the Prohibitionists voted overwhelmingly for their fellow Prohibitionist, Bryan, in 1896. On the other hand, most of the ex-Democrat 1894 populists shifted into the Republican ranks. Most of the Republican gains in 1896, indeed, came either directly from the Democrats or from the ex-Democrat 1894 populists. The explanation was squarely ethnic-religious, pietist versus liturgical. For a half-century, the Democrats had been the party of the Catholics and other liturgicals, the Republicans and other minor parties had been the party of the pietists, the coercive reformers and statists trying to reform the liturgicals by the use of the police. Now, suddenly, in 1896, a new party system arrived. The Catholics, repelled by the ultra-pietistic Bryanites, shifted en masse into the Republican Party that was prepared to receive their votes and support. In the Midwest, the biggest shifts came in Michigan. A large majority of Catholics had voted Democratic in the 1892 and 1894 elections, now, in 1896, an actual majority of Catholics shifted into the Republican ranks. The German Lutherans shifted to the same degree away from the democracy. Conversely, old-stock Protestants shifted toward the Democrats for the first time, although they often continued to give a majority to the Republicans, who had not, after all, experienced the convulsive upheaval that had transformed the democracy. The Republican change had been gradual, in the direction of fuzzy centrism, and its leadership continued to be the same. In Detroit, Catholic wards shifted en masse from Democrat to Republican, regardless of economic class, and German Lutheran wards maintained their 1894 defection into Republican ranks. In Michigan cities where the Democrats had been strong until 1892, the Democrats continued to lose voters in 1896, while in cities with large numbers of old-stock Protestant voters, the Democrats scored heavy gains. In short, the liturgical areas not only failed to bounce back from 1894, but suffered greater Democratic reverses, whereas Democrats gained votes in pietist areas. This result obtained regardless of the size of the town or city. The same pattern held for rural areas of Michigan. In Calhoun County, the Democrats gained in every rural township except one, Fredonia, a German Lutheran unit, 
the only place in the county where the Democrats did less well than in 1892. Fredonia voted 55.5% Democratic in 1892 and a poorer 52.6% in 1896. The Republican gains were even more striking, 35.4% in 1892 and 44.6% in 1896. In contrast, the Methodist township of Leroy, in the same county, shifted massively from the Republican into the Democratic camp. In 1892, Leroy had voted only 30.4% Democratic, and the vote had dropped to a meagre 11.4% in 1894. Yet in 1896, Leroy voted 47.9% for the Democrats, a plurality of the total vote. The Republican vote in Leroy, a whopping 70.4% in 1894, fell to 47.6% two years later. Similarly for other rural counties, the average Democratic gain in St. Joseph County was a huge 32.4 points. The German Lutherans in Mottville scored the lowest Democratic gain, 9.2 points, and thereby were the only township in the county to do less well for the Democrats than in 1892. In contrast, the Evangelical Association Germans of Park Township scored a 45.3-point Democratic gain over 1894, and 35.5 points above the 1892 level. Neither did it make any difference whether the pietistic or liturgical townships were marginal or prosperous rural units. Thus, Park, a poor rural township, voted 60.5% Democratic in 1896, while Lockport, a prosperous Evangelical Association German township in the same county, voted 63.1% for the Democrats. A striking change occurred in Branch County. In 1892, the Democrats had carried only one of Branch's 16 rural townships. In 1896, they carried 11. The biggest Democratic gains came among the Pietistic Methodists and Presbyterians. Thus, California Township, consisting of Presbyterians, Methodists and Congregationalists, voted a decisive 62.1% Democratic in 1896. But in 1892 it had voted 44.2% Democrat, a percentage which fell catastrophically to 5.0% in 1894, and then rose to new heights two years later. Similarly, Methodist Gilead fell from 39% in 1892 to 13% in 1894, and then bounced up to 60.5% two years later. Similarly, in eastern Michigan's rural Washtenaw County, the Democrats in 1896 were stronger than in 1892 in four townships in the county. The townships differed widely in their economic condition. They ranged from marginal to very prosperous. But in each case, the township was native pietist Protestant, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Methodists, and Baptists. In contrast were the Irish Catholic and German Lutheran townships. The Irish units rose slightly over the nadir of 1894 in their democratic voting, but they remained on the average 10.1 points below their 1892 average. The German Lutheran units fared even worse for the democracy, sinking below the 1894 levels and falling to 15.6 points below 1892. In Horton County on the upper peninsula of Michigan, the votes of the copper miners depended once again on their religious orientation. The Catholic miners in Hancock and Portage voted less democratic than in 1892 or 1894, 
while pietist voters shifted into the democratic ranks. In fact, there is a virtual one-to-one correlation between the Catholic or Protestant nature of the township and whether the Democrats lost or gained strength from 1894 to 1896. Even the devotedly Republican and anti-Catholic English Canadians in Horton County now voted a majority for William Jennings Bryan. The Ohio pattern was much the same among the farming as well as the mining townships. In Wisconsin, Democratic losses were most striking among those very groups, Catholic and German Lutherans, who had remained steadfast to the democracy in the 1894 Depression. While the Catholics of Wisconsin did not go as far as their co-religionists in Michigan and give an actual majority to the Republicans, the degree of their defection from the Democrats was severe. The defection also varied among ethnic and cultural groups. The Irish Catholics defected the least, with only two Wisconsin units voting less Democratic than in 1894. All of them, however, registered less Democratic than in 1892. So severe was the trauma that even the loyal Polish Catholics fell away. Every Polish unit reduced the degree of its Democratic support. The German and Bohemian Catholics defected more severely. 70% of German Catholic units in Wisconsin, for example, registered lower Democratic voting percentages than in 1894, much less 1892. And while no Irish or Polish Catholic unit in 1896 presumed to vote a Republican majority, 27.2% of the German Catholic and 50% of the Bohemian Catholic units voted Republican. Not a single one had failed to vote a Democratic majority either in 1892 or 1894. The pattern was even more striking among the German Lutherans of Wisconsin. In Dodge County, for example, the German Lutherans of Hustisford Township had voted a whopping 84.8% Democratic in 1892, and their support scarcely faltered in 1894, falling to 81.8%. Similarly, German Lutheran Theresa Township voted 90.7% Democrat in 1892 and 81.3% in 1894. Yet these two loyal townships, willing to serve through the hardships of the Depression, could not countenance the takeover of their beloved party by the Bryanite enemy. In 1896, Hustisford voted only 46% Democratic, and Theresa only 42.7%. The pattern held throughout the state. Every German Lutheran unit voted less Democratic in 1896 than in 1892, and only 11.3% of them rose higher than the catastrophic Depression lows of 1894. Over the whole state, the Democrats carried 85.2% of the German Lutheran units in 1892, 59.2% in 1894, and only 29.6% in 1896, the lowest German Lutheran support for the democracy in half a century. Conversely, as Catholics and German Lutherans moved from Democrat to Republican, the Pietists moved in the opposite direction. Wisconsin townships with Methodists, Swiss Reformed and Evangelical Association Germans raised their Democratic vote from 10 to 13 points over 1892 levels. Among the Norwegian Lutherans, the more intensely pietistic Horgians, previously far more Republican than the Norwegian Synod, now shifted more strongly into the Democratic camp. The Norwegians still voted more Republican, but the Democratic minority was higher than it had been in a generation. 
the highly pietistic Swedish Lutherans reacted in the same way as the Horgians. Again, while a majority voted Republican, the Democratic minority was now three to four times the percentage in 1892. Thus, in Swedish Burnett County, the Democratic vote was higher than in 1892 in every unit, and the average Democratic vote was 21.4 points higher than in 1892. A similar pattern held true for the urban areas of Wisconsin. In Milwaukee, the Democratic vote fell below the 1892 level in all but one of the wards, and the Republican percentage, 54.1%, was higher than it had been in a decade. Whereas the Irish and Polish Catholic wards fell only about four points below 1892 percentages, the defection was far more serious among German Catholics and Lutherans. A majority of both groups of Milwaukee Germans voted for the Republicans. The Democratic vote by German Catholics fell 12.9 points below the 1892 average. Only among non-Lutheran Protestants in Milwaukee did Bryan run above the 1892 Democratic norm. Milwaukee, due to a local labour dispute and controversy over the Polish language in the public schools, had a more favourable democratic climate for Catholics than the rest of the state. In the other urban areas of Wisconsin, the Democrats not only trailed their 1892 vote among Catholics and German Lutherans, they frequently fell even below 1894. The Democrats fell below 1894 in 37 of the state's 51 urban areas. The degree of loss correlated strongly with the proportion of Catholics in the city's voting population. Size of urban area mattered little in the voting shifts. The massive weakening of the Democratic Party was duplicated in the northeastern states. The defecting Cleveland Democrats either returned to the fold in 1900 or, more likely, became Republican or dropped out of politics altogether. The German Democrats defected massively in New York, New England, and the Middle West. One straw in the wind was the German-American Sound Money League, founded in 1896 and supporting the Republicans, which included such notables as Karl Schertz and Jacob H. Schiff, head of the Kuhn Loeb Investment Bank. While the Germans favoured free trade and opposed a protective tariff, they were particularly incensed at inflation and free silver, and staunchly supported the gold standard. Hence, they were willing to swallow the protective tariff to vote for McKinley and the Republican pro-gold position, however newly won, and against the hated inflationist Bryan. Hence, it was the Germans who led the march to McKinley and the Republicans. Many of the Germans, who could not bring themselves to vote Republican directly, voted for the new National Gold Democratic Party which had broken off from the Democrats in disgust. A leading German Democrat in Illinois, Henry Raab, who had become state superintendent of education in an upsurge against the anti-German parochial school Edwards Law, typified the reaction of German Democrats to the political crisis of 1896. Several years earlier, in 1891, Raab had written of the conservatism and anti-emotionalism of the German religion and their desire to maintain their customs and ideals from political aggression. Raab asserted that the American patriotism of the Germans lay in their, quote, courageous struggle against bimetallism and greenback inflation. Now the determination to pay with honest money, that is patriotism. End quote. Now, in 1896, Raab left the Party of Gold 
voted Gold Democrat and supported William McKinley. Decisive for the Germans of Milwaukee was the address by the Bryanite Populist Democratic candidate for Congress, Robert Schilling. Sounding for all the world like modern Friedmanites or Keynesians, Schilling told the assembled Germans of Milwaukee in a campaign speech that it didn't really matter what commodity was chosen as money, and that gold, silver, copper, paper, sauerkraut or sausages would do equally well as money. The German masses laughed Schilling off the stage, and the shrewdly opportunistic Republicans promptly adopted as their campaign slogan Schilling and Sauerkraut, and swept Milwaukee. So intense was the German-American devotion to gold and hard money that even the German communist anarchist Johann Most, leader of a movement that sought the eventual abolition of money itself, actually came out for the gold standard during the 1896 campaign. The Illinois Stratzetung, looking back on the 1896 campaign and the decisive shift of the German electorate, summed up its motivations. Quote, They, the Germans, have many complaints against the Republican Party, which annoyed them continually with prohibition laws, Sunday closing laws and school laws. The Germans consequently turned their backs upon the Republicans, with the result that Cleveland was twice elected and if the Democrats had not inscribed repudiation, bankruptcy and dishonour upon their colours as a result of their union with the populists, the Germans would have supported them this time also. End quote. Since the Irish Catholics bolted less drastically from the democracy than the other groups, they remained to pick up the pieces and assume control of the Democratic Party, especially in the big cities. In the northeast, the wholesale defection of the Cleveland Protestants left control within the party to the Irish Catholics, who proceeded for the first time in ensuing years to nominate and even elect Irish Catholic governors in New York, New Jersey and New England. In the two years after McKinley's election, the Irish-led Democrats ousted Republican mayors from a host of big cities in the Northeast and Midwest. New York City, Chicago, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Detroit, Akron, Dayton, Springfield and Milwaukee. Partly the Irish stuck to the party as a strategy of gaining control. Partly it was a function of the pervasive dependence of the Irish on municipal government jobs and hence on party patronage. In short, the election of 1896 left the United States with a new party system, a centrist and moderately statist Republican Party with a comfortable permanent majority of the country and a minority Democratic Party, roughly confined to the one-party South and to Irish-controlled big cities of the Northeast and Midwest, which were nevertheless a minority in those regions. Gone was the sharp conflict of ideology or even of ethnic religious values. Both parties were now moderately statist in different degrees. Both parties contained pietists and liturgicals within their ranks. The McKinley Republicans were happy to be known as the Party of Prosperity rather than the Party of Great Moral Ideas. The familiar lack of clear and genuine ideological choice between two dominant parties, so characteristic of modern America, was beginning to emerge. Above all, there was no longer a political party, nor a clear-cut constituency, devoted to the traditional American ideology of laissez-faire. 3. The Transformation of the Parties 
The key to the drastic change in the American party system in 1896, then, was the ideological change in each of the major parties. The forces of hopped-up pietistic Bryanism had captured the Democratic Party and changed its character forever from its ancient laissez-faire principles. At the same time, McKinleyite pragmatism had transformed the Republican Party from the home of statist pietism, from the party of great moral ideas, to a moderate statist organization, cleaving only to the protective tariff and dumping any emphasis on such emotional and pietistic issues as prohibition or Sunday blue laws. The pull of the newfound Republican pragmatism, combined with the push of the Bryanite takeover to drive the liturgicals into the Republican Party and cement Republican hegemony for a generation. How did the fatal transformations take place? In the first place, in both parties, the metamorphosis was made possible by the short-run but cataclysmic Democratic losses, matched by Republican victories, in the state and congressional elections of 1894. Losses and victories brought about by the general blame placed on the Cleveland administration for the Depression. In the Democratic Party, the losses, concentrated in the Northeast and Midwest, seemed to discredit Cleveland and his hard-money and laissez-faire policies, and also topple laissez-faire and Clevelandite officeholders, with the power vacuum bringing the pro-inflationist and pietist South and Mountain West into national leadership in the Democratic Party. In the Republican Party, too, the cause of pragmatic moderation, which McKinley and others had preached for several years, was advanced by the new Republican officeholders of 1893 and 1894, who did not want to be retired by liturgical constituents after the Depression was over. As a corollary, their increased majorities freed the Republicans from their political dependence on the Prohibition Party and its small but important marginal block of voters. Furthermore, the Depression made economic issues more important relative to personal issues in the eyes of the voters, and gave the Republican moderates leeway to de-emphasize the social issues for once and for all, and to become, in their own claim, the Party of Prosperity. The important transforming role of the new Republican state legislatures in previously Democratic districts is shown by the fact that in the 1894 and 1895 sessions, they voted more nearly like their Democratic predecessors than like traditional Republicans. This was definitely true of Iowa, Illinois, and Wisconsin. In the 1894 session of the Ohio legislators, the new Republicans voted cohesively to weaken a local liquor option bill, and then finally to defeat this prohibitionist measure. In Michigan, the new Republicans consistently voted not to discuss prohibition, as well as to table petitions from evangelical religious groups calling for a prohibition referendum. Furthermore, they united to table a favorite measure of the American Protestants Association to repeal the Michigan law permitting Catholic bishops to hold the property of their churches in trust. William McKinley came to the 1896 Republican Convention as the obvious front-runner. In 1890, as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, McKinley had given his name to the highest protective tariff in American history and thereby became inextricably linked with the hottest Republican issue. It was an issue that endeared McKinley to the protected manufacturers fearful of foreign competition and anxious, furthermore, to organise cartels or mergers under the cover of the tariff umbrella, protecting them from foreign competition.
This was particularly true of the manufacturers of Western Pennsylvania and of McKinley's home state of Ohio. Furthermore, McKinley established his front-running status by bucking a democratic tide and by raising the banner of pragmatism, winning of governorship of Ohio. William McKinley, though a Methodist of Ulster Scott ancestry, learned early the value of a moderating and integrative role across the religious and ethnic groups. His career in law and politics was developed in Stark County, Ohio, where he found it necessary to appeal to a large proportion of German Lutheran and German and Irish Catholic voters. Furthermore, his family's connection with iron manufacturing also led McKinley to stress economic issues and the protective tariff. America's inefficient iron and steel industry had led the cry for a protective tariff ever since 1820, and had continued to do so in the protectionist years after the Civil War. McKinley's longtime friend, political boss, and mentor in the new pragmatic approach was the Cleveland industrialist Marcus Alonzo Hanna. As a coal and iron magnate, Hanna also championed the protective tariff. Hanna was a longtime friend and business associate of John D. Rockefeller and provided the channel by which the Cleveland oil refiner was able to influence the powerful Ohio Republican Party, a party which gave no less than five presidential nominees to the National Party between 1876 and 1920. Hanna had been a high school chum of Rockefeller's at Central High, Cleveland, and his coal and iron business was economically closely allied with Standard Oil. Relatives of Hanna were direct investors in the stock of the closely held Standard Oil Trust. Hanna repeatedly loaned money to the ever-hard-pressed McKinley while in office, and in 1893 Hanna organised a secret consortium of industrialists to salvage the governor when he went bankrupt. It was Hanna who engineered the McKinley nomination, promptly became national chairman of the party, and was then, at McKinley's instigation, elevated to the US Senate the year after McKinley's election to the presidency. But while McKinley was the leading candidate for the nomination, he had a problem. The Republican Party had been the home of inflationists and free silver forces, and Congressman McKinley had repeatedly voted for silver purchase acts and for free silver. He was therefore distrusted by the pro-gold Morgan forces and the rest of Wall Street, which considered McKinley, and with good reason, dangerously soft on silver and inflation. The Morgans, it is true, were traditionally Democrats, but the impending takeover of the democracy by the wild-eyed Bryanites forced them to focus on their allies within the Republican Party and look to that party for salvation. Also distrusting McKinley's silverite record was the powerful Speaker of the House, Thomas B. Reed of Maine, who presented himself for the nomination. Furthermore, McKinley would aggravate the Morgans further by refusing to agree to the Morgans' candidate for the presidency, the prominent banker and close friend of Morgan, Levy P. Morton, as a consolation choice for vice president. Morton, currently the governor of New York, was former vice president of the United States under Benjamin Harrison and president of the Morton Trust Company, which was later to form the nucleus for the Morgan-dominated Guarantee Trust Company. From the summer of 1895 until the Republican convention in June of the following year, the Morgan forces put enormous pressure upon McKinley and Hanna to abandon silver, as well as trimming upon the currency issue to advocate gold openly and squarely. The sources of pressure included William C. Beer, 
attorney for the Morgan-controlled New York Life Insurance Company, Whitelaw Reed, publisher of the New York Tribune, and Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts. They were joined by Thomas C. Platt, Republican boss of New York State, who was fueled by an $85,000 fund provided by the American Bankers Association. McKinley and his associates had prepared a Republican monetary plank calling for the maintenance of the existing standard. Forwarding this insertion to McKinley, Whitelaw Reed urged in commenting upon Wall Street opinion, quote, The anxiety here on the whole subject of the money plank to be adopted next week, in late June at St. Louis, can hardly be exaggerated. There seems to be no doubt that the most conservative bankers are extremely apprehensive that any hesitation on our part to take the squarest sound money ground would bring a great and probably sudden depression in values. On the other hand, there is no doubt that the enclosed blank will be followed by an appreciation in values. End quote. Finally, on the eve of the Republican convention, McKinley capitulated and committed himself wholeheartedly to the gold standard. In its platform, the Republican Party declared itself unreservedly for sound money and unalterably opposed to every measure calculated to debase our currency or impair the credit of the country. It concluded that it was opposed to the free coinage of silver except by international agreement and that until such agreement can be obtained, the existing gold standard must be preserved. The adoption of the firm gold standard plank by the Republican Party drove the silver Republicans out of the convention and out of the party. Their leader, Senator Henry Teller of Colorado, one of the founders of the Republican Party, mounted the rostrum at the convention and announced that he and 33 other delegates, largely from the mountain states of Montana, Colorado, Utah and Idaho, were bolting the convention and the Republican Party. Clearly they were planning to leave for the reconstituted Democratic Party that was widely expected to emerge the following month at Chicago. Footnote. Senator Teller himself owned $2 million in silver and other mining stock. This points up the role of the silver mining interest in pushing for Bryan and free silver. Silver advocates Senators John P. Jones and William Stewart of Nevada were both wealthy silver mine operators. Marcus Daly, major owner of the Great Anaconda Mines in Montana, fought for free silver and was the main subsidizer of the American Bimetallic League, which employed Bryan as a lecturer. Daly and his Anaconda associates spent $289,000 to obtain delegates for free silver at the Democratic Convention, and Daly gave $50,000 more to the Bryan campaign after the nomination. William Randolph Hearst, young newspaper publisher and son of Daly's late partner at Anaconda, was the major press supporter for the Bryan campaign. End footnote. The Silver Republicans were gone but it was a bargain price for the Republicans to pay for becoming the gold party in the United States. For in return, the Republicans were able to attract not only the Morgans and Wall Street, but also the Germans and other liturgicals devoted to gold and sound money. Editor's footnote. With McKinley firmly committed to gold, his subsequent success in 1896 and the affirmative Gold Standard Act of 1900, the Morgans and other big bankers could gather their forces and now concentrate on monetary reform to correct the defects of the national banking system and replace it not with free banking,
but with a more centralised and cartelized system of monetary expansion, namely a central bank. This was in contrast to the more blatant congressional inflationism of the Bryanite democracy. End footnote. The next month, in July at Chicago, the Bryanites achieved their conquest of the Democratic Party at the National Convention. Their triumph had been prefigured for the past two years, as the Bryanites had captured state after state party in the South and West. Even the Midwestern state parties fell, with only staunch Wisconsin remaining in pro-gold hands. After teetering back and forth, the Michigan democracy finally fell to the Bryan forces, with the result that the Democrats lost the state for a decade. At Chicago, the Democrats repudiated their own sitting president, Grover Cleveland, adopted a radically new platform, and for the first time since the Civil War, turned away from the Northeast and chose as their presidential nominee someone from west of the Mississippi. William Jennings Bryan was born of a small-town pietist stock in southern Illinois. As a Southern Baptist, Bryan's father was a leading Democrat and one-time state senator. Bryan was the quintessential pietist and believer in state paternalism and compulsory morality, believing in the Christian duty of the state to create a safe social atmosphere for the righteous. So marked were these traits in Bryan that his leading biographer calls him a political evangelist, while another distinguished historian has dubbed Bryan a revivalist. Moving to Lincoln, Nebraska as a young attorney, Bryan quickly rose in Democratic Party politics. As a Democrat, he could not yet commit himself or his party to prohibition, but he soon made his mark as a personal temperance man, and he managed to commit the state party in 1889 to restricting the flow of liquor through high license fees. The following year, Bryan ran successfully for Congress, with many liturgicals living in a district which encompassed both Lincoln and Omaha, Bryan managed to pick up votes from both sides of the prohibition issue for his middle-of-the-road stance. Instead, he stressed the veteran democratic issue of opposition to the protective tariff. But two years later, Omaha had been reapportioned out of Bryan's district, which was now significantly more pietist, native Protestant, prohibitionist, and agrarian. In his campaign for re-election, Bryan could adopt free silver as his major cause and thereby win over the votes of the pietistic agrarian populists in his district. At the Chicago Democratic Convention, the fateful result was prefigured by the first tussle at the meeting, one in which Clevelandite Senator David B. Hill of New York moved that the convention endorse the Cleveland administration. When the motion was voted down, the pattern of the convention and of the new Democratic Party was clear. The Cleveland democracy was now squarely confronted with what their course of action should be. Probably the only hope for the old laissez-faire democracy would have been an immediate and massive bolt, a blistering denunciation of the Bryanites, and the creation of a new third party to carry the Clevelandite banner. This might have kept the liturgical and laissez-faire constituency, and the new party could either have continued permanently or else dissolved into a recaptured democratic party. A bolt and denunciation was the courageous course advocated by a group headed by New York Governor Roswell P. Flower and 25 other New York delegates, including financier Perry Belmont and Wall Street lawyer Frederick R. Coudert. 
But the New York Clevelandite leaders, Senator Hill and Cleveland's financial and political mentor, William C. Whitney, decreed otherwise. The Cleveland forces temporized instead, and merely decided to abstain from future ballots, or even vote in token fashion, for former Governor Robert E. Patterson of Pennsylvania. Having lost their best chance, the Cleveland Democrats tried to decide what to do. Financier Whitney pleaded with McKinley to soft-pedal the protective tariff, and thereby form a broad coalition against Bryanism. McKinley, however, was willing to soft-pedal everything else, but protectionism, after all, was both his own and his party's only distinctive programme remaining. The Clevelandites, therefore, decided at last to form a third party, the National Democrats, or Gold Democrats, who met in September at Indianapolis. The best and most dramatic candidate for the Gold Democrats would have been President Cleveland himself, but he refused any nomination in advance. The new party then nominated Senator John M. Palmer of Illinois for president and Simon B. Buckner of Kentucky for vice president. The fact that Palmer had been a Union general and Buckner a Confederate general in the Civil War symbolised the desire of the Gold Democrats to bury the old North-South hatchet. The platform, prepared by the veteran head of the Wisconsin democracy, Senator William F. Villas, not only came out strongly for the gold standard and denounced free silver, it also denounced protectionism, free silver's ally in the governmental creation of special privilege. It went on to attack all forms of governmental paternalism. The National Democratic Platform was the last gasp of the old hard-money laissez-faire democracy. The major support for the new party came from the Honest Money Democrats of Illinois and of other Midwestern and border states. They had found their state parties captured by the Bryanites and were therefore desperate enough to form another party. The Eastern Clevelandites, however, still controlled their local parties and were therefore less willing to form a new one. The Southern Democrats also were too worried about populists or about a possible Republican revival to dare to bolt the party. The Eastern Sound Money Democrats also failed to support the third party because their understandable but short-sighted eagerness to defeat Bryan in the election made them virtual or outright champions of McKinley. This was the route taken by Whitney, Flower, Kudert, Representative William Bork Cockrum of New York's Tammany Hall and the financier Thomas Fortune Ryan. Cleveland himself approved of the National Democrats but vacillated in public support. Leading New York supporter of the Gold Democrats was Calvin Tompkins, head of the state committee of the new party and chairman of the ardently pro-gold Sound Currency Committee of the Reform Club of New York, an organisation which was also fervently in favour of free trade. In contrast to the other short-sighted Clevelandites, Tompkins saw the need for a long-run sound money party, which could educate the public permanently and form a continuing structure for the hard money constituency in the country. Unfortunately, even Palmer and the National Gold Democrat chairman William D. Bynum of Indiana envisioned the new party as merely a pro-McKinley move rather than the beginnings of a permanent organisation on behalf of laissez-faire democracy. Apart from Tompkins, only Ellis B. Usher, chairman of the Wisconsin Gold Democrats, saw the party as a permanent way of keeping alive the flickering flame of personal and economic liberty, of rebuilding the old democracy in a new institutional form. 
Beset by a lack of spirit and vision, the National Democratic Party unsurprisingly played only a minor role in the 1896 campaign. They polled only roughly 133,000 votes out of 13.7 million and achieved balance of power status only in Kentucky and California. The National Democrats quickly faded from view after the election. The last chance to preserve laissez-faire democracy was lost. But, to be fair, even the best will in the world might not have established the National Democrats as a permanent political force. For the liturgicals shifted to the Republicans rather than the National Democrats precisely because they correctly perceive the new McKinley Republicanism as having abandoned pietism and changed to a pragmatic and centrist party. The woes of the Democrats intensified after the election. The Eastern Sound Money men were scarcely rewarded for not joining the national democracy. On the contrary, in the wake of the smashing Democratic defeat, the old-stock Protestants who had run the Democratic Party in the eastern cities, men such as Grover Cleveland, Calvinist and hence creedal rather than pietist, Presbyterian from Buffalo, were now removed from leadership positions and deposed by men rising up from the predominantly Irish constituency. But the Irish Democrats soon found that it had been easier to unite Catholic and Lutheran ethnic groups under the benign leadership of old-line wasps. Throughout New England, the new Irish domination of the Democratic Party rapidly alienated newly burgeoning Italian and French Catholic voters, who now proved amenable to the lures of the new open Republican Party. In urban eastern areas, the growing identification of the democracy as the Irish Party succeeded in repelling other Catholic and liturgical voters and cemented the Republican Party as the national majority party. In addition to these troubles, the democracy became shaken after Bryan's takeover by prohibitionist sentiment. The South became converted to prohibitionism and was now the preeminent sectional stronghold of the Democratic Party. The post-Bryan democracy outside of the South was not cohesively prohibitionist but it was racked by powerful struggles over the issue within each state party. In some eastern states, such as New York and Massachusetts, the internal battle was quickly won by the Wets and Catholics. In others, however, the battle was closer and longer-lasting. Thus, in Ohio in 1905, the Democrats gained the endorsement of the powerful Anti-Saloon League by nominating a prohibitionist for governor against a post-McKinley Republican. In New Jersey, anti-Saloon League endorsement of the rising progressive Democrat Woodrow Wilson ensured his election for governor in 1910 and put him on the road to the presidency. The anti-Saloon endorsement raised the turnout rate in the rural, native, Protestant southern counties of the state by a remarkable 10 to 15 percentage points over the 1906 election, and Wilson's share of the vote increased by 12 to 20 points above the Democratic gubernatorial vote four years earlier. What of the other minor parties, the populists and the prohibitionists? The inflationist and statist populists, gleeful at the Bryan victory as a triumph for their principles, happily nominated Bryan for president and later dissolved themselves into the Democratic Party. The Farmers' Alliance movement, as much prohibitionist and pro-Sabbath law as they were agrarian statists, also supported Bryan to the hilt. While Bryan did not openly come out for prohibition, the prohibitionists correctly perceived him as one of their own. While the prohibition party refused to fuse into the democracy, 
much fusion for Brian occurred at the county level throughout the Midwest. Indeed, when the National Convention of the Prohibition Party insisted, as narrow gauges, on keeping to one issue and to their separate entity, the broad gauges split from the Prohibition Party and formed the National Party, dedicated to fusing prohibitionists with the new Brianite democracy. Their support, added to the whole support of state and local WCTU organisations, brought most prohibitionists into the Bryan camp. In effect then, the Prohibition Party also dissolved into the Bryanite democracy. Populists for Bryan habitually hailed his candidacy as the new moral crusade, a crusade against the saloon power and the embodiment of a new party of piety. Bryanite silver clubs arose throughout the South and West, behaving like revival meetings on an all-out moral crusade, and thereby frightening the liturgicals as much with their style and rhetoric as well as the substance of their programme. As Professor Kleppner writes, quote, The tripartite cooperation of Democrats, populists and prohibitionists was the type of grand union of reformers that many of the Midwestern prohibition leaders especially had sought for several years. Bryanites were not concerned with a mere reactivation of old loyalties, but with the creation of a new coalition of voters. They hoped to draw support from the prohibition, populist and republican ranks by appealing to the concern of such voters for the creation of a moral society. To reinforce the proclivity of these voters to shift to the new party of morality, they employed free silver ideology. It was intended to function as a morally toned ideology, enlisting the support of voter groups that looked to the use of government power as a remedy for society's increasing amorality. Because they were relatively more concerned with conversion than with reactivation or reinforcement of old commitments, both Bryan and his Midwestern supporters de-emphasized their democratic lineage and their connections with the old democratic ideology. The image they projected of themselves was not that of negative government, but of a government dedicated to the use of positive action to remedy social inequities. This was not the democracy whose usual program was a litany of thou shalt nots, but a democracy espousing that very type of government which for over half a century had repelled religious ritualists, liturgicals. End quote. How did the old-line democratic leaders and organs of opinion counter the Bryanites and persuade their readers and supporters to shift to the formerly hated Republicans? They attacked free silver, not primarily on economic grounds, but as part of the Bryanite betrayal of the principles of the old Democratic Party. In short, the Cleveland Democrats correctly pointed out to their constituents that Bryan was the reverse of a true Democrat in the previous scheme of things. Specifically, Bryanism was a violation of the old democratic belief in personal liberty, for it was yet another attempt to regulate things and to propose laws governing the habits, pursuits and beliefs of men. And German anti-Bryan papers argued that Bryan was at heart a prohibitionist. For their part, the new McKinley Republican Party cooperated enthusiastically in welcoming liturgicals into their ranks. They abandoned the old pietist symbolism and presented themselves now not as the party of morality, but as the party of prosperity, sheltered by the protective tariff. In Wisconsin, for example, the Republicans followed this strategy by rejecting Robert M. Lafollette, 
pietist, champion of the Bennett Law, and friend of the nativist and anti-Catholic American Protective Association, in deference to the fierce opposition of German Lutheran leaders. The APA, indeed, was in a quandary in the 1896 election. Previously solidly Republican, the APA had fought the moderate McKinley bitterly in Ohio politics and had supported the prohibitionist Foraker. The APA was also embittered at McKinley's willingness to appoint Catholics to public office and at his refusal to appoint leading APA members. In 1896, the APA fought McKinley's nomination with great bitterness. During the spring, the National Advisory Board of the APA accused Governor McKinley of having discriminated in favour of Catholics and against native-born Protestants in his appointments to public office. And in May, both the Executive Committee and the Campaign Committee of the APA publicly denounced McKinley and announced the support for any other Republican candidate. The upshot was dissension and confusion during the 1896 campaign in APA ranks. Indeed, the consequence was the rapid disintegration of the APA and its early disappearance from American life. APA attacks, however, greatly aided McKinley's ability to attract Catholic support. Footnote. While Jews were not politically important at this time, it might be pointed out that Bryanite pietism had distinctively anti-Semitic overtones. President Cleveland and the Gold Standard were attacked as agents of the European Jew Rothschild, it being noted that the Belmonts, as Rothschild agents, had long been highly influential in the old Democratic Party. Hermann Alwart, a leading German-born anti-Semite, endorsed Bryan in the Gentile News. More importantly, Mrs. Mary Elizabeth Lease, the great woman orator of Kansas populism, attacked President Cleveland as the agent of Jewish bankers and British gold, while leading Minnesota populist and prohibitionist Ignatius Donnelly wrote a novel, Caesar's Column, prophesying a future society ruled and exploited by a Jewish world oligarchy. End footnote. William McKinley gained the presidency in the first decisive Republican victory for the office since 1872, as the first presidential candidate of either party since 1876 to gain a majority of the popular vote. And, as we have pointed out, he began a long era of Republican control of the presidency along with both houses of Congress. McKinley's presidency quickly moved to bury old, divisive, pietist concerns. Prohibitionism was scuttled by the Republicans was only revived by the progressive movement and was fastened on the country by the temporarily resurgent Democrats and then only under cover of war. Footnote. But neither party could be called the prohibitionist or anti-prohibitionist party. On this and almost all other issues, neither party stood for anything definite and enduring anymore. Both had become the confused and confusing centrist parties that we know all too well today. End footnote. The women's suffrage movement also died out after 1896 and was revived 15 years later by the progressive movement. And while President McKinley formally supported the immigration restrictionists' drive for a literacy test, the Republican enthusiasm for the bill was gone. For many Republicans observed that liturgicals and the foreign-born vote had shifted to McKinley and the newly powerful German groups were organising strongly to prevent immigration restriction. 
Officers of 150 German-American societies condemned any such bill as a revival of know-nothingism and bigotry, and German and other nationalities formed an Immigration Protective League to combat restrictionism. The House simply failed to act on immigration restriction in 1898, and the agitation died. Once again, it took the Democratic Party and World War I to put an end to America's tradition of free immigration. Some of the new dimensions of the new American party system which emerged from the 1896 election may be seen in a study by Paul Kleppner. Kleppner compares the average partisan leads in the various regions in the two decades, 1882-1892, the final and mature years of the third party system, and 1894-1904, the beginnings of the fourth party system. The average partisan leads for the two periods are as follows. Partisan leads, percentage points, 1882-1892. New England, 8.1 Republican. Mid-Atlantic, 0.1 Republican. East-North-Central, 1.1 Republican. West-North-Central, 18.1 Republican. South, 32.6 Democrat. Border, 10.9 Democrat. Mountain, 11.7 Republican. Pacific, 3.5 Republican. U.S. Non-South, 2.4 Republican. U.S. Total, 3.7 Democrat. 1894-1904, New England, 23.6 Republican. Mid-Atlantic, 16.9 Republican. East-North-Central, 14.8 Republican. West-North-Central, 23.5 Republican. South, 39.1 Democrat. Border, 0.6 Democrat. Mountain, 3.8 Democrat. Pacific, 15.5 Republican. U.S. Non-South, 14.5 Republican. U.S. Total, 7.7 Republican. It is clear that a one-party Democratic South, with a slight Republican lead or tie in the rest of the country, had been transformed into an even more one-party South with a strong Republican lead everywhere else. More specifically, a comfortably Republican New England was now heavily Republican. The evenly fought Mid-Atlantic states were now solidly Republican, and the equally evenly fought East-North-Central, roughly what we have called the Midwest, was now also decisively in the Republican camp. The same fate had hit the previously narrowly Republican Pacific states, while the previously solidly Democratic border areas were now nip and tuck. The fact that Bryanite free silver agitation had changed the thinly populated western mountain states from firmly Republican to narrowly Democratic was hardly sufficient comfort for the bushwhacked Democratic Party. The unchallenged hegemony of the Republican Party was reflected in all of America's political institutions. For instance, the previously close presidential races, where there was either a tie in the popular vote or a Democratic lead, was now replaced by significant Republican victories. In 1876, Samuel Tilden notably bested Rutherford B. Hayes in the popular vote, 50.9% versus 47.9%, despite not getting the presidency. In 1880, James Garfield narrowly beat Winfield Scott Hancock, 48.27% versus 48.25%. 
while Grover Cleveland accomplished the same against James Blaine in 1884, 48.9% versus 48.3%. In 1888, the Democrats won the popular vote again, but did not gain the presidency, when Cleveland lost to Benjamin Harrison, 48.6% versus 47.8%. In the 1892 rematch, Cleveland defeated Harrison by a sizable lead, 46% versus 43%. But starting in 1896, the Republicans dominated the next several elections. In 1896, William McKinley triumphed over William Jennings Bryan, 51% versus 46.7%, and won by an even larger lead in the 1900 rematch, 51.6% versus 45.5%. Theodore Roosevelt crushed Alton B. Parker in 1904, 56.4% versus 37.6%. And William Howard Taft won by a similarly large margin against Bryan in 1908, 51.6% versus 43%. Not only was there a Republican president from 1896 until the party split temporarily in 1912, but so too were the other political structures. Whereas only once since the mid-1870s until the mid-1890s did any one party control the presidency and both houses of Congress, now, from 1897 through 1911, the Republicans continuously and simultaneously controlled all three organs. Between 1894 and 1904, the Republicans elected 70.6% of all the members of non-Southern state legislators. And from 1894 to 1931, the Republicans elected no less than 67.2% of the governors of the Midwestern and Western states, as well as 83.1% of the governors in the New England and Mid-Atlantic regions. The South was one-party Democratic, and only the relatively insignificant mountain states experienced any sort of vibrant two-party contest. Not only did liturgicals shift heavily to the Republican Party after 1896, but, ironically, the new moderate McKinley Republicanism, the Party of Prosperity, which had clung only to the protective tariff of the old-time Republican issues, was eventually even able to attract many pietists back from the lures of Bryan democracy. In consequence, the crushing of Bryan in the presidential elections of 1900 and 1908 was even more decisive than in 1896. Kleppner has examined typically pietist and liturgical areas in the two decades. Six Pennsylvania-German counties, plus 5.5% Democratic in the 1882-1892 decade, shifted to plus 6.6% Republican in the following ten years. Even more decisively, the liturgical Wisconsin-Germans an average of plus 24.7% Democratic in 10 counties in the first period, shifted to plus 1.6% Republican in the latter. In contrast, 10 counties of pietistic Pennsylvania Yankees, plus 10.3% Republican in the first decade, increased their margin to plus 23.1% Republican in the next, while 10 counties of pietistic Wisconsin Scandinavians, plus 24.8% Republican in the former, shifted to a whopping plus 45.5% Republican in the latter. Turnout rates fell in all these groups, ranging from a drop of 11% to 20%. Even the largely liturgical big cities, heavily democratic cities, Boston, Brooklyn, shifted to nip-and-tuck contests. 
Baltimore fell from heavily Democratic to decisively Republican, while Chicago shifted from solidly Democratic to heavily Republican. Thus, after 1896, neither major party could any longer be considered the home of consistent ideology or of emphatically pietist or liturgical religious values. Both parties were a mixed bag. The new Republican hegemony, as well as the even stronger Democratic hegemony in the South, combined with the great decline of sharp ideological or ethno-religious conflict between the parties, led to a precipitate drop in voter turnout in state and national elections. The following table of average voter turnout rates, percentages of eligible persons voting, for the two party systems was presented by Professor Kleppner. Turnout percentages 1874-1892 to New England, 56.4 Mid-Atlantic, 67.9 East-North Central, 74.9 West North Central, 64.8 South, 56.1 Border, 66.4 Mountain, 54.8 Pacific, 52.8 U.S. Non-South, 67.3 U.S. Total, 64.8 New England, 47.9 Mid-Atlantic, 55.1 East-North Central, 61.3 West-North Central, 61.7 South, 24.6 Border, 65.8 Mountain, 74.1 Pacific, 43.6 U.S. Non-South, 57.6 U.S. Total, 51.1 Changes in turnout. New England, minus 8.5. Mid-Atlantic, minus 12.8. East-North Central, minus 13.6. West-North Central, minus 3.1. South, minus 31.5. Border, minus 0.6. Mountain, plus 19.3. Pacific, minus 9.2. U.S. Non-South, minus 9.7. U.S. Total, minus 13.7. The 14 and 13-point turnout drops in the Mid-Atlantic and East-North-Central regions reflected the sudden shift from close conflict to Republican hegemony, as did, to a slightly lesser degree, the drops in New England and the Pacific states. The extreme drop in Southern participation rates reflected also the disenfranchisement of blacks that took place in this period. Footnote. The southern turnout rate in presidential elections declined from about 75% in 1876 to about 68% from 1880 to 88, a decline reflecting the end of Reconstruction and the ouster of northern carpet-bagging whites from the south. Then a series of sharp declines occurred to 60% in 1892 and 1896, then to 50% in 1900, and finally to approximately 38% in 1904 and in subsequent elections. These declines in poor white as well as black turnout reflected the imposition of the poll tax and of literacy requirements for voting throughout the South during this period. They also reflected the failure of the Pietist Republican Force Bill in 1891 
which would have imposed federally supervised elections in southern state elections to ensure black voting. Editor's Remarks The Jim Crow segregation laws enacted during this period were openly championed by southern progressives. This support was not a blind spot of the well-intentioned reformers, but rather part and parcel of their interventionist agenda to control and catalyze society to benefit special interest groups, such as the Anglo-Saxon white worker. End footnote. Only in the relatively unimportant border and mountain regions, where the intensity of party conflict heightened instead of slackened, did turnout rates stay the same or even increase. Footnote. The alternative view to that presented here holds that the sharp drop in the post-1896 voter turnout stemmed from the adoption of personal registration requirements for voting in nearly every state. But such explanation ignores the fact that a. Voter turnout nevertheless increased in the mountain states where party conflict intensified, and b. The registration requirements were imposed only in the cities, but turnout declines occurred with equal severity in the rural as well as in the urban areas. End footnote. Looking at the turnout rates for the presidential elections, we can see even more starkly from the following table the steady and drastic decline in voter participation. Turnout rates in presidential elections outside of the South. 1896, 78.3. 1900, 71.6. 1904, 64.7. 1908, 67.9. 1912, 55.9. 1916, 59.7. Editor's footnote. Turnout rates as a percentage of the voting age population remained subdued throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, and has hovered around 50 to 60 percent. End footnote. To put these figures in perspective, voter turnout rates in presidential elections had risen from 55 to 58 percent from 1828 to 36, to 80.2 percent in 1840, after which they ranged from 70 percent to 84 percent. The post-1896 declines dropped turnout rates back to pre-1840 levels. Not only did voter turnout drastically decline, but the character of that turnout changed sharply to reflect the new conditions of American political parties. Before 1896, as we might expect, turnout rates were much higher among church members than among those unaffiliated with churches. Now, however, turnout of church members dropped far more precipitously. In the third electoral system, the poor tended to vote more proportionately than the wealthy, but now the relative participation of the poor declined greatly. The same is true of young and first- and second-generation foreign voters. Old habits die hard, and we would expect the new trend toward non-voting to hit first and deepest among the young, newly eligible age groups. Thus, between 1876 and 1892, 62.1% of newly eligible non-Southern voters turned out to the polls, but from 1900 to 1916, only 41.2% of the newly eligible bothered to vote. As Kleppner states, The electoral demobilization that occurred was neither uniform nor random in its social effects, but clearly and strongly class-skewed. 
the participation gap was most noticeable among voters towards the bottom end of the economic scale, and even net of these economic effects among younger-aged cohorts. Around the turn of the century, in other words, electoral politics seemed to lose much of its earlier capacity to arouse the enthusiasm of most citizens and to enlist their active participation. End quote. But how could voter interest decline drastically, especially among the poor and the young, in the very progressive era, approximately 1900 to 1917, which has been trumpeted by the progressives themselves and laudatory historians as the voice of the people and the march of expanding democracy? Obviously, historians have, until the last decade or so, unfortunately taken the progressives at face value. The march of triumphal democracy was, in stark reality, a mere camouflage for an assault on democracy and on freedom on behalf of the burgeoning coalition of technocratic and big business elites. For the new non-ideological party system and demobilised electorate meant also that the political party itself became far less important in deciding government policy, and along with the parties, their constituencies, the voting public, became less important in influencing government actions. This decline of the political party, as well as its voting constituency, left a power vacuum which, as will be detailed below, the new order of experts, technocrats and organised economic pressure groups rushed to fill. The dominance of the new elites alienated still more citizens and swelled the ranks of non-voters. The way was paved for the progressive period. As Paul Kleppner sums up the new trend, quote, The cumulative effect of non-competitiveness and mass demobilization, combined with legal changes downgrading the role of the party as organization, was to lower party effectiveness as a mobilizing agency, and thus reduce its capacity to shape policy outputs. Freeing elected decision-makers from the constraints of the party was a requisite condition to increase the policy-shaping role of other political institutions capable of articulating group interests. As the party's role as a determinant of legislative voting behaviour declined, for example, the influence of functionally organised economic interest groups increased. That was accomplished by an accelerated tendency to remove large clusters of policy from even the potential influence of party behaviour, by shifting decision-making from elected to appointed bodies. Done in the name of efficiency and expertise, the consequence of that removal was further to insulate decision-making from organised mass opinion. That insulation was an indispensable stage in the efforts of cosmopolitan elites to eliminate the party as a critical source of localist resistance to the centralising impulses of corporate capitalism. End quote. Editor's footnote. Many alleged instances of a democratisation of politics during the Progressive Era, such as the 17th Amendment in 1913, which allowed for the direct election of senators instead of being chosen by the state legislatures, or the push for the political primaries, still fit this schema. Their main effect was to reduce the ideological and institutional role of the political parties, allowing anyone to run based off of their public relations, and contributed toward the transformation of politics 
into a bland popularity contest. This was highly related to the increased centralization and similarity of the parties, and the creation of the vacuum for technocrats and policymakers to control everything behind the scenes. Moreover, the 17th Amendment weakened state legislatures, and hence state governments, and transferred this power into the hands of the federal government. The diminished ability of the states to check the power of the federal government allowed for a greater expansion and consolidation of government activities. End footnote. Chapter 7. Theodore Roosevelt, the First Progressive. Part 1. 1. Financial Influence on Political Parties. Before 1896, the Democratic Party was roughly a party devoted to free trade and the gold standard, while the Republican Party stood squarely for a protective tariff and was more amenable to inflationist experimentation. Put very simply, the Democrats were particularly congenial to and influenced by Wall Street investment bankers, notably the Morgan interests, and by the European Rothschilds, acting through their New York agent, August Belmont, who was for many years national treasurer of the Democratic Party. The Republicans, on the other hand, were more susceptible to the influence of manufacturers seeking a protective tariff in particular Pennsylvania iron and steel men, who had been in the forefront of the struggle for high tariffs ever since 1820. One of the main leaders of the Republican Party during the Civil War and the immediate post-war years was Representative Thaddeus Stevens, Pennsylvania iron manufacturer, and a leading proponent of the protective tariff, as well as irredeemable greenback money. Editor's footnote the protectionists shrewdly realised that when off a gold standard, currency inflation, in addition to providing cheap credit, also acts as a surrogate tariff, since the foreign exchange market quickly anticipates the future rise in prices, which means that the exchange rate depreciates more than the current rise in prices, and so net exports increase. End footnote. The two democratic administrations of Grover Cleveland were heavily influenced by the Morgans and allied Wall Street interests. Cleveland himself got his start as a railroad lawyer in Buffalo, including for Morgan-affiliated railroads such as the New York Central. In between terms, Cleveland became associated with the powerful New York City law firm Bangs, Stetson, Tracy and McVeigh. The original senior partner of the firm was Charles E. Tracy, J.P. Morgan's brother-in-law. After Tracy died in 1887, Francis Lynn Stetson became the main partner. Stetson was Cleveland's close friend, political adviser, and Wall Street law associate at the firm, and was also the counsel to J.P. Morgan & Co. Cleveland's major political organiser and Secretary of the Navy in his first cabinet was the brilliant Wall Street financier William C. Whitney, who was affiliated with various railroad interests and later served as the director of several Morgan companies. Whitney's daughter was later to marry Morgan partner Willard D. Strait. But Whitney was doubly blessed by being also closely associated with Standard Oil and the Rockefellers, a mainly Republican family, as his brother-in-law Oliver H. Payne was a close associate with Rockefeller in the ownership of Standard Oil. 
His first Secretary of War was the Boston Brahmin, William C. Endicott, who had married into the wealthy Peabody family. George Peabody had established a banking firm which included J.P. Morgan's father as a senior partner, and a Peabody had been best man at J.P.'s wedding. Another leading Cleveland associate was the prominent Boston attorney Richard Olney, Attorney General and then Secretary of State in the second Cleveland administration. His first Secretary of State was Thomas F. Bayard, who had strong ties to August Belmont, allied to the Morgans and Rothschilds, and August's son Perry worked for Bayard in Congress. Before assuming office, Olney was the counsel to the Morgan-affiliated Boston and Maine Railroad, as well as to the Burlington Railroad. Other Cleveland advisers included Morgan himself, Stetson, and August Belmont Jr., himself a Rothschild agent. After he left the presidency, Grover Cleveland was, at the suggestion of J.P. Morgan, made a trustee of the Equitable Life Assurance Society and participated in stock speculation with Whitney and Oliver Payne. If the Cleveland administration was heavily Morgan-tinged, the Republican Party and the McKinley administration was even more under the domination of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. In the House, the powerful speaker Thomas B. Reed of Maine was an old and close friend of Henry H. Rogers, an early associate of Rockefeller and one of the major owners of Standard Oil. The unquestioned boss of the New York Republican Party was Thomas C. Platt, an old friend and schoolmate of John D. Rockefeller's at Oago High School in upstate New York. Dominating the Senate from his post as head of the Finance Committee was Nelson W. Aldrich of Rhode Island, arch-protectionist and father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Aldrich entered the Senate in 1881 as a moderately prosperous wholesale grocer, and then, after 30 years of devotion to the public service, he died a multimillionaire. Throughout his career in Congress, William McKinley of Ohio was associated with the cause of protectionism. Devoted in particular to Ohio iron manufacturing, McKinley was born into an ironmongering and therefore protectionist family. McKinley's political and financial mentor, who engineered his political career and his presidential nomination and saved him from bankruptcy while governor of Ohio, was Marcus Alonzo Hanna, coal operator and iron manufacturer. A business associate as well as an old friend and classmate of Rockefeller at Central High in Cleveland, Hanna was John Dee's conduit to influence over the Ohio and the National Republican parties. As soon as McKinley became president, he had the Ohio legislature make Mark Hanna senator from Ohio. Other senators from that state were once Henry B. Payne, father of the Standard Oil partner, and the newly elected Joseph B. Foraker, who as a senator was a recipient of Standard Oil stipends. McKinley's cabinet reflected a strong Rockefeller Standard Oil influence. His Secretary of State was the veteran Ohio Republican John Sherman, whom Hanna had backed for the presidential nomination a decade earlier and who currently took his Senate position. Sherman's son-in-law was a former financial advisor to Rockefeller. Secretary of Treasury was Lyman J. Gage, close to the Rockefeller-controlled National City Bank and previous president of the First National Bank of Chicago, who, after leaving the cabinet, 
became president of the Rockefeller-controlled United States Trust Co. Gage's hand-picked assistant at the Treasury, Frank A. Vanderlip, later moved to the Rockefeller-controlled National City Bank, eventually becoming its president. His second ambassador to the Court of St. James was Joseph H. Choate, distinguished attorney for Standard Oil. Secretary of the Navy was John Davis Long, who was later appointed to be a director of the United States Trust Co. while still in office. Driven from their democratic home by the victory of the Bryanites, the Morgan interests backed the prominent Wall Street banker Levy P. Morton, governor of New York and former vice president, for the Republican presidential nomination in 1896. Defeating Morton and refusing him another turn at the vice presidency, McKinley made amends to the Morgans by picking as his running mate Garrett A. Hobart. Hobart had the bad taste to continue in his posts as director of a Morgan-dominated bank, an insurance company, and a railroad, even while vice president. In addition, William McKinley eventually granted the War Department cabinet post to Elihu Root, a brilliant attorney for Ryan and then for J.P. Morgan. Moreover, McKinley's Secretary of the Interior was Cornelius N. Bliss, close associate of Morgan and Ryan, and a director of the Equitable Life Assurance Society. In McKinley's second term, the Attorney Generalship was granted to Philander C. Knox of Pittsburgh, who served as counsel for the nation's leading steel manufacturer, Carnegie Steel, which was to help form U.S. Steel, which was in turn also dominated by Morgan. Knox was a close friend and associate of Andrew Carnegie's partner and right-hand man, Henry Clay Frick, and a director of the Great Pittsburgh Banks of the House of Mellon. It was Frick who personally urged McKinley to name Knox to the Attorney General post. In September 1901, early in President McKinley's second term, a fateful event occurred which changed the face of American politics. One of the several lone nuts who have suddenly appeared in American history to assassinate an American president gunned down William McKinley, and the brilliantly crafted McKinley-Hannah-Rockefeller regime crumbled into dust. For, as fate would have it, his successor was the colourful young New Yorker Vice President Theodore Roosevelt, beholden to a very different and clashing set of financial interests. The first and the quintessential progressive American president had been catapulted into power. 2. T.R. The Making of a Progressive Teddy Roosevelt was America's first progressive president, and it was during his administration that progressivism began to take shape as a political force, on the urban and state as well as federal levels. An aristocratic New Yorker, Roosevelt went to Harvard and there married into the top Brahmin families of the Boston financial oligarchy. His first wife, Alice Lee, was the daughter of George Cabot Lee and was related to the Cabots, Lees and Higginsons, the latter of the Boston investment banking firm of Lee, Higginson & Co. The Boston Financial Group was generally allied to the Morgan interests. In Boston, he gained a lifelong friend and close political mentor, the rising young politician Henry Cabot Lodge, also a member of the Cabot family. After a stint as New York Assemblyman, 
The death of his first wife and a bitter break with his reform friends on his supporting the Republican ticket in 1884, Roosevelt moved west to his South Dakota ranch. Returning to New York, he was badly beaten for the mayoralty of New York City in 1886, and he retired to writing historical works. It seemed that, at the age of 28, Teddy Roosevelt's political career was already at an end. But in 1889, the new president, Benjamin Harrison, was induced by the powerful congressman, Henry Cabot Lodge, to appoint Teddy Roosevelt head of the Civil Service Commission. So ardent was Roosevelt in this post that he was reappointed by the Democratic president, Grover Cleveland. In addition to a strong nationalist policy, devotion to militarism and a large navy, and to a Republican protective tariff, Roosevelt had long called for an ever greater strengthening of the civil service system. Here he joined the principal reform cause in the decades after the Civil War, a cause that prefigured the later progressive call for taking politics out of government. Civil service reform was the first proto progressive cause to blend moralistic attacks on corruption with a supposedly scientific plea for efficiency and non partisanship in government. The idea was to end or limit the spoils system by taking ever more government jobs out of politics, freeing bureaucrats in their posts, and making hiring and promotion subject to objective, written tests of merit rather than political party or ideology. The civil service system, however, which began in force with the Pendleton Act of 1883, had vitally important but unacknowledged effects. For the consequence was to build and preserve a continuing ruling oligarchy that was not subject to the democratic check of the voting public. Non partisanship and civil service protection meant the fastening of a permanent bureaucratic elite upon the hapless public. It paved the way for rule by the expert rather than by political representatives. And there was another built in consequence of civil service. If Party A appoints its members and then freezes them in place via civil service, this meant that when Party B came into power, it could no longer find jobs for the party faithful in the good old way of ousting the members of Party A. Instead, Party B could only reward its followers by creating new jobs, which it in turn could freeze into civil service. In short, the advent of civil service. Brought a powerful incentive for either party to multiply the number of government officials and bureaucrats. In 1895, Roosevelt was made president of the police board of New York City. The blustering Roosevelt immediately began to make his mark in a way that was becoming standard for reform politicians a pietistic crackdown on liquor and Sunday business. Specifically, T.R. began a ferocious enforcement of the Republican sponsored Reigns Law, which mandated Sunday closing for liquor stores and saloons. The crackdown was particularly effective against neighborhood saloons and beer gardens, the latter the habitual Sunday entertainment of German Americans. As a not unintended consequence, the result was a crippling of the political power of the saloon keepers. The major political influence in liturgical ethnic neighborhoods, and also habitually the bulwark of the urban Democratic Party. 
Soon, Germans protested against the Reins Law in New York City, and the Liquor Dealers Association claimed that 90% of the saloon keepers had been driven into bankruptcy by Roosevelt's rigorous prosecution of the law. Even the Reform Fusion Mayor, William L. Strong, who had appointed the unpopular police commissioner, stated at a public dinner, quote, I found that the Dutchman, Roosevelt, whom I had appointed, meant to turn all New Yorkers into Puritans. End quote. The mayor urged T.R., in vain, to relax his enforcement of the law, while Roosevelt was denounced and threatened and a bomb was sent to him in the mail. The chairman of the Republican County Committee in Manhattan went so far as to read T.R. out of the party in a desperate attempt to hold the German-American vote. But with Roosevelt holding fast, the Republican Party went down to a crushing defeat in the ensuing election, with 30,000 German-Americans bolting to the Democratic Party. The state legislature then managed to revive saloons by authorizing the sale of liquor in hotels serving meals, an act which spawned a host of new pseudo-hotels and saloons, institutions which Roosevelt found he could not effectively stamp out. In 1896, Roosevelt and his friend Senator Lodge backed the pro-gold standard Speaker of the House, Thomas B. Reed of Maine, for president, and we have seen the role that Lodge played in forcing the Morgan Wall Street pro-gold standard plank upon William McKinley. After McKinley's election, Roosevelt returned to the federal arena. At the insistence of Lodge and of T.R.'s good friends, Cincinnati millionaires Mr. and Mrs. Bellamy Storer, who had helped to bail McKinley out of bankruptcy four years earlier, Roosevelt was made Assistant Secretary of the Navy. All his life, Theodore Roosevelt had thirsted for war, any war, and military glory. In 1886, hearing of a possible conflict with Mexico, Roosevelt offered to organize his South Dakota ranch hands into a cavalry battalion to lead against that country. In 1892, Roosevelt hailed U.S. demands for Chilean indemnity for injuries to U.S. sailors at Valparaiso, and he dreamt of leading a cavalry charge. Two years later, he demanded annexation of the Hawaiian Islands and the construction of a Nicaraguan canal. In 1895, T.R. lauded President Cleveland's hawkish anti-British position in the Venezuela boundary dispute, and he looked forward to war with Britain as a means of conquering Canada. That year, he wrote to Lodge that this country needs a war, which incited reformer and President Charles W. Eliot of Harvard to denounce Roosevelt's doctrine of jingoism, this chip-on-the-shoulder attitude of a ruffian and a bully, and claimed that Roosevelt and Lodge were degenerated sons of Harvard. Roosevelt, in turn, grouped together with Eliot and reformer Karl Schurz with the futile sentimentalists of an international arbitration type, who would lead to a flabby, timid type of character, which eats away at the great fighting qualities of our race. Now, as Assistant Secretary, Roosevelt called for the building of more battleships and dreamt of war with Japan and the annexation of Hawaii. Representative Thomas S. Butler of Pennsylvania, a member of the House Naval Affairs Committee in 1897, wrote that, quote, Roosevelt came down here, to Washington, looking for war. 
he did not care whom we fought as long as there was a scrap. End quote. Also yearning for war per se were the scholars, theoreticians, and politicos of T.R.'s circle Senator Lodge, the Brahmin historian Brooks Adams, Ambassador to Great Britain John Hay, and T.R.'s naval mentor Captain Alfred T. Mahan. Roosevelt's friend Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. held war to be divine and held that the United States needed war to substitute danger for comfort. After the U.S. battleship Maine exploded in the Havana Harbor on February 15, 1898, Secretary of the Navy John D. Long, leaving the office for the day on February 25th, warned the impetuous jingo Roosevelt not to take any step perfecting the policy of the administration without consulting the president or me. Instead, T.R. seized the opportunity to violate these instructions and to change American policy by sending a fateful telegram to Commodore George Dewey, ordering Dewey's squadron out of Hong Kong and, in the event of war with Spain, to blockade the Spanish fleet on the Asian coast and then to proceed to offensive operations in the Philippines. While Secretary Long was furious, he failed to countermand T.R.'s telegram. So when the U.S. went to war in April, Dewey sailed to Manila Bay, and eventually the U.S. conquered the Philippines. Editor's footnote. Rothbard planned on devoting significantly more space to the evolution of foreign policy during the progressive era before World War I but unfortunately did not write it. In general, during this time there was a transformation from the laissez-faire isolationist foreign policy of the United States to a bellicose, interventionist and paternalistic approach that created an imperial empire in parts of South America and Asia to subjugate the inferior races. It is essential to understand that these ideas were not antithetical, but complementary to the entire progressive ideology. The president's powers were correspondingly strengthened, and the new empire was supported by progressive economists and planners who were eager to get new jobs in planning and administering the new system. This included the dollar diplomacy system, which was a gold exchange standard where dollars were the reserve currency used by the other subjugated countries. The transformation of foreign policy began in the second Cleveland administration in South America, at the behest of bankers eager to subsidise export growth, prod open foreign markets, and diminish Great Britain's influence. McKinley enormously accelerated this trend through the 1898 Spanish-American War, in which the United States took control of the Philippines, Hawaii, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. Roosevelt continued the expansion of militarism by cracking down on Philippine guerrillas, instituting the Roosevelt Corollary, which expanded the more defensive Monroe Doctrine and declared that the US had the right to directly intervene in Latin American countries, creating the machismo Great White Fleet and the Morgan-backed seizure of Panama from Colombia by inciting a revolution. Taft, although less expansionist, maintained the new foreign policy by intervening in Cuba, Nicaragua, and the Dominican Republic. Wilson embodied the fulfilment of the new imperialist executive state by invading Mexico and other South American countries, and enlarged US imperialism to a worldwide level 
by getting involved in World War I. End footnote. When war came, Teddy Roosevelt at last found the military action he had lusted for all his life. With his equally pro-war friend, Colonel Leonard Wood, T.R. formed the first volunteer cavalry, the Rough Riders. T.R.'s and the Rough Riders' military prowess in Cuba was less than overwhelming. Indeed, Roosevelt displayed a penchant for charging his men into ambush and absorbing extremely heavy losses. But although getting ambushed or surrounded twice and losing over a quarter of his men, Teddy Roosevelt managed to emerge elated and to parlay his military exploits into public legend. Back from the war, Roosevelt was urged upon the Republican Party as a gubernatorial candidate by the powerful Chauncey M. Depew, president of the Morgan-controlled New York Central Railroad. TR's campaign was heavily financed by the Morgan-controlled Mutual Life Insurance Company, along with other insurance companies, while J.P. Morgan apparently gave the campaign $10,000. TR ran his successful campaign strictly upon the issue of the war and his rough riders, denouncing the Democrats as being unpatriotic for giving reluctant support to the war and demanding that the United States must help its new conquests because our flag has gone to these lands. Teddy Roosevelt's term as governor has, until recent years, been neglected by historians, but now it is realised that his policies as governor prefigured his immediately succeeding years in the presidency. Roosevelt moved quickly on his longtime favourite front, the extension of civil service. Working closely with George McEnany, Secretary of the Civil Service Reform Association, Roosevelt drove through a civil service expansion greater than any other previously obtained in the United States. In collaboration with labor union leaders, social workers and wealthy Midwest Baptists, Roosevelt urged putting more teeth in labor laws, centralizing and expanding the enforcement. In addition, the maximum 10-hour-per-day labor law was expanded to all women workers. Industrial establishments in residential homes were cracked down on by imposing licensing laws and by permitting factory inspectors to enter all shops without restriction. Such laws were designed to restrict labor competition and, in the name of repressing sweatshops, suppress efficient competition to the larger and more politically powerful enterprises. Roosevelt also urged a larger governmental role in tenement housing. The drive for repressing and regulating tenement housing was largely an upper and middle class, as well as pietist, concern for the morals, for the vice and the corruption amidst the ethnic poor of the tenements. The upper class guardian of the morals of the poor, Mrs. Josephine Shaw Lowell, successfully urged Governor Roosevelt to expand the vagrancy law, a me-tax available to coerce people without visible means of support, and to round up and punish pimps. Then, at the behest of Methodist Bishop Henry Codman Potter and Reform Republican F. Norton Goddard, Roosevelt put through further legal restrictions on the numbers racket and any prize-fighting for a fee. The new anti-numbers law went so far as to make it a misdemeanor even to possess a policy slip, while the ban on prize-fighting was bitterly opposed by Tammany Hall, the leader of the New York City democracy. 
both repressive measures pass the legislature. Furthermore, Roosevelt put through a bill for a state tenement house regulatory commission, which in turn put through a new housing code in 1901 that soon became a model for all the states in the nation. The code, which restricted the supply of new housing and thereby raised costs in the name of higher quality, was put through by a commission of such wealthy reformers and social workers as I.N. Phelps Stokes, James B. Reynolds, Robert W. DeForest, and corporate lawyer Paul D. Cravath. Editor's footnote. The New York State Tenement Act of 1901 raised building costs and limited construction of low-income housing, thereby reducing availability. Through nighttime inspections, urban city reformers also tried to clamp down on the lodger evil, where poor ethnic immigrants would sublet their apartments in order to accumulate enough savings to later purchase a home. Zoning laws later came about with a similar purpose to limit apartments to only families. Due to the regulations, by the 1920s real estate developers shied away from low-income housing, which then led to calls for subsidies to construction companies or outright public provision. End footnote. Theodore Roosevelt was the first president dedicated to government conservation of public land, timber and other natural resources. The conservation movement has always enjoyed an uncritical press, it being almost always assumed that conservationists can only be motivated by disinterested love of nature. In fact, the conservation movement, as we shall see further below, has been an alliance of elitist groups, one part of that coalition of upper-class people who wish to repress further growth and thereby preserving both their own enclaves of wealth and the natural scene around them, while others have been private real estate, timber and other interests, such as railroads, who wish to keep potentially competing public land and natural resources off the market, thereby maintaining and raising the value of their own assets and income. A final and crucial part of the coalition are the experts and technocrats, the professional bureaucrats and managers of the natural resources. The aristocratic hunter and sportsman Teddy Roosevelt had organised the Boone and Crockett Club, the premier advocates of forest conservation, at his home in 1887. The Boone and Crocketers were devotees of the scientific forestry schemes of wealthy young New York forester Gifford Pinchot, a member of the club and, after 1898, chief of the U.S. Division of Forestry. Governor Roosevelt's two leading advisers on conservation were disciples of Pinchot. C. Grant Lafarge, who persuaded Roosevelt to turn to Pinchot for advice on the forestry section of his message to the legislature, and James McNaughton, representative of the McIntyre Iron Association, owner of 90,000 acres of Adirindac forest land. Pinchot's cosy relations with private timber interests were typified by his offer to use the services of his forestry bureau to aid private timber owners in managing their forests. At the behest of Pinchot and of the Boone and Crockett Club, Governor Roosevelt urged the legislature to centralise the five-man State Forest, Fish and Game Commission into a one-man agency. The plan was to succeed after Roosevelt left office. In the meanwhile, he appointed as head of the board 
the president of the Boone and Crockett Club, W. Austin Wadsworth, wealthy landowner and sportsman. A particularly important prefiguring of progressivism on a federal level was Governor Roosevelt's attitude toward the trust problem. A major part of TR's annual message of 1900 was devoted to this question. As we have seen, 1898 and 1899 saw a tidal wave of mergers and consolidations, generally known as trusts, in an attempt to achieve monopolies of each of the various industries. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 was considered a dead letter, and certainly none of the merger promoters considered it a problem. The McKinley administration pursued a laissez-faire attitude toward the trusts, with Mark Hanna affirming that antitrust laws were a war on corporations, pure and simple, and a war on business success. In the fall of 1899, Hanna lauded the writings of ex-Labour leader and economist George Gunton, who had denounced antitrust proposals as a crusade against prosperity. Hanna's reflection of Rockefeller's laissez-faire views on trusts at the time is not surprising, and neither is the fact that Gunton was receiving subsidies from Standard Oil. But Teddy Roosevelt and his financial allies were in the process of taking a very different line on the trusts. Roosevelt turned for advice to three distinguished economists, each of whom were taking in various ways a pro-government cartelist rather than a laissez-faire position. One was the Columbia University professor Edwin R. A. Seligman, of the distinguished investment banking family of J. and W. Seligman. Another was President Arthur Twining Hadley of Yale. A third was Jeremiah W. Jenks, Cornell University professor and chief advisor to the U.S. Industrial Commission, a federal blue-ribbon panel investigating the trusts. A key advisor was Secretary of War Elihu Root, once and future Ryan and Morgan lawyer. Roosevelt emerged from these consultations, determined to move toward government regulation and cartelization of the trusts and of corporations generally. In a speech in late September 1899, Roosevelt urged the regulation of trusts, first through compulsory publicity, then, if necessary, through taxation and finally through licensing. Trusts and the accumulation of wealth were perfectly legitimate, Roosevelt was soon to hold, but regulation was needed when fortunes were acquired in a predatory manner. Footnote. By this time, even McKinley was moving toward the idea of compulsory publicity for corporations. This can be seen in his establishment of the U.S. Industrial Commission. End footnote. Jenks and Seligman had long been members of the New School of Economics, which, over a decade earlier, had frankly repudiated the idea of laissez-faire in favour of increasing state control of the economy. In the course of favouring the establishment of the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887, Seligman had written, quote, We must recognise the monopolies as existing facts, but hold them under control. Competition has had its day and has proved ineffective. Let us be bold enough to look the facts straight in the face and not shrink from the logical conclusions of our premises. Recognize the combinations, but regulate them. End quote. 
Arthur Hadley has been wrongly classified by historians as an advocate of laissez-faire. But while not as eager to regulate railroads and industrial combinations as some of his statist conferees, Hadley pioneered in the Rooseveltian idea of compulsory publicity. In the mid-1880s, Hadley advocated a federal regulatory commission for the railroads, but one whose powers would be essentially confined to forced publicity. Similarly, coerced publicity was his proposed remedy for industrial combinations. Compulsory publicity has a twofold cartelizing effect not generally understood by the public. In the first place, as we have seen with the vigorous competitive effect of secret rebates by the railroads, secrecy is a great spur to competitive rivalry. If business firms can somehow engineer the coercing of publicity about their rivals, they will be able to know much more about their competitors' affairs, their pricing and production policies, and hence cartel agreements, formal or informal, become far more enforceable and active competition may be crippled. Secondly, the cost of making reports and obeying government regulations puts an extra burden on small, new and innovative competitors and hampers their chances of competing with existing and more staid large firms. After Governor Roosevelt's speech in the fall of 1899, Jeremiah Jenks drew up a bill for Roosevelt to submit to the legislature. Newly incorporated firms were to be offered a lower tax in exchange for provisions of compulsory publicity. Roosevelt then got Jenks to write a magazine article defending the bill, and induced leading state legislators to confer privately on the bill with Jenks, with Francis Lynn Stetson, attorney for J.P. Morgan & Co., and with Victor Morowetz, an attorney for Morgan Railroads. Due to the opposition of the Republican machine in New York State, the Roosevelt-Jenks bill failed to pass. But the stage was set for Roosevelt's trust policies as President of the United States. The death of the relatively unimportant Vice President Garrett Hobart in November 1899 left a vacancy in this number two and previously Morgan post. Teddy Roosevelt had deliberately cultivated good relations with the press, and this blustering and colourful figure was now boosted around the country for the vice presidential spot. McKinley was opposed, however, and Mark Hanna was vehemently hostile to T.R., referring to him as erratic, unsafe, and a madman. After the veteran Iowa senator William Allison turned down a McKinley offer for the nomination, McKinley and Hanna offered the vice presidential spot to Secretary of the Interior Cornelius Bliss, a New York banker and Morgan Ryan associate. This offer was in the venerable tradition of the dominant faction in the party, offering the second spot as a consolation prize to the subordinate faction. Bliss, too, refused, however, and then the president offered the post to his Secretary of War, Elihu Root another powerful figure in the Morgan ambit. But when Root too refused, McKinley was subject to the powerful pressures for Roosevelt from New York boss Tom Platt, close to the Mellon interests, and Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. Particularly powerful was the lobbying for Roosevelt by Morgan partner George W. Perkins, a close friend of both Hobart and Roosevelt. 
At last, McKinley and Hannah succumbed, and Teddy Roosevelt was nominated as vice president. It is not surprising that as soon as the election of 1900 was over, Teddy Roosevelt gave a lavish dinner in honour of J.P. Morgan. No such gift was ever more deserved. It was clear to everyone that the battle between Roosevelt and Hannah for the presidential prize in 1904 had already begun. But all bets were off when a lone nut, gunman, assassinated William McKinley, and Teddy Roosevelt fortuitously became President of the United States. 3. T.R. as President The Good Trusts Theodore Roosevelt's first, and one of his most important, moves toward regulation in the presidency was presaged in his first message to Congress upon assuming the presidency in December 1901. Reviving an old proposal for a new cabinet department of commerce and labour to serve as a means of subsidising commerce and industry, Roosevelt spoke of the department having the power to investigate corporations and to publicise their findings. Roosevelt also eyed a federal board, like the ICC, to supervise industrial combination. His address was cleared with two good friends who were also Morgan partners, George W. Perkins and Robert Bacon. Throughout the summer of 1902, Roosevelt peppered his speeches with calls for compulsory publicity in order to curb business evils. He found a strong ally in Attorney General Philander Knox, an attorney close to the Mellon interests, and Henry C. Frick, now a major shareholder in Morgan's U.S. Steel. Knox urged T.R. to establish a commission with compulsory powers to obtain information from interstate corporations, and to report to the president, who in turn could or could not publicize the information as he saw fit. This provision appealed to Roosevelt's strong penchant for personal power, as well as to his commitment to compulsory publicity. In early 1903, Roosevelt submitted a proposal to Congress to add to a previously proposed new Department of Commerce and Labor a Bureau of Corporations, the Bureau to have full compulsory powers to investigate the operations and conduct of interstate corporations, and to convey that information to the President. Prefiguring the Bureau of Corporations proposal was the U.S. Industrial Commission, an investigatory body created by an act of Congress in June 1898 to inquire into the economy, collect information, and recommend legislation to Congress. The commission consisted of five senators appointed by the vice president, the president of the Senate, five congressmen appointed by the Speaker of the House, and nine men appointed by the president with the consent of the Senate. The commission issued 19 volumes of reports from 1900 until its demise in February 1902. The first chairman of the Industrial Commission, Senator James H. Kyle of North Dakota, was a populist senator from North Dakota and one of the most left-wing members of the Senate. But more significant than the actual members of the commission was the expert staff that did the actual investigating and guided its deliberations. All of them were of the new school of interventionist economists. Professor William Z. Ripley of Harvard, the commission's expert on transportation, 
was to exult a decade later that the, quote, foremost railroad presidents of the United States were approving a policy of federal government regulation which, when I approved it on paper ten years ago, was characterized by a leading railroad man as pernicious. End quote. Roswell C. McRae, highly placed in the academic world as Dean of Wharton School of Finance, was the Industrial Commission's expert on taxes and transportation. McRae looked forward eagerly to a welfare state. The Commission's expert on labour and immigration was Dr. John R. Commons, perhaps America's leading progressive economist and hence its outstanding champion of the emerging corporate state. His role in the progressive movement will be detailed more extensively below. Above all, the Commission's authority on trusts and combinations was none other than Jeremiah W. Jenks, who therefore shaped the Commission's recommendations in this vital area. The preliminary report of the Industrial Commission, submitted in 1900, was a thoroughly Jenksian document. The object of its recommendations was to prevent corporations or industrial combinations from deceiving investors or the public. Therefore, the Commission recommended compulsory reporting and data of all sorts to the stockholders and to the government, and making the corporations subject to government inspection. The preliminary report had the effrontery to claim that the purpose of such publicity is to encourage competition, when, as we have seen, the point was precisely the opposite. Indeed, the Commission went on to cite what it considered the horrors of secret railroad rebates to shippers before the advent of the ICC as an example of monopolization. Hence its determination to do for general industry what the outlawry of secret rebates was supposed to be doing for the railroads. The final report of the Industrial Commission in 1902 continued the previous recommendations and added a good deal more. It was recommended that federal and state antitrust laws be strengthened and enforced, with a particular crackdown on the vicious practice of discrimination between customers. That is, secret or open price cutting to one or more customers at a time. State legislation was advocated, such as Massachusetts' new law regulating the floating of new stock issues, and a federal franchise tax, progressive in relation to earnings, was recommended on all interstate corporations. And finally, as the kickoff to the official proposal for the Bureau of Corporations, the Commission recommended such a bureau for investigation, reports, and publicity perhaps as a preparation for a compulsory federal incorporation law. Footnote. The Commission also urged federal subsidies to agriculture, including cartelizing agriculture through federal inspection of export products, especially meat, and the fixing of standard grades for cereals. It also recommended the establishment of a pure food and drug section of the Department of Agriculture with the power to outlaw the interstate shipment of impure food and drugs. It urged continuing the setting aside of the public domain for forest reserves, the conservationist taking of land out of use. The ICC was to be strengthened and given the power to regulate railroad rates. The states were urged to enact uniform laws prohibiting child labour, 
thereby raising wages for competing adult workers, and to pass anti-sweatshop laws and anti-truck laws, crippling small business competition. An eight-hour day for miners was urged, thereby helping to restrict entry of workers into the field and raising wage rates for the miners remaining. As a further subsidy to labour unions and aid to restrictionism of labour, Congress was urged to regulate the interstate movement of private detectives for strike-breaking, to repress the movement of convict-made products between states, and to draft codes for railway labour. End footnote. Angry that so many of the industrial mergers of the late 1890s had failed, the final report of the Industrial Commission also demanded that the accounting profession develop methods to protect investors from the alleged watering of stock capital in the formation of the trusts. In reality, the watering was not a swindle, but a legitimate aspect of entrepreneurial activity. If the promoters of a particular trust or corporation are over-optimistic about its profits and estimate its future earning power, and therefore the current value of its stock, too highly, well, then each investor is free to disagree with these estimates. No one held a gun to the head of these investors in the failed trust combinations of the 1890s. The paternalistic idea that government exists to protect everyone from their own folly also meant, in this case, regulation to keep out some usually new marginal promoters for the benefit of older and stronger competitors. The cause of regulation and cartelization was thereby furthered. Editor's footnote. A common criticism of the free market is that it provides products or working standards that are poor quality and is rife with imperfect and asymmetric information. So even if regulation has a cartelizing effect, it can still be beneficial. Against this, it is important to note that only the market can provide the optimal ascertainable only by demonstrated consumer preferences, level of regulation, and it has institutional features to ensure that bad products are driven from the market. Entrepreneurs are incentivized to provide reliable goods in order to maximize long-term profits, and consumers and investors learn the particular attributes they care about through competitive advertising among firms. Product quality and working standards rise over time as entrepreneurs increase their savings and embark upon more roundabout processes of production and engage in technological innovation. Regulation that raises quality artificially stymies this crucial progressing process of the market, slows down the rate of growth, and defies the preferences of consumers. End footnote. The nascent accounting profession leapt to the support of the Industrial Commission's strictures, as well as to its call for compulsory publicity and periodic accounting audits of all the trusts and corporations, for two reasons. The Industrial Commission proposals meant a great deal more work for the accounting profession, and accountants were annoyed because going concern capitalization, such as what the trust promoters had engaged in, was necessarily a subjective procedure. The accountant's penchant for objective scientific measurement was offended by the fact that all estimates of future earning power are necessarily subjective estimates. As Previtz and Marino state, 
The accountants objected to going concern capitalization procedures because earning power could not be objectively measured. Footnote. The final report of the Industrial Commission urged compulsory annual audited reports by large corporations, the audit to be subject to government regulation. The minority of the Industrial Commission went further to advocate a bureau in the Treasury Department which would register all corporations and obtain a financial report, make examinations and publish information. End footnote. Perhaps so, but the capital values of any business firm happen to be the discounted sum of expected future earnings of that firm, and those expected earnings, in the nature of reality and of the market, are necessarily speculative and subjective. This might be unfortunate for the scientific pretensions of some members of the accounting profession, but that is the way things are. Footnote. George Stigler points out that the advent of new issue regulations by the Securities and Exchange Commission does not seem to have appreciably protected the investor. As Stigler states, for security as well as for other protective regulation, public regulation weakens the defences the consumer has in the market and often imposes new burdens upon him, without conferring corresponding protections. The doctrine of caveat emptor has not lost its force. The only change is that now the consumer must beware of different threats, and threats which he is less well equipped to defend against. End footnote. President Roosevelt's chief business ally in driving the Bureau of Corporations bill through Congress was George W. Perkins, a Morgan partner and in the process of being Morgan's right-hand man in forming the two giant trusts, United States Steel and International Harvester. Perkins agreed totally with Roosevelt's conception of federal regulation of trusts. Like Roosevelt, Perkins believed that there were good trusts and bad trusts, and like TR, he believed that his own U.S. Steel and International Harvester were conspicuous examples of the good. So influential was Perkins in establishing the Bureau that when the President signed the bill into law, he gave one of the two pens he used to George Perkins. Editor's footnote. George Perkins was heavily affiliated with J.P. Morgan and has been called one of Roosevelt's most important informal advisers and J.P. Morgan's chief governmental emissary. End footnote. Only one important financial group stood opposed to the Bureau of Corporations Bill. In a way, it was strange, since three leading representatives of the Standard Oil Trust, John D. Archbold, Henry H. Rogers and John D. Rockefeller himself, had all testified strongly in favour of a federal incorporation law and federal regulation of corporate publicity before the U.S. Industrial Commission. John D. Rockefeller advocated that there be, quote, First, federal legislation under which corporations may be created and regulated, if that be possible. Second, in lieu thereof, state legislation, as nearly uniform as possible, encouraging combinations of persons and capital for the purpose of carrying on industries but permitting state supervision. End quote. But now, with Morgan ally Theodore Roosevelt at the helm, Standard Oil took a very different tack. 
Archbold lobbied heavily against the Bureau of Corporations bill, and John D. Rockefeller Jr. sent telegrams to several key senators against the bill. President Roosevelt demagogically seized the opportunity to hold a press conference, deceitfully charging that the widely hated Senator John D. Sr. sent the telegram. It was to be the first shot in a savage war against Standard Oil. Given T.R.'s ability to manipulate the press for his own ends, Congress rushed to pass the bill in February 1903. T.R. promptly made his private secretary, George B. Cortelieu, secretary of the new Department of Commerce and Labor, and appointed as first commissioner of corporations young James R. Garfield, son of the late president and former staff attorney of the Civil Service Commission when Roosevelt served as its head. Before Garfield was selected, his appointment was cleared with and approved by Francis Lynde Stetson, attorney for the House of Morgan and fellow alumnus with Garfield from Williams College. After a year or more of operation, business was quite content with Garfield's administration of the Bureau. In his annual December 1904 message to Congress, T.R. declared that the Bureau had been able to gain not only the confidence, but better still the cooperation of men engaged in legitimate business. Garfield himself, in the Bureau's first report in the same month, declared that, in brief, the policy of the Bureau in the accomplishment of the purposes of its creation is to cooperate with, not antagonize, the business world. The immediate object of its inquiries is the suggestion of constructive legislation not the institution of criminal prosecutions. Garfield also pleased most big businessmen by coming out in favour of federal licensing of corporations, a recommendation that caused George W. Perkins to call up Garfield and congratulate him warmly. Even John D. Rockefeller Sr., so soon to feel the wrath of T.R., praised Garfield's proposal, because the federal government would scarcely issue its license to a corporation without at the same time guaranteeing to its beneficiaries an adequate degree of protection. But Rockefeller was soon to find out that, as far as Roosevelt was concerned, Standard Oil would not be a firm that he would be interested in protecting. In the same month, February 1903, as it passed the Bureau of Corporations Bill, Congress also passed the Elkins Anti-Rebating Act of 1903 at the behest of the Morgan Railroads trying to outlaw railroad rebates to shippers. The satisfaction with which big business greeted Roosevelt's policies on federal control of corporations and railroad rates was embodied in an editorial of late December 1904 by the influential Wall Street Journal. Quote, Nothing is more noteworthy than the fact that President Roosevelt's recommendation in favour of government regulation of railroad rates and Commissioner Garfield's recommendation in favour of federal control of interstate companies have met with so much favour among managers of railroad and industrial companies. It is not meant by this that much opposition has not developed, for it has. The fact is that many of the railroad men and corporation managers are known to be in favour of these measures, and this is of vast significance. In the end, it is probable that all of the corporations will find that a reasonable system of federal regulation 
is to their interest. End quote. In 1904 and 1905, the Roosevelt administration entered into a cosy arrangement with the two major Morgan Control Trusts, International Harvester and United States Steel, both of them organized and supervised by TR's close friend, George W. Perkins. In 1904, Garfield and Attorney General William H. Moody agreed to Harvester's proposal that they would not prosecute any violations of the law provided that the company would conform in the future. In return, Harvester cooperated by giving any desired information to the Bureau. After all, as Harvester financier Cyrus H. McCormick told Garfield, International Harvester was in entire sympathy with some program of this sort. There matters lay, until in December 1906, Congress passed a resolution ordering the Bureau of Corporations to investigate International Harvester. Harvester was delighted to comply. Meeting with Garfield and his deputy and eventual successor Herbert Knox Smith in January were Perkins, McCormick and Harvester's chief spokesman Judge Albert H. Gary, chairman of the board of U.S. Steel. Gary and Roosevelt had formed a close working relationship since 1902. Gary, seconded by Perkins and McCormick, told Garfield and Smith that he believed in the work of the Bureau and the necessity of governmental supervision of large corporations, and that he felt that the President and the Bureau, representing his policy, was a strong safeguard both to the removal of abuses and to the prevention of violent attacks on private rights in general that might otherwise come. Furthermore, they informed Garfield that a Bureau report would show that they were operating in America at a loss, and then they would have just ground for raising American prices. Lo and behold, however, a threat appeared to this friendly arrangement. Attorney General Charles Joseph Bonaparte, a patrician Baltimorean who had met Roosevelt as a young civil service reformer, insisted on bringing suit against Harvester for some of its overseas activities. When Bonaparte failed to take even the hint of President Roosevelt to deter action until the Bureau investigation was complete, Herbert Knox Smith, former assistant head and now the head of the Bureau, wrote an impassioned letter to Roosevelt. The letter detailed all the arrangements and understandings the Bureau had worked out with the Morgan interests. Smith pointed out that the attitude of the Morgan interests generally, which control this company, has been one of active cooperation, and any prosecution would abandon the crucial policy of distinguishing sharply between good and bad trusts. Attacking the economic absurdity and unenforceability of the Sherman Act, Smith pointed out the beneficent alternative of federal regulation through compulsory publicity. Smith then warned that, quote, It is a very practical question whether it is well to throw away now the great influence of the so-called Morgan interests, which up to this time have supported the advanced policy of the administration, both in the general principles and in the application thereof to their specific interests, and to place them generally in opposition. End quote. Footnote. Bonaparte was something of an anomaly. In 1899, he had unequivocally denounced any attempt at governmental regulation 
and restraint of industrial combinations. He was also, as H. L. Mencken later pointed out, that strangest of hybrids, a Catholic Puritan, being one of the leading backers of the Baltimore Anti-Vice Society. One of Bonaparte's great attractions for T.R. was that he was of royal blood, being the grand-nephew of Napoleon I. End footnote. A few days later, Roosevelt ordered Bonaparte to drop the suit. U.S. Steele's arrangement with the Roosevelt administration occurred a bit later than Harvester's, but it was activated considerably earlier. In late 1904, in one of his frequent meetings with T.R., Judge Gary proposed to the president that, if at any time you feel that the Steel Corporation should be investigated, you shall have an opportunity to examine the books and records of all our companies, and if you find anything in them you think is wrong, we will convince you that we are right, or we will correct the wrong. To which the president replied, Well, that seems to me to be about the fair thing. Shortly thereafter, in January 1905, the House of Representatives ordered the Bureau of Corporations to investigate U.S. Steel. In November, Gary, Henry Clay Frick, Garfield and Roosevelt met at the White House and formalized the arrangement. U.S. Steel would cooperate with the government and supply information, while if the president found a violation of law, publicity would be the only punishment wielded against the company. Explaining to Garfield why he was willing to be so cooperative, Judge Gary wrote that the public utterances of the president and your statements to me from time to time have been such as to show conclusively to my mind that there was no intention of doing or saying anything that would injure our corporation or disturb business conditions. Garfield was delighted. Here was a long step ahead in fixing the work of the Bureau on the lines I wish. T.R.'s closeness to the Morgan interests may also be seen in several of his key appointments. As Secretary of War, T.R. appointed Elihu Root, an old and valued friend and adviser, who had been a lawyer for the New York financier and Morgan ally Thomas Fortune Ryan, and later for the House of Morgan itself, and also served at various times as director of the Morgan-controlled National Bank of Commerce and Mutual Life Insurance Co. In 1904, Root left the cabinet to aid J.P. Morgan in reorganizing Equitable Life Assurance Company to direct Morgan's investments in China and defend Morgan against T.R. in the Northern Securities case described below. The following year, Root was rewarded for his efforts by being appointed T.R.'s Secretary of State, the most powerful post in the cabinet. Root, indeed, was T.R.'s original choice as his successor, an offer which Root, perhaps because of the burden of his Wall Street image, refused. Root promptly appointed Robert Bacon, Morgan partner and old Harvard friend of Roosevelt, as Assistant Secretary of State. When Root left office toward the end of T.R.'s term to become a New York senator, the President made Bacon his Secretary of State. In the last two years of his administration, T.R. appointed George von L. Meyer of Boston as his postmaster general. Meyer was an agent of the House of Morgan and a director of the Old Colony Trust Company of Boston. 
Secretary of the Navy during 1904, was Paul Morton, President of Equitable, Ryan Morgan, and former Vice President of the Morgan-dominated Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad, from which post he had advocated federal regulation and cartelization of railroads five years earlier. Serving for a while as TR's Assistant Secretary of the Navy was none other than Herbert L. Satterley, J.P. Morgan's son-in-law. Furthermore, Roosevelt made Elihu Root's law partner, Henry L. Stimson, Federal District Attorney of New York, and later obtained for Stimson the Republican nomination for the governorship. Shortly after assuming office, Roosevelt appointed Henry C. Payne of Wisconsin to be Postmaster General. Payne was president of the Wisconsin Telephone Company and a director of the North American Company, both Morgan concerns. Roosevelt appointed Payne to Postmaster General as an apparent way of weakening Hanna's grip on the National Republican Party. The one case that some historians raise as a counterexample to the close affinity between Roosevelt and Morgan was the Northern Securities case. After battling fiercely for control of the Northern Pacific and other competing Western railroads, the Morgan and the Edward H. Harriman Kunlobe interests effected a détente, forming the Northern Securities Company in 1901 as a holding company for the merged railroads with an agreed-upon allocation of the stock. Without consulting Root or other advisers, and consulting only Attorney General Philander Knox, in one of the first acts of his administration, Roosevelt decided to revive the virtually moribund Sherman Act and to launch an antitrust suit against Northern Securities in February 1902. There is no question about the fact that Morgan was upset at the suit, especially about not being consulted or advised in advance. But this in itself is no indication of a fundamental break between Morgan and the President. Morgan's personal visit to Roosevelt over the suit has become famous, but its significance has been misconstrued. Morgan is supposed to have told TR, If we have done anything wrong, send your man, i.e. the Attorney General, to my man, Morgan's lawyer, and they can fix it up. TR is supposed to have rejected this offer of détente, but to have gone on to assure Morgan that he was planning no further foray against U.S. Steel or any of the other Morgan trusts. After Morgan left, T.R. was supposed to have turned to Knox to observe that Morgan could not help regarding me as a big rival operator, who either intended to ruin all his interests or else could be induced to come to an agreement to ruin none. The main point, however, is that Roosevelt clearly agreed to Morgan's deal or at least all of his subsequent actions, in and out of the presidency, supports this conclusion. For although the US government won a technical victory against Northern Securities in the Supreme Court's decision of March 1904, the upshot of the suit was not to injure either Northern Securities or the Morgan interests. Suffice it to say that only the formal device of the holding company in this situation was banned. Overall, quote, the Northern Securities case was a politically popular act, and it has strongly coloured subsequent historical interpretations of Roosevelt as a trust buster. It did not change the railroad situation in the Northwest, 
the ownership of the railroads in that region, nor did it end cooperation among the Hill, Morgan and Harriman lines. Roosevelt never asked for a dissolution of the company or a restoration of competition. End quote. Indeed, according to one historian, by the terms of the court's decree, the Morgan Hill ownership in the railroads was increased at the expense of Harriman. Perhaps that was, after all, the ultimate point of the whole affair. The House of Morgan, in fact, was enough satisfied with Teddy Roosevelt's performance in office to donate $150,000 to TR's re-election in 1904. 4. TR as President – The Bad Trusts Considering later events, the Northern Securities case may have been not a break with Morgan at all, but the opening shot in Theodore Roosevelt's war with Morgan's great financial rival, E. H. Harriman. After the Roosevelt administration leaked dark hints during the fall of 1906 about breaking up the Harriman railroad lines of Union Pacific and Southern Pacific, Harriman understandably linked this threatened persecution to his refusal to donate a large sum of money to the Republican campaign that year. When one of Harriman's attorneys, Maxwell Evarts, tried to intercede with the president, Roosevelt burst out, Well, you don't know what Morgan and some of these other people say about Harriman. The following spring, one of Harriman's employees stole a letter sent by Harriman to his chief counsel in late 1905, expressing his disillusion with Roosevelt, with the sums of money that Harriman had contributed to Roosevelt, and the broken promises that T.R. had made to him in return. The letter was published in the press, to which Roosevelt retorted by vilifying Harriman at a press conference, attacking him as a dangerous, wealthy corruptionist. An important clash of the Morgan and Harriman interests involving the Roosevelt administration occurred in 1907. Morgan was intent on consolidating his control of the entire New England railroad system under the aegis of his New Haven Railroad. In the spring of 1907, he accomplished the most important step in this process, purchased by New Haven of the Boston and Maine Railroad. Before assuming final control, Morgan, Charles S. Mellon, president of the New Haven, and other Morgan executives had an audience with Roosevelt where they won his approval of the merger, thus fending off any antitrust suit. In addition to his general affinities with Morgan, one of Morgan's key allies in this merger was Lee Higginson & Co., whose partner George Cabot Lee Jr. was a former brother-in-law of T.R.'s. The major opponent of the merger, on the other hand, was E. H. Harriman, who himself was trying to acquire the Boston and Maine. But keeping up a hysterical drumfire of public criticism of the merger was the wealthy progressive Boston corporate lawyer Louis D. Brandis who somehow managed to gain for himself, both in the press at the time and among historians afterward, the reputation of being a people's advocate, removed from the sordid economic interests of the day. In reality, as was fully known to his enemies at the time, Brandius was an attorney for Morgan's great investment banking rival, Kuhn Loeb, which in turn was the investment bank for the Harriman interests. When TR, under public pressure, finally filed an antitrust suit against the New Haven, Boston and Maine merger in May 1908, Roosevelt's old friend and major political mentor Henry Cabot Lodge 
long allied to the Morgan interests, wrote to T.R. informing him of the facts of life, namely that Louis Brandeis was really a tool of Harriman and Kuhn Loeb. In response, Roosevelt in effect dropped the suit. But the outstanding example of a bad trust, from T.R.'s point of view, was Standard Oil. Roosevelt had never forgiven McKinley and Hanna, of the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party, for stubbornly resisting his nomination for vice president in 1900. Then the Rockefellers angered T.R., as we have seen, by lobbying against his Bureau of Corporations bill. The Standard Oil people tried to induce Mark Hanna to run for the Republican nomination in 1904 against the upstart Roosevelt. But the Hanna boom, which much worried the president, was cut short by Hanna's death in the early part of that year. There is evidence that the Rockefeller forces then swung their support to Judge Alton B. Parker, the colorless Democratic nominee who got roundly clobbered by Roosevelt in the 1904 election. Footnote. Thomas W. Lawson, Boston financier and former associate of John D. Archbold and Henry H. Rogers of Standard Oil, testified before a U.S. Senate subcommittee on campaign contributions that Rogers practically gave their agents at the Democratic Convention carte blanche to nominate Mr. Parker. End footnote. In Roosevelt's second term, his first full term elected on his own, he concentrated an assault on Standard Oil. From 1905 on, Roosevelt directed the Bureau of Corporations to focus its attentions upon, i.e. to persecute, Standard Oil. In explanation, Roosevelt vindictively admitted many years later, quote, It, Standard Oil, antagonized me before my election, when I was getting through the Bureau of Corporations bill, and I then promptly threw down the gauntlet to it. End quote. Another important consideration is that Morgan's hated foe, Harriman, was financially allied with the Rockefellers. In 1906, President Roosevelt launched what can only be considered a savage prosecution of Standard Oil. It was the first really serious and major use of the Sherman Antitrust Act as a weapon against industrial corporations. First, the Bureau of Corporations reported in the spring of 1906 that Standard Oil, by accepting railroad rebates, had violated the cartelizing Elkins Anti-Rebating Act. In September 1907, the Roosevelt administration filed a far more important, and ultimately successful, suit to dissolve Standard Oil under the Sherman Act. When Standard Oil, alarmed, offered a détente, Roosevelt turned the idea down, for to TR, both Standard Oil and Harriman were setting the pace in the race for wealth under illegal and improper conditions, and were the embodiments of the bad as contrasted to the good Morgan Trusts. Teddy Roosevelt's motives for launching his brutal assault on Standard Oil have not been fully explained by historians. His alleged hostility to trusts is belied by his sharp distinction between good and bad ones, and the aligning of the Morgan Trusts as good and Morgan opponents as bad. Editor's Footnote Roosevelt's characterization as a trust buster has been greatly exaggerated. In the entire seven and a half years of his presidency, only 44 antitrust cases were initiated, with at most 10 against actually large companies. 
although he initiated more than his predecessor McKinley, under the four-year presidency of his successor, Taft, 80 suits were initiated. In addition, quote, Roosevelt's bad trusts were basically non-Morgan trusts, such as the Rockefeller-controlled Standard Oil Co., or the Harriman-dominated Union Pacific Railroad. Conversely, Roosevelt's good trusts usually turned out to be big Morgan-controlled companies, such as U.S. Steel Corps and International Harvester Co. No action was taken against either of these giant concerns, although some federal officials were so inclined, partly because of Roosevelt's implicit trust in Morgan-backed firms, and the quiet, though highly effective, pressure applied by such influential Morgan men as George W. Perkins and Albert H. Gary, board chairman of the U.S. Steel Corporation. End quote. It should be noted that Roosevelt was not a complete tool to the Morgan interests. His erratic personality and certain actions during his political career did cause some headaches and annoyances, such as the Northern Securities case. However, he allowed himself to be surrounded and influenced by Morgan and his affiliates, and overall his actions were beneficial to the ambit. End footnote. Personal slights can hardly account for the persistence of the hostility, nor does the alignment of Roosevelt with Morgan and the Morgan-Rockefeller division provide a satisfactory explanation per se, for these divisions had persisted for decades. The point is that previously the Rockefeller-Morgan contests were far more gentlemanly and centred on such issues as higher or lower tariffs. The sudden bringing of the antitrust weapon out of a disused closet and the use of it to go for the Rockefeller jugular can only be explained by some new conditions, something new that might have entered the Morgan versus Rockefeller conflict and intensified it greatly. The origins of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 have, unfortunately, not been subjected to the kind of withering revisionist analysis that Gabriel Kolko and others have employed on the later regulatory measures of the progressive era. One thing is clear. Conservative old Republican Senator John Sherman of Ohio can in no way be considered an opponent of big business. We do know that the Republican Party was increasingly under attack by the Democrats for their protectionist policies, and that one of the cogent Democratic charges is that it was a high protective shield behind which trusts and cartels could form, free of at least external competition. Committed as they were to the protective tariff, the Republicans demagogically countered the argument by passing a measure supposedly designed to combat trusts. The fact that it was illogical to create a government shield for trusts and then use government force to try to dissolve them is not something that would long stop any politician who felt he could get away with the illogic. Furthermore, we know that the Sherman Act was rarely used by any of the administrations and that it sunk into innocuous desuetude by the time of the McKinley administration. That it was designed as a sop to public opinion and to take the heat off the tariff, therefore seems likely. But there was another motivation prompting Senator Sherman personally. Sherman had been a candidate for the presidential nomination since 1880, and with the backing of Mark Hanna, 
seemed to be winning his lifelong desire at the convention in 1888. The front-runner in the balloting, until unexpectedly beaten by Benjamin Harrison of Indiana, the embittered Sherman blamed his defeat on Michigan Governor Russell Alger, one of his rivals for the presidential nomination. Sherman publicly accused the wealthy Alger of bribing pledged Southern delegates away from Sherman at $50 a head, and there is considerable evidence that Sherman's charge was not unfounded. It was only after his defeat that Sherman evinced a sudden interest in antitrust legislation, particularly with regard to the hated Russell Alger's monopoly Diamond Match Company, of which Alger, the Diamond Match King, was a principal financier. We know that Sherman read with great glee to the Senate, as an example of a harmful monopoly, the full text of the Michigan Supreme Court decision in the case of Richardson v. Bull and Alger. 1889, in which the court declared a specific contract between the organizers of the Diamond Match Company to be unenforceable because it aimed at a monopoly in the match industry. And significantly, it has been reported that when President Harrison signed the Sherman Antitrust Act, he remarked to his aide, John Sherman has fixed General Alger. To return to our central problem, was there any change in objective economic conditions that might account for a desire by the Morgan interests to trot out the formerly innocuous Sherman antitrust weapon and launch a savage assault upon Standard Oil? The answer is yes, the eruption of the International Oil War. 5. The International Oil War for decades, American petroleum was the oil used by other countries in Europe and Asia, and by the early 1880s, Standard Oil had a virtual monopoly of refined petroleum products, with kerosene for oil lamps as the major product. Then, in the mid-1890s, the refinery financed by the Nobel brothers Robert and Ludwig in Baku, Russia, began to challenge the exclusive standard dominance of foreign oil markets. The Swedish Nobel brothers had by then built pipelines and steam-run oil tankers in Russia, and its Baku refinery in the Caucasus pioneered the continuous distillation process two decades before it would be adopted in standard oil refineries. By the mid-1880s, the powerful Rothschild Bank in Paris began to collaborate with the Nobels in production and refining, and also in delivering oil by railroad tank car from the Black Sea to the lucrative markets in Western Europe. By the late 1880s, it was clear that Standard Oil was in for a fight. The Nobel-Rothschild alliance was matching Standard markets in Western Europe with the help of kerosene that was cheaper and of higher quality than the American product. Due to the growth of Russian and other foreign crude, the American proportion of the world's crude oil output had fallen rapidly from 85% in 1882 to 53% in 1888. Of the kerosene sold for export, about 90% of the American product was marketed by Standard Oil. Meanwhile, Russian crude production at Baku rose from 13% of the world's output in 1882 to 38% nine years later. J.C. Chambers, American consul in Batum in the Caucasus, waxed livid in assessing the growth of Russian oil. 
Perhaps his anger was connected to his doubling as the eyes and ears of Standard Oil in the region. In his consular reports in the late 1880s, Chambers charged the Russians with having a quixotic ambition to drive the American oil from the markets of the world. And William Herbert Libby, Standard Oil's roving ambassador to the world, pinpointed the support of the Russian government and of key European bankers in accounting the meteoric rise of Baku oil. Footnote. By the early 1880s, the US State Department acted as a foreign arm of Standard Oil by instructing its representatives abroad to study and oppose any foreign laws or ordinances that would hamper standards operations. End footnote. To counter the Nobel Rothschild Alliance, Standard set up its own aggressive marketing affiliates and subsidiaries abroad. As a result, Standard's Anglo-American oil had captured 71% of the British oil import market by 1891. By the 1890s, the Nobel Rothschild Russian interests had gained only a third of the British kerosene market and a fifth of Western Europe's. Asia and Latin America, as well as the rest of the European market, were standard oils. Standard seemed secure in its world dominance. In the early 1890s, Baron Alphonse de Rothschild offered a cartel arrangement to John D. Archbold of Standard Oil, with Rothschild being willing to guarantee Standard 80% of the world oil market. What happened then is unclear. The offer was surely tempting, especially since Standard's production had by then fallen to 70%, but nothing was achieved beyond a series of limited agreements from time to time. The U.S. Consul General in St. Petersburg reported that the negotiations broke down because the Russian finance minister, supporting the Nobel Rothschilds, refused to give his backing to such concessions to Standard Oil. Or perhaps Harvey O'Connor is right that, quote, The world was still Standard's oyster, and while it was obliged reluctantly to witness cheaper Russian markets, it was by no means willing to formalize any such seizure through written agreement. End quote. But then there came into this idyll for the Rockefellers a cloud no bigger than a man's hand. Ailko Jans Zilke, a Dutch tobacco planter, had discovered a remarkably productive oil well in northern Sumatra in 1885. In 1890, Zilke, aided by Dutch financial interests, formed the Royal Dutch Company in Amsterdam to exploit the Sumatran oil. During the 1890s, Royal Dutch, managed by J.B. August Kessler, grew rapidly and began to compete sturdily with Standard in East Asian markets. At the same time, Russian Baku oil began to compete in Asian markets. The problem had been transportation. In 1892, the Rothschild interests granted to the transport firm of Marcus Samuel and Company a commitment of 10 years' supply of Russian kerosene to be shipped to the Far East. The Samuel brothers and the London Rothschilds jointly managed to persuade the British-run Suez Canal Board to allow oil tankers, previously considered too dangerously explosive, to pass through the canal. Samuel and Co. prospered, and in early 1898 it expanded to include a large number of oil merchants in the great Shell Transport and Trading Company. Shell grew apace, 
snapping up highly productive Indonesian oil wells that had been unwisely scorned by both Standard and Royal Dutch. Shell also invaded American crude oil markets, being considerably more far-sighted than Standard in seeing the importance of newly discovered Texas crude, and contracted with Gulf Oil for its products. Shell was aggressive, detested Standard Oil, and was ready for bear. As one outraged Standard Exporter agent in Java reported back in 1899 about Shell, quote, They advertise everywhere, loudly, broadly, and boldly, about how they are going to run the Standard Oil Company out of Netherlands, India, and have been doing that steadily for the last four years, until my ears are tired and sick of such trashy rubbish. End quote. But the growth of Royal Dutch was even more striking. Two standard oil experts sent to survey the East Indies situation in 1897 were deeply impressed, writing back that in the whole history of the oil business there has never been anything more phenomenal than the success and rapid growth of the Royal Dutch Company. Accordingly, William H. Libby, during the years 1895 to 1897, offered to buy out Royal Dutch and make it a marketing subsidiary of Standard Oil. Unfortunately for Standard, it short-sightedly offered the Royal Dutch stockholders less than 94% of the current market value of their shares, and so Standard's chance to recoup its dominance of the Asian market was lost. Footnote. In 1898, Royal Dutch shrewdly managed to insulate itself against any possible Standard takeover of its stock. A special class of stockholders was newly created, which had the sole right to choose directors and to change the capitalization of the company. Instead of the stock shares being made out to the bearer as before, the new stock could only be sold if so authorized by a general meeting of the special shareholders. One could become such a stockholder only by invitation, and the only ones eligible for such invitation were those eligible to gain a mining concession in the Dutch East Indies. End footnote. By 1901, the three world giants were eyeing each other hungrily, but warily. In that year, Standard offered to buy out a majority of Shell stock, after which it proposed to take over Royal Dutch. The Rothschilds, however, were aiming at a Shell merger with Royal Dutch in order to challenge Standard Oil throughout the world. After the Dutch, too, rejected Standard's offers, Royal Dutch's new manager, the young Hendrik August Wilhelm de Terding, predicted that, before long, it would have to defend its independence in a life-and-death struggle. The dynamic de Terding, who was eventually to become known as the Napoleon of Petroleum, was intensely hostile towards Standard which he referred to in florid terms as the abhorred ogre of the industry, pitilessly devouring all that is newly born. A full merger between Shell and Royal Dutch was still not possible because of personality conflicts between Deterding and Shell's dominant owner, Sir Marcus Samuel, the Lord Mayor of London. In 1902, the Asian sales of the two companies were merged by setting up the new Asian Petroleum Company, with one-third ownership each by Shell, Royal Dutch, and Baron de Rothschild. Deterding was to be the manager, 
with Sir Marcus holding veto power over him as chairman of the board. The result was a great upsurge in the fortunes of Royal Dutch in the Far East. Finally, in 1907, Royal Dutch and Shell merged outright to form the powerful Royal Dutch Shell Group, run by Deterding, who now moved to London and was dubbed Sir Henry by the British. It should be noted that a fierce international oil war between the two giants began in 1902 and continued for many years thereafter, and that Shell had early formed an alliance with melon-run Gulf Oil in supplying it with Texas crude. Indeed, since the early 1890s, melon oil companies had competed with Standard Oil for petroleum markets in Europe. And since the Morgans were long-time allies of the Rothschilds, could we not interpret TR's ferocious assault on Standard Oil as an integral part of the worldwide oil war, a war assisted by former Morgan and Mellon lawyer, Attorney General Philander Knox. Editor's footnote. Knox left the Attorney General position to become a senator in mid-1904, so he couldn't have been that crucial in the government's antitrust suit against Standard Oil. Regardless, Rothbard's international motivation for explaining Roosevelt's harsh attack on Rockefeller which he at another time described as one which there are no hard facts to prove, provides an intriguing global dimension to the clash between the Morgan and Rockefeller financial groups during the Progressive Era and beyond. In a later unwritten chapter, Rothbard planned to describe how Roosevelt's successor in 1908, William Howard Taft, although put in by the Morgan ambit, was actually closer to the Rockefeller forces. As a result, in the middle of his presidency, the Taft administration started to initiate antitrust suits against Morgan companies, in particular U.S. Steel and International Harvester, as retaliation for the Roosevelt assault on Rockefeller interests. Therefore, in order to deny Taft re-election in 1912, the Morgan interests formed the Progressive Party and put Roosevelt on the ticket. This heavily pietist, intellectual and Morgan-laden party was able to deny Taft re-election and allow for the Democratic candidate, Woodrow Wilson, to win the White House. Wilson was linked to the Morgan ambit and the Morgan's strong political power continued during World War I, including the drive for war and, aside from a brief Rockefeller-Harding regime cut short, was maintained throughout the 1920s in the Coolidge and Hoover administrations. Then, during the Great Depression, the banking reform and other measures under Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal were a savage attack on the Morgan Empire by opposing Rockefeller-affiliated financial groups. By the time of World War II, the Morgans were now the subsidiary financial elite. End footnote. Chapter 8. Theodore Roosevelt, the First Progressive, Part 2. 1. The Meatpacking Myth One of the earliest acts of progressive regulation of the economy was the Meat Inspection Act, which passed in June 1906. The orthodox myth holds that the action was directed against the beef trust of the large meatpackers, and that the federal government was driven to this anti-business measure by popular outcry generated by the muckraking novel The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, 
which exposed unsanitary conditions in the Chicago meatpacking plants. Footnote. Even as perceptive an analyst as Simon Whitney was taken in by the myth. Editor's Remarks. Consumer protection, such as food regulation, was one of the main planks of Roosevelt's famous Square Deal, the others being corporate regulation and conservation of natural resources. In his two terms as president, Roosevelt made great advances toward these cartelizing goals, and later championed a new nationalism that advocated similar progressive measures. Although there were differences in emphasis, Woodrow Wilson's New Freedom was a similar program that stressed tax reform, federal regulation of business, and monetary reform. Like Roosevelt, Wilson carried out all of these during his presidency. End footnote. Unfortunately for the myth, the drive for federal meat inspection actually began more than two decades earlier and was launched mainly by the big meat packers themselves. The spur was the urge to penetrate the European market for meat, something which the large meat packers thought could be done if the government would certify the quality of the meat and thereby make American meat more highly rated abroad. Not coincidentally, as in all Colbertist mercantilist legislation over the centuries, a governmentally coerced upgrading of quality would serve to catalyze, to lower production, restrict competition, and raise prices to the consumers. It furthermore socializes the cost of inspection to satisfy consumers by placing the burden upon the taxpayers instead of on the producers themselves. Editor's footnote. Rothbard is referring to Jean-Baptiste Colbert, economic czar of France under the reign of Louis XIV. He supported extremely mercantilist policies that created a system of cartels through artificially high standards of quality. End footnote. More specifically, the meatpackers were concerned with combating the restrictionist legislation of European countries, which in the late 1870s and early 1880s began to prohibit the import of American meat. The excuse was to safeguard the European consumer against purportedly diseased meat. The probable major reason was to act as a protectionist device for European meat production. Partly at the behest of the major meat packers, Chicago and other cities imposed and then strengthened a system of meat inspection, and the Secretary of the Treasury, on his own and without congressional authorization, set up an inspection organization to certify exported cattle as free of pleuro-pneumonia in 1881. Finally, after Germany prohibited the importation of American pork, ostensibly because of the problem of disease, Congress, responding to the pressure of the large meat packers, reacted in May 1884 by establishing a Bureau of Animal Industry within the Department of Agriculture to prevent the exportation of diseased cattle and to try to eliminate contagious diseases among domesticated animals. But this was not enough, and the Department of Agriculture kept agitating for additional federal regulation to improve meat exports. Then, in response to the hog cholera epidemic in the United States in 1889, Congress, again pressured by the big meat packers, passed a law in the summer of 1890 compelling the inspection of all meat intended for export. But the European governments, claiming to be unsatisfied because live animals at the time of slaughter remained uninspected, continued their prohibitions of American meat. 
As a result, Congress in March 1891 passed the first important compulsory federal meat inspection law in American history. The act provided that all live animals must be inspected, and it managed to cover most animals passing through interstate commerce. Every meat packer involved in any way whatever in export had to be inspected in detail by the Department of Agriculture, and violations were punishable by imprisonment as well as fine. This rigid inspection law satisfied European medicine, and European countries swiftly removed their prohibition on American pork. But the European meat packers were upset in proportion as their physicians were satisfied. Quickly, the European packers began discovering ever higher standards of health, at least as applied to imported meat, and European governments responded by reimposing import restrictions. The American meat industry felt it had no other choice but escalating its own compulsory inspection, as the minuet of ever higher and hypocritical standards continued. The Department of Agriculture inspected more and more meat and maintained dozens of inspection stations. In 1895, the department was able to get Congress to strengthen meat inspection enforcement. By 1904. The Bureau of Animal Industry was inspecting 73% of the entire U.S. beef kill. Editor's footnote: Smaller local butchers, resentful of the competitive power of the Chicago packers, also falsely charged that they were selling diseased meat in order to underprice them. This gave credibility to the European governments, who said that American meat was diseased. End footnote. The big problem for the large packers was their smaller competitors, who were able to avoid government inspection. This meant that their smaller rivals were outside the attempted cartelization and benefited by the advantage of being able to ship uninspected meat. To succeed, the cartel had to be extended to and imposed upon the small packers. The much-publicized beef trust. Or cartel among the major packers to agree on prices and restrict production and competition had indeed been in existence since the mid 1880s, but in an industry with free entry and numerous small producers, and with meat growing in the hands of thousands of stock raisers, the beef trust had no impact on meat prices. Moreover, the competition from small meat packers was increasing. During the 1880s, the number of meatpacking establishments in the United States had increased sharply, from 872 in 1879 to 1,367 ten years later. Under the impact of federal cartelization, the number of firms declined to 1,080 in 1899, but then competitive pressure increased, with the number of firms rising to 1,641 in 1909. An increase of 52% in the first decade of the 20th century. Another gauge is that the meat packers, other than the three largest firms, accounted for 65% of meat production in 1905, and the percentage rose to 78% in 1909. In March 1904, responding to pressure from organised livestock growers. The House of Representatives passed a resolution calling for the Bureau of Corporations to investigate the alleged impact of the Beef Trust on prices and meatpacking profits. The Bureau's report, issued one year later, angered the muckrakers, populists, and livestock interests 
by pointing out, quite accurately, that the meatpacking industry was substantially competitive, and that the packer cartel had no particular impact on meat prices. Until early 1906, all the popular agitation against the meat industry was focused on the alleged monopoly, and scarcely at all on sanitary conditions. Articles in English and American magazines in the previous two years attacking sanitary conditions in meatpacking houses had no impact on the public. In February 1906, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was published and revealed many alleged horrors of the meatpacking industry. Shortly thereafter, Roosevelt sent two Washington bureaucrats, Commissioner of Labor Charles P. Neal and civil service lawyer James B. Reynolds, to investigate the Chicago industry. The famous Neal Reynolds report, that apparently confirmed Sinclair's findings, in fact only revealed the ignorance of the officials, as later congressional hearings indicated that they poorly understood how slaughterhouses worked, and confused their inherently foul nature with unsanitary conditions. Shortly after the jungle came out, J. Ogden Armour, owner of one of the biggest packing firms, wrote an article in the Saturday Evening Post defending government inspection of meat and insisting that the large packers had always favoured and pushed for inspection. Armour wrote, quote, Attempts to evade it, government inspection, would be, from the purely commercial viewpoint, suicidal. No packer can do an interstate or export business without government inspection. Self-interest forces him to make use of it. Self-interest likewise demands that he shall not receive meats or by-products from any small packer, either for export or other use, unless that small packer's plant is also official, that is, under United States government inspection. This government inspection thus becomes an important adjunct of the packer's business from two viewpoints. It puts the stamp of legitimacy and honesty upon the packer's product, and so is to him a necessity. To the public, it is insurance against the sale of diseased meats. End quote. Government meat inspection also lures the public into always thinking the food is safe and reduces competitive pressures to improve meat quality. In May, Senator Albert J. Beveridge of Indiana, a leading progressive Republican and old friend of Morgan partner George W. Perkins, introduced a bill for strengthening the compulsory inspection of all meat, including meat products and preservatives, passing through interstate commerce, as well as fixing standards for sanitation within the meatpacking plants. The bill was vigorously supported by Secretary of Agriculture James Wilson. The funds appropriated for federal inspection were quadrupled compared to the existing law, from 800000 to $3 million. The beverage bill passed both houses of Congress nearly unanimously at the end of June. The large meat packers were enthusiastically in favour of the bill, designed as it was to bring the small packers under federal inspection. The American Meat Producers Association endorsed the bill. At the hearing of the House Committee of Agriculture on the beverage bill, Thomas E. Wilson, representing the large Chicago packers, put their support succinctly. Quote, we are now and have always been in favour of the extension of the inspection, also to the adoption of the sanitary regulations that will ensure the very best possible conditions. We have always felt that government inspection under proper regulations 
was an advantage to the livestock and agricultural interests and to the consumer. End quote. One advantage to imposing uniform sanitary conditions on all meat packers is that the burden of the increased costs would fall more heavily on the smaller than on the bigger plants, thereby crippling the smaller competitors even further. The major battle over the beverage bill was who was to pay for the increased government inspection. The big packers, naturally enough, wanted the taxpayers to keep paying the costs as they had in the past. They also objected to the bill's provision to compel canning dates placed on meat products, for fear of discouraging consumer purchases of cans stamped at more remote dates. The packers' objections were embodied in amendments by James W. Wadsworth, chairman of the House Committee on Agriculture, amendments which were drafted by Samuel H. Cowan, attorney of the National Livestock Association. When President Roosevelt attacked the Wadsworth Amendments after approving them privately earlier, Wadsworth answered him with, quote, I told you that the Packers insisted before our committee on having a rigid inspection law passed. Their life depends on it, and the committee will bear me out in the statement that they place no obstacle whatever in our way. End quote. The House passed the Wadsworth Bill, and the Senate the beverage original. But the House stood firm and the big packers got all that they had wanted, the bill being signed by the President at the end of June. The cans would not be dated and the taxpayers would pay the entire cost of inspection. George W. Perkins was delighted and he wrote to J.P. Morgan that the new law will certainly be a very great advantage when the thing gets into operation and they are able to use it all over the world, as it will practically give them a government certificate for their goods. The opposition to the Wadsworth Amendment was scarcely based on anti-business views. Beveridge himself declared quite sensibly that an industry which is infinitely benefited by the government inspection ought to pay for that inspection instead of the people paying for it. The same position was advanced by the New York Journal of Commerce. The leftish opponents of business were not fooled by the Beveridge Wadsworth Law. Senator Newt Nelson realized that the law was a meat packer's bonanza. Quote, Three objects have been sought to be accomplished. First, to placate the packers. Next, to placate the men who raise the range cattle. And third, to get a good market for the packers abroad. End quote. Even Upton Sinclair himself was not fooled. He realized that the new law was designed to benefit the packers. The intention of his expose, in any case, was not to impose higher standards for meat, as it was to improve the living conditions of the packing house workers, which he himself admitted was scarcely accomplished by the new law. Hence his famous quote, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident I hit it in the stomach. Sinclair looked back on the event. Quote, I am supposed to have helped clean up the yards and improve the country's meat supply, though this is mostly delusion. But nobody even pretends to believe that I improved the conditions of the stockyard workers. End quote. Neither was Secretary of Agriculture Wilson under any delusions who favoured or opposed the new law. Meeting with the large packers shortly after the bill passed, Wilson told them, 
The great asset that you gentlemen are going to have when we get this thing going will be the most rigid and severe inspection on the face of the earth. To which the packers responded with loud applause. Swift and Co. and the other large meat packers took out giant ads trumpeting the new law, asserting that its purpose is to assure the public that only sound and wholesome meat and meat food products may be offered for sale. It is a wise law. Its enforcement must be universal and uniform. During the next few years, Senator Beveridge tried to restore the idea of the packers paying for the inspection, but he got no support from Roosevelt and opposition from his Secretary of Agriculture. Meanwhile, the packers continued to defend the Bureau of Animal Industry and its inspections, and they even sought unsuccessfully to strengthen inspection further. Editor's Footnote The packers were naturally disturbed at the flagrant lies Sinclair wrote slandering their industry, and also at the original beverage bill. Against this, and Roosevelt's threat to release the similarly untruthful Neil Reynolds report, they even offered to enact their own voluntary regulations. However, they supported new regulation if the taxpayers were forced to pay, and if smaller firms were also included. As documented above, they were successfully able to steer the new legislation according to their desires. End footnote. 2. Harvey W. Wiley and the Pure Food and Drug Act Neither was the Pure Food and Drug Act, passed on the same day as the Meat Inspection Act, a triumph of the people over the interests. The pure food agitation had been carried on for years by business interests in general, and specifically by large food companies anxious to use the government in a mercantilist way to catalyse, restrict competition and impose higher relative costs on small business competitors. In the early 1880s, the leadership of the Drive for Pure Food legislation was taken by Dr. Harvey W. Wiley, the leading food chemist for the Federal Department of Agriculture. Wiley combined in his person the leading forces making for progressivism and statism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, an amalgam of pietism, of a technocratic drive by new cause of experts, and of powerful business interests. Harvey W. Wiley was born an Indiana farm boy to a father of Ulster Scott background who was a lay preacher in the pietistic Campbellite sect. But more important than the specific sect to the Wiley home was a non-sectarian and pietistic devotion to strict adherence to the Sabbath. At Hanover College in Indiana, young Wiley began his lifelong obsession with purity and began discoursing on the importance of purity of body, mind and soul. He was early convinced that tobacco and pork were foul impurities that marred the perfection of one's body. In his commencement address at Hanover in 1867, the 23-year-old Wiley combined the themes of purity, pietism and supposedly value-free medicine in ways that would foreshadow his later career. He declared that man must preserve his godlike purity of body and mind, and he exalted the nobility of the physicians, men who guard the holy covenant God made with man. The physician, Wiley conceded, may not be able to make man immortal, but he may help to make the probation state, man's life on earth, a proper place of preparation 
for the precious life that beckons from beyond the misty hills. Wiley then went to tutor in languages at Northwestern Christian University, a Campbellite university in Indianapolis, after which Wiley went to Indiana Medical College, acquiring an MD in 1871. Wiley then shifted to chemistry, becoming a professor of chemistry at Indiana Medical School the following year, then obtaining a BS in chemistry at Harvard, after which he became professor of chemistry at Northwestern Christian in 1873, followed by a professorship of chemistry at the newly founded Purdue University in the following year. Five years later, Dr. Wiley studied medicine, chemistry and physics at the University of Berlin, where he was inspired by Dr. Sell's government laboratory for the detecting of impurities in food and drink. It was at Berlin that Wiley picked up his lifelong interest in sugar chemistry and began his permanent alliance with the sugar industry and government in the US. In 1881, Wiley began to agitate for the government's protection of the consumer from adulterated sugar products in the state of Indiana. Specifically, he called for a state requirement that sugar and syrup products be required to carry labels detailing their composition. The compulsory labeling law would have had several significant effects. By requiring compulsory publicity, it would cripple trade and brand name secrets, thereby helping to restrict competition and catalyze the sugar industry. The law would also have the Colbertist or Mercantilist effect of catalyzing through allegedly higher quality imposed on the consumer by coercion. In addition, Wiley cemented his alliance with the sugar industry by agitating for the notion that the United States should be self-sufficient in sugar, and thereby that imported sugar should be kept out of the United States by a prohibitively high tariff. His alliance with government began in 1881, when Indiana passed a law regulating the manufacture and sale of commercial fertilizers, and named Dr. Wiley as the state chemist in charge of testing these products. During the early 1880s, Wiley launched several abortive attempts to go into the sugar manufacturing business himself. He tried to buy a defunct beet sugar plant in Boston to make glucose, a new product which he had lauded, and to organize a glucose plant in Indiana. Both of these failed. He also hoped to make sugar from sorghum cane, and organized a small Indiana company to make preliminary investigations on the subject, and he was happy enough with his results to believe it would be successful in the future. In an address before the Indiana State Board of Agriculture in January 1883, Dr. Wiley, by now one of America's leading sugar chemists, made clear the extent to which he was wedded to sugar. Let me make the sweets of the nation, and I don't care who makes the laws. The consumption of sugar is a measure of progress in civilization, Wiley thundered. Childhood without candy would be heaven without harps. Wiley added, with no trace of irony, that nothing is ever gained for a cause by an overstatement of its claims. He also commended the possibilities for profit in the manufacture of sugar from sorghum. At this point, the Federal Commissioner of Agriculture fired as the department chemist the obstreperous and notoriously pro-sorghum Dr. Peter Collier. To appease the politically powerful sorghum growers, the commissioner was forced to appoint the notoriously pro-sorghum Harvey Wiley in 1883 
as chief chemist. Wiley leapt to his new role, agitating at length for a protective tariff to keep out efficient foreign sugar and to subsidize a domestic sugar industry into being. As a lifelong Republican in a Republican administration, Wiley was simply singling out his own favorite tariff in a party wedded to the concept of keeping out imports in competition with American industry. Free trade, Wiley opined, was but the tender tropical nursling of the college hothouses and professional dilettantism. When asked what would happen to foreign sugar growers put out of work by an American protective tariff, Wiley displayed the arrogant attitude toward third world people typical of the progressive. The native, Wiley opined, sullenly lolling in the sun, can look up and see coconuts and bananas. He will not starve nor freeze. In his scientific work for the Department of Agriculture, Wiley also devoted much time and energy to subsidizing the sugar industry, specifically a search for economic methods of producing sugar from sorghum, cane and beet, especially sorghum. Despite his eminence in the field, Wiley's sorghum experiments during the 1880s were consistent flops. Congressional appropriations for these schemes, however, were repeatedly salvaged by the Republican senator Preston B. Plum of Kansas, who was subject to pressure by Kansas agriculturalists looking for salvation by sorghum. Even Wiley's seemingly successful diffusion process for Louisiana sugarcane turned out to be a failure. Wiley, however, continued to be enthusiastic about government subsidizing of sugar manufacture, and he also advocated a governmental school to teach people the ways of sugar production. Neither consistent failure nor the changes in government, however, seemed to deter the federal government from continuing to finance and even expand Dr. Wiley's activities. For one thing, Wiley proved early to be an expert maneuverer in the corridors of power. Although a Republican, Wiley was not ousted by the Cleveland administration in 1885 because he managed to persuade Cleveland to appoint his old friend, farm editor Norman J. Coleman, as the Commissioner of Agriculture. Then, when Jeremiah Rusk, former governor of Wisconsin, became Secretary of Agriculture under the Harrison administration, Wiley was able to work very closely with the new secretary. The following year, 1890, Wiley and Rusk worked closely together with wealthy Philadelphia financier Hamilton Diston. Diston had bought a million acres of swamp and wetlands in Florida for the production of sugarcane, organizing the Florida Sugarcane Co. for that purpose. Diston then successfully lobbied through Congress a grant to the Department of Agriculture of funds for research in improving sugarcane production. The grateful Rusk and Wiley promptly constructed their experimental station on a site on Diston's soil, only four miles from his sugar factory. Diston, of course, was only too happy to lease the land for free to the Department of Agriculture, since the station could only boost the market for Diston's sugar and his entire acreage. By the mid-1890s, it was clear to everyone that the idea of any sort of economic production of sugar from sorghum was a total failure and that, furthermore, there was no real domestic sugar industry of any consequence. Wiley, of course, blamed the misfires neither on his own grandiloquent attempts at subsidy, nor on his consistent string of research failures. No, he charged, the problem was that the sugar tariff was not yet high enough. 
If one of Dr. Wiley's lifelong passions was the promotion of American sugar, the other was the outlawry of food or farm products that he considered impure. In the decades after the Civil War, municipal boards of health had issued ordinances on pure milk and meat. More to the point, dairy interests forced through protective laws in some states against competing milk or butter products, e.g. against such adulterated competitors as oleomargarine. Farmers in many states tried to stop adulterated fertilizers, and we have seen that Dr. Wiley was enlisted in Indiana's crusade as early as 1881. There were a few state food and drug laws, but they were enforced only in Massachusetts. On the federal level, there was only a pre-Civil War law banning the importation of adulterated drugs. In the mid-1880s, Dr. Wiley took the lead in agitating for a food and drug law on the federal level. In 1884, Wiley and several state chemists had organized the Association of Official Agricultural Chemists, which issued its reports in the Department of Agriculture's bulletins. Two years later, when Wiley was president of the association, he induced it to expand its scope from commercial fertilizers to the entire area of agricultural chemistry, including the adulteration of food. It should be noted that Wiley's primary interest in this field was not in safeguarding the public health. It was in outlawing all changes in the definition of a product, since he considered all such changes in name as fraud. In short, Wiley sought to freeze the composition of all products in their original mould. It should be clear that such a law would not only cartelize industry and impose Colbertian mercantilism, but it would also cripple competition from new and imaginative innovators and freeze the status quo in industry. That the motivation for this drive was economic was admitted by Agricultural Commissioner Coleman, who wanted to eradicate food adulteration by means of tough state and federal laws. His chief concern, Anderson stated, was the plight of the honest producer faced with the competition of adulterated products. The Department of Agriculture, Division of Chemistry, kicked off its campaign against impure food in its Bulletin No. 13, issued in 1887. To popularise its findings among the public, Wiley hired Alexander J. Wedderburn, farm editor, pure food enthusiast, and secretary of the Legislative Committee of the Farm Lobby Group, the Virginia Grange, to write Bulletin No. 25 in 1890. The bulletin saw fraud everywhere, and particularly worried about the export markets, which were being injured by the poor reputation of American food. Wedderburn's bulletin called for national legislation to remedy the evil. Public agitation for a national pure food law, however, was not launched first by Wiley and the Department of Agriculture. It was begun by Francis B. Thurber, a leading wholesale grocer in New York City. In the summer of 1880, Thurber got his brother-in-law, Major Henry C. Meyer, editor of the Plumber and Sanitary Engineer, to persuade the National Board of Trade, the leading organization of merchants, to sponsor a $1,000 contest in the PSE for the best essay drafting legislation against food adulteration. The winner of the contest was Professor G.W. Wigner, president of the Engineering Society of Public Analysts. The judges of the contest then drafted a model bill along Wigner's lines, a bill then endorsed by the National Board of Trade 
and many local boards. While the bill failed to pass, it served as the model for numerous state laws during the 1880s. In late 1886, the American Society for the Prevention of the Adulteration of Food, a Philadelphia-based outfit, called a national convention in Washington for January 1887 to draft pure food legislation. The convention, representing commercial organizations, trade journal and boards of health, endorsed the 1880 Board of Trade Bill. A larger convention the following year included food manufacturers and distributors and also endorsed legislation against harmful adulteration and compelling the labeling of the composition of products. The 1888 convention was led by the organized grocers, frankly, in order to protect the honest businessmen from the competition of the adulterer and to build public confidence. But it was also, as Anderson notes, an attempt to capture the initiative to the end that any legislation enacted would, in objectives and details, conform to the business point of view. Also heavily involved in the convention were numerous agricultural interests. There were the dairy producers, who wanted protection from such fraud as oleomargarine, corn and hog growers, who wanted protection against adulterated lard and inspection of slaughtered animals for export in order to prevent Europe from discriminating against them. As stated earlier, they succeeded with the 1891 law. And there were, of course, the public health professionals, who wanted an expansion of their jobs and prestige. Specific agricultural interests managed to obtain governmental crippling of their competitors. In 1886, the dairy interests won a federal tax against the manufacture and sale of oleomargarine. A bill crippling the production of adulterated lard passed the House in 1890, but failed in the Senate because of the opposition of the cottonseed oil interests, who were successfully making composed lard, lard mixed with cottonseed oil. More generally, Congress passed a bill in 1888 prohibiting the manufacture and sale of adulterated food and drugs in the District of Columbia, which of course has always been conceded to be constitutionally under federal control. But the first important general federal bill mandating pure food and drugs was submitted in 1890 by Senator Algernon S. Paddock of Nebraska, chairman of the Senate Committee on Agriculture and Forestry. The committee reported out of the bill to protect consumers and producers against adulteration, and most significantly, to raise the reputation of American food products in export markets abroad. The bill mandated labelling of components and outlawed adulteration, as well as prohibiting allegedly injurious ingredients. The following year, Wiley induced Paddock to amend the bill to tighten up enforcement and place responsibility for enforcement in a food section within his own division of chemistry. In early 1892, Senator Paddock delivered a speech hailing this bill as protecting the pocketbook as well as the health of consumers, and as helping the farmer by strengthening our export markets. Lobbying for the Paddock Bill were many farm organisations, including the Alliance and the Grange, state legislatures, boards of trade, and wholesale grocery and drug associations. Opposed to it were the cottonseed oil producers, as well as the manufacturers of other new and mixed products, which would be first in line to be attacked as an adulteration from the purity of the original definition of any particular product. 
The bill passed the Senate but died in the House, facing as it did a public which was either apathetic or positively opposed to a pure food and drug act as an illegitimate and paternalistic intervention of government into their lives. Speaking for the Paddock Bill before the Franklin Institute, Dr. Wiley conceded that only a small part of food adulteration injured the consumers. He was more worried about them spending their money in ways that he considered unwise. The poor were purchasing food that was ostensibly pure and nutritious, but in reality valueless. His concern for the consumer's pocketbook, however, was conveniently forgotten when he pointed out to his colleagues in the Department of Agriculture that if adulteration were outlawed, the farmers' markets would broaden and food prices would rise. Or, to put it in starker terms, competition in food products would be crippled, supply would therefore be reduced, and food and farm prices would rise. Which was perhaps the point of the whole enterprise. The second Cleveland administration was a difficult time for Wiley, for Secretary of Agriculture J. Sterling Morton insisted on spending cuts and bureaucratic dismissals in the department. However, the food and drug crusade pressed on. Most states enacted pure food and drug laws during the 1890s. The initiative came from industrial and merchant groups anxious to protect themselves against competition. In the late 1890s, the Association of Official Agricultural Chemists launched reports, studies and addresses against adulteration. Heading the Association's Committee on Food Standards, and therefore spearheading this drive, was Dr. Harvey Wiley. By 1897, Wiley urged the Paddock Bill as a model law for all states, and got his proposed bill introduced in the House by Republican Representative Marriott Brosius of Pennsylvania. The Brosius Bill outlawed adulteration, compelled the labelling of food contents, and barred poisonous ingredients. Wiley's Division of Chemistry in the Department of Agriculture was to examine samples of food and to regulate products in interstate commerce. Favouring the bill were the National Grange and the Farmers' National Congress, interested in cartelizing the food industry. Particularly advocating the bill was a new overall organisation designed to lobby for a Pure Food and Drug Act, the National Pure Food and Drug Congress, which was set up at a convention in March 1898. The Congress, consisting of 150 delegates from 24 states, was called by a group including health officers and wholesale grocers of the District of Columbia. The Congress was the idea of Alexander J. Wedderburn, former propagandist in the service of Dr. Wiley and now master of the State Grange of Virginia. Wiley was the chairman of the Congress's advisory committee and later chairman of its legislative committee, which got Brosius to revise his bill. Wiley's concern for purity was designed to put competitive innovation into a straitjacket. Thus, Wiley vigorously opposed adding blends to straight whiskey, and harshly criticised rectified whiskey because he thought it fraudulent to call it whiskey, and he felt that such an impure product had to be injurious to health. Subsequent pure food and drug bills, shepherded by Dr. Wiley, were strongly backed by farmers' groups such as the National Grange, by commercial organisations such as the National Board of Trade, the National Retail Grocers Association, the National Wholesale Druggists Association, 
the National Retail Liquor Dealers Association, the Proprietary Association of America, and, last but not least, the American Pharmaceutical and American Medical Association. Soon, the National Association of Manufacturers, the American Baking Powder Association, and many individual companies contributed heavy support for a pure food and drug bill, drawn up by Dr. Wiley and submitted to the House by Representative William P. Hepburn. Finally, under the impact of the meatpacking excitement, Wiley's bill passed the Congress almost unanimously in 1906, with Theodore Roosevelt giving the measure at least passive support. Wiley acknowledged that the great majority of food manufacturers supported the bill. The Pure Food and Drug Act was a continuation of previous congressional bills and legislations on the state level. It prohibited adulteration, to be decided by bureaucrats and the special interests they represented, which cracked down on certain forms of competition and required honest labelling, which added additional costs on firms that did not previously do so. At the helm was Dr. Wiley and his Bureau of Chemistry in the Department of Agriculture. Editor's footnote. The Bureau of Chemistry would eventually morph into the Food and Drug Administration in the 1920s and 1930s. Rothbard planned to elaborate on the cartelization of the drug industry and the medical profession further, but unfortunately did not do so. The drug industry and medical profession were believed to be vastly unsafe until government regulation, with unsuspecting consumers buying addicting and dangerous medicines and medical treatments from quack salesmen and heterodox doctors. While sensational for the media, addiction and death were overblown, and in fact partially caused by prior regulations. In addition, the mainstream medical profession also practiced treatments that would be considered dangerous and ineffective by today's standards. In 1910, the Flexner Report, written by Abraham Flexner, brother of Simon Flexner, head of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, proposed a licensing system for medical schools and hospitals that artificially raised quality and blocked out many black, female and Jewish doctors, as well as proprietary hospitals and alternative forms of medicine. End footnote. Wiley's passion for pure food and drugs dovetailed neatly after the passage of the law with his equally dominant lifelong passion for sugar. After the frustrations of the Democratic Cleveland administration, the Republican McKinley administration gladdened Wiley's heart by restoring and expanding Wiley's sugar beet experiments. For a domestic sugar beet industry had now been made viable by the Dingley Tariff Act of 1897, which doubled the duty on imported sugar. Wiley's studies and subsidized experiments now greatly aided the beet sugar industry. At the first annual convention of the American Beet Sugar Association in 1904, Dr. Wiley was introduced with the encomium that we have had no more loyal and staunch friend. Harvey W. Wiley, as befitting a progressive, was an ardent imperialist, and he vigorously supported the American annexations of Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines but his devotion to American sugar took precedence over imperial concerns, and he opposed President Roosevelt, whom he had generally supported, over TR's desire to import Cuban sugar for free or at reduced rates after it had become our virtual protectorate. If Harvey Wiley was ruthless with foreign sugar, 
he was even more bitterly opposed to any competitive substitute for sugar, especially if he could also stigmatize it as artificial and impure, in contrast to his favorite commodity. Teddy Roosevelt soon broke with the spiritual mentor of the pure food and drug law, and the issue was the problem of saccharin. Wiley did his best to outlaw saccharin, thereby gladdening the hearts of his friends and associates in the sugar industry. Wiley denounced saccharin as a deception because it provided a cheap substitute for sugar. Since it was devoid of food value, according to Wiley, it must therefore be harmful. The solicitor and associate chemist of the Department of Agriculture, appointed by the president as a check upon the obstreperous Wiley, pronounced saccharin harmless and should therefore be permitted in food if labelled as such. Finally, in January 1908, TR appointed a higher board in the department to pass on differences of opinion over adulterated food and thereby to overrule Wiley. As a special dig at Wiley, the board was headed by Ira Remsen, the distinguished discoverer of saccharin. It is no accident that the emotional TR should have broken with Wiley over the saccharin question for Roosevelt was accustomed to take saccharin in his daily coffee, and was therefore convinced that Wiley was hopelessly addled in his attempt to deprive the president of his favourite sweetener. Wiley's biographer perceptively summed up the man, whose crusading passion had shifted from pietist Christianity to the new salvation of mankind by science, or more particularly by scientists, professionals and technocrats, in the name of value-free science. As Anderson puts it, quote, Science filled the void left by the loss of faith. Perhaps Wiley's views stemmed from his heritage of evangelical Christianity, a heritage whose theological superstructure had lost its meaning for him, but whose burning zeal for social justice remained. End quote. Editor's footnote. Powell, in his book Bully Boy, notes that food quality was going up through improvements such as canned and frozen food, better preservatives and improved railroad transportation, including refrigeration of dressed meats. It is worth quoting several passages from Clayton A. Coppin and Jack High's book The Politics of Purity, Harvey Washington Wiley and the Origins of Federal Food Policy. Quote, A striking fact about the Pure Food and Drugs Act of 1906 a fact with which every interpretation of the Act must come to terms, is that urban workers and families did not agitate for its passage or enforcement. No general outbreak of disease or death from food in the cities was recorded. No epidemic of malnutrition swept through the urban populace. No public outcry over food was ever heard from the working classes. The movement for a national food law came from food commissioners agricultural chemists, manufacturers of expensive foods, representatives from rural agricultural states, and a small number of middle-class women. The rhetoric of regulation was pure food for the mass consumer, but its impetus came from the professional classes. When the patina of public-spirited reform is removed, we find that the cumulative interaction of commercial and bureaucratic competition led to the passage of the Pure Food and Drugs Act in 1906. These two competitive forces, rather than consumer health or business fraud, also account for Wiley's action as a regulator of food and drugs. 
His enforcement of the act did not improve the health of the consumer, the plane of competition among producers, or the honesty and integrity of government officials. If anything, Wiley's enforcement worsened the ability of consumers to make informed judgments about food and drugs. His claims about the healthfulness of various foods and preservatives were not well-founded. The firms that Wiley opposed were not shady operations designed to bilk the consumer. They were reputable firms that were as forthright in their commercial and political dealings as the firms that Wiley supported. End footnote. 3. Theodore Roosevelt and the Conservation Crusade The conservation movement, past and present, has generally been painted in sweetness and light, as disinterested nature lovers leading the people in war against corporate interests who wish to exploit and plunder natural resources. The actual facts were quite different. As Professor Samuel P. Hayes, the pioneering revisionist historian of the conservation movement has declared, quote, The crusading quality of the conservation movement has given it an enviable reputation as a defender of spiritual values and national character. But conservation neither arose from a broad popular outcry nor centred its fire primarily upon the private corporation. Moreover, the corporations often supported conservation policies while the people, just as frequently, opposed them. In fact, it becomes clear that one must discard completely the struggle against corporations as the setting in which to understand conservation history. End quote. As in so many other aspects of the progressive movement, conservation constituted a shift of control or ownership of natural resources from private to governmental hands in order to subsidize and cartelize private interests in that area. In the name of scientific management, government intervention took two forms, either subsidize research and development in natural sources, or withhold resources indefinitely from use, thereby cartelizing the resource and raising prices for private producers and increasing the capital value of resources already in private hands. Thus, as in so much of the progressive era, professionals and technocrats formed a congenial alliance with private interests. We have already noted Theodore Roosevelt's early interest in forest conservation and his close friendship with the man who was to become the unquestioned leader of the forest conservation movement, Gifford Pinchot. After training in forestry in France and Germany, the wealthy young Pinchot became a consultant for private forest owners, advocating European techniques of scientific forestry. In 1895, President Cleveland's Secretary of the Interior, Hoke Smith, responding to growing pressure by Eastern nature lovers, appointed Harvard Professor Charles S. Sargent to a National Forestry Committee, of which Pinchot was a member. The committee's report deplored the pro-use attitude of the cities of the West, and urged a systematic permanent withdrawal and reserving of forest land by the federal government. Responding to the committee, President Cleveland created 21.3 million acres of forest reserves in early 1897, making 39 million acres of total reserves. In 1898, Gifford Pinchot became chief of the Division of Forestry, and in 1900, head of the new Bureau of Forestry, by 1905 called the Forest Service, 
in the Department of Agriculture. The previous head of the division, the German-American and German-trained Bernhard Fernau, had been relatively harmless, confining himself to the study of individual trees and to dispensing technical information. Fernau had not been a crusader. Pinchot, however, set out to convert the nation to scientific forestry. He rapidly formed an alliance with private timber companies, proselytizing and aiding them in forestry techniques. Some of the largest timber owners in the country had sought his assistance, including the Kirby Lumber Company of Texas, the Northern Pacific Railroad, and the Weyerhauser Lumber Company in the Pacific Northwest. By 1905, Pinchot had aided the owners of three million acres of timber, and had helped manage almost 200,000 acres. In 1901, Pinchot and his colleagues in scientific forestry formed the Society of American Foresters, and in a few years they were able to convert the older group, the American Forestry Association, from an aesthetic admiration of forests and arbors into an organization on behalf of the new scientific forestry. As a result of Pinchot's efforts, private lumbermen joined the AFA, and by 1909, the association had an advisory board including representatives of nine lumbermen's organizations. When Congress failed to appropriate money for a clerk in the Bureau of Forestry, the private lumbermen raised the funds for three years in a row. Furthermore, they endowed a chair in forestry at Yale, assisted forestry students in field training, and formed lobby groups in behalf of Pinchot and his Forest Bureau in Congress. As soon as Roosevelt became president, he began reserving more and more parts of the public domain from private homesteading and into the permanently governmental national forests. In his first year as president, Roosevelt created 13 new forests, totaling 15.5 million acres. When in 1907, Congress, in alarm at Roosevelt's grabbing new forest reserves, revoked his authority to create new reserves in six western states, T.R. spitefully rushed to set aside 75 million additional acres of forests before the bill became law, bringing the grand total up to 151 million acres. In late 1905, Roosevelt transferred control of the national forests from the Department of the Interior to his friend Pinchot and the Forest Service. Furthermore, Roosevelt and Pinchot gave the impetus to a bill finally passed in 1911 as the Weeks Act which purchased large areas of private land in the east to be set aside by the Forest Service as national forest. How did the private timber interests stand on this policy of sequestering forests under permanent government ownership? Roosevelt himself answered that question by announcing that the great users of timber are themselves forwarding the movement for forest preservation. J. H. Cox has pointed to the great support of this progressive forest reservation policy by the timber interests and lumber manufacturers of the Northwest. Quote, lumber manufacturers and timber owners had arrived at a harmonious understanding with Gifford Pinchot as early as 1903. In other words, the government, by withdrawing timber lands from entry and keeping them off the market, would aid in appreciating the value of privately owned timber. End quote. The American Lumberman, official journal of the lumbering industry, as well as the National Lumber Manufacturers Association, expressed similar approval during this period. 
In addition to the timber owners, the lumber users also weighed in for compulsory conservation in the interests of preserving their future supplies. Hardwood users were particularly eager to set aside the Appalachian mountain range as a hardwood area, and they became active in the AFA as well as backing Pinchot in the Forest Service. Hardwood users who joined the advisory board of the AFA by 1909 included the Tight Barrel Stave Manufacturers Association, the National Association of Box Manufacturers, the Carriage Builders National Association, and the National Slack Cooperage Manufacturers Association. The timber interests were of course all too aware that compulsory sequestering of forest lands by the central government would raise the prices and value of their timber. The alliance between industry and bureaucrats for higher prices was nowhere more stark than in the drive for higher tariffs on foreign lumber. If conservation of domestic resources had truly been their primary aim, then the scientific foresters in the federal bureaucracy should have been fervently eager to import foreign timber in order to slow down domestic production. Instead, the foresters joined the timber industry in advocating higher tariffs. Until the 1890s, American policy had been to allow public lands, including timber, to pass into private ownership as soon as they were homesteaded by private users. The beginning of the end of homesteading came with the General Land Law Revision Act of 1891, which granted the President power to create national forest reserves by mere proclamation. This power was installed by the political pressure of the American Forestry Association and the American Association for the Advancement of Science, aided by President Harrison. The impetus for the 1891 measure had been upper-class preservationist, a romantic desire to use government to preserve pristine forests and game animals intact. But Pinchot and Roosevelt were scientific cartelists and were soon able to elbow the preservationists aside. In the inter-bureaucratic manoeuvring that won control for his forest service as against the Department of the Interior, Pinchot was able to use his powerful political allies, the Western stockmen, who were anxious to lease the forests to graze their animals. So fond were the stockmen of Pinchot's policies that the American National Livestock Association, from 1901 onward, passed resolutions endorsing Pinchot and the transfer of the national forests to his control. Thus, Pinchot was able to keep eastern game preservationist organisations from converting the national forests from all commercial use into game preserves. Roosevelt and Pinchot even turned against their old colleagues in the Boone and Crockett Club and managed to squash the club's proposal to reserve game areas in the national forests. Grazing under lease, indeed, soon became a far more important commercial use of the national forests than lumbering thus cementing still further the alliance between the Roosevelt administration and the Western stockmen. This happy partnership between government as the owner and private firms as users or leasers of the land demonstrates that private firms do not necessarily oppose government ownership. The Western grazing range had long been a mess, the direct result of the antiquated homesteading law which had governed US land policy since the Civil War. The maximum homesteading acreage of 160 was well suited to the wet agriculture lands east of the Mississippi, but on the dry land of the western prairie, 
160 acres was an absurdly small technological unit for a farm. But since the 160-acre maximum still remained in force, the result for decades was a vast open range, owned by the federal government but used in common on a first-come, first-served basis by private users. The result of this land communism in the West was that the private users had a strong incentive to use up the soil or land as rapidly as possible before their competitors could use it, and then to move on to the rest of the range. On the other hand, there was a negative incentive for maintaining or improving the soil, since any person or firm who invested in the soil could not keep other users from looting these improvements. The result was destruction of the soil and grassland, as well as a failure to maintain or restore, let alone improve, these resources. Editor's footnote. In contrast to overconsumption from public ownership, under a system of private ownership, firms have an incentive to maximise profits by only harvesting a fraction of the resource, such as timber, soil, animals or fish, at a time, to allow the resource to replenish for future use. In addition, over time, firms innovate in technologies that allow for more efficient utilisation of resources. Entrepreneurs use the price system to estimate whether or not a resource is more highly demanded in the present or the future. End footnote. Many private firms favoured this system, since they could operate with little capital and without the burden of maintaining the land. But the result was not only destruction of the soil, but also chaos, conflict, and the range wars between competing users of the land familiar to fans of Western films. All this from the failure of the federal government to allow private property in the Western range. Samuel Hayes writes, quote, Moving their livestock from the higher alpine ranges during the summer to the lower grazing lands in the winter, cattle and sheepmen could operate profitably with little capital and no privately owned land. Chaos and anarchy, however, predominated on the open range. Congress had never provided legislation regulating grazing or permitting stockmen to acquire rangelands. Cattle and sheepmen roamed the public domain, grabbing choice grazing areas before others could reach them first. Cattlemen fenced range for their exclusive use, but competitors cut the wire. Resorting to force and violence, sheepherders and cowboys solved their disputes over grazing lands by slaughtering rival livestock and murdering rival stockmen. Armed bands raided competing herds and flocks and patrolled choice areas to oust interlopers. Absence of the most elementary institutions of property law created confusion, bitterness and destruction. Amid this turmoil, the public range rapidly deteriorated. Originally plentiful and lush, the forage supply was subjected to intense pressure by increasing use. The number of western cattle grew rapidly after the Civil War. A rising sheep industry claimed its right to share in the public range, and settlers transformed grazing lands into more valuable cropland. The public domain became stocked with more animals than the range could support. Since each stockman feared that others would beat him to the available forage, he grazed early in the year and did not permit the young grass to mature and reseed. Under such conditions, the quality and quantity of available forage rapidly decreased. 
vigorous perennials gave way to annuals, and annuals to weeds. End quote. By the end of the 19th century, the Department of Agriculture estimated that overgrazing had reduced the capacity of public grazing lands by 50% in the previous 10 years. Footnote. By 1944, the U.S. Forest Service estimated that the rangelands in the public domain had been depleted by two-thirds from their original virgin condition. End footnote. Cattlemen, sheepmen and farmer settlers formed three groups that used both governmental and private violence to try to keep their competitors off the public range. State and community boosters, favouring a growing population, sided with the farmers. These farm groups established state immigration commissions to encourage migrants from the east and strongly opposed any private homesteading or fencing by cattlemen or leasing by grazers. Cattlemen tried to do the reverse and to discourage settlement. Often cattlemen would buy up all the water rights in an area to deny farmers the use of the water. Sheepmen were hated by the cattlemen because sheep, guided by herders, were more mobile and could forage more quickly. Furthermore, cattle would often refuse to graze where sheep had previously been. Cattlemen managed to obtain state laws to prohibit sheep grazing near villages or to tax sheep from entering from another state. Cattlemen originally tried to amend the homestead laws to enable them to homestead cattle ranches, but Congress refused. Then cattlemen simply fenced portions of the open range but Congress banned that practice in 1885. On railroad or state-owned lands, cattlemen were permitted to lease, and so, in default of the private ownership option, cattlemen from the 1880s on agitated for Congress to lease the public range to the stockmen. For in that, at least land communism would be eliminated, and cattle would be assured, at least for certain periods, of lands that they could graze exclusively. The scientific foresters and agriculturalists also favoured leasing for grazing, for then, they felt, the soil and grass of the public domain could be at least partially restored. And in contrast to private ownership, the government and its forest and agricultural technologists could regulate the cattle and sheep and the use of the land. Both interests, then, that of the stockmen and of the scientific bureaucracy, would be fostered by a leasing programme. Gifford Pinchot and his fellow scientific foresters waged a successful battle from the turn of the century on against the preservationist policy of the Department of the Interior during the 1890s. In 1894, the Secretary of the Interior prohibited all grazing in the national forests. But in 1897, Congress passed the Forest Management Act, which paved the way for the Interior Department to allow grazing. From then on, Pinchot was able eventually to gain the upper hand, and grazing won out, aided by the head of Pinchot's division of grazing, a prominent Arizona sheepman and founder of the Arizona Wool Growers Association, Albert F. Potter. Apart from the national forests, what of the rest of the public domain? Why not apply livestock grazing leasing there as well? Roosevelt and Pinchot formed an alliance with the western cattlemen who had long agitated for leasing, but they realised they were stirring up a political hornet's nest. The first leasing bill, introduced into the House in 1901, was defeated by the Western settlers, whose only concession was to expand the allowed homesteading acreage to 640 
in western Nebraska, still an absurdly small acreage for cattle ranches. TR set up a public lands commission in 1903-1904 that, predictably, reported in favour of grazing leases on the public domain. But TR moved slowly, waiting until after his re-election in 1904, and finally introduced a leasing bill in 1907, aided by James R. Garfield, who had become Secretary of the Interior in March. The House defeated the bill, however, and Congress continued to defeat Pinchot's efforts for the next decade, until he finally abandoned hope. The accession of James Garfield to the Secretary of the Interior's office was a bureaucratic triumph for Gifford Pinchot. The previous secretary, Ethan A. Hitchcock, was a preservationist. Now this son of former President Garfield, a catalyzing ally of TR's in the new Bureau of Corporations, was to be a firm Pinchot ally in the new concept of scientific conservation. Theodore Roosevelt's setting aside of 75 million acres for forest reserves in early 1907, in defiance of congressional will, particularly angered the bulk of the West anxious to use the sequestered land. There was particularly bitter hatred against Gifford Pinchot, the originator and inspirer of TR's forest policy, and, since 1905, in total control of the national forests. In response, the governor of Colorado called a public lands convention of Westerners to protest against Pinchotism. In reaction against this growth of opposition, TR, once again at the suggestion of Pinchot, whipped up a nationwide conservation movement as a supposedly grassroots crusade. The movement was proposed at the convention of the Deep Waterways Association in the fall of 1907 and officially launched at the Conference of Governors held at the White House in May 1908. Roosevelt managed to line up in support of the conservation crusade not only many members of his cabinet and of the Supreme Court, but also 38 state governors, William Jennings Bryan, soon to be the Democratic presidential standard-bearer for the third time, intellectuals and magazine editors, and such industrialists as Andrew Carnegie and railroad magnate James J. Hill. Such was the propaganda barrage of this Roosevelt-created movement that not only the Republican platform but also the Democrats, in 1908, endorsed the new fad. Most of the enthusiasts for forest conservation in the West were, of course, urban Easterners, many of them dilettantes and statist reformers in other areas. Such prominent and wealthy Chicago urban reformers as Alfred N. Baker and Walter L. Fisher now joined enthusiastically in the conservation movement. Footnote. Pinchot induced Fisher in 1908 to become president of the Conservation League of America, which Pinchot had newly formed to be an umbrella group for 20 national conservation associations. The CLA proved ineffectual, and after that Pinchot dedicated his organising efforts among the public to the National Conservation Association, which he formed a year later. End footnote. Such women's groups as the General Federation of Women's Clubs, and especially the Daughters of the American Revolution, now became particularly enthusiastic about conservation, the DAR maintaining a special committee on conservation headed by Pinchot's mother, Mrs. James Pinchot. Pinchot himself fawned on the DAR as spelling only another name for the highest form of conservation, 
that of vital force and intellectual energy. These reformers disliked the big cities growing up around them, seemingly replacing the values of pietist religion, sobriety and thrift with secularism, immorality and profligacy. Conservation, on the other hand, seemed to promise preservation of the beauties of nature and the maintenance of rural values. Many of the wealthy conservation crusaders prided themselves on having abandoned materialism on behalf of such higher, non-material ideals as parks and forests. A women's representative declared at a meeting of the National Conservation Congress that we feel that it is for us, who are not wholly absorbed in business, to preserve ideals that are higher than business. And one enthusiast exalted that National parks represent opportunities for worship, through which one comes to understand more fully certain of the attributes of nature and its creator. We have seen, however, that many groups concerned with business also supported the Conservation Crusade, notably the private timber interests and the Western cattlemen. Thus, Leonard Bronson, manager of the National Lumber Manufacturers Association, was quite frank about the reason that the lumber industry favoured forest reserves. As he wrote to the progressive Republican senator Albert J. Beveridge of Indiana, from a selfish standpoint alone, the heavy timber owners of the West are heartily in favour of the reserves. For the mere establishment of these reserves has increased the value of their holdings very heavily by withdrawing from the market timber which otherwise would be competitive. Footnote. Leading supporters of the forest conservation movement included N. W. MacLeod, president of the National Lumber Manufacturers Association, George K. Smith, secretary of the association, R. A. Long, president of the Southern Lumber Manufacturers Association, and F. J. Hagenbarth, president of the National Livestock Association. Also backing the national forest movement were the National Board of Trade, the National Business League, and the National Association of Manufacturers. End footnote. And then there were the railroads. Recall that the land-grant railroads had received vast subsidies of land from the government, not only rights of way for their roads, but 15-mile tracts on either side of the line. Government reservation of public lands greatly raised the price received by the railroads when they later sold this land to new inhabitants of the area. The railroads were not ignorant of the monopolistic advantages that would be conferred upon them by conservation laws. In fact, the railroads were the financial angel of the entire conservation movement. James J. Hill, as we have seen, was an ardent conservationist. The Western Railroads, it turns out, paid $45,000 annually in secret subsidy to a leading conservationist magazine, Maxwell's Talisman, and financed the Washington Conservation Lobby. Clearly, one reason was that subsidised irrigation, Maxwell's major concern, would stimulate farm settlement and transportation. But another was, as shown above, that if the federal government reserved its public domain or forests from use, settlers would be forced instead on railroad grant land, and the value of their lands, as well as the traffic on their railroads, would increase. Thus, the National Irrigation Congress, the most vigorous advocate of the Roosevelt Conservation Programme, particularly federal irrigation subsidies, was financed by the Transcontinental and the Burlington and Rock Island Railroads to the tune of $39,000 out of their annual budget of $50,000.
The railroads were led in this subsidy by James J. Hill. Footnote. The effectiveness of the National Irrigation Congress was destroyed when a congressional investigation revealed this hidden railroad financing. Editor's Remarks The U.S. land-grant system can be seen as a case of land engrossment. The U.S. government owned a vast amount of land that was either unappropriated land not homesteaded or previously appropriated land acquired through conquest. To the extent that the government sold unappropriated land directly to settlers or gave that land to the railroads, which they sold, settlers were forced to pay a price, or a tax, for free land. End footnote. Subsidised irrigation was a frankly developmental part of the new conservation programme. The programme had begun in 1888, when Congress authorised the first water resources investigation by the US Geological Survey. Young engineer Frederick Haynes Newell organised this work and continued it as chief hydrographer. Newell also served as secretary of the National Geographic Society during the 1890s. From the beginning, private corporations, interested in developing water and irrigation, enthusiastically encouraged the socialization of their research costs through the geological survey, and lobbied for ever larger congressional appropriations. Private irrigation in the West proved to be a bust in the Depression of 1893, after which the private irrigators turned to the federal government to finance these uneconomic ventures for them. The Carey Act of 1894, sponsored by Senator Robert Carey, Republican Wyoming, granted a million acres of federal land to each western state to allow the states to finance irrigation. But this too was not enough. So in the late 1890s, Newell and other federal officials joined with private Western interests to demand outright federal financing. The propaganda campaign for federal financing was led by a young Northern California lawyer, George H. Maxwell, who was inspired by a quixotic vision of depopulating urban centres and settling urban types on the land. The Crusader Maxwell first converted the National Irrigation Congress in 1896 to the idea of federal financing, a conversion which must not have been very difficult. He then converted private business groups by arguing that federal irrigation would increase Western farm population and broaden Western markets for Eastern business. Probably even more influential was the opportunity of subsidy to all forms of agribusiness. In their annual conventions in 1898, the National Board of Trade, the National Businessmen's League, and the National Association of Manufacturers all endorsed federal aid to irrigation, and continued to do so thereafter. The following year, the indefatigable Maxwell organised his own National Irrigation Association to lobby for the cause. The NIA published his own monthly, Maxwell's Talisman. By 1900, the Propaganda Coalition had done its work so well that both major parties adopted federal irrigation plans in their platforms. The major booster of federal irrigation in Congress was Representative Francis G. Newlands, Democrat Nevada, a wealthy silver mine owner. After the bimetallic cause lost out, Newlands shifted to emphasize irrigation, pushing a Reclamation Act through Congress in 1902. The Reclamation Act provided a new device to finance federal irrigation projects in the West, 
All receipts from the sale of public land in the West go to a special fund for irrigation works in those states. The Reclamation Act also delighted conservationists by giving maximal power to finance projects to the Secretary of the Interior, so that he would not have to be restricted by the necessity of getting annual appropriations from the people's representatives in Congress. In this way, scientific expertise would replace taxpayer and democratic control. Eastern Republicans were understandably critical of the Reclamation Bill for subsidizing Western farmers at the expense of Eastern competition. But the West was able to spring a to Quokwe by attacking the Rivers and Harbors bills that had long subsidized Eastern lands. But the main force behind the passage of the Reclamation Act was Theodore Roosevelt, who had enthusiastically backed federal irrigation in the 1900 campaign and had long been personally influenced by both Pinchot and Newell. In his first message to Congress, the new president asked for the advice of these two men, and then drove through the Reclamation Act. It was not surprising that T.R. appointed Frederick Newell to be the head of the new Reclamation Service, which later became a bureau directly under the Secretary of the Interior in 1907. Federal irrigation, of course, boosted the prices of the subsidized land. Much of the land was owned by speculators, who had either homesteaded the land originally or purchased it from homesteaders, and these speculators were mainly men of moderate means. The higher land prices, which both government irrigators and large corporate developers were now obliged to pay, irritated these powerful groups. The private ditch and reservoir companies found, too, that the speculator settlers were not interested in immediate development and therefore had no interest in the purchase of their water. For their poor forecasting of demand, the private irrigation companies often went bankrupt. To try to shore up the companies, the Carey Act of 1894 provided that any settlers who bought land in the new irrigation projects would be forced to purchase water rights from the private company that had constructed the irrigation works. Carey himself had experienced financial difficulties in previous irrigation schemes which he had promoted, and tried to eliminate them in the future by this tie-in plan. The Reclamation Act of 1902 extended this compulsory tie-in of land and water rights from state to federal projects. Not only that, in the same act, the federal government took up the entire burden by retaining title to all irrigation reservoirs and large ditches and agreeing to maintain and operate them forever. Bankruptcy of uneconomic private irrigation projects would no longer be a stumbling block to excessive and hasty development through subsidized irrigation. For now, the federal government and the taxpayer would take on the task. But the comforting umbrella of the reclamation service applied only to ditch, reservoir and farming sites after it had approved a certain project. The compulsory tie-in provisions did not apply if settlers already owned the sites. And speculator settlers had usually been alerted by many years of boosterism and agitation for the particular project. The next step then was accomplished in the Reclamation Act, for both government and corporate developers to pressure the Congress to authorise the Secretary of the Interior to withdraw all land from homesteading that might be capable of being irrigated. Under the pressure of Frederick H. Newell, Chief of the Bureau of Reclamation, 
the secretary agreed to withdraw all lands from possible private use as long as the Bureau felt it might irrigate them at some time in the future. Here was an important example of large private land developers joining enthusiastically with bureaucrats and technocrats in urging the federal government to keep land off the market and out of the hands of homesteaders and settlers. Moreover, they agitated for the repeal of the Desert Land Act of 1877, under which a private settler could homestead 320 acres of federal desert land if he irrigated the land himself. This sort of private competition was scarcely welcome to the large corporate irrigators who yearned for a federal-state irrigation partnership. The West generally favoured rapid private settlement and development through the broadest possible homesteading of the public lands. They strongly opposed any such reservation of the public domain, as was pushed by Roosevelt's Forest Conservation or Reclamation Bureau irrigation policy. And yet so greedy was the West for public subsidy that they were willing to swallow the reservation clauses in order to pass the Reclamation Act of 1902. In pushing through the bill, Teddy Roosevelt spoke grandly of helping the noble homesteader, whose interests he was quick to suppress in his forest and irrigation reservation programs. The West was so lured by subsidy and the rhetoric of homesteading that it supported the bill. So the Reclamation Act was passed by a coalition of subsidised Westerners, technocrats and Eastern businessmen and manufacturers sensing increased Western markets for their products. Understandably bitterly opposed were the Midwestern farmers, who saw the competition of Western farmers subsidised by themselves along with other taxpayers. The Midwestern democracy took the lead in the opposition. One of the most trenchant attacks was levelled by Representative John S. Snook, Democrat Ohio, who pointed out that the pioneer farmer in the Midwest had accomplished his survival and prosperity by his own efforts. Quote, he accomplished all this by his own efforts. He overcame all these difficulties unaided and alone. He never received, yea, more than that, he never asked for a cent of government aid. And now you propose to tax him and the fruits of his unaided toil to build up a great farming section where products will be raised to compete with those he raises. End quote. As is typical of men who wish to force others to sacrifice in their own behalf, the Western leaders accused the Midwesterners of following their narrow and selfish local and personal interest. The advocates of irrigation subsidies, in contrast, were men of Americanism and of broad-minded statesmanship. To which Representative William P. Hepburn, Republican Iowa, made the proper reply. Quote, if I were not one of the most amiable and polite men in this house, I would take the liberty of saying that the proposition involved in this bill is the most insolent and impudent attempt at larceny that I have ever seen embodied in a legislative proposition. These gentlemen simply do what? They ask us to give away an empire in order that their private property may be made valuable. End quote. With the Reclamation Act safely passed, the technocrat, large developer, transcontinental railroad coalition lobbied vigorously during the Roosevelt administration for the repeal of the Desert Land Act, repeal of the Timber and Stone Act of 1878, which permitted homesteading of public land valuable for timber and stone, 
and generally to constrict private homesteading in the West to the technologically absurd maximum of 160 acres. Accordingly, on October 22, 1903, President Roosevelt appointed a three-man Public Lands Commission, consisting of Pinchot, Newell, and Chairman William A. Richards, former Governor of Wyoming and now Commissioner of the General Land Office in the Department of Interior. The following year, the Commission's report duly pushed for the conservationist program, including greater reservation of public land from private use, the repeal of the Timber and Stone Act, and the reduction of the Desert Land Act entries to 160 acres. The Public Lands Commission report quickly met with the hearty approval of the presidents of the National Board of Trade, the National Association of Manufacturers, the National Business League of America, and the National Irrigation Association. George Maxwell mobilized his entire propaganda machine, including the transcontinental railroads and manufacturing organizations, behind the Commission report. Despite this formidable pressure and the repeated pleas of the President, Congress, led by the citizens of the West themselves, blocked passage of the Commission's measures. In particular, they saw that repression of homesteading, especially through the reservation of lands and forests, would cripple development of the West. As E. Louise Peffer writes about the Roosevelt period, quote, It appears ironical that in a period of such heartfelt sympathy for the homesteader and concern over preserving for his benefit all the remaining good land, every effort seemed to be aimed at cutting down his opportunities. Back in the 1880s, when there was still desirable land left, he could legitimately acquire under the various land laws enough land to make up quite sizable holdings. By 1905, when by general admission there remained very little of the type upon which a man could make a living on the area permitted, the administration was doing everything to cut down the amount that one man could legally acquire to the 160 acres allowed by the homestead law. The West argued that it was humanly impossible to succeed under those circumstances. To succeed on such undesirable land, the entryman had to have double or more the acreage allowed by the homestead law. End quote. Superficially, it may seem inconsistent for Roosevelt and his conservation program to stress reservation and withdrawal on some occasions and subsidize development on others but there is a deeper consistency to all parts of the program. In every case, land and natural resources are taken out of free private settlement and development and converted to state regulation and control, in partnership with a relatively few privileged private interests. Where government takes resources off the market, the aim is to restrict and cartelize lands or resource industries. Where government subsidizes development, it is carefully limited to a partnership with selected private interests, instead of left open to the competition of the free market. Statism, corporate statism, was the key. Thus, the members and colleagues of the Public Lands Commission continued to meet informally after its formal existence was over, and, as Hayes writes, a common theme underlay their efforts. Quote, the old practice of disposing of non-agricultural lands to private owners, Pinchot and others argued, must give way to public ownership and public management. End quote. 
The consistency of the conservation program was greatly aided by the fact that the various wings of conservationists generally worked in tandem. As we have indicated, forest reservationists and irrigationists assiduously promoted each other's cause. This collaboration was greatly aided by the forest cover flood control mythology that had been adopted by the conservationists. The familiar argument ran that forests were essential in absorbing rainfall, retarding stream runoff, checking soil erosion, and therefore preventing floods and preserving uniformity of the water supply. Irrigationists, private power and water supply corporations, municipal water departments, and forest and worker scientists joined in this seemingly powerful and scientific argument for forest reservation. The alliance began as early as the Harrison administration in the early 1890s, when the president was prevailed upon by Southern California groups, panicky over forest cover flood and soil erosion, to create the San Bernardino National Forest. The major lobbyist for this national forest was General Adolf Wood, president of the Arrowhead Reservoir Company, a private corporation engaged in storing water for power, irrigation, and general domestic use. Wood was understandably interested in turning to state and federal government to subsidize the long-run supply of his water. By the latter years of the Roosevelt administration, the TR conservationists had expanded the irrigation program and the Irrigation Forestry Alliance into a comprehensive statist program for federal multiple-purpose river development. The multiple-purpose concept grew also out of a dozen years of enthusiasm for governmental subsidies to river navigation. The river development movement arose throughout the country in the late 1890s, led invariably by urban merchants and manufacturers anxious to force the general taxpayer to subsidise river transport. One problem is that shippers, after 1898, faced a continuing rise in railroad freight rates, reversing the trend of previous decades. Part of a counter-drive was to lobby government to promote inland navigation for a cheaper form of transportation. Cheaper for themselves, of course, not for the taxpayers. Local merchants and manufacturers easily persuaded local and regional booster groups that federal funds in their area would promote that area as against competing towns and regions. For many years, the enthusiasts for the expensive new waterway boondoggles were thwarted by Congress, led by the shrewd representative Theodore E. Burton, Republican Ohio, chairman of the House Rivers and Harbors Committee. Burton, a lawyer, banker, and water transportation expert, argued that the proposed river improvements and inland canals were far too expensive and would have little effect on railway rates. In frustration, the waterway agitators formed the National Rivers and Harbors Congress in 1901, regrouping five years later to become the most powerful lobby for the waterway movement. It urged a $50 million annual federal river development program and, at its December 1908 meeting, endorsed a vast $500 million federal bond issue for waterway development, as well as a permanent commission whose task would be to propose new projects. In 1907, Roosevelt's conservationist leaders gathered all these conservationist threads together to formulate the concept of multiple-purpose river basin development. 
forests would be reserved for their own sake and also to regulate stream flow of water. Reservoirs would be built to control floods, promote irrigation, and generate hydroelectric power. And rivers would be developed for navigation and all these other functions. The vast expense involved meant federal funds and federal control. Not only had local and private funding proved inadequate for the irrigation desired by the new planners, but rivers, after all, run interstate, and therefore, if they are to be planned by government, require federal operation and control. Newell, Pinchot, and Garfield were crucial to formulating and pushing for the new concept. So too was W. J. McGee, the chief theoretician and organizer of the new multiple-purpose river basin movement. A self-taught geologist and anthropologist from Iowa, and at this point assistant head of the Bureau of Ethnology in the Roosevelt administration, McGee worked tirelessly to persuade all branches of the conservation movement of the new dispensation. Daily, he peppered Roosevelt, Pinchot, and Garfield with ideas and suggestions. He drew up presidential messages and organized conferences. McGee pushed Newell into expanding irrigation projects to their effects on river flows, and he urged Newell on the new National Rivers and Harbors Congress. In February 1907, McGee urged upon T.R. the creation of a federal inland waterways commission. Roosevelt accepted the idea the following month, appointing Pinchot and Newell to the commission and giving McGee the critical post of commission secretary. From that point on, multiple-purpose river development became a leading conservationist policy of President Roosevelt. A crucial figure aiding the commission was Marshall O. Layton, chief hydrographer for the U.S. Geological Survey, who had worked on flood control problems. As advisory hydrographer to the Inland Waterways Commission, Layton drew up the practical engineering plans for a mammoth development scheme for the Ohio River system. Consisting of no less than 100 reservoirs for flood control, from which the federal government would produce and sell the power for the alleged self-financing of the project. In December 1907, Senator Francis Newlands presented a bill incorporating the findings of the commission, establishing the Inland Waterways Commission as a permanent body with the power not only to investigate but also to decide upon water projects. With Congress providing a permanently available fund of fifty million dollars for their financing, that is, the president could replenish the fund when it fell sharply below the fifty million dollar level. Despite the enthusiastic support of Roosevelt, this leap into statism was successfully blocked by the opposition of Representative Burton and the Army Corps of Engineers, who wished to confine water projects to navigation aid only. And who stoutly denied the theory that forest cover retarded the runoff of water, while the comprehensive multiple-purpose concept failed, it proved a harbinger of the future. As Hayes puts it, quote, "Although Congress approved few of its proposals, the Roosevelt administration, for the first time, worked out the general principles and specific elements of the multiple-purpose approach to river development, which the New Deal put into practice." Over two decades later, end quote. As we have pointed out, the forest stream flow theory was critical to the allegedly scientific basis for the technocratic enthusiasm for integrated multi-purpose development. Unfortunately, the scientific basis of this well-known theory 
was shaky at best. Oddly enough, for alleged scientists, their enthusiasm for the theory waxed not in proportion to the evidence behind it, but to the political popularity of forest conservation and multiple-purpose development. Though tentative at first, confidence of the conservationists in the theory swelled after the conservationist victories from 1902 on, reaching a peak in the struggles over the Inland Waterways Commission proposals six years later. From the counter-attack by the Army Corps of Engineers came scientific arguments which punctured the new forest cover myth. Lieutenant Colonel Hiram Martin Chittenden, a veteran of river control, delivered an influential paper before the American Society of Civil Engineers in September 1908, which set up a devastating barrage against the myth. Chittenden pointed out that there was no quantitative evidence of any impact of deforestation on river flow. Furthermore, the existence of forests can cut both ways, for forest litter accumulates water and thereby adds to floods. As for soil erosion, wrote Chittenden, it is caused by poor agricultural practices rather than deforestation. Other Corps engineers did quantitative studies that showed no correlation between forested or deforested conditions on particular rivers with the incidence of floods. Willis Moore, head of the U.S. Weather Bureau, argued also that floods are caused by excessive precipitation, period, and that water runoff is not materially affected by any other factor. High waters are not higher, and the low waters are not lower than formerly, i.e. than before deforestation. The devastating attacks of Chittenden and Moore began the inexorable decline, at least in scientific circles, of the forest cover stream flow theory. Professor Gordon Dodds sums up his illuminating discussion of the stream flow controversy as follows. Quote, the stream flow controversy not only illustrates the emotionalism of the conservation movement and its misrepresentations of science, but also reveals much about the contemporary concepts of science itself. Pressed by their critics who were proposing the new quantitative methodology, in contrast to casual observation, the forestry advocates, some of whom were privately aware of their own methodological weaknesses, fell back upon enthusiasm and, on occasion, duplicity. Their commitment was to a cause, not to scientific evidence, if the evidence contravened the cause. Although their evidence for the forest stream flow theory was dubious, the conservationists, as progressives were wont to do, framed their arguments in moralistic terms by stigmatizing their enemies as militarists, monopolists, traditionalists, and other opprobrious creatures. Men like Chittenden, who fought the conservationists, were as dedicated to the public interest as Pinchot and his followers. They were, in addition, more successful as scientists in pointing the way to rewarding studies of forest influences. Yet their services to science and their assistance in saving the taxpayers' vast expenditures of public money for reforestation for flood control have gone unrecognized in historical studies, whereas the conservationists appear as far-sighted guardians of the national estate. End quote. Despite the setbacks to the multiple-purpose river concept, Theodore Roosevelt had launched a modern movement that was already on the way to long-run triumph. In the fair-sounding name of conservation, he set the pace for accelerating future withdrawal 
of vast parts of the federal domain from ownership, production or use, and for federal control of the natural resources of the nation.